Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You Written by Titus Gebel Narrated by Scott R. Pollock Forward Dear Readers, I have written this book for those who want to achieve liberty and self-determination during their lifetimes, but who have recognized that any transformation of existing systems from the inside is difficult to impossible. In my opinion, free private cities or corresponding special zones are the only realistic alternative. I would like to create nothing less than a new market, the market of living together. I already work there, but if I fail, you can continue my work on the basis of this book and make adaptions to the concept where necessary. The idea is born now and will not disappear again. Since others have developed similar concepts, the time seems to be right. You would also be welcome as a competitor. Competition stimulates business, and it is mankind's only known means of limiting power. If we want to live in freedom and self-determination, then we need more diverse systems, not fewer. The book is also aimed at all those who want to reform existing societies and may ask themselves what exactly goes wrong and why. I present some answers that you may not have heard elsewhere. It is always difficult to assess the situation in other countries where you do not live yourself. Therefore, I ask my English-speaking readers to forgive me for the fact that most of the examples come from my former home country, Germany. However, the interested reader will have no difficulty in finding similar examples elsewhere. Finally, the book is aimed at politicians who have recognized that reforms towards greater freedom and self-determination increase the standard of living in their country but who are aware that widespread changes in this direction cannot yet be communicated to the electorate. The establishment of free private cities or special zones can be a solution to that problem by setting an example for what is possible. The first part of this book deals with fundamental questions that every social order has to face. The concept of free private cities described in the second part is derived from this. Historical and current models are examined. The third part deals with concrete questions and implementation of free private cities. Finally, the fourth part provides an outlook on future developments. Wittgenstein has stated, Everything that can be said can be said clearly. I have therefore refrained from avoidable jargon, gender differentiation, and long-nested sentences. Special thanks to Dr. Mark Hatley for reviewing and, where necessary, improving my English wording. Monaco, in June 2018. Dr. Titus Gebel. Part 1. Laying the Groundwork. Chapter 1. Living Together as a Market. It is dangerous to awaken the lion. The tiger's tooth is perishable, but the most terrible of all the horrors, that is man in his delusion. Friedrich Schiller, Poet and Thinker This book is about why we need alternatives in the most important area of our lives and what those alternatives might look like. That area is living together with others. Our worst enemies have long since ceased to be natural disasters or predators. Other people have become the main threat. 
The crucial question is therefore how we shape the community with our fellow human beings. Humans are capable of agreeing on certain worldviews and even sacrifice their lives for them. If those ideas are dubious or dangerous, everyone else is in danger. The only real problem with mankind is that people seek to impose their will on others. The task is therefore to create an order which prevents this from happening. The prevailing view in the West assumes that a combination of democracy and the rule of law is sufficient to combat the abuse of power and facilitate prosperous coexistence. After the collapse of the communist Eastern Bloc, some were even proclaiming the end of history. Liberal constitutional democracies were seen as the end point of development, further progress no longer being possible. Soon, all countries around the world would adopt this system. This is a mistake, however, partly because of the fact that all our liberal democratic constitutions violate their own civil laws in that they are contracts to the detriment of third parties. We will come back to this idea later. Our coexistence is also a market arrangement because it is subject to the same forces whether we like it or not. A market is always present whenever and wherever people come together who are not yet completely satisfied. Every market is characterized by bringing together the supply and demand for goods, services, and rights. Even if the majority of voters prefer an anti-market economic system and politicians implement such a system, this is a market result. States also exist because there is a demand for them. A state order creates a framework within which people can interact socially and exchange goods peacefully. The existence of security and fixed rules makes it possible for large numbers of people to live together. Such coexistence is so attractive that people are willing to accept considerable restrictions on their personal freedom to enjoy it. Even the subjects of the most violent dictator will likely choose the status quo over the life of Robinson Crusoe on a lonely island. Man is a herd animal. The market of living together is not only the most important, but also the largest market. State activity accounts for approximately 30% of the gross domestic product of all countries. Nonetheless, the performance is poor. The largest company in this market, the United States of America, shows losses of approximately $1,000 billion per year on its balance sheet. Some market participants, such as Sweden and Germany, intentionally attract unqualified new customers in need of alimentation and thus drive away their high-paying regular customers. Some competitors, such as Iran or North Korea, even go so far as to kill their own customers for behavior that wouldn't even be considered punishable elsewhere. Any reasonably skilled entrepreneur should be able to do better. If one could somehow offer the services of the state and at the same time avoid its pitfalls, more and more taxation and paternalism while constantly changing the rules of the game, then a better product will have been created. If the product is successful, more people will want something similar. New concepts will be necessary to get there, of course. If every new approach is rejected at the outset as a utopian pipe dream, stagnation is likely to result. 
The crux of past political utopias is that voluntary participation was never intended. Almost all of the classic utopian ideas are basically totalitarian, starting with Plato and his philosopher kings to Marx's dictatorship of the proletariat and going right up to the current idea of a great transformation because of climate change. An enlightened minority gets its way, regardless of whether everyone or anyone else thinks it's a good idea or not. If this minority is replaced by a democratic majority, only the number of people who are being governed against their will changes, not the principle behind the scheme. Competition as a discovery process, on the other hand, hardly ever takes place between state orders. On the contrary, the state is pushing ahead with cartel-like international agreements in order to prevent tax or system competition. Although the communist model has practically ceased to be represented in the market for living together since the collapse of the Soviet Union, this process has also taken more than 70 years. And here lies another problem. There is only the possibility of introducing a new product in this market segment by taking over the government, by revolution or by secession. This makes it extremely difficult to penetrate the market at all. It takes generations for knowledge about the effectiveness of different forms of government to take hold. They hardly become evident during the lifetime of any individual. Even in democratic states, there is a constant lack of an outlet for minorities to install counter-models, which may prove to be superior later on. Patri Friedman, the founder of the Seasteading Institute, was one of the first to recognize this. State industry needs innovation, because any form of rule will sooner or later become rigid. The organization of saturated civilizations becomes encrusted over time. The state reduces capacities and, in turn, raises prices. This also, and especially, applies to Western democracies. For many, the idea that state and market are two separate spheres seems completely unusual, and it seems completely natural to us that a leader or a gathering of wise people make our political decisions for us, so much so that we do not even consider self-determination as an alternative. Let's do a thought experiment. Suppose we had created a new type of marmalade. We could now argue with others about which marmalade is the best, could found citizens' initiatives, clubs, and parties that advertise our brand. We would try to attract media, artists, intellectuals, and powerful interest groups to our side. We would commission expert opinions and surveys to prove the superiority of our marmalade over other varieties. In short, we are pursuing a marmalade policy. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Let everyone buy the marmalade they like. We'll see if our kind succeeds. However, we have not yet come up with the idea of applying this approach to how we live together. Here, we continue to fight passionately for the right or just approach. Why don't we just accept that we humans are different and that what A likes doesn't have to appeal to B? We do not get better mobile phones because we have a say as shareholders at the annual general meeting, but because everyone can buy the product they want and poor mobile phones will soon no longer be in demand. Because everyone else does the same, there are excellent and inexpensive devices available today. 
Even poor people in developing countries can afford to use mobile phones with extensive technical capabilities. This works so well because finding solutions on the market is an evolutionary process that takes place through mutation, trial and error, selection, profitability or bankruptcy, and reproduction, imitation of successful solutions. We must now apply this proven mechanism to our systems of coexistence. If everyone can decide every day with their purchasing decisions which products continue to exist and which do not, is this not much more democratic in the sense of a rule of all? In any case, it certainly seems more democratic than voting every few years for politicians whose intentions are unknown and whose success at implementation is uncertain. The view of a social order as a product and the peaceful competition of systems for citizens as customers will considerably diffuse previous political conflicts. If there are sufficient alternatives, even systems based on ethnic descent or community feeling, including those which reject private property, are only products among many available. This applies even if their organizers vehemently reject this perspective. As long as new experiments take place on limited territory and with volunteers, the damage in the event of failure is also manageable and acceptable due to the informed consent of the participants. The creation of new systems of living together in the 21st century is not only possible, but likely. Stefan Zwig already recognized in 1936 that the majority would never entrust the control of the state to the patient and just, but always to some dazzlers who conjure up great questions of fate and purport to know the answers to them. This has happened so often in human history that it is relatively obvious that the patient and just should now begin to establish their own communities. The chances of that are not bad. People have become more mobile. For many, home in the future will be an adopted home. Technological progress also gives individuals and small groups considerable options for design. At the same time, the trend towards urbanization continues unabated. The majority would rather live in cities than in the countryside, which is also a market result and should be accepted as such. This raises the question of what the cities of the future will look like, for these will be the centers of future societies. An answer to this are free private cities. Chapter 2. The Right to a Self-Determined Life no man is good enough to govern another man without the other's consent. Abraham Lincoln, President, Who Did It Anyway In 1957, the German government under Konrad Adenauer, with its majority in Parliament and against the advice of numerous experts, decided to introduce a pay-as-you-go pension insurance system. Participation in this system is mandatory for the vast majority of employees. Since then, the pension level has fallen from the target of 60% of the last average wage to 48%, despite people working longer. In 1999, the coal government, with its majority in Parliament and against the advice of numerous experts, decided to introduce the euro as the common currency in Germany. The working population, whose productivity had made the Deutsche Mark a relatively stable currency, 
with corresponding purchasing power, was not asked. Since then, all the rules established to assure the euro's stability have been broken. In fact, Germany co-finances the highly indebted southern euro countries today. The corresponding credit claims, including Target 2 balances, are likely to be irrecoverable. In 2001, the Schroeder government and its majority in parliament decided to deploy troops in Afghanistan to stabilize an Islamic regime which, among other things, punishes the conversion to Christianity with death. This deployment cost the lives of up to 54 German soldiers and cost the taxpayer cost of almost 10 billion euros. In June 2011, the Merkel government announced its withdrawal from nuclear energy, contrary to contractual agreements reached shortly before. As a result, not only have energy prices risen sharply, but the federal states and ultimately taxpayers are facing billions in claims for damages from energy companies. In September 2015, the Merkel regime ordered the opening of the country's borders, with the result that masses of predominantly unqualified young men from developing countries came to Germany. The government itself estimates the cost required for this, in particular the welfare state alimony of these people, at 100 billion euros over the next five years alone. According to other estimates, the costs are at least double that figure. Since then, the security situation in Germany has intensified considerably. Public festivals in major German cities can often only be held with elaborate security precautions. The number of violent crimes has risen sharply. It would be easy to extend this list further or to find comparable situations in other countries. Here is one. Since the Afghanistan conflict started more than 16 years ago, the U.S. has spent an estimated $877 billion. Until today, there have been more than 2,260 U.S. military deaths and about 20,290 injuries throughout the war. But what is common to all these events? One, a small minority has made decisions based on their own assessments and preferences that affect all people in their domain. Two, this minority has no economic disadvantages to fear if its decisions cause financial or other damage. Three, the main burden of implementing the decisions must be borne by those who were not allowed to have a say in them. This basic mechanism will not be affected by the need for parliamentary approval or the involvement of other bodies. However, the examples shown are only part of the problem. The problem covers practically every area of life. From birth to death, rules are laid down without regard to whether those affected would make such a choice if they were allowed to make their own decisions. In principle, the whole system is based on A, deciding what B and C have to do, and what they have to pay to D and A. In other areas of life, however, man can certainly decide for himself. For example, what he eats, what clothes, which car, which friends, and which spouse he chooses. He decides which trips he will take, which financial investments he will make, which insurance policies he will take out, and in which color he will paint his apartment. He chooses for which purposes he donates, which hobbies he pursues, and which electronic devices he purchases. He decides what opinion he has and which clubs and initiatives he supports, 
where he works, and in which profession, whether he wants to have children or not. Obviously, humans are able to make these decisions on their own responsibility. Then, why shouldn't he also decide for himself in other areas? For example, how he plans for his retirement, which means of payment he prefers, which political concerns he supports, from which energy sources he obtains his electricity, with whom he lives, and whom he wants to subsidize. Imagine you live in an automobile democracy. In an automobile democracy, everyone has the right, but also the duty, to buy a car. What this car looks like, how it is motorized, what interior and what color it has, has been decided by the democratically chosen car government. This also determines the price you have to pay. Both are often unpleasant. Then another government is elected with other preferences that it imposes on car buyers. There is constant hitting and poking about what this single car is like. Countless manufacturers and suppliers maintain lobbyists in the capital so that their products are built into the car model of the respective government. Shifting interest groups, which prefer different types of engines, are also trying to influence parliament and government. Countless auto-political groups claim that they are unable to pay the full price and therefore try to get discounts. A few years ago, a second type of car was introduced, which is more simply equipped and cheaper. Many intellectuals criticize that this has created a two-tier society, but everyone agrees on one thing. The system may have shortcomings, but there is no better one. Because what would be the alternative? Only an auto-dictator or king of cars, however, who is not democratically elected and determines what type of car there must be for everyone at what price. They had that before, and nobody wants to go back to that system. The idea that people can choose the car they like best from countless different offers and manufacturers with the equipment they like best is completely unthinkable for the citizens of automobile democracy. This idea is so bizarre that it is not even discussed in public. In fact, we live in such a system. One simply replaces the word automobile with state services and activities. Taxpayers must finance subsidies for uneconomical technologies, state television stations, and military missions abroad, chairs for gender studies and theology, even if they reject all this. Citizens will continue to be forced to take out pension, health, and nursing care insurance, whether they like it or not. You may not purchase light bulbs, powerful vacuum cleaners, plastic bags, or cigarettes without warnings. And the list of prohibitions and commandments is getting longer every year. In other words, citizens are not customers but subjects. Why is that so? And why don't most people object? A NEW CONCEPT OF SOVEREIGNTY This is because we still adhere to a concept of state and sovereignty that dates back to a time of absolutism. The term sovereignty is used in the domestic realm to designate the supreme authority to exercise power in the state. According to the original concept, the monarch is entitled to this sovereignty. In democratic states, this has shifted to the people whereby popular sovereignty is usually limited to the one-time adoption of a constitution and participation in elections and occasional referenda. 
While yesterday's world knew monarchic sovereigns, today's world consists of collective sovereigns, whereby the collectives have delegated their power to bodies which, as experience shows, increasingly and ultimately only pursue their own interests. Back to the car example. Wouldn't it be great if you could decide for yourself what car you buy, what equipment it has, and what price you are willing to pay for it? or if you could refrain from buying a car at all? It is not the case that the only alternative to the democratic choice of a government that determines the car type is a dictator or monarch who autocratically and without judicial control prescribes a car. Co-determination and autocratic determination are not the only alternatives. Self-determination is also an option. Why should a group of other people even decide how to lead your life? This is especially true if you have neither selected nor commissioned these people, nor are they particularly competent. You may feel that you have the right to organize your life and circumstances as you see fit, and, if you want something from others, to do so on a voluntary basis. You do not want co-determination, you want self-determination. This leads to two general principles. First, that the one who does not harm others has the right to be left alone, even by the government or the majority. Second, that human interaction takes place on a voluntary basis and not on the basis of coercion, even in large groups. Today's states cannot only not guarantee either of these two principles. They are based on the violation of them. The government enforces what it wants because of its monopoly on the use of force, and you have to pay whether you like the measure or not. This also applies to Western democracies. The replacement of the dictatorship of individuals by the dictatorship of party oligarchies or majorities is certainly not the end of history. Freedom and coercive rule are not compatible. Whether this rule is democratically legitimized or not is irrelevant for this finding. Freedom requires voluntariness. Anyone who is a member of a state must, in the traditional interpretation, follow all the rules made by the state, regardless of which laws the state establishes or amends. In disputes, state courts make the final decision. This external control goes so far that even the abandonment of citizenship cannot change anything. If you move away from Germany, for example, you not only have to pay an exit tax, but are also taxable for a further 10 years on income from all German assets, even if you give up your German citizenship. Even when relinquishing U.S. citizenship, an exit tax is due, in addition to a four-digit processing fee. France, which has been losing large numbers of tax-paying citizens for years, deliberately puts bureaucratic hurdles in the way of those willing to leave. A good friend, who had been married to a Monegasque for more than 10 years and lived in Monaco, was granted Monegasque citizenship. Therefore, she wanted to give up her French citizenship. She had to explain this in detail and was even summoned to a hearing before a commission, which finally asked her to cut up her French passport before all those present. However, she no longer agreed with this harassment. She put her passport on the table and took her leave. All these processes are more reminiscent of buying your way out of serfdom than ending a relationship among equals. Mind you, in these examples we are talking about three states that claim to be strongholds of liberty.
No service provider treats its customers this way. If one terminates a relationship, one usually receives a letter in which the contract termination is confirmed with regret. Often, a reason is requested so the provider can improve, and they are pleased when the customer returns. Sometimes you are even offered better conditions if you withdraw your cancellation. We should transfer this civilized, customer-friendly approach to the market of living together. How can this succeed? Self-Determination Considering the abstention from violence against others, every person has the right to live his or her life as he or she sees fit. This conclusion is essential if people are to live together peacefully in the long term. Anything else would mean giving certain people or the majority more rights than others. Since everyone wants to be able to undertake successful action, and this is only possible if third parties do not prevent this, they must also be prepared not to interfere in the actions of others. This corresponds to the golden rule, according to which one should behave as one expects from others, positive variant, or one should not do things to others that one does not want to suffer, negative variant. The second variant is the less far-reaching and therefore easier to comply with. It is embodied in the proverb, do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. I will consider this more closely in the following. The golden rule has been known since ancient times as a guideline for action. That is why it is so universally applicable, because it does not require recourse to divine commandments, alleged natural law, or the concept of self-ownership. It is simply an outflow of reciprocity, like you to me, so I to you. Kant's categorical imperative is ultimately also based on such a universalization of one's own judgments, whereby the distinction is made there with reference to the maxims of action between purely subjective inclinations and interests that vary greatly from person to person on the one hand and the universal freedoms and limits that apply to them on the other. In reality, of course, much would be gained if at least the golden rule was respected in the form represented here. If this were the case, there could be no institutions, politicians, religions, nor majority, which have the right to interfere with people against their will in their own sphere, their way of life. Of course, those institutions have taken it upon themselves to do exactly that, but that is simply arrogance. Only I have the right to determine my life as long as I also allow others to do so. My way of life is thus based on a universal principle of reason granted to everyone in the same way. Kant's Maxims I can delegate this power voluntarily and, for whatever reason, submit to rules of political, moral, and religious ideas or the protection of a ruler, but any compulsion to do so is wrong. Let me give you an example. Somaliland is a reasonably functioning community in northern Somalia, formerly British Somaliland, that emerged after the collapse of the state order in Somalia and wants to continue to exist as such. I once spoke to a Somali taxi driver in the USA about Somaliland. For him, it was absolutely clear that the inhabitants of Somaliland had no right to found their own state. When I asked him why, he said, Because we other Somalis don't want that. 
When I argue in Europe that like-minded people should have the right to live in their own communities where there is no redistribution, for example, the answer is often similar to that of the Somali taxi driver. You can't do that because we don't want to. The same applies to the general rejection of secession. Societies that do not recognize the right of the individual to self-determination, and this includes deciding with whom and in what form he wants to live with others, are in some ways still unenlightened. They will not be able to achieve peaceful coexistence in the long term, but instead will fight endless battles over what we want and what is good for all of us. But anyone who denies people the right to a self-determined life is simply authoritarian, even if he calls himself liberal or democratic. How can individuals exercise the right to shape their own lives? This question arises in view of the fact that, for security reasons alone, merging into a community, namely a state or state-like entity, will still be the rule for the foreseeable future. Of course, it is possible to live an anarchical existence far away from civilization as a hermit, but almost everyone prefers the contact and living together with others. The self-determination challenge can be solved or mitigated by creating a genuine market for state services. The current 200 countries for 7 billion inhabitants, with their largely identical or similar systems, could be supplemented by thousands of independent or at least partially autonomous communities. This would make it easier for everyone to vote with their feet on bad systems rather than having an immeasurably small influence at the ballot box every few years. States would be forced to attract customers as attractive service providers instead of treating their citizens as cash cows and guinea pigs for testing their ideas on how to make the world a better place. The integration of new models of living together in existing nation-states or supranational communities would not be difficult. For the time being, this would also be advisable, especially for defensive reasons. Such new communities would provide services for payment, services such as security, jurisprudence, and infrastructure. All rights and obligations, in particular what has to be paid for it, would be laid down, as in other markets, in a contract that could not be unilaterally changed. In addition, everyone could choose which service modules they would use from the state service provider and would have to pay accordingly. The crucial point is therefore not whether these communities please everyone or a majority. The point is that participation is voluntary, as with all contractual relationships. Whoever rejects all this can remain in conventional systems. For many people, a system based on personal responsibility and self-determination may simply not be the right one. They demand leadership, guidelines for their lives, and a sense of meaning. That, too, is a decision to be respected. Nevertheless, this means that in the future, sovereignty will be expressly granted to the individual, even if he does not want to make use of it. Everyone is therefore basically sovereign of himself, and holder of the supreme competence to regulate his own affairs, both externally and internally. This gain in self-determination at a higher quality of service at a lower cost will be so attractive that it can even change existing systems without the need for violence, revolution, or winning elections. 
The sovereignty of the individual is, of course, the polar opposite of all collectivist ideas of a political or religious nature, which require people to refrain from any desire for a self-determined life for the benefit of the common good or the divine order. They mostly ignore the question of who defines the common good or the divine order. Without exception, those will be the representatives of these ideas themselves. And they do so in a way that happens to suit their own interests and preferences, even when they often try to hide that fact even from themselves. Basically, all current systems are still designed to limit the power of the masters without, however, calling into question the legitimacy of domination over others. But this is a long, outdated approach in other areas where we have the right to decide for ourselves how we want to shape our lives. We receive the necessary help from service providers. Let us return to the initial examples. It was about pension insurance, the introduction of the euro, the abandonment of nuclear power, the opening of borders, and foreign military missions. In a contractually regulated society, the state service provider could neither have subsequently forced you to participate in a certain pension insurance system nor to convert your money into a currency you did not want. With the exception of some emission and safety regulations, the operator would also have no influence on who would offer electricity under which conditions. Although the operator could change the criteria for immigration, it could in no way oblige you to be financially responsible for the consequences of any such change. Rather, he would be liable for damages if he were to worsen the security situation as a result. If you want to support military interventions in other parts of the world and interfere in foreign disputes, you would be free to do so. You would do so, however, at your own expense. Chapter 3. Three New Countries Prepared for Diversity There is no worse tyranny than to force a man to pay for what he does not want merely because you think it would be good for him. Robert A. Heinlein, Science Fiction Author Imagine that in a continent of the future which recognizes the sovereignty of the individual, New countries have formed in some places. Let's have a closer look at three of them. The Forest Siblings The land of the Forest Siblings takes its name from the wooded area in which they have settled. They are organized in individual settlements, which are divided when a headcount of more than 150 is reached. Each village consists of shared and individual accommodation. There is common property in all things outside individual apartments. The residents take care of their sick and old. In principle, there is free love within the community, even after couples have formed. Children are brought up by the village community together. From the age of 15, young people are sexually self-determined. The forest siblings want to live as close to nature and in as environmentally friendly a way as possible. They are satisfied if they manage to have the necessities of life. There is bartering with other villages, and often things are brought in from the outside world. The individual settlements are run by village elders, mostly elderly women. The inhabitants decide on the new admission of settlers and other questions by direct vote. 
Carola B., founder of the Forest Siblings and Village Elder of the First Settlement, explains, This is our model, a paradise without growth. We do not want freedom, we want community. We have less material wealth, but more social warmth. Mankind is not made for anonymous mass society and is therefore unhappy. Why all this buying and selling to grow more and more to raise the standard of living? Because men want to impress women. Why do men want to impress women? Because they want to have sex with women. If you can have that now, without all the stress, all the environmental destruction, all the competitive pressure, and the desire to be more and more, bigger and better, then everyone is much more balanced and happier. Of course, we know that some of us still have a foothold and assets elsewhere. But if someone in the outside world earns money and then settles down with us and brings a part of it with him and gives it to the community, that's fine. The Principality of Christo The Principality of Christo only accepts white Christian settlers. The inhabitants elect a lifetime prince to appoint a government. The prince, government, and the people can propose laws that are decided by direct democracy. The principality is divided into municipalities which enjoy a high degree of autonomy and which are also responsible for social security, which can vary from municipality to municipality. The inhabitants believe that the family is primarily responsible for social security, the church in the second place, and the community in the third place. Transfer recipients and state employees are exempt from voting rights in order to avoid conflicts of interest. The model is the traditional family with a man as head of the family and primary breadwinner. Abortions are only permitted in exceptional cases. Families receive an additional ballot for each child in elections and votes. All men are subject to the draft, and the borders are militarily secured. Individual and economic freedoms are quite high, but vary from community to community. It is generally expected that people go to church on Sundays. Martin S., founder of the Principality and First Monarch of the Election, reports, The mainstream press consistently describes us as outdated, racist, and sexist. But in reality, people are flocking to join us. We are drowning in applications. We have nothing at all against other ethnic groups or religions, but let them be happy in their own communities. In any case, we want to avoid, like the Jews, being an oppressed minority for a thousand years before we come up with the idea of joining forces in our own state. We want to live the way we are and want it to stay that way. We have hard-working, intelligent people. That is why we can also keep up in the high-tech sector and export accordingly which in turn ensures a high standard of living for us. Our families are intact, the birth rate is stable, and community cohesion is good. We believe that the Christian faith is important because it holds society together. Our crime rate is low, conflicts between social groups are rare. We believe that our ethnic and confessional homogeneity is a success factor. Jetsonia Jetsonia is an independent city managed and secured by a private company. Each resident pays a fixed amount per year. To this end, the company provides infrastructure, security forces, rescue services, and an arbitration system. 
The details are laid down in a contract concluded between the company and each individual resident. This contract cannot be unilaterally modified by the company and can only be terminated if a resident has violated his contractual obligations. Any disputes on this matter are heard before an independent arbitration tribunal. Incidentally, residents can do whatever they want as long as they do not harm others. Comprehensive freedom of expression and contractual freedom applies. There are no politics, no parliament, and no central bank. If desired, the residents have arranged private insurance against all eventualities of life or founded self-help groups, be it for protection against illness, death, need of care, or accidents. Anyone can offer new products and services without authorization or license and get paid in any desired currency. To test new ideas, Jetsonia has set up a so-called ANCAP zone in which the inhabitants pay nothing at all, taking care of everything themselves, including the rules of their coexistence. The company spokesman, Frank K., says, Most people here do not want any political or religious guidelines on how to lead their lives. Because Jetsonia has a minimum regulatory density, we have been able to produce many innovations and achieve high productivity. People are not incited against each other by politics. They do not even have to worry about politics because there is no such thing as politics here. But they also don't have to worry about being constantly confronted with new rules. Since free trade prevails and everyone can import everything duty-free and no taxes are payable apart from the annual contribution, even low-income earners have a high standard of living. Because we have no currency the government can manipulate, the purchasing power of our residents is constantly increasing. The pension scheme can be planned and allows for retirement whenever the person concerned considers the level reached to be sufficient. In principle, anyone from all over the world can come to us who can make a living and accepts our basic rules. But we look closely at the applicants. Criminals, as well as political or religious extremists, are either rejected immediately or leave our city very quickly. With regard to compliance with our few rules, the zero-tolerance principle applies. We have no wealth redistribution, no minimum wage, and no protection against dismissal. Everything is negotiated directly between the parties or their representatives. I ask you, if we are such a bad exploitative system, why do so many people from all over the world come to us voluntarily? These are now three completely different systems of living together. What they have in common is this. First, participation is voluntary. Secondly, they have no chance of being established in today's world. For they cannot be reconciled with the prevailing legal or moral systems. But what would be so bad about people who want to do this organizing themselves in a different way than the majority think it is right? Is striving for the world to look the same everywhere really a worthwhile endeavor? What if there is no optimal system for everyone, not even for the individual? Perhaps a young person wants to spend a few years with the four siblings out of idealism and to gain sexual experience. Afterwards, he goes to Jetsonia to build up an economic existence, a fortune, and a pension, 
Finally, he spends his retirement in the Principality of Cristo or a similar entity in which he feels comfortable and secure among his peers. Are we ready to accept all three models? If not, then we are the problem for a prosperous coexistence of all people, not politicians, multinationals, or the super-rich. The key to peaceful living together is not to prevent others from becoming happy their own way. Chapter 4 Basic Questions of Human Coexistence We have Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Edward O. Wilson, Ant Researcher If we want to improve the traditional institutions of our coexistence, we must first investigate why people live together in certain forms, what drives them, and what role certain institutions play. This can help us determine how successful and peaceful systems of coexistence could be created that require neither a new man nor any other change in our evolutionary character. 1. What drives us? Show me the incentives and I will predict the outcome. Charlie Munger, Legendary Investor Man always and everywhere reacts to incentives, whether he has free will or not. Understanding this is essential to understanding the world. Whenever a certain result is undesirable or appears questionable, one should ask oneself which trade incentives were given for it. If we start with this approach, we will also see why Western systems are in such difficulties and why alternatives in other parts of the world do not really work either. In a sense, the main natural incentive for every human being is to increase their well-being. This is no different from other mammals. After securing basic human needs, this means raising the standard of living. The standard of living includes not only material things, but also immaterial advantages such as power, influence, knowledge, and especially social acceptance. There will always be individual ascetics who, for moral or rational reasons, can resist incentives to increase their well-being. But these are rare exceptions, and even in these cases, there are incentives and objectives that ultimately explain what they are doing. The quest to maximize self-interest is also characteristic of elected or appointed representatives of the state, such as politicians and civil servants. Although they do not have the opportunity to generate economic success through direct profits, their position can certainly increase their income and influence. And that is what they do. The same applies to church representatives and other representatives of the institutionalized common good. They also usually act in their own interest. He who feels better when he helps others also acts selfishly. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just important to understand. The existence of incentives or misincentives explains almost everything. 1. Anyone who invests a lot of money in a company whose founders and managers have not invested any money of their own should not be surprised if things go wrong. 2. Those who pay social benefits for doing nothing or just having children, which are nearly as high or higher than a wage that low-skilled workers can earn on the market, should not be surprised if they neither work nor are looking for work. 3. 
Anyone who taxes companies heavily, regulates all their activities comprehensively, and even prescribes whom they have to employ, should not be surprised if no one wants to become an entrepreneur any longer. 4. Those who give power to politicians without them having the slightest economic disadvantage if something goes wrong should not be surprised if they make irresponsible and bad decisions. 5. Anyone who opens his borders to immigrants from all over the world and provides them with social benefits above the average income in their countries of origin should not be surprised if endless armies of people come until national security and social systems finally collapse. All these are relatively simple correlations of cause and effect. You can ignore them, but not the consequences of ignoring them. The permanent creation of false incentives is one of the main reasons for the weaknesses of current political systems. But these are not generated by stupidity, but by the construction of our political systems which seduces politicians to set such false incentives. We will look at this using the welfare state as an example. Welfare State and Failed Incentive Structure Charity is considered the first Christian virtue. However, as soon as it is seen as an instrument of equality and as a law and raised to the state principle, it is an affliction of society. It is then a reversal of the principle that every person must bring forward what he consumes. Therefore, the consequence is always unproductive consumption. Too much care for the poor increases poverty, discourages self-help, and transfers responsibility to the state. It hampers work, diligence, austerity, and encourages idleness. Herman Wrench, Handbook of Economics, 1866 The welfare state is regarded by many as an essential achievement of modern societies. It should cover life risks such as hunger, illness, and poverty, and enable everyone to live in dignity. These objectives are honorable and legitimate. However, the welfare state is not a suitable vehicle for achieving them in the long term. It ultimately leads to ruin, disempowers its inhabitants, and causes antisocial behavior. As a result, it worsens the conditions it was meant to combat. That is why the days of the welfare state are numbered, even if it still has so many supporters. Its main shortcoming is the systematic setting of false incentives. Politicians, administrators, and beneficiaries all face massive incentives to use the system to their own advantage. The welfare state is therefore also subject to the tragedy of the commons. Political Misincentives the most significant incentive for politicians is the purchase of votes through social benefits. In other words, short-term bribery of voters without taking into account the long-term consequences, an increase in child benefits, a lowering of the retirement age, an increase in health insurance benefits, an increase in social assistance, etc. The biggest election victory in the history of the German Conservative Party, CDU, so far, was won by Konrad Adenauer in 1957. He succeeded in doing so because he was able to implement a pure pay-as-you-go system for pension insurance. He did this against the experts' expressed concerns and was thus able to significantly increase the average pension benefits immediately. And this has continued over the years, 
both in Germany and elsewhere. To the applause of voters and the media, social benefits have been steadily expanded into more and more areas and the level of benefits raised. Politicians who advocate cuts in benefits will sooner or later be voted out of office. Another political misincentive is the expansion of power through the expansion of the welfare state. The more issues assigned to the state, the more beneficiaries there are, and the more powerful the politicians. Therefore, the latter strive to achieve exactly that, the expansion of state responsibility regardless of the consequences. This incentive was already the basis for the original creation of the welfare state. Contrary to popular belief, the modern welfare state is not an achievement of social democracy. Rather, it was introduced from the top by the German Chancellor Bismarck at the end of the 19th century. The aim was to weaken the trade union's position of power and to strengthen workers' ties to the state. Instead of social self-help in trade unions and trade associations, a paternalistic solution was adopted. Bismarck saw a political danger in independent, propertied workers. Accordingly, the welfare state was expanded further and further. In Germany, compulsory health insurance was originally limited to lower-income workers, but has been steadily expanded. In 1927, unemployment insurance was added. Nursing care insurance was introduced in 1995. Since 2009, everyone living in Germany has finally been obliged to insure themselves against illness. Freelancers must also take out compulsory pension insurance. The self-employed are bound to follow. It is of no concern whether these people actually want the insurance or not. Bureaucratic Misincentives The reward of failure is the misincentive for any administration. More social problems, more people in need, mean larger budgets and more staff for the social bureaucracy. Since every bureaucracy strives to increase power and influence, there is a constant impulse from this side to not solve problems or declare them settled, but to do the opposite. If gasoline prices rise, nobody considers a reduction in the mineral oil tax in order to make it easier for the socially disadvantaged to participate in traffic again. Instead, subsidies or petrol vouchers for the needy are proposed because this requires another authority and increases the power of administration and politics. A considerable part of the social expenditure no longer benefits those in need. It moves directly into the constantly growing redistribution machine. Benefit-Related Misincentives the disincentive for the beneficiaries leads to over-exploitation of the services offered, even without need, as they appear to be free. The welfare state punishes modesty and restraint and rewards overconsumption and dishonesty. After all, with the mercilessness of a natural law, every subsidy increases the amount of subsidized goods. When the British colonial rule wanted to control a cobra plague in India, a reward was offered to anyone who delivered a dead cobra. As a result, the cobra population grew to an unprecedented level. Cobras were bred just to gain the premium. A few years ago, Germany was held in suspense by a nationwide strike of train drivers. When important negotiations were due, the union chairman suddenly disappeared. 
The press had already suspected internal power struggles when it became known that the boss had only gone on a treatment holiday to which he had been entitled. This treatment had already been postponed several times and would have lapsed if it had been postponed again. As a child of the welfare state, he obviously had no choice but to leave the fighting troops at the moment of utmost importance. Otherwise, the claim would have lapsed unused. So it is not a question of good intentions or not. The result is decisive. If people are paid to be poor, unable to work, ill, or single parents, these conditions will also occur more frequently. Another false incentive of the welfare state is to eliminate private precaution and the assumption of responsibility. Why should you pay attention to your own state of health if you are entitled to full sick leave payment in the event of illness? Why take precautions for life risks or encourage people close to you to do so? After all, everyone has a legal right to necessary livelihood. This includes, in Germany, visits to the theater, cinema, concerts, telephone, radio, TV, and Internet access, as well as newspaper subscriptions. In addition to these standard benefits, there is one-off aid for special purchases, the complete assumption of rental and insurance costs, and a Christmas bonus. Furthermore, there is an incentive to constantly demand new services. Contrary to popular belief, the welfare state does not predominantly shift resources from the rich to the poor. Instead, there is always a redistribution between all income groups in order to grant special benefits to certain groups such as single mothers, students, theater lovers, those affected by natural disasters, etc. Since the redistribution does not take place in a particular direction, it is difficult to estimate who has a net advantage and who does not. Once an organized interest group learns that, in the name of social justice, it only has to demand financial support loud enough, it will repeat this behavior. Other social groups follow along, well aware that otherwise they are only paying agencies for the benefits of the more active groups. This problem is exacerbated by migratory movements. Due to the high Social Security contributions, Qualified payers are leaving the country, and those who are unwilling to work are migrating into the country. I am personally aware of some cases of executives who immigrated from Germany and Austria to Switzerland. One of the reasons for this was the significant reduction in Social Security contributions in Switzerland. Conversely, an Asian immigrant once told me that there was actually no incentive for him to work once he was in Germany, because, as a family father, he would be entitled to social assistance at a level that would exceed a minister's salary in his home country. Those who postulate a universal human right to live at the expense of others should not be surprised if this right is finally claimed. Someone who spends 10 hours a day on hard work in a developing country and carries home 100 U.S. dollars a month will indeed consider whether he should rather settle down in Central Europe. Here, he gets $1,000 U.S. dollars a month for doing nothing and an excellent infrastructure to boot. Consequently, in Switzerland, for example, only one in seven of those refugees actually granted asylum ends up pursuing paid employment. And the larger the family, the larger the claims. It became known that a Syrian refugee in Germany who has four wives and 23 children 
is entitled to approximately 30,000 euros in social assistance per month without ever having contributed anything. The average German household income is around 3,700 euros per month. Tragically, this incentive system leads to productive high performers in their home countries being tempted to immigrate to welfare states in order to become transfer recipients there. Both welfare state emigrants and immigrants act humanely by seeking to raise their standard of living. They act on the incentives offered to them. As a result, the welfare state loses donors and gains beneficiaries. It follows from these realities that the combination of open borders and the welfare state cannot function. It is a recipe for disaster. The persistent refusal of Western elites to acknowledge this fact could deal a death blow to the welfare state earlier than expected. The consequences of the above-mentioned misincentives are serious. Debt overload, paternalism, and antisocial behavior. Debt Overload The welfare state is a debt state that will no longer be able to pay off the promised benefits to future generations. Due to the above-mentioned incentive structure, more and more payers are being withdrawn from the system, while at the same time the number of beneficiaries is growing. In parallel, benefit levels are rising steadily and the social bureaucracy is expanding. This not only increases government spending constantly, but also reduces potential economic growth, because fewer and fewer people are working in the productive sector. However, less economic growth in turn leads to an increase in the number of people in need. A vicious circle has been set in motion. The welfare state is fighting more and more desperately the problems it has caused itself. Pay-as-you-go systems are accelerating the path to financial ruin. Most social insurances, pension, illness, unemployment, are based on the pay-as-you-go system. That is, the amounts paid in are immediately passed out to the beneficiaries. Since the available funds are simply redistributed, nothing is saved, no investment is made, and no income is generated. As payers become fewer and fewer, get older and have fewer and fewer children, the system has a serious problem. For decades, the enormous construction-related cost increase of the social systems can therefore only be countered by the constant expansion of public debt. The mass immigration of the unskilled, conceived as a solution, will not solve this problem, but only make it worse. Reforms of the welfare state are either superficial or leave only a slight bend in the steadily rising expenditure curve over the coming 15 to 20 years. Consequently, the rate of government spending in Western democracies has risen from an average of 12% to almost 50% over the last 100 years. Expenditure attributable to the welfare state already accounts for more than 50% of the state budget in Germany. In the last 40 years, German national debt has grown from 167 billion to 2,000 billion euros. If all the pension and social entitlements of the municipalities and federal states are taken into account, the figure is 8,000 billion or 8 trillion euros, respectively. In the business world, a company in a comparable situation would have had to file for bankruptcy due to over-indebtedness. 
In other Western welfare states, the situation is similar. If the number of takers continues to grow while the number of givers continues to decline and the social bureaucracy grows, the ruin of state and social budgets will only be a question of time. Fiscal trickery by central banks, such as downward manipulation of interest rates or the purchase of their own government bonds, can only delay this result, not prevent it. Paternalism The welfare state is an authoritarian state. The government orders what has to be done, the citizen has to obey. Regardless of whether they want their income to be evenly distributed over all phases of their lives, as prescribed by the statutory pension insurance, or not. Regardless of whether they would prefer minimal health insurance only against high risks. Individual life planning is becoming increasingly prescribed in the system. This results in increasing control, paternalism, and thus a restriction of freedom. The citizen is both prevented from going his own way and from having his own experiences and learning from them. The path to immaturity is mapped out. And what actually gives one the right to force peaceful fellow humans into memberships that they do not want to enter? Antisocial Behavior The welfare state corrupts people by promoting antisocial behavior. There are massive incentives to behave dishonestly and indecently. Dependence takes the place of personal precaution. Responsibility is replaced by indolence. In place of philanthropy, there is an effort to milk the system. The desire to prove oneself is replaced by the search for unearned income. Gratitude is replaced by an aggressive sense of entitlement. The demand of social groups for redistribution, which is omnipresent in the welfare state, is also tantamount to calling for a crime. Because redistribution is only possible by taking away the fruits of others' labor, the consequences are never-ending fights for distribution, social discord, and envy. There is no generally accepted legal principle that allows two people to expropriate a third party. Even personal misfortune or inability do not justify the exploitation of others. Defenders of the welfare state will object that solidarity and social justice could not be established otherwise. But solidarity forced under the threat of violence is not solidarity. Social justice is indefinable and always depends on where you are in the system. What qualifies one person to live at the expense of another and who decides who gets what? What right does A have to determine what B has to pay to C? The minimum principle as the core problem. If the problems are so obvious, why is the welfare state so popular? We find the answer in the minimum principle. The conditioning of humans according to the minimum principle, that is, the attempt to obtain as much as possible for as little effort as possible, is evolutionarily reasonable. It has ensured that we are always on the lookout for tools and methods to generate more profit with less effort. This, in turn, has led to the fact that today, thanks to technology, the average person in most countries can live in a state of affluence that was previously only accessible to privileged upper classes. If this disposition now meets with political power, a problem arises. 
Due to the state monopoly on the use of force, politics can promise benefits that seem to cost the recipients nothing. From their point of view, this is an advantage. No effort, yet profit. That sounds like a good deal. Politics include not only obvious bribes of voters, such as the granting of child benefits or free health care, and soon perhaps even an unconditional basic income, but also legal regulations that an interest group wishes, for example, provisions to protect against dismissal or the ban on nuclear energy. The majority of the moment demands all manner of short-term advantages, zeitgeist fashions, unconditional promises, and comparable free offers. Of course, someone has to pay for it in the end, but disguising the cost is one of the most important services provided by politics. In theory, this problem can be overcome by using reason and persuasion. In practice, the minimum principle is stronger. Politicians or rulers who advocate cuts in benefits will sooner or later be voted out of office or replaced. Otto von Bismarck, the famous German chancellor and inventor of the welfare state, logically called it state socialism. At the end of his life, he drew the following conclusion. It is possible that once I am dead, our policy will perish. But state socialism is cramming its way through. Anyone who takes up this thought will come to the helm. The following recurring pattern results from these insights. 1. Almost all people want to increase their standard of living. They want to do this in the simplest possible way. 2. The easiest way to increase your material standard of living is to take something away from others. 3. Most, however, find it difficult to simply march into a shop and take goods without payment or take their neighbor's money. 4. It is easier for them to hire a third party to do the job who will tell them that the whole thing is legal and who will also wrap the mantle of morality. 5. That is why people turn to the state. For the state is the only institution that is allowed to take away the fruits of others' labor unpunished. However, this does not change the character of the process which, in the same society, would otherwise constitute theft or robbery. Thou shalt not steal. That's the real populism nobody talks about. 6. Governments and politicians serve these wishes, otherwise they will be voted out, or removed in favor of those who do so. 7. Gradually more and more social groups find out how to use the power of the state for their own purposes. The state, not economic activity, becomes the main source for raising your standard of living. 8. Fewer and fewer people end up working in the productive sector. Fight over distribution intensifies, and public debt grows. 9. Finally, the state runs out of money. The resulting crisis leads to radical reforms or even systemic changes. 10. The whole process starts anew. Unfortunately, the dynamics described here also ensure that the state interferes more and more in private life. This is because intangible contributions are also distributed, that is, regulations in favor of the wishes of certain interest groups. The possibility of leading one's life according to one's own taste, and thus human diversity par excellence, 
is becoming increasingly restricted. Since in democracies in particular, but not only there, almost every interest group tries to take their personal wishes into account, the number of laws, the tax burden, and the national debt inevitably increase over time. 2. How can power be limited? Anyone who expects reasonable decisions from politics has not understood that the will to power is greater than all reason. Roland Bader, Economist and Publicist If the combination of political power and the human minimum principle is the problem, one could try to change man and his evolutionary behavior. This has been tried very often, especially by politics and religion. Success has so far failed to materialize, which does not prevent the followers of this variant from trying it over and over again. The other approach would be to break or at least limit political power. This has been worked on with mixed success for several centuries. Let's take a closer look at some of these attempts. The Violence Problem and the Monopoly of Force one of the basic teachings of history is that people must organize themselves in some form, otherwise they cannot resist the aggression of foreign groups. In this respect, joining together is inevitable. If people do not pull their strength with others, they are simply conquered and controlled. That would also be the fate of self-determined but defenseless anarchists, particularly after they had accumulated a certain level of well-being. Basically, this is the situation Thomas Hobbes was assuming when he wrote his Leviathan. Although there has never been and never will be an authentic fight of all against all as a state of nature, man has always been a herd animal and as such tends to form packs. This is still the case today under appropriate circumstances. Even in the lawless areas of Brazilian favelas, rankings and cooperation are developing. But the true core of Hobbes' approach is that the unorganized individual or the weak group are constantly running the risk of being plundered by larger or stronger groups wandering around. The physical struggle for scarce goods is always present in Hobbes' state of nature. Agriculture, trade, science, and the arts do not come about. This state is unsatisfactory and does not allow freedom because others are constantly preventing one from doing what one wants and even taking away the fruits of one's work by force. And the alternative of joining forces with neighbors on a case-by-case -case basis to form alliances is far less secure and usually more burdensome than an entity that provides exclusive and binding protection of life, limb, and property for all. For this reason, the institution of the monopoly of force has, over time, established itself in the developed regions of the world. This refers to an institution, usually referred to as the police, which has the exclusive right to prevent the use of force by citizens for their own purposes, including retaliation for undisputedly suffered injustice, and which is the only one allowed to threaten or use force to this end. Those who are prepared to use violence are told, under threat of violence, that they must refrain from using violence to achieve their own goals. On the outside, that is, as protection against organized violent groups that did not belong to the community, a military was built up. Such systems have been successful and have prevailed over alternatives. 
That is why there are states and state monopolies of force all over the world today. Even criminals prefer such a system because their stolen, robbed, or swindled property cannot be taken away by force at the next best opportunity. Yet, in many places around the world, people cannot live in safety. The police aren't there when you need them and even avoid some neighborhoods completely. Some are completely corrupt and part of the problem. As long as the rulers themselves can live in safety, they have little incentive to offer the same high level of safety for all. Basically, however, any state that cannot guarantee the security of its citizens is a failed state. It can be of little use. The obligation of the citizen towards the state ends when the state is no longer in a position to protect him. Politics Hobbes correctly recognized that a state monopoly of force creates a peaceful order that ultimately benefits all inhabitants. Unfortunately, he did not realize that this advantage would turn into its opposite if the state used its monopoly of force to achieve goals that go beyond the enforcement and protection of peace. That is when the state begins to make politics and imposes political goals, which are always only the goals of a certain group of citizens, on everyone. In such systems, the victims of partisan politics are even more defenseless than they would be in the state of nature. The state's monopoly of force is now directed against them, and they must tolerate, for example, large portions of their income and assets being taken away from them and redistributed without recourse to self-defense. However, if the state monopoly of force becomes an instrument of politically motivated partiality, then the original concept loses its effect, and behind the facade of the peaceful state, a perpetual, this time political, struggle of rival groups arises. Politics thus becomes an invisible civil war, whose discreteness stems from the fact that the victims of state interference have no realistic chance of defending themselves. The peace achieved is illusory, based on the effective suppression of divergent interests. It is therefore counterproductive to give the state a power that goes beyond guaranteeing internal and external security. Because once peace is established, the only legitimate governmental task is to ensure that residents do not force their will upon others, and the state itself may only use force to enforce this principle. This is not a new insight. It can already be found among the thinkers John Locke, Wilhelm von Humboldt, Ludwig von Mises, or even Ludwig Erhard, the architect of Germany's post-war economic miracle, according to whom the problems begin when the state ceases to be an arbitrator and starts to become a player. Of course, this lesson is regularly ignored because it remains attractive to have politics solve problems. But in the end, politics means imposing one's view of the world on all others. But people are different. What is right for one person can be wrong for another. Subjectively different values and objectively different life situations cause any political solution to leave behind those who have been forced to do something against their will. To make politics means taking sides and making the wishes of some the yardstick for everyone, and we must not forget, if necessary, by force. How is that legitimate? Social Contract According to Hobbes, citizens have given the state these extensive powers so that they can live in safety. 
This view was later complemented by Locke's and especially Rousseau's view of a social contract, a voluntary agreement between the parties comparable to a civil contract. It is supposed to exist between citizen and state, or at least the citizens should have concluded one among themselves, in which they cede a part of their sovereignty to the state and accept the consequences. This view still prevails. As a rule, the constitution of a state and the resulting order is equated with Rousseau's social contract. It suffers from the fact that a contract must also be concluded in accordance with the rules of reciprocity developed over centuries under civil law. If this is not the case, then it is something else for which the very concept of a contract would not be appropriate. According to most legal systems, it would be questionable whether this alleged partnership agreement can be regarded as a contract at all. There is a lack of certainty in its services and considerations, because the citizen must pay taxes, but the use of the tax is left completely to the discretion of the state. There is neither a specific claim on the part of the citizen to certain state services, nor any enforceability regarding the proper use of tax revenue. But according to civil law, in case of doubt, any contract in which there is no agreement on all important points is considered null and void. Thus, for example, many citizens expect the state to offer a certain level of physical security, a certain infrastructure and social security. If they knew that under constitutional law there is no or only a very vague claim to it, but an unconditional duty to pay taxes, they would probably reconsider their approval of the respective system. In practically all legal systems worldwide, a contract requires at least identical declarations of intent. Do the citizens really agree that the government, with an appropriate parliamentary majority, can amend all the rules, including the Constitution, and increase the tax rate exorbitantly, for example? And even if a Constitution expressly stipulates this right, and this Constitution has been adopted by a majority, what about those who voted against ratification? By which right are they subject to the Constitution? You as a citizen may not agree with the use of your taxes in many areas, and you may also disagree that there is a group of people who decide on the use of these funds without your consent. Even Rousseau recognized this problem. He therefore calls for 100% of all citizens to agree to the first-time application of a social contract, including its amendment mechanisms, because everyone is affected. Without a prior agreement, what would give a minority the obligation to submit to a majority voting? From where have hundred to the right who want a ruler to vote for the ten who don't? The law of majority voting itself is based on agreement and requires at least one-time unanimity. This is only consistent, but has never been implemented, and therefore, this aspect of Rousseau's social contract is usually withheld. And this is exactly what all conventional constitutions suffer from. In reality, they are contracts at the expense of third parties, namely those who have not agreed. This is a legal procedure that would be invalid under civil law because there is no concordant declaration of intent by those affected. According to the civil law of practically all states, it is therefore not possible for contracting parties to commit third parties to a service without the third party's consent.
The whole thing is exacerbated by the fact that the alleged social contract is constantly changed exclusively by one side, namely the state, without the individual being able to do anything about it. Thus, even the person who originally agreed to the whole thing suddenly finds himself in a completely different system that he never consented to. When two parties conclude a service contract in civil life, they have previously agreed on the scope and cost of the service. If the service is provided poorly or not at all, the customer has the right to reduce or refuse payment. Neither party can unilaterally change the terms of the contract during the period of the contract. Citizens, on the other hand, must pay all taxes without having a clear counterclaim. If they are dissatisfied because state benefits in areas such as safety, education, road construction, health, and pension provision are getting worse and worse, they have no right to reduce or withhold taxes. The state can increase taxes to any extent. And it is precisely this constant deviation from the principle of reciprocity that is one of the main reasons for the crisis of democratic states. Rule of Law and Constitution Justice being taken away, then, what are states but great robberies? Augustine of Hippo, Roman philosopher and theologian. When looting becomes a way of life for a group in society, over time it creates a legal system that legalizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. Claude Frederic Bastiat, Economist and Politician Even under the fiction of a social contract, it would never have been pleasant to be at the mercy of the unpredictable whims of an absolutist monarch as the owner of the monopoly of force. As a result, the absolute power of rulers has been limited over time. On the one hand, these limitations could come from the ruler himself as voluntary self-restraints, knowing well that he would be forcibly removed if he pushed it too far. On the other hand, princes, religious dignitaries or influential families, and later other classes as well, were granted the right to a voice in affairs and they insisted on its observance. At the very moment, however, when these rights were no longer actively demanded, they quickly returned to the ruler. If he was weak himself, he lost them to the ruling oligarchy. At all times there were powerless and powerful emperors, but there was never one thing, that nobody had the power. If anything was unclear about it, civil war broke out. This seems to be almost a law of nature. There is no power vacuum in human affairs. Gradually, therefore, written restrictions on absolute rule have developed. This has made it easier for the beneficiaries to claim recourse than it had been under informal and verbal agreements. Documents such as the Magna Carta of 1215 and the English Bill of Rights of 1689 eventually led to what we now call constitutions. The absolute monarchy became the constitutional monarchy. Basically, this is just the implementation of the principle of reciprocity in the form of the golden rule. If everyone, including the powerful, adheres to the rules, this narrows the leeway of the powerful, but also protects them from the arbitrariness of those who are pushing for power. Those in power exchange a large but uncertain range of maneuver for a smaller but secure one. 
All in all, this is a benefit for everyone, as energies can now be directed to other productive areas that enhance the quality of life. Finally, the rule of law has developed from this. All actions by the rulers are subject to the primacy and reservation of the law, and even for the simple citizen or subject. Everything is permitted that is not expressly forbidden. The primacy of the law means that the laws prevail over the ideas of those in power. The reservation of statutory power means that all acts of authority require a legal entitlement. If this is not the case, the exercise of authority is illegal. However, the rule of law has a problem that Bastiat pointed out as early as 1850. Anyone who controls the legislative power can assemble any law. Every group in power can arbitrarily make its own rules as long as it complies with the formal procedures, but even a constitutional band of robbers remains a band of robbers. Finally, in order to solve this problem, attempts have been made to limit such arbitrariness through the adoption of unalterable constitutional articles and the creation of independent Supreme Courts. These efforts have been met with moderate success. If the law or the Constitution stands in the way of government action, it will be amended or interpreted accordingly. Especially, the courts often play an inglorious role because they assume a regulatory competence theoretically reserved for the legislator. They are actually only supposed to supervise the observance of the rules. Hence, we observe a constant political struggle for the occupation of seats on national supreme courts. Of course, even jurisprudence is shaped by subjective attitudes, and every constitutional article is interpreted by every judge according to his own political convictions. Even constitutions can therefore in fact be changed or interpreted almost arbitrarily. The basic law of the Federal Republic of Germany, passed in 1949, has been amended 62 times since it came into force. The harder-to-amend U.S. Constitution has only undergone 18 changes in over 200 years. But the judges have often come up with contemporary interpretations, often contrary to the clear wording of the document. The philosopher Anthony de Jazé puts it this way, The Constitution is like a chastity belt whose key is always within the wearer's reach. After all, this practice leads to a situation in which the political establishment no longer even cares about formal compliance with the law. The rule of law is eroding. Take Germany, for example. Against existing EU law, the Merkel government has pushed ahead with a so-called Greek bailout plan against existing public law treaties, decided to phase out nuclear power against the Constitution and EU law, opening the borders to illegal immigrants from countries where they are not under threat. This trend reaches further and further downward within the state. Top civil servants in Germany complain that in government projects, the mere reference to a legal conflict can now be construed as malicious and inhumane. It is therefore not surprising that organizations and companies jump on this bandwagon and demand flexible action from the administration, actually demanding the granting of illegal permits. If it serves the good cause and is presented accordingly in the media, there are always majorities for it. 
This even applies to acts openly directed against the legal system, such as the granting of church asylum for rejected asylum seekers or the occupation of other people's houses by left-wing groups for years at a time. In the end, there are only a few administrative officials and some courts who continue to insist on compliance with the law. However, this is no way for a state under the rule of law to exist. As long as laws are in force, they must be observed. If these are considered no longer appropriate, the legislative body must pass new laws by the means provided for. These laws are then applied with no retroactive effect from the date on which they are issued. The increasing ignorance of these elementary principles leads to the rule of law slowly slipping into an arbitrary state in which the existing law is only selectively applied and in which it can be violated without any sanction if the political leadership considers it expedient. But this is nothing more than the arbitrary rule usually associated with absolutism. If the law is no longer the sole yardstick for the administration's actions, other criteria come to the fore. A friend from Berlin, who runs several restaurants there, reports that he had to carry out an extensive approval procedure, costing considerable time and money, in order to enlarge part of one of his restaurants. When the approval was finally granted, he pointed out the following to the responsible civil servant. Just across the street, an Arab always expands his restaurant area considerably and, apparently illegally, onto the street during the summer. He wondered if that wouldn't require a permit. The officer then closed the door and said, We know the case, but if we send our officers there, we are threatened with blows. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated case. It means that the rule of law is nothing more than an empty shell, which is negligible under the threat of violence. The law is now only applied to those who tolerate it. Moreover, the rule of the jungle applies. The incentives provided by this state of affairs are devastating. On the one hand, lawbreakers are increasingly aware that they can get away with anything by threatening violence. This de facto power vacuum is increasingly being filled by criminal clans and organized crime. On the other hand, the law-abiding population will gradually come to the conclusion that it should resort to the same methods. The rule of law, and with it the monopoly of force, are coming to an end. Human Rights O oh, rare happiness of times, when you can say what you want and say what you think. Publius Cornelius Tacitus, historian in ancient Rome. Could we protect ourselves from arbitrary changes in law by establishing inalienable individual rights? The idea is a relatively new development. For thousands of years, it was self-evident that slaves, serfs, and other subjects had fewer rights than, for example, nobility and bourgeoisie. Until well into the 20th century, women had fewer rights in most societies than men, and this is still the case in Sharia-based societies. If one takes the golden rule seriously, it becomes clear that the principle of absolute rights to which every individual is entitled makes sense. Because if I claim that I have certain rights, then I have to grant them to my fellow man. Otherwise, he could also claim that he has more rights than I do.
A peaceful and fruitful compromise solution is therefore when everyone is granted the same rights. Beyond mere equality before the law, human rights cover the area of central importance to every individual, namely the integrity of life and limb, freedom of movement, and a certain freedom of action, including freedom of expression and assembly and freedom of contract. The idea is that these rights cannot be overruled by religion, ideology, majority voting, or other legal assertions and acts of government. Because those acts can change, and even if these changes are positive for the individual in some cases, things can look quite different under the next government. Therefore, everyone is on the safe side if certain rights are inviolable to each individual. The existence of individual human rights promotes peaceful and fruitful coexistence. I'll let you have your rights, you let me have mine. This conclusion makes sense worldwide. As such, it is not culturally dependent, even if some cultures still refuse to accept it. There is therefore no need for a divine or natural law or other transcendent exaltation of this process. It is not even necessary to resort to the construct of self-ownership, according to which I belong to myself, and therefore do not have to tolerate interventions in my limb and life and my freedom of action. Human rights have not fallen from heaven, but people have agreed to grant them to each other, so that every individual has security and room for action, regardless of the system in which they live. Corresponding declarations, such as the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, spread widely after the Second World War and have formulated what have become common values in some respects, despite their lack of binding force under international law, even communist systems officially acknowledging human rights. The cancellation of this consensus by the majority of Islamic states by means of the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights in Islam of 1990, according to which all human rights are subject to the reservation of Sharia, cannot therefore be overestimated in its importance. It provides the ideological ammunition for the clashes between secular and divine order, which are likely to increase in severity due to the surplus of young men in Islamic countries. But there is another problem. Human rights are properly understood rights of defense. They protect everyone from interfering with their body, life, property, or the core area of their freedom of action. Since state monopolies of force exist worldwide and have already committed themselves to the protection of these points, human rights are therefore primarily rights of defense against the almighty state. So far, so good. Unfortunately, we have overstepped the mark practically to the point of actually turning human rights into their opposite. Instead of limiting rights to defense and liberty, the well-intentioned have added more and more so-called participatory rights. These include rights such as the right to work, the right to free education, the right to a humane existence with housing, clothing, medical care, satisfactory remuneration, and so on. What is completely lacking is the understanding that these rights can only be asserted at the expense of third parties and only by an all-powerful state. They are in direct conflict with the rights of defense. If I cannot afford a humane apartment, then someone else has to pay for it. Who enforces this against whom 
and who decides what constitutes a humane existence. As things stand, this can only be the state which thereby intervenes in the property rights and freedom of action of its citizens. In other words, the fundamental rights originally conceived as a right of defense against the state are transformed into powers of intervention which the state has against its citizens, and which cannot or must not defend themselves against them. It is therefore not surprising that the existence of participatory rights has become a constant cause of struggles for distribution. The recent idea of an unconditional basic income is only the logical consequence of believing that you have the right to live at the expense of others without having to pay anything in return. This doesn't add up, of course. Ultimately, it can only be at the expense of those who are industrious and talented and therefore generate surpluses that can then be taken away from them. Finally, the state will have to force them to work in order to earn the basic income for the others. In another context, this configuration is called slavery. But there is no right to live at the expense of others. Rights at the expense of third parties are in truth privileges. They are an aberration that causes considerable discord. Properly understood, there is only one essential human right, namely the right to be left alone in order to be able to lead one's self-determined life. All other human rights are either legitimate derivatives thereof or illegitimate privileges at the expense of third parties. Democracy Anyone may publicly express his interest in the property of another and pursue this desire, provided he has access to the government. Therefore, in a democracy, everyone becomes a threat. Consequently, the desire for other people's property is systematically strengthened under democratic conditions. Hans Hermann Hopp, Philosopher and Democracy Critic No matter how different political attitudes may be, everyone agrees on one thing. Democracy is a good thing. For many, it is the only legitimate form of government. However, everyone seems to have their own idea of this term, as even North Korea describes itself as democracy. Democracy allegedly means allowing a plurality of opinion, respecting the rights of the individual, the commitment of the administration to the rule of law, the existence of human rights, to name but a few points that one finds in contemporary press articles. None of this is true. Democracy comes from Greek and initially only means rule by the state, people in the sense that the majority of the people entitled to vote decide. Majority rule would be a proper translation. We must insist on at least that much conceptual clarity, as unclear language is an indication of unclear thinking. Those who use democracy as a synonym for everything good, true, and beautiful in the state are neither able to name nor to counteract undesirable developments. Majority rule means, first of all, that the majority can decide and impose its will on the minority, basically unlimited in all aspects of life. Such an unrestricted democracy can deprive individuals and minorities of their life, property, or freedom. We find evidence not only in the execution of Socrates, but in countless other historical examples, such as the expulsion of the U.S. Indians from the eastern states, 
the deprivation of the rights of previous owners in numerous socialist people's democracies, and even the events surrounding the Arab Spring when revolts broke out against the dictators there. In Egypt, for example, surveys show that a large majority of respondents were in favor of introducing democracy, but also of introducing Sharia law, in particular the stoning of adulterers. Eighty-four percent even believed that apostasy from Islam should be punished by death. That, too, is a democratic decision. Despite its strength in facilitating peaceful transfers of power, unrestricted democracy alone is therefore not a suitable means of ensuring peaceful and prosperous coexistence among a wide range of people. It is only the constitutional, liberal, state that guarantees personal and economic freedoms, not only by establishing the rule of law, but also guarantees the individual rights that are also valid vis-à-vis the majority and the rulers. But a liberal constitutional state can also exist without democracy, for example, in a constitutional monarchy. In a democracy, it can only unfold its beneficial effect as long as there is a fundamental willingness to adhere to the rule of law. Since, as has been shown, the majority can deviate from this and even change the Constitution as a whole, no democracy can ultimately be effectively restricted. In view of the experience of the last 200 years, the corresponding attempts must be regarded as failures. The problem that our social systems are treaties at the expense of third parties is particularly evident in democracy. The system works well as long as the state confines itself to safeguarding the life, freedom, and property of citizens, and, moreover, stays out of it. However, conflicts and crises inevitably arise when the state uses its monopoly of force to pursue political goals that go beyond the protection of life, liberty, and the property of its citizens. Unfortunately, due to the minimum principle, it is precisely this behavior that the majority demands. The principles that the person who finances something also determines the use of funds and that everyone only pays for what he has ordered are elementary and meaningful outflows of the principle of reciprocity. Their quasi-institutionalized repeal in democratic systems prevents lasting stability. That is why democracies tend to move in only one direction, namely towards more centralization, more collectivism, and more interference in more and more areas of life. This is according to the preferences of the mediocre, who make up the majority everywhere. Democracy empowers the majority to impose their views on others who do not share them. More democracy ultimately means politicizing all areas of life and all private decisions. While in a free market the resources gradually migrate to the intelligent and the skilled, which ultimately benefits everyone, this is not the case in democracy. Anyone who pays millions in taxes and has created hundreds or even thousands of jobs has exactly one vote, just like the one who has spent his whole life funded by the state, abandoned all his apprenticeships, and has never read a book. Since, according to the standard distribution curve, there are more mediocre and weak people in every society than top performers, the former will prevail in democracy. On the other hand, they have little or no success on the market. It follows, any mass democracy, whether direct or parliamentary democracy, 
will inevitably develop into a social welfare state sooner or later, with the consequences outlined above. But redistributive systems can hardly be changed, because the number of those who profit from them is, in the end, always larger than that of net contributors. The financial ruin of the state is ultimately only a matter of time. In addition, decision-makers are not liable for the consequences of their actions. This observation also applies to both parliamentary and direct democracy. Those politicians in parliamentary democracy who do not suffer any disadvantage when they make devastating decisions, except that they are voted out while retaining all pension rights, have no incentive to make sensible long-term decisions. But they do have every incentive to buy votes at the taxpayers' expense. High taxes are supposed to be signs of a developed civilization. In reality, they are more likely a typical consequence of poor economics, a perpetual problem when the people involved spend other people's money, use it to buy popularity, and are, in fact, not accountable to anyone. Politicians who say they want to take responsibility are lying to themselves. What they want is to make decisions at the expense of others without having the slightest economic disadvantage if things go wrong. This means nothing more than the complete decoupling of power and responsibility. This is also the reason why there are no democratically managed companies anywhere in the world. No reasonable owner would make the management of a company or the appointment of the managing director dependent on the majority opinion of the employees. And yet this is supposed to work for the state? The American philosopher Thomas Sowell states succinctly, It is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Direct democracy is able to counterbalance the rule of politicians and parties. After all, the citizens can decide on real issues and also revise political decisions. Unlike the parties, they do not have to take into account any powerful interest groups. But direct democracy does not solve the problem of decoupling power and responsibility. In civil life, if you rob other people, you go to prison. If you make a bad business decision, you lose money or your business goes bankrupt. This is different in direct democracy. You can vote anonymously for a referendum that openly aims to expropriate fellow citizens. And anyone can vote by referendum for a stupid idea that costs billions, and everyone, including the people who voted against it, ends up paying. No one can ever be held accountable. After all, in democracies, no area of life is fundamentally excluded from political discussion and thus from majority opinion. Man, who is so keen on social acceptance that he has evolutionarily developed the habit of following the flock, forms his opinion intuitively at first according to the apparently prevailing view. Only later does he adjust his arguments in order to achieve consistency with his previous worldview. Everyone is susceptible to this, regardless of intelligence or education. In groups, intelligent are equally seducible herd animals, as Gustave Le Bon already observed in 1895. In everything that is the object of feeling, religion, politics, morality, sympathies and antipathies, etc., the most excellent people rarely surpass the level of the ordinary individuals, 
Decisions of common interest taken by a gathering of outstanding people are not noticeably superior to those that would be taken by a gathering of fools. Linking the right to vote to a particular educational or vocational qualification will therefore not alleviate the problem, but may even aggravate it. Often enough, intelligent people, because of their imagination, are more receptive to ideologies that require pulling the wool over their own eyes. Unfortunately, opinions based on morality and indignation are much more readily accepted by all groups of the population than positions that have arisen as a result of reasonable consideration of the pros and cons. The majority of people do not want a rational problem solution with strict control of success. They want to feel good and belong to the right side. Politics satisfies this need. And because today's welfare states still lack existential, emotionally disturbing dangers such as wars, epidemics, or famines, politicians and social priests must constantly invent new grievances in order to maintain their own well-founded positions as admonishers and alleged problem solvers. Hence the incessant discovery of alleged discrimination, alleged poverty, alleged pressure to perform, or, more generally, the alleged inhumanity of the entire system. Hence the justice gaps that are being identified everywhere. Technologies that have been established for decades and are safe to use are suddenly being turned into imminent threats. Inequalities are considered outrageous. But in addition to wealth and social inequality, differences in gender, ethnicity, and talent are now considered unnatural and are labeled mere social constructs. From this moralistic perspective, any real inequality is absolutely unbearable, even urinals in men's toilets. Every now and then, mostly after a war or crisis, reason-based counterforces appear. These can only turn the wheel back a little bit, however, before things return to the same direction as before. As soon as some wealth has been accumulated, the same redistributors in humane guise are re-elected to power. In a democracy, there is simply not enough incentive for politicians to act sensibly, for they are only temporary political managers, not owners who could have a long-term interest in the stability of the community. They only receive their mandate in the course of a necessarily moralizing, outbidding competition for more justice. The journalist Roger Capel explains it. Angela Merkel started in 2003 as a free market reformer. When she would have lost the election by a hair's breadth because of her position, she swung clearly to the left. She even reversed some of the social reforms of her predecessor Schroeder. I well remember a dinner when we addressed the Chancellor about her policy turns. She only replied, If I govern Germany according to the recipes of your economic press, I will be voted out of office. Mrs. Merkel was quite right to realize this. Anyone who does not take part in the competition for more justice loses political power. The reward criterion for the democratically elected is therefore not the benefit for the community, but the maximum indignation of voters towards the democratic competitor who remains behind in the fight against the elimination of injustices. On the basis of these facts, conservative and libertarian parties are practically always on the defensive in democratic systems, especially when they plead for fewer state interventions. 
If they want to survive, they must ultimately turn into redistribution parties. Reason cannot prevail against morality if the majority decides. This is also the cause of the increasingly weaker intellectual capacities of the political class. Neither professional experience nor specialist knowledge is required if morality is the essential criterion. Moreover, no measurable results need to be achieved in the policies of democratic states in times of peace. The impression of decisive action is sufficient. Therefore, this profession attracts a disproportionate number of mediocre, but power-conscious or even psychopathic dazzlers. Elsewhere, for example, in business or science, their lack of skill would preclude any serious chance of them attaining power or influence. The most important characteristic, besides the elimination of intra-party competitors according to the traditional Machiavellian rules, is the ability to make even the worst shortcomings and mistakes appear to be carried by moral motives. Morality, in turn, is an arbitrary consensus that can be changed by those who arbitrate social ostracism or recognition, first and foremost, the mass media. Subsidies or special rights are granted to interest groups that rely on currently popular moral projects. In such a system, anyone who is incapable or unwilling to be productive seizes the opportunity to secure offices, money, and prestige by means of indignant and moralizing behavior. Peace of mind comes as an added bonus to the morally superior. How can one expect loudmouths and the less gifted not to seize this opportunity? Skillful politicians rule with them. If they want to remain in power, they must follow their often contradictory moral ideas and continue to push towards ever greater equality in the context of continuous competition for outcry and outrage. This narrows the range of what can be said and what is permissible up to the point where the rights of anyone who is ahead of anyone else in any way or simply has a competing viewpoint can be called into question. The end result is a Jacobinian dictatorship, and then the time is ripe again for yet another Napoleon. The weaknesses of democracy are therefore obvious, at least for those willing to take an honest look. What can be done about it? In Western countries, some opposition groups are now considering creating other incentives, such as introducing the criminal offense of wasting taxes or reducing pension claims by politicians who have caused considerable financial damage. In reality, such a thing would only be possible by referendum or after considerable media pressure. After all, those responsible cannot have any interest in weakening their own position. Moreover, it seems impossible in a mass democracy to agree not to grant special benefits. However, social orders that violate the principle of who pays decides for structural reasons have no lasting chance of survival. If the majority of non-payers or low-payers regularly decide what happens to the contributions of the high-payers, the latter will eventually turn their backs away from that order either by leaving the geographical area of the system or by limiting their productivity. They are aware that their higher solvency proves that their previous decisions compared to those of non-payers or low-payers were apparently the better ones. So why should the latter be allowed to decide how funds are used? It is almost certain that they will make worse decisions for the community than if they were made by those who are capable of paying.
the system gradually loses its top performers and eventually collapses due to economic problems. So can democracy still be saved at all? It is worth taking a look at the small principality of Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein is not a constitutional monarchy in the conventional sense. Rather, it is a unique mixture of direct democracy and parliamentary constitutional hereditary monarchy. The Constitution was largely amended in 2003. This originated from the recognition that the inherent tendency of every democracy towards party rule and self-serving interest of the political class must be restricted by bodies which have relevant rights of control and co-determination of their own and which are not subject to the influence of the parties. Since then, in Liechtenstein, these have been above all the people and the prince. Even the municipalities may introduce their own legislative initiatives. In order to counter the danger of unrestricted majority rule through direct democracy, the Liechtenstein system has installed two safety valves. On the one hand, the prince's right of veto against the results of referendums, and on the other, the right of each individual municipality to secede. Any abuse of the veto can subject the prince to a no-confidence vote or even the abolition of the monarchy altogether. In his work, The State in the Third Millennium, Prince Hans Adam II points out that such a system need not to be a monarchy. A president directly elected by the people could be in a position similar to that of the prince in Liechtenstein. In any case, the current national constitution of Liechtenstein is one of the most innovative with regard to the limitation of power and democracy, and that is the decisive point. Liechtenstein is indeed the only country in the world that allows its municipalities to secede, thus granting them self-determination by virtue of its constitution. Actually, this is an elementary democratic exercise, the majority of an area deciding by popular vote to become independent or to belong to another community. This right of peoples to self-determination is also embodied in the Charter of the United Nations. However, its application would be an enormous check on state power, so the Charter has concocted a special notion of the principle of territorial integrity, so as to disregard any real right of self-determination. If secessions down to the municipal level were also permitted elsewhere, even in principle, as is the case in Liechtenstein, the governments would have an incentive to pay more attention to the interests of the regions. Hans Adam II has recognized that the granting of self-determination, and thus the right to secession, can improve the quality of state action by means of competition in the same way as is the case in the product and service market. The states must then peacefully compete with each other in order to offer their customers the best possible service at the lowest price. Hans Adam II the process of transforming the state from a demigod to a service provider will only be possible if one moves from indirect to direct democracy and breaks the state monopoly by means of the right to self-determination at a municipal level. In Germany, given the same legal situation as in Liechtenstein, not only the Busingen exclave, but various other southern German municipalities would probably have long since joined Switzerland. This, in turn, would have made politicians considerably more cautious, 
facing the threat of further loss of national territory and citizens, and hence power. Another possibility for democratic reform would be to follow the tradition of the Greek city-states. See chapter 9. In such a system, only those individuals who are self-sufficient and willing to defend the community would have the right to vote. They are the ones who literally have skin in the game. Alternatively, property rights could be linked to voting rights and direct democracy only be set up as a right of veto. See Chapter 11. However, all variants presuppose a decentralization of power and the manageability of local communities. That brings us to the next topic. Smallness and Subsidiarity In a society of small states, neither war nor crime disappear. They are merely reduced to acceptable sizes. Instead of hopelessly trying to inflate man's limited talents to a size that can cope with immense size, the immense size is to be reduced to a size that even man's limited talents can handle. In miniature, problems lose their horror and their significance. That is the maximum a society can strive for. Leopold Kor, Philosopher of Smallness The larger and more anonymous a society is, the more likely a bloated machinery of politicians, civil servants, and lobbyists will form around the center, and the more likely there is to be an incentive to exploit personally unknown fellow human beings and to make decisions unrelated to the real world. Genuine subsidiarity means that most decisions are taken at the local level. There, we know each other and can directly observe the impact of our actions. Social control is in place. For this reason, one of the greatest contributors to Switzerland's success is likely to be the self-determination of the municipalities with their far-reaching responsibilities. Together with the competing cantons, Switzerland's 26 states, they are pushing back centralist, comprehensive political visions. This self-determination at the local and regional level is probably one of the least recognized recipes for that country's success. The Swiss Adolf Gasser was aware of this shortly after the Second World War. He saw that centralism leads again and again into disaster and proposed giving all European communities a comprehensive right to regulate their own affairs in order to reorganize the continent. He writes, Only in a clear, lifelike community can the average citizen acquire what is called a political sense of proportion, a sense of human scale. Only here he learns in daily conversation to some extent to understand and take into account the legitimate concerns of his differently-minded and differently-interested neighbors. Only here, on the basis of freedom, does that minimum of community develop which can effectively curb the tendency to authoritarianism and anarchy. In this sense, autonomous small spaces are and remain irreplaceable citizen schools, without which the liberal democratic state would have to wither in its roots. Such ideas have not, of course, found and still do not find any resonance in big government. This is not surprising because it is in line with the incentive structure. Imagine you were a politician and had to choose between System A, 
a large, powerful entity with a huge budget whose leaders are known and respected worldwide. Even subordinate positions have considerable power, influence, and recognition. You, as a politician, have a chance to be part of it one day. System B. A patchwork of small and medium-sized units. At best, a few of the leading regents are known beyond the region where they live. Connected in a kind of federation of states, governed by a rotating president who has only limited competences. Overall, there are only a few highly paid and influential positions in government. The choice of politicians and the opinion makers supporting them will always fall on System A for selfish reasons. High-minded reasons can quickly be found, however, because great tasks lie ahead of us. The future must be shaped. Only large units are able to cope with the challenges of our time. The only way we can economically stand up to XYZ, etc. This is why most senior government officials in Switzerland, contrary to the majority of the population, are presumably in favor of joining the EU. There is a whole universe of new, well-paid and interesting posts far away from the control of the citizen. In the real world, however, small countries such as Singapore, Iceland, and Liechtenstein have managed not only to live in peace, but also to achieve much higher per capita incomes than the large states. This comes with stable public finances and low crime. Another aspect should give us food for thought. There are only a handful of companies worldwide that have more than one million employees, and only one that has more than two million, Walmart. Since these are the results of an unplanned and, so to speak, natural development, there are some indications that economies of scale automatically turn into disadvantages when they reach a certain size. This observation also contradicts the thesis that a free market would eventually become dominated by one large company due to an inherent tendency towards monopolization. At some point, large structures, even monopolies, are no longer controllable and profits are worn away in the organizational gears. Countries, despite all their differences compared to profit-oriented companies, are large organizations with a kind of business operation, too. So this observation should also apply to them in principle. The division of the Roman Empire in late antiquity and the more modern principle of subsidiarity, according to which the subordinate units should decide for themselves what they can manage, are probably derived from this insight, as is the regular division of Mennonite settlements after reaching a size of more than 150 inhabitants. The main advantages of large states can still be taken by autonomous communities. They may form federations of states for a common defense, legal jurisdiction, or customs territory. And not every unit must be a completely independent state. Even sovereign small states can join larger communities in certain fields. Monaco has a customs union with France and Liechtenstein is a member of the European Economic Area. Small statehood does not automatically mean isolation or provincial thinking, but it does mean self-government and subsidiarity. And that opens up possibilities that are missing elsewhere. Around the year 1400, China had the best, largest, and most seaworthy ships in the world. 
Huge fleets sailed to Indonesia, India, Arabia, and as far as the east coast of Africa. The Chinese were about to circumnavigate the Cape of Good Hope, travel up the west coast of Africa, and finally discover the sea route to Europe. Then something serious happened. The Chinese emperor, who came to power in 1432, saw seafaring as a waste of money. He banned the production of seaworthy ships and gave the order to demolish the corresponding shipyards. Even the records of earlier overseas expeditions were destroyed. China's maritime tradition was lost due to the decision of one individual, and it remained so. In contrast, at that time Europe was divided into about 2,000 dominions. Thus, from 1484 onwards, the Genoese Columbus canvassed one European dynasty after another to obtain the fleet with which he was to be the first to sail across the Atlantic. He tried it in Italy, France, Portugal, and Spain, and it was not until the second attempt in 1492 that the Spanish royal house agreed and equipped him with three small ships. There was simply never a situation where one fool ruled the whole of Europe and was able to abolish an entire technology. We should therefore consider whether a world of a thousand Liechtensteins would not be a better world. Most decisions would be taken at a local and decentralized level. Seriously poor decisions would have limited effects. There would be numerous examples of what works and what does not. The multitude of communities alone would lead to fruitful competition for customers instead of a state cartel that wants to milk citizens as far as possible on the one hand and exclude them from all decisions on the other. It is precisely its diversity and the associated competition that have been Europe's recipe for success. That doesn't have to mean weakness. Even city-states such as Venice and Genoa are more marginal states in size, such as Portugal and the Netherlands were able to develop great political and economic power in their heydays. The creation of overarching institutions, such as a common free trade or economic zone or a common defense alliance, is always possible and particularly obvious for communities of a similar nature. One thinks, for example, of the Hanseatic League of Cities or the Deutscher Bund, German Union, an alliance of 39 sovereign states that maintained joint political and military institutions. The smaller the states are, the less a single or a group of states threatens to become too dominant. Small states do not wage world wars. Only great powers cause great disasters. Compared to Germany, Liechtenstein, for example, is a prime example of system robustness or anti-fragility. An anti-fragile system is one that has fewer extreme ups and downs, but is stable and ultimately more successful over a much longer period. Fragile systems, on the other hand, look good for a while, but then collapse catastrophically at regular intervals. Until 1866, Liechtenstein and present-day Germany were united in the aforementioned Deutscher Bund. Just as the intellectual mainstream is currently striving for a single European federal state, in 1866 the creation of a single federal German state looked like the measure of all things. 
When it became clear after the Battle of Koniggratz that Prussia, which rejected the continued existence of the Deutscher Bund, would be the center of this new state, the member states decided to abolish it. Only one member voted against at the time. Liechtenstein. What subsequently happened to Germany is well known. Wars of unification, colonialism, World War I, two million war dead, loss of a quarter of the national territory, revolution, hyperinflation, currency reform with loss of almost all savings, national socialist dictatorship, World War II, the Holocaust with the loss of the Jewish citizenry and their culture, six and a half million more war dead, the loss of another third of the national territory, bombed-out cities, the expulsion of 12 million Germans from the lost territory, the division of the country into occupation zones, renewed currency reform with another loss of almost all personal savings, socialist dictatorship in the eastern part, including revolution and renewed currency reform there. All in all, Germany has experienced four systemic collapses since 1870. Liechtenstein, zero. Today, the Principality of Liechtenstein has a much higher per capita income than the Federal Republic of Germany and is a stable country without significant crime and without national debt. All this was achieved without a single war, without a single revolution, and without a single merger with a large and powerful state. Competition if you don't want to understand that the best already choose their countries like they do with good employers, life will punish you. Gunnar Heinsen, Economist and Sociologist More smallness and diversity mean more competition, even if only a few new systems emerge between the established large states. That alone has a limiting effect on power. Here is an example of how control through competition can work at the state level. The Principality of Monaco is a constitutional monarchy which does not provide any participation rights for non-citizens, which represent 80% of the population. Nevertheless, there are more interested parties than the small housing market can accommodate, which is why new territory is being claimed from the sea. Why? Monaco offers security from crime, extensive tax exemption, manageable rules, and a good climate. In short, Monaco is attractive and leaves its inhabitants alone. On the day all EU regulations, including income taxes, are introduced in Monaco, the Monaco business model is over. Most people would just move away. The prince knows this, and that's why it won't happen. Despite his formerly extensive power, it is competition with other places that guarantees the inhabitants their freedom, not a parliament, nor a constitution, nor the right to referendums. The smaller the states, the easier it is to change the system. The social order that can only be escaped after thousands of miles is clearly different from a state that can be left behind after just 50 kilometers. In the first case, you have to start a new life, if necessary, even change continents and learn a new language. Few of your friends and family will be with you. However, if you have an alternative within a half-day trip, you will have to accept far fewer lifestyle changes. There will be a greater willingness to change to another system. 
For states, the competitive pressure to deliver good performance would increase. A world of hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of states or societies of various kinds would give every person a wide range of choices to shape their life according to their preferences and inclinations. Conversely, further centralization towards world government would mean that the choices for individuals would drop to zero. There would be a monopoly of the most powerful state possible, the Leviathan in perfection. It would exercise a total monopoly of force and regulation over the entire world population. The much-praised One World or New World Order under a unified world government would therefore mean no one who has uncovered a government scandal can escape to another country anymore, nor could someone who does not want to pay the exorbitant taxes demanded or does not want to follow the rules of conduct of those in power. It is very likely that a world government would use its monopoly of force against the will of those affected and eventually abuse it. For neither the separation of powers, the rule of law, human rights, nor democracy have proven to be effective means of limiting power in the long run. Competition is humanity's only known, permanently effective means of disempowerment. 3. How Does Prosperity Arise? Over the past 50 years, more than $2 trillion in aid has gone from the rich to the poor countries. But nowhere in the world has this model brought economic growth. But we know how to do it. We have seen what concepts have reduced poverty in China, India, South Africa, and Botswana. These countries have relied on the market as an engine for economic growth. The approach of Western development aid, based on pity and charity, has failed. Dambisa Moyo, Zambian Economist Voluntary Cooperation One of the basic prerequisites for creating prosperity is the possibility of voluntary cooperation. It only comes about if all cooperation partners expect something from it. Without self-interest, there will be no cooperation. But self-interest alone does not lead to cooperation, because all cooperation is based on reciprocation and exchange, Something must be given in order to receive something. That is the principle of dua dei. I give, so you give. The voluntary nature of cooperation ensures that each service is met by reciprocal action, and it also ensures that service and reciprocation correspond to the wishes of the exchange partners. Whoever wants to exchange selfishly must pay attention to what others want, and he must adjust what he has to offer to those wants. Otherwise, he will not find an exchange partner. It therefore depends solely on the subjective assessment of those affected, not on the supposed objective equivalence of the goods exchanged. Voluntary exchange is therefore not a zero-sum game, for the gain of one is not the loss of the other. What makes voluntary exchange unique is rather that it enriches all those involved in it according to their own ideas. Otherwise, there would be no exchange. Anyone who exchanges a coin for a loaf of bread at the bakery in the morning would rather have bread than money at that moment. The baker, on the other hand, prefers the money. This principle, by the way, remains the same whether it is used in primitive natural exchange 
or in a modern economy based on the division of labor. It applies irrespective of whether goods, money, or work performance are the subject of the exchange. But can one also speak of voluntary cooperation when one of the exchange partners is in dire need and the other is not? That is certainly the case. To be free is not to be healthy, wealthy, or happy. To be free means not to be subject to the will of third parties in one's actions. Nor does an economic emergency constitute a restriction of freedom unless it is due to the use of force. Whoever sells his property or his labor at very low prices out of sheer necessity, that is, without violence or threats from third parties, shows quite clearly that he also prefers cooperation to non-cooperation in times of need. He considers starvation wages better than no wages, small sales proceeds to no proceeds. Why should someone be considered a culprit by offering the desired or even urgently sought cooperation? We can all always feel equally called to charitable help, but why should those who offer themselves to the person seeking help as cooperation partners have a greater duty to help than we do? It takes a certain double standard to accuse an entrepreneur who pays low wages in poor countries of selfish greed for profit and at the same time not to donate up to the pain threshold to a fund set up for those wage earners. Anyone who thinks it is asking too much to alleviate the plight of completely unknown people by donating up to the threshold of pain must accept the same consideration for those who play the economically stronger part in emergency bartering. Property Give a man the secure possession of a bleak rock, and he will turn it into a garden. Give him a nine-year's lease of a garden, and he will convert it into a desert. The magic of property turns sand into gold. Arthur Young, Agriculturist The admission of private property, also in means of production, has proved indispensable for the maintenance of a peaceful and prosperous society. Wherever there is no private property, or where it is difficult or even impossible to acquire it, general prosperity is not possible. Why is that so? Private property is the sole countervailing power of the individual against the power of the state. It is the basis for all individual nonviolent activity. The associated responsibility helps to develop one's own personality, to secure one's own existence and independence, as well as to build up and maintain the family. The refinement and expansion of property makes us proud and satisfied. Finally, property promotes the free expression of independent opinions or the support of political goals because one is not dependent on state or other third-party support. Moreover, only property enables an economic order based on voluntary cooperation and the corresponding exchange, a market economy. The institution of private property guarantees that many independent decisions about the offering of goods and services and corresponding expenses can be made by the respective owners. These decisions by a large number of actors will be very good to a small extent, mediocre to a large extent, and fundamentally wrong to some extent, with the respective consequences for those affected. Thus, the best decisions will be copied, and those who repeatedly make wrong decisions will lose their property in favor of those who are better decision-makers. 
Since you are liable for the consequences of your actions with your property, there is an incentive to make careful decisions. Over time, the quality of these decisions will improve for the benefit of society as a whole. If, on the other hand, only one central body had ownership rights, then their wrong decisions would have devastating consequences for everyone. This is connected with the right to inheritance. If inheritance is prevented, the private owner will tend to eat up his capital rather than see it transferred to the state. This applies in particular to family businesses, which are often characterized by a pronounced work and responsibility ethic and whose full expansion usually takes several generations. However, the right to acquire property is largely meaningless if its realization is linked to countless bureaucratic hurdles that only a small percentage of the population can overcome. This is one of the main institutional obstacles in many developing countries. Property rights are also devalued if the power of disposition is restricted by law or high taxation to such an extent that the property can no longer be used freely. These restrictions usually result from the unspoken collectivist view that the property of the individual is actually the property of the community and that it was left to the individual only for reasons of practicality. However, such limited private property is largely devalued and thus also loses its peacemaking and prosperity-promoting functions. Suppose you are the owner of a house you live in yourself. The mortgage has been paid, and it belongs to you alone. However, you may not modify this house at your own discretion, but must take numerous building specifications into account even inside the building. Nor may you decide for yourself which energy supply you prefer, as the government has very specific ideas on this point. Also, you may not sell your house to a third party before a certain time has elapsed without special taxes being due. If you sell it, the local municipality has a right of first refusal. You must also pay taxes to the state for the mere fact that you own the house. The state also has the option of registering a compulsory mortgage on your property in order to achieve certain objectives, common burden sharing, inflation adjustment. If you do not pay any other taxes which the state demands, then your house will be seized and auctioned off. If you want to pass it on to your children, the inheritance taxes are so high that your children will probably be forced to sell the house. Does your house really belong to you? Price as a Central Control Variable It doesn't cost anything. It's paid for by the state. Francois Holland, Socialist President not everyone will always find the desired exchange partner at the desired conditions. Measured against the available wishes, all goods are scarce. As long as there are still unfulfilled wishes somewhere in the world, we will not run out of work. That is why people have to decide which good is more important to them in each case, considering their exchange or purchasing power. They can make this decision in a free market economy on the basis of prices that are formed in the market. This requires private ownership of goods because only in this way can prices result from the sum of different interests, which in each case reflect real scarcity situations and preferences. Without market prices, however, no entrepreneur can minimize costs and calculate profits. 
This is also the reason why planned economies in general and communism slash socialism in particular always fail. The planned economy association of all means of production in state hands eliminates free price formation, which represents an indispensable information system about the relative scarcity of given resources. The same applies when setting maximum or minimum prices. Prices formed in the market reflect scarcity and make it possible to determine economical and less economical use of resources. A controlled economy with its arbitrarily fixed prices is systematically in the dark. It cannot, therefore, avoid the constant misallocation and waste of resources. Since this would apply even if all the actors in socialism were diligent and skillful idealists, its way of doing business is doomed to failure. Socialism and communism, therefore, do not fail because of the difficult practical feasibility of a concept that is right in itself or because of people's selfishness. They are already misconstructions at the theoretical level. They do not have a suitable indicator of scarcity. The massive setting of false incentives by punishing business success and rewarding the incompetent and inefficient, as long as the attitude is right, only accelerate the unavoidable failure. Unfortunately, the minimum principle ensures the unbroken popularity of socialist ideas. In Venezuela, the 84th experiment since 1917 to put socialism into practice has just failed. The 85th attempt is therefore only a matter of time. It would be desirable if this time it was limited to volunteers or if those who did not wish to participate had an alternative. Raising the Living Standard In the belief that economists have the knowledge and the power to shape the processes in society at our own discretion, a knowledge that we do not actually possess, we will only cause harm. Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Philosopher If socialism does not work, how can the individual, especially the poor and uneducated, raise his material standard of living? Here, too, the answer is, through voluntary cooperation. This works as follows. 1. Whoever wants to make a living for himself must produce and offer goods or services for which others are willing to pay voluntarily. This includes one's own labor. 2. Whoever wants to increase his standard of living beyond that must either work more or more productively or save a part of his income or borrow money. Then he can invest this capital in machines, in his own training, or in other companies so that new products and services can be offered, which in turn are in demand by others. 3. That's all. All other ways of raising one's material standard of living apart from begging or gambling, require coercion from third parties and are at their expense. They are therefore zero-sum games and often even destroy value. The latter particularly applies to ideas such as the management of the money supply, interest rate manipulation, debt-based demand growth, interventionism, or redistribution. None of this can create original value. This does not mean that these methods have no effect and may not be necessary for reasons of maintaining political power. But by intervening in the price mechanism and the principle of voluntary cooperation, they ultimately destroy more prosperity than they create.
state intervention in markets is always linked to coercion. It is based on decisions whose economic consequences the decision-makers do not have to bear, and justified by claiming knowledge the superiority of which they cannot prove. Moreover, such interventions influence people's incentives in such a way that undesirable and unforeseen side effects occur almost without exception. Let us take as an example the downward manipulation of interest rates by the central banks. The aim is to encourage companies to borrow at favorable interest rates, buy capital goods, produce more, and employ more people, which in turn increases the demand for other goods, etc. This may work for a while, but the low interest rates tempt companies into investing in areas that are in fact unprofitable. Companies which would otherwise go bankrupt can be kept alive by cheap loans. This wastes resources that are lacking where there is real demand. If interest rates rise again later, the end comes in the form of numerous bankruptcies, many more than would be the case without interest rate interventions. Another side effect is that pension-safe investments, such as government bonds and life insurance policies, suddenly have lower yields and the pension security of many people is endangered. Because of the cheap loans, anyone who can offer securities invests in real estate, which greatly increases housing prices. As a result, young people and middle-income earners in particular can no longer afford to buy their own homes. Low-income earners can no longer pay the constantly rising rents. The bottom line here is that much more is being destroyed than good is being done. And this is just one example among countless other well-intentioned state interventions. The hallmark of a free market, on the other hand, is that every actor can pursue his own interest in freedom and personal responsibility, but is also responsible for the consequences, such as his failure. Market developments are not predictable in this way, but by constant trial and error, selection and imitation, they promote the prosperity of all. The Requirement of Profit The market economy is a democracy in which every penny gives a vote. The wealth of successful business people is the result of a consumer plebiscite. Ludwig von Mises, Economist and Philosopher the voluntary exchange of goods and services enriches everyone involved. Otherwise, it would not take place. It is thanks to exchange that the division of labor, which increases prosperity, has continued to expand, especially to the benefit of the poorest. If we now banish the profit motive from this process, we would turn off the engine of progress that helps reduce hunger, disease, and infant mortality all over the world. Why would anyone become a baker or a doctor? At least in part because he believes that he is earning a living through these activities. But he can only do that if he turns a profit. Blaming bakers or doctors for making a profit from our hunger and our diseases means asking to be served free of charge by others or asking cooperation partners to reject the services offered to them in exchange so that no evil profit is made. But even craftsmen, the self-employed, and companies are social per se, since they provide society with goods and services that would otherwise not exist. In the long run, they can only do this if they make a profit. This profit requirement, in turn, ensures that the funds are used optimally and that the resources are used in the best possible way. 
In this way, companies create something that did not exist before, namely products, services, jobs, and thus raise the standard of living all over the world. The entrepreneur's profit indicates that he has successfully transformed socially lower-valued goods into socially higher-valued goods and thereby increased and improved the social well-being overall. The well-intentioned but completely ill-considered moral campaign against profits would thus, if successful, prevent new cooperation and let ongoing cooperation die off, reduce the division of labor, and bring about a gradual return to subsistence levels. It follows logically. Because nonviolent profit-making promotes cooperation, division of labor and prosperity, it is a net positive. Economic action without profit-seeking, on the other hand, is necessarily inefficient. Because only the generation of profits indicates whether the overall limited resources are being wasted or used in such a way that the most urgent needs are always being met. This is generally the problem of state-run businesses, whether in education, health, or culture. The lack of profit, seen by many as a moral seal of quality, is regularly offset by the inefficient use of resources. Anyone who does not strive for profit lacks the most important criterion for how and in what way he should use his means, where he should stint, and where he should slog. Entrepreneurs Some people regard private enterprise as a predatory tiger to be shot. Others look on it as a cow they can milk. Not enough people see it as a healthy horse pulling a sturdy wagon. Winston Churchill, Writer and Politician Entrepreneurs and innovators are those who play a central role in a society based on the division of labor, even if they are always a minority. The invention and exploitation of the wheel, the art of printing and electricity were achievements of an infinitesimally small number of people, but they have significantly increased the well-being of all. Successful entrepreneurs, from craftsmen to large producers, are characterized by the fact that they offer something that customers want. Only those who think about what their fellow human beings need, wish for, or need in the future for their happiness and well-being will be successful on the free market. Because, unlike the state, no entrepreneur has the power to force people to buy certain products or services. He must win over customers through quality and price. In reality, the freedom to do business is severely restricted in most countries, whether through labor laws, import and export duties, restrictions on contractual freedom through minimum wages, anti-discrimination laws, and so on. Interest and money supply are manipulated. As a result, resources are misallocated. The societies in question are less prosperous than they could be. All policymakers pride themselves on helping the weak, but do everything they can to make it more difficult for the weak to take up a commercial or self-employed activity by means of regulation. It is therefore a question of creating the conditions to facilitate voluntary cooperation and thus the generation of wealth at the personal level and also to provide a playing field to the few top talents who create new things. These include the right to choose one's activity, training, and job freely to keep the fruits of one's labor, to own private property including any means of production, to offer products and services of all kinds, and to set the prices for them. 
In addition, there should be comprehensive contractual freedom, that is, the right to freely negotiate contracts with anyone on practically any subject matter. Finally, this includes the establishment of a legal system that regulates conflicts of interest and helps individuals to enforce their justified claims in a predetermined procedure if necessary. However, entrepreneurial freedom also means liability. The right to make profits includes the obligation to pay for losses. Failed companies must be able to go bankrupt and be liquidated. If, in such cases, the state steps in, ultimately, of course, the taxpayer, not only are disastrous false incentives set, but bad companies are also kept alive at the expense of better competitors. The beneficial selection effect of the free market cannot unfold. If, however, the state does not intervene in this way, the resources of capital and labor will gradually flow into those areas in which profitable value creation can be achieved. This results in general growth and an increase in living standards. Contrary to popular belief, it is not companies or wealthy entrepreneurs who secretly dominate the course of the world and politics. The influence of the economy on politics is rather a reaction to the fact that their interests cannot be perceived otherwise. In case of doubt, economic power hides behind political power, because politicians can have people arrested and imprisoned at any time. Entrepreneurs cannot do the same. Especially in Russia and China, many influential oligarchs had to learn this lesson the hard way. Western governments also have no problem with imposing substantial fines on large corporations or destroying them through political measures, such as the tobacco and coal industries. Given this imbalance, it is not surprising that companies try to influence politics in their favor in many different ways. It is also in line with the minimum principle that they often use their political influence to harm competitors. The world is not dominated by wealthy entrepreneurs. If they wanted real power, they would go into politics instead. 4. Which role does religion play? If something that some people find pointless, such as religion, has existed for a very, very long time, then we must assume that it still has a long way to go and will certainly survive those who demand its abolition. Nassim Nicholas Taleb financial mathematician and philosopher. Which position religion occupies or may occupy in a society is a question that both existing and new social orders must answer in a binding manner. Otherwise, conflicts are unavoidable. It is not easy to define religion, especially in contrast to other ideologies. Religion is understood here as a worldview whose basis is belief in certain supernatural forces which influence the life of man and which also satisfies the need to explain meaning, moral orientation, the world in general. Looking back at human history, it becomes clear that the demand for such ideas is enormous. For this reason, it is to be expected that religions oriented towards gods or secular substitute religions will continue to have a considerable influence well into the future. However, the relationship of a social order to religion is also a question of power that every society has to face. Let us imagine that a previously unknown introductory chapter was discovered from Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, 
assuming there's no doubt about the authenticity. In this chapter, Hitler describes how the Archangel Gabriel gave him everything that is written down in the book and forms the basis of his ideology. This was God's immediate command. Would National Socialism now suddenly be a religion? And could it invoke religious freedom to practice its teaching? To anticipate the outcome, religion is not a problem for a society if it merely presents itself as a spiritual private matter that gives the individual strength and meaning to his life, insofar as it teaches virtues such as honesty, tolerance, and integrity, it can even be a means of cohesion for a trusting and peaceful coexistence in large groups. In this respect, there is no need to regulate who believes in what or not. A free society does not interfere in private convictions. But as soon as a religion demands privileges for its members or the observance of certain rules by non-believers, it becomes, in addition, a political ideology. That is where the problems begin because then there are two systems of regulation, namely the religious and the secular. If these are not absolutely congruent, the question arises as to which rules will ultimately prevail. It is not possible to belong to two conflicting systems simultaneously for a long time. One will always prevail, and that is usually the more violent one, not the morally or intellectually more appealing. If mutually exclusive convictions meet, there can be no compromise. A woman has equal rights to a man or not. The rights of followers of different faiths are equal or not. Religion is a private matter or not. Criticism of gods or prophets is allowed or not. In this respect, the history of Europe in recent centuries has been marked by the perpetual struggle for the suppression of the collective regulatory claim of religion in favor of the rights of the individual guaranteed by the state. Ultimately, even the U.S. forced the Mormons by military means to separate state and church. It is therefore no surprise that nowadays Islam in particular is spreading from the private sphere of religion to public life. For Islam sees itself not only as a religion, but also as a complete system of legal and political values that provides for a comprehensive regulation of everyday life. Therefore, we cannot avoid taking a closer look at this order. There is no provision at all for the separation of religion and society in Islam. Sunnah and the Quran form the basis of the Islamic faith, Islamic law, and Islamic way of life. Therefore, Islam is faith, ethics, social order, and way of life at the same time. The totality of all rules from the Quran and the Sunnah, the latter are the sayings and actions of the Prophet, is called Sharia. A large part of these rules deals with relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, most of whom are explicitly dismissed. The Quran, on the other hand, is the unaltered word of Allah for Muslims. Its statements are therefore directly binding and have legal force within the framework of Sharia law. Problems arise from this, namely when the rules of the Sharia come up against contradictory state rules, for example with regard to the prohibition of violence against dissenters, the freedom of expression and art, equal rights for women, the freedom of religion, especially atheism. 
sexual self-determination, especially homosexuality, the freedom of marriage, the prohibition of degrading punishments, the equal treatment of different beliefs, the freedom to change religion, especially apostasy from Islam. What applies now? If Sharia makes deviating regulations here, which also proceed on the basis of the so-called abrogation of more moderate Quranic passages, for example, with regard to the position of women, critics of Islam, Jews and Christians, marriages, punishments, apostasy, why should these not apply? Why does the commandment not to eat pork apply, but not the commandments not to take Jews and Christians as friends? Shura 5, verse 51, and 3, 118. To chop off thieves' hands, 5, 38, or to forcefully fight unbelievers, 9, 123, 9, 111, 2, 191, 4, 89, 47, 4. How can you be a Muslim and refuse to accept these rules? Believers also need consistency. Either the Quran is the direct word of Allah, or it is not. If it is, then all commandments are binding and not just an arbitrary selection of them. This is also the weakness of the moderate tendencies in Islam. They simply ignore certain specifications, but have no consistent way of thinking about how this should all fit together. That is why the supposedly radical movements of Islam are so popular. They are coherent in themselves, correspond directly to written tradition, and also reflect the life of the Prophet, who had numerous critics and people who refused to convert killed. This is by no means only a theological problem. Of the 57 member states of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, 45 have signed the so-called Cairo Declaration of Human Rights in Islam of 1990. Among other things, it states... Article 1A. All humans form a family whose members are united by submission to Allah and who are all descended from Adam. Article 2A. It is forbidden to take someone else's life unless Sharia law requires it. Article 2D. The right to physical integrity is guaranteed. This does not apply if there is a reason prescribed by Sharia law. Article 24. All rights and freedoms mentioned in this declaration are subject to Islamic Sharia law. Article 25. The Islamic Sharia is the sole authoritative source for the interpretation or explanation of each individual article of this declaration. Consequently, all human rights, including the right to life and physical integrity, are subject to Sharia law, and this applies universally. This means nothing other than that divine law takes precedence over human rights. Critics of Islam, therefore, have no right to bodily integrity, since Sharia provides otherwise. Read Article 2D above next to Shura 5, verse 33. Whoever takes action against Islam should lose his hands and feet. Any social order that propagates the inalienable rights of individuals, regardless of their religious convictions, is thus in conflict with Islam. It is the old conflict between rational man-made rules and supposedly divine law. This conflict can be denied, ignored, euphemized, but it cannot be resolved by doing so. A fight for supremacy is inevitable. 
the weaker one will finally be forced to adapt. This process is already in full swing. Here are three examples. 1. My wife grew up in the suburbs of Paris as a child of Senegalese immigrants. Some acquaintances and relatives still live there. They report that in the districts where they used to wear shorts as young women, Muslim young men are now patrolling, enforcing dress codes under the threat of violence, and completely denying women access to certain cafes and restaurants. Other acquaintances of hers who were regular partygoers and free spirits at the time now strictly follow the religious rules, look down on unbelievers and those Muslims who do not follow the religious rules. 2. In the Berlin of 2017, reformer Seyran Etiz opened a liberal mosque in which men and women pray together and women do not have to wear headscarves. She has received more than a hundred death threats from her fellow believers within a short time and can only be seen in public under police protection. Quite a few Muslims have told her that they supported her ideas but feared visiting the liberal mosque. 3. In Algeria, German journalist Schermbeck has seen a secular society oriented towards the West transform into a restrictive Islamic society within a few years, although many people there, perhaps even the majority, did not want it. A radical minority has pushed through its ideology and imposed Islam on the public sphere. People have fallen over like dominoes during this attack. Accepting the rules of the Sharia as binding, they no longer drink alcohol in public, do not play forbidden games, follow religious food rules and rituals, divide people into pure and impure, the women cover themselves, etc. Moreover, once the masses have subjected themselves to the rules of the radicals, they are now exerting collective pressure on those who have not yet fallen over. Summary quote by Michael Klonowski on Schermbeck, 2016. According to a survey conducted in 2013, the following agreement was reached in Islamic countries on the question of whether Sharia law should become the official national law. Tunisia, 56%. Jordan, 71%. Egypt, 74%. Morocco, 83%. Pakistan, 84%. Palestine, 89%. Iraq, 91%. Afghanistan, 99%. This raises the question for every secular society about how to deal with Muslim immigrants, especially from these countries. In principle, there are only three possibilities. 1. Denial of the problem. Religiousness does not matter. Islam is a religion like any other. Western European Solution. 2. Complete Rejection. We refuse to turn our country into a multicultural society of incompatible communities. Eastern European Solution 3. Selection Secular Muslims who explicitly recognize the primacy of worldly rules are welcome, the others are not. Compromise Solution Literally every non-Muslim society in the world must choose a variant considering the respective advantages and disadvantages, and accepting the consequences. The third variant is supported by the fact that one becomes a Muslim by birth, even against one's own will, and many Muslims actually regard religion only as a private matter. 
And there are some subgroups that represent enlightened interpretations of Islam. However, the observation that secular Muslims have also returned to Sharia rule following life crises or due to group pressure, and that the successful integration of Muslims into non-Muslim societies is obviously a worldwide problem, speaks against this. A lasting solution can only be to institutionalize a reformed Islam, as some courageous, enlightened Muslims are already trying to do sometimes at the risk of their own lives. This means accepting the separation of religion and politics and privatizing faith. This includes the recognition of the primacy of secular laws, legal equality between men and women, the right to sexual self-determination, even in the case of homosexuality, and the right to leave religion at any time without fear of any sanctions. Furthermore, this includes the renunciation of the use of force to enforce religious goals, the final and not only temporary abolition of slavery, the repeal of the numerous calls for killing in the Koran, the legal equality of dissenting believers, the renunciation of Islam's doctrine of domination and the admission of criticism of faith and the prophet, to name only the most important points. As long as this has not happened, the Islam problem will remain. It will continue to occupy the world's attention for decades to come. What rights do we now generally concede to religions in a free secular society? In short, no religion should enjoy privileges that do not benefit all other citizens. This means that all laws also apply to religious citizens without restriction. Freedom of religion can only exist as freedom of confession, not as a privilege. This means, for example, that female and male genital mutilation of minors is a punishable offense. Consent is not possible because minors cannot yet legally consent. There can be no difference as to the motives for this assault. It is also irrelevant that most of the time the victims are the offender's own children. Otherwise, all other bodily harm or even homicides against one's own children would also have to be permitted. The same applies to cruelty to animals. If a society has decided to stop cruelty to animals, that is, the unnecessary suffering of animals without good reason, then this must also apply to religious citizens. This concerns, for example, the practice called shafting, that is, the slow bleeding to death of a not-anesthetized animal, because an ancient holy book requires it. And it is not the case that these problems are insurmountable. With a little goodwill, there are possibilities of killing animals according to religious rituals, even in compliance with animal protection laws. And it is easily conceivable that the decision on genital mutilation will be left to those affected once they have reached the age of majority. Religious freedom, on the other hand, which grants privileges to religious members, is counterproductive. It is not a right of freedom, but an unequal treatment for the benefit of those who invoke a religion and at the expense of those who do not. In reality, it is all about power and appeasement, not justice. If a society has rules, they must apply to everyone. Equality before the law is the peacemaking principle of the rule of law. All violations of this principle ultimately lead to discord and social disharmony. Especially in a system based on reciprocity and the golden rule, 
there can be no place for religious privileges. The same applies to criticism of religions or their gods. There can be no right in a free society to be exempt from ridicule or criticism. If religious people do not want to accept this, they should organize themselves in their own societies. Why should people who have fundamentally different views on living together live together at all? This can only cause conflicts. 5. Do Borders Make Sense? We lost control of our borders last year. Now we are beginning to lose control of our streets and squares. Marcus Soder, Bavarian Minister, 2016 Another decisive question for all social systems is that of border security and immigration control. But do we need borders at all? Wouldn't it be great and deeply humane if everyone could settle where they wanted? On the other hand, would it also be great and deeply humane if everyone could build their house where they wanted, regardless of who owns the land? The landowner, at the very least, will see this differently. But not only real estate, but also successful and stable societies are a scarce good. As such, of course, they have a price. This consists, for example, of asking about certain immigration requirements. According to one view, complete freedom of establishment everywhere, and thus the opening of all borders, would result in a doubling of the global gross national product, comparable to the positive effects of free trade, and should be supported for this reason alone. That is the theory. In practice, however, the exact opposite would happen, because several factors and incentives are left out of this consideration. Let's look at this in detail. Guaranteeing Security Secure borders are a guarantee for the internal and external security of a society. Because the easiest way to raise your standard of living is, and remains, taking something away from others. That is why rich countries with open borders will always attract crowds of people who have no respectable intentions. According to estimates by the German police, thousands of members of Georgian burglary gangs came to Germany in the course of the opening of the border in 2015 in order to file applications for asylum. Georgia is considered a safe country of origin, so they knew they had no chance of being accepted as refugees, and to commit commercial burglaries until their applications were finally rejected. With open borders, the possibility of deporting immigrant criminals is also ruled out. Because borders remain open, they can simply come back at any time. The state can no longer fulfill its only legitimate task, namely to protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens. The case of a multiple rapist in Germany can serve as an example. He had already been deported four times, but repeatedly re-entered the country and committed new crimes. The security situation in such a system must continue to deteriorate over time. The crime rate is rising, and what has happened in Sweden and Germany provide impressive proof of this. Germany fully opened its borders in 2015, but in return had to fence in the famous Oktoberfest in 2016 for the first time in its 350-year history and carry out identity checks on entry. Since then, Christmas markets, carnival parades, and major events have had to be secured by heavily armed police, with roadblocks and strict admission controls. Violent crimes of hitherto unknown brutality, 
rape of children and old women, stabbings, mass brawls with iron bars, attacks on police officers, Jews, tram conductors, rescue, and hospital personnel have become a part of everyday life. Even if the probability of being affected personally may still be low, at least for the time being, people have lost the sense that they can move safely in public spaces, and that is a massive competitive disadvantage for any society. The result is that those who can afford to do so migrate to systems that offer greater security. This process has already begun in Germany and elsewhere. You can either have a fence around your house, around your residential area, or around your country. There are no other alternatives, but the further away the fence is, the better the quality of life. Preventing Hostile Takeovers Borders are also about fending off hostile takeovers. They mean limiting other regimes. In part, borders between worldviews that are mutually exclusive are secured by massive military means. For example, the border between West Germany and East Germany during the Cold War of 1948 to 1989. Unsecured borders, on the other hand, offer the possibility of land seizure without the need for military means. If Australia, rich in natural resources, 24 million inhabitants, decided to pursue a policy of open borders, China, for example, might consider simply relocating 30 million merited party members there to bring Australia under its own influence. Nor does it require much imagination what would happen to Israel if it had a policy of open borders. In Europe, too, the intention of land seizure has been openly expressed by Islamists for years. Europeans believe that Muslims only came to Europe to earn money, but Allah has another plan. Nekmetin Erbakan, Turkish Prime Minister, 2001 In the year 2100, there will be 35 million Turks in Germany. The population of the Germans will then be around 20 million. With our strong men and healthy women, we will conclude what Sultan Suleiman began with the siege of Vienna in 1529. Viral Oger, German-Turkish entrepreneur, 2004. By 2050, Britain will have a Muslim majority. This will mean the end of freedom and democracy and, instead, submission to Allah. Anjum Shudaray, British Islam Activist, 2016. In this respect, borders have always been and still are a limitation for others who have different ideas about living together. If the majority of immigrants believe that their religious commandments prevail over the rules of the host country, then this means nothing other than that they want to replace the existing order with another one. But this is not immigration, this is invasion. Whoever brings such people into his country in large numbers creates the conditions for a situation akin to civil war. However, neither regimes with the rule of God nor regimes with civil wars are characterized by particularly high rates of growth and innovation. Just as the invention of generally recognized private property had a highly peacemaking effect, so has the invention of geographical boundaries and their mutual recognition. Those who want to protect their way of life, their culture, or their material and ideal values, those who want to live in peace, freedom, and self-determination, must keep those who do not outside.
Otherwise, they will eventually make up a sufficiently large number and try to seize power. Protection of Acquired Rights The written and unwritten rules of a society, its institutions, its social system, and its infrastructure were usually built up and financed over a long period of time. Anyone who participated in this, even if it was through forced tax payments, has acquired a legal position similar to ownership. However, if additional users of these services come from outside without paying for them, less remains for the individual payer. This applies in particular to the social system. The same is true of other public services such as infrastructure, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, public roads and buildings, assistance abroad, embassies, consulates, and, above all, security, police, army, border guards. Any successful system can absorb a certain number of immigrants, even unskilled ones, especially if they are willing to assimilate. But at some point, such immigration turns into a burden. Substantially more must then be invested in security at the expense of other areas, Social security systems are becoming increasingly insolvent. Old age provision, especially in pay-as-you-go systems, is weakening, and the entire infrastructure is being burdened by mass immigration, and the payments made by citizens are being devalued as a result. Such an immigration against the will of the resident population is, in fact, a partial expropriation of the same, and thus a violation of property rights. If the circle of those entitled to such rights is extended by the government at will or even against applicable law, then it is imperative to expect resistance from those who have built up and financed these standards, including a civilized, peaceful environment built up over years and decades and whose claims are thereby diminished. Anyone who calls for the right of everyone to participate in this property-like legal position through immigration is in principle no different from a communist who calls for everyone to share their home and their assets with everyone in need. If the welfare state is abolished, or if immigrants are excluded from the right to social benefits, the problem will be eased but will not disappear. The burden on security and infrastructure remains, especially when people come who expressly want to abolish the existing system. No one can be expected to passively accept the destruction of his social order. The same applies in new societies. For example, if they recruited citizens on the premise of admitting only qualified and tested immigrants, a sudden departure from this principle would be seen by the existing citizens as an impairment of their rights. Maintaining Social Harmony Societies whose inhabitants have mutually exclusive basic beliefs are conflict-ridden, fragile, and achieve worse results than those based on shared basic values. In successful immigrant societies, immigrants assimilate over time. The willingness to do so is an obligation expected of all who come. At the very least, immigrants must respect the ideas and beliefs of the existing society. Otherwise, there will be considerable conflicts that are likely to destroy social harmony. Therefore, all successful immigrant societies at all times have demanded from their new citizens a certain amount of adaptation. Especially when their number is manageable, this works. Then, the pressure to adapt is there and the immigrants begin to assimilate themselves. 
But parallel societies of immigrants, such as the Amish or some Chinatowns, are also possible as long as they do not aggressively rebel against the rules of the society at large. It is an ancient achievement of civilization to respect the customs and traditions of foreign countries when you come there as a visitor or immigrant. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. On the other hand, those who regard the host society as inferior and refuse to observe certain rules and customs that are widespread, or even hold them in contempt, should not be surprised if the mood of the indigenous population becomes hostile. If there are large groups of people who are known to be violent and unwilling to integrate, then their presence will seriously disturb social harmony. With open borders, this process becomes uncontrollable. If most immigrants are recruited from such groups, small social policy adjustments, such as a renunciation of minimum wages, will no longer help. You have then imported a problem that you didn't have before. A right to immigration? Most people readily accept that there is no right to settle on property against the will of the landowner. In this case, however, the variant derived from this, namely that landowners and other residents join forces and agree on immigration rules for their entire area, must also be permissible. Here, too, freedom of contract must be regarded as an outflow of freedom of action. This can also be construed as a negative contractual freedom, that is, the right not to contract with someone. It is naive to see the solution in the sole right of the landowner to decide on immigration into his property. How do you even get to his property without going through the land of others who may own roads and airports and reject immigration? But even if this were possible, it would be easy for organized crime to acquire a large piece of forest land and accommodate a thousand burglars who then go on night raids to their neighbor's property. In reality, such models will sooner or later always lead to landowners uniting and creating a community that will then regulate and control immigration into a larger area. If countries like the U.S., Switzerland, or city-states like Singapore, Dubai, or Monaco were to open their doors to everyone, as intellectuals suggest, the following would happen. In a very short time, a huge trafficking industry would emerge, which, by ship and plane, would produce a never-ending stream of millions and millions, mainly of young men from developing countries, often attracted under false promises. It is therefore of secondary importance what benefits immigrants actually receive in the destination countries. Their mere number will massively overload the existing infrastructure, schools, hospitals, city centers. Since a large proportion of these immigrants do not speak the national language, often do not even know how to read or write, and have different ideas about work and discipline, only a minority will find gainful employment. The others, often marked by tribal or clan structures, will organize themselves into ethnic or religious groups and, if necessary, take what they need by force. Ever larger areas could only be entered under danger to life and limb. Resistance from the local population, too, will sooner or later become violent. There will be a comprehensive radicalization within the fragmented groups and in their mutual relations. Peaceful coexistence would be severely impaired. Economic output would go into decline. Even if other processes are theoretically conceivable, 
we get only one try. If this goes wrong, existing high cultures will be irrevocably destroyed. And whether this risk should be taken cannot be decided, in existing and new social orders, against the will of the local population, the ones who are mainly affected and the bearers of attendant rights. The right to a self-determined life implies that I choose who I want to live with. Anyone who negates this should be prepared for considerable resistance. The Fallacy These people never intended to adopt our system of values and to abide by our legal system. All integration efforts had to fail from the outset. Karl Heinz Gartner, former Chief Commissioner on Arab Clans in Berlin the open border dogma, a typical intellectual brainchild, has what it takes to destroy within one or two generations civilizations that have taken more than a thousand years to grow. But where is the fundamental error of this teaching? It is the assumption that all people are equal and, if only the right institutions are established and some education is given to them, success will set in by itself. That would be nice, but it's probably not that easy. Imagine that the landlocked states of Switzerland and the Central African Republic would exchange all their populations, leaving behind all their assets and the respective institutions. What would happen? Switzerland would go down. The Central African Republic would blossom. Why is that so? Because the inhabitants of Switzerland and the CAR are so different, especially with regard to their cognitive competence. How and why this has developed so differently cannot and need not be decided here. Cultural influences, climate, geography, religion, genetic, and even epigenetic factors are all possible candidates, which may even influence each other in whatever proportion. Societies are complex entities that have developed unwritten rules of coexistence through culture, descent, assimilation, tradition, and lived social orders. Their members have the appropriate cognitive competence. Simply imposing a new order does not yet create a successful community. Positive developments are also possible in sub-Saharan Africa, as the examples of Botswana and Rwanda show. But take time. Sometimes a very long time. My company was, at the time, building a tungsten mine in Queensland, Australia. Within the framework of the licensing procedure, seven jobs were contractually promised to the local Aborigines and also set up. After just three weeks, only one of the seven showed up for work. How can such a high failure rate be explained when Australia has undoubtedly created inclusive economic institutions that are also open to indigenous people? There must be other reasons. Another example. In Germany, parallel societies in the form of Arab clans have continued to expand for years. Their profession is drugs, extortion, and medication trafficking. Due to the family structures, the police are not able to infiltrate undercover investigators. Pressure is exerted on investigating officers. Witnesses and judges are threatened, as are the lawyers of injured parties. A lawyer reports that the brutality extends even to family members. He himself had learned that a head of a family had ordered the killing of two daughters. How can such structures be transformed into inclusive institutions? What will be stronger, 
the clan, or the rules of the community. It should be noted that the children of these clans usually attend German public schools and receive at least, theoretically, the appropriate education and values that make up a functioning society. The right institutions, such as the guarantee of property rights, personal and economic freedoms, and the binding of administration to law and order, are therefore a necessary but not a sufficient criterion. Personal behavior, attitudes, and values are what make these institutions effective. Without self-discipline, diligence, recognition of principle of merit, self-criticism, the recognition of the primacy of legal principles over family ties, the renunciation of violence as a means of resolving disputes, the renunciation of revenge in favor of formalized court proceedings, and also the fundamental acceptance of the golden rule towards dissenters and disbelievers, it will be difficult to build a successful and prosperous society. It is difficult, if not impossible, to convey such values to people who come from completely different cultures and are unwilling to assimilate. Anyone who lets people from pre-modern civilizations into his country on a massive scale also welcomes in the behaviors of pre-modern civilizations on a massive scale. One will then import exactly what makes developing countries developing countries. The host society will itself gradually become a developing country. In order not to endanger the prosperity and stability of one's own social order, a pre-selection of immigrants is therefore indispensable. This applies to both existing and new systems. The mere fact that adults elsewhere bring more children into the world than they can feed or are unable to build a functioning society does not impose an obligation on other societies to accept them. Voluntary help is good, but it must and can be provided on the ground. More on this in Chapter 11. And a society can, of course, choose to accept unqualified immigrants of all kinds for humanitarian or other reasons. However, this is then an autonomous decision of the host society, not a legal claim of the immigrants. Even their motives, such as political asylum, cannot change this principle. In this regard, too, there can be no right to live at the expense of others. 6. What holds societies together? The liberal, secularized state lives on preconditions that it cannot guarantee by itself. Ernst Wolfgang Bockenford, legal philosopher and judge on the German Constitutional Court. The establishment of a legal and regulatory framework and the guarantee of security are necessary prerequisites for a functioning society. But are they also sufficient? In other words, do we need more forces of cohesion in order to achieve a permanently stable social order? The question is unresolved. Let us take a look at the various factors that may be relevant. Equality If we pretend that everyone is equal while they are not, the system will not work. This is a fact of life. Lee Kuan Yew, founder of Modern Singapore it follows from the fact that people are very different that equal treatment must lead to inequality in their actual positions and that the only way to put them in equal positions would be to treat them unequally. Equality before the law and material equality are mutually exclusive. 
Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Social Philosopher. People are different, and in order to do justice to each individual, everyone would have to be treated differently in every situation in life. Within the family and small group, it is possible to live together according to this pattern. The mother will treat her children quite differently, knowing about their abilities and differences. A flat-sharing community will take more consideration for less gifted flatmates, and so on. However, this model is only suitable for designing very small social spaces. The attempt to apply this pattern of care to all relationships that arise in anonymous mass societies is doomed to failure for lack of information about the respective characteristics of those affected. The obvious solution is therefore to subject all people to the same rules in large groups, regardless of the person or position. Equal rights for all, that is, equality before the law, is a necessary criterion for the lasting stability of a social order. Because nobody can do anything for his innate talent, but can do something about the arbitrary, unequal treatment of others. Again, the reciprocity manifested in the Golden Rule applies. Why should one be granted privileges and the other not? Nonetheless, unequal treatment may sometimes be necessary. It requires, however, a factual reason in the person of the individual concerned. For example, the rule that 12-year-olds are not allowed to drive a car is just as appropriate as the extension of the examination period for people with writing disabilities. The fact that some whites held black slaves in the past, however, does not justify a legal discrimination against all whites today or a preference for all blacks today. The crisis of Western systems is also due to the fact that the current dominant discourse allows these privileges into the system via the construction of victim groups, thereby undermining equality before the law. At the same time, while differences are emphasized, a common identity is destroyed. This is not going to work out. A widespread view is that inequality of wealth is a serious problem and the cause of many systemic crises. I doubt that. Can you, dear readers, not sleep at night for anger because Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, the Queen of England, or footballer Cristiano Ronaldo have so immeasurably more money than you? In fact, very few people seem to have a problem with this. They are more concerned about the immediate surroundings, siblings, neighbors, friends. If this peer group is, for whatever reason, more successful than oneself, or if one does not achieve the goals one has set in life, the probability is certainly higher that one will listen to the priests of social justice. In reality, however, one knows or senses that one's neighbor may have made better decisions, is more capable, or simply did the right thing at the right time. Envy is a constant companion of man, but basically most people can live with inequality. This is particularly true when there is some degree of equal opportunity, which means that what the neighbor is doing could have been done by me as well. If my neighbor is more qualified, I should have the opportunity to receive appropriate training and not be excluded from it for reasons unrelated to the subject, for example, because I have the wrong skin color or the wrong sex. Moreover, people are not the same and do not want to be the same. In Mao's time, when China was still an extremely egalitarian system, the uniforms in the People's Liberation Army were identical for everyone. 
There were no rank badges. The experienced captain wore the same uniform as the young corporal. Now this captain had not only more experience, but also much more responsibility, for example, as company commander. In fact, the communist officers and non-commissioned officers also wanted a visible sign of their position based on experience and performance. That is why the Chinese army reintroduced rank badges in 1988. We don't look the same, nor are we equally intelligent, diligent, talented, and so on. Contrary to popular belief, we are not even born the same, but inherit very different predispositions from our parents. Provided that people enjoy economic freedom, an inequality of financial circumstances will automatically arise under otherwise equal conditions. One could go even further and say that if all assets were confiscated tomorrow and then evenly distributed among all people, this unequal distribution of skills alone would mean that after a few years, there would once again be a comparatively diverse financial situation. But is that really a problem? Chinese sources report that for many families only one meal a day was available in the 1980s. Today, all Chinese throughout China can be supplied with more than enough food. During this period, inequality has increased according to the Gini coefficient, because the granting of economic freedom has ensured that the gifted could develop. It is unlikely that the Chinese want to return to the 1980s, despite there having been greater equality at that time. None of the last three German revolutions, 1848, 1918, and 1989, took place because of the inequality of wealth, but turned against the privileges of a ruling class and the denial of civil rights. Even in 1918, after the Social Democrats came to power, there was no redistribution of wealth. The attempt to banish envy from the world by creating equality is doomed to failure. For even if all were made materially equal, there would still be minute differences. Then these tiny differences would become the subject of envy. And why just look at differences in economic success? One has made a fortune, but the other looks good. A third is charming and popular, yet others are good musicians, athletes, or scientists. What about this inequality of different talents and abilities, or the difference in appearance? Shouldn't state redistribution also take place here? Isn't it socially unfair when the tall, handsome man gets many more and more beautiful women than the small, fat man? Shouldn't he share some of them with the fat one? Because behind the veil of ignorance, Rawls, he could also have been born as a short-grown pudge. Or perhaps the fat little man will be spurred on to do great things in other areas for the sake of self-esteem and because he can impress his environment and the women in this way. Isn't it precisely this disadvantage in certain areas that motivates us to explore and make the best possible use of our very own abilities and talents? In the end, each of us has a handicap or two. Throughout my life, I have met many people who were intelligent and talented, and yet made less of their lives than others who built up their own small craft business after high school and founded a family, were rooted and recognized in local associations, feeling comfortable with themselves and the world. People are so diverse and different, and the opportunities to be active in the most varied areas grow with technological progress and global networking. 
there are more and more niches. In this way, everyone can make the best of their abilities. If, under reasonable and equal rules for all, one person has great economic success and another does not, is this not more acceptable to everyone than the granting of privileges to allegedly disadvantaged groups and general restrictions on freedom by the rulers? Especially since anyone who fails at one project can always try again to be successful on another. The assertion that all people are equal is not only a false, but the root of most political evils of modern times. Instead, the following must apply. Every human being is unique. Let them do the best they can and give them the freedom to do so. Justice and the Common Good The egalitarian society of social justice is an unlucky, a non-sensual, unerotic, totally unfriendly society. Jürgen Kessler, Cabaret Historian But shouldn't an orientation towards justice and the common good be an essential part of any social order? Let me give you an example. The first program conference of the New German Opposition Party, AFD, which had started as an alternative to the existing parties, reported that the party leader was able to assert herself by including in the new party program subsidies for the city orchestras she appreciated, since they were, according to her, an important cultural asset. This means, however, that if the AFD gets its way, 95% of people who never attend such concerts will have to finance the cultural enjoyment of the other 5%. And that's because the party leader needed the attention. Corresponding demands are also made by each established party. This brings us to a fundamental problem that will not be solved by democratic decision-making either. It begins with seemingly harmless things such as cultural subsidies and ends with the stipulation of what individuals should eat, what opinion they should have, and how they should have their children educated. Both are founded on justice and the common good. These terms suggest objective values which, however, cannot be determined or justified in practice. Statements in this regard do not stand up to critical scrutiny. If you leave the level of basic needs, then people have different values and also different life situations, different preferences and interests. What about a rock musician who has advanced contemporary music culture with his compositions but has passed the zenith of his popularity? Why shouldn't his concerts also be subsidized by the state? Or take this example. A state-prescribed minimum wage is intended to benefit the low-income earners but causes higher unemployment among them. Isn't the abolition of minimum wages more in the public interest? Or this. Nuclear energy is a clean and inexpensive form of energy. Is it not, therefore, in the public interest to allow nuclear energy instead of banning it because of the fear of accidents? The list goes on. Does it serve the general public to do without genetically modified food, or should we rather promote it because it can save vast amounts of pesticides and feed more people? As so often, the answers depend on the observer's point of view and are ultimately questions of values and trade-offs. However, this is the case in all areas where the so-called common good is at issue. The assertion of an objective truth is, in this respect, actually only the statement of one's own subjective view. 
Those who appeal to the common good in this sense want to ensure that others do what they want. They claim for their own will a priority over the will of others. However, there can be no objectively common good beyond the satisfaction of basic needs or objective justice if we accept that we are different and therefore have different interests and values. There is therefore no need for action for all of us in this respect. Equally, egoists and hedonists, who can sustain themselves at their own expense and leave others alone, do not pose a problem. On the contrary, the problem are those who do forcibly squeeze resources out of others or set rules against their will in order to prevent supposed egoism and hedonism. The necessary core of justice as a state objective consists of the freedom from arbitrariness and the principle of equal treatment of citizens, in particular equality before the law. In other words, equal rights, but not equality in terms of results. Common Identity Unrestricted tolerance leads with necessity to the disappearance of tolerance. For if we extend unlimited tolerance even to intolerance, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant social order against the attacks of intolerance, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. We should therefore, in the name of tolerance, claim the right not to tolerate the intolerant. Karl Popper, Philosopher Singapore is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious community and fully aware that this is not an advantage but a challenge and difficulty. The concept of social harmony, also used here, stems from Singapore and describes the situation that the different groups of society can live not only peacefully side by side, but harmoniously together. This should indeed be the goal of any social order because it results in considerable gains in social and economic cooperation, also known as social capital. Communities that share a common identity, whether based on descent, culture, language, or religion, or even all of them together, have an easier time creating social harmony. Values and actions that all consider to be right have been imprinted and established for centuries, if not for thousands of years. Immigrants have fully assimilated themselves. That creates cohesion. The more homogeneous a society is, the easier it is for things to be implemented that require the consensual cooperation of everyone. These include social security systems based on reciprocity and joint efforts in times of war and crisis. The question is whether a common identity is imperative for the functioning of a society. The United States is a prime example of how even heterogeneous immigrant societies can succeed, at the expense of the indigenous population, admittedly. However, as Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out long ago, it should be noted that in the case of the USA in particular, a new common identity has been created which citizens were particularly keen to observe. Recently, this principle seems to have been given up, and we will all see what the result will be. The notion that diversity of ethnicities and cultures in one system is an advantage, which is popular today, is ultimately only an unproven claim. Nobody knows whether societies like the Japanese or Korean, which explicitly demand cultural and ethnic homogeneity, are not superior in the long run. 
It seems plausible that the more different people are, the more difficult cooperation is. However, predictions from the 1980s that Germany and Japan, for example, would overtake the U.S. economically because of their homogeneity have also not come true. A major reason for this is that the U.S. has simply attracted talent from all over the world and managed to integrate everyone into its system. So it is apparently possible without ethnic homogeneity, at least as far as there is a guiding, overarching culture that is binding for everyone. Of course, it is in no way conducive to the prosperous coexistence of people to force concepts that are incompatible with one another together by means of a rotten compromise. All attempts to do so are comparable to the idea of getting a red wine lover and a white wine lover to consume rosé. Both then have something with which they are latently dissatisfied. Those who believe that property is theft cannot create a meaningful intersection with someone who believes that private property is a prerequisite for prosperity and freedom. Whoever believes that all the rules of his religion originate directly from God and therefore take precedence over all human actions cannot create a meaningful intersection with someone who believes that rules must be made by men according to rational standards and that they must apply to everyone, including members of religion. The creation of a common identity, and thus of social capital, is not possible under such contrary conditions. Cohesion. Many roads lead to Rome. How can this integration be accomplished, or how can social harmony be achieved in new communities? Basically, there are three possibilities. Either you accept only members of a certain ethnic, cultural, or religious group, or you try to establish a new common identity, or you leave it with the different groups. But then you take other measures to ensure that the relationships between the groups remain stable. Singapore goes the latter way, which even determines how high the respective proportion of Chinese, Malay, or Indians may be per residential block. The city-state encourages the different ethnic groups to continue to cultivate their own culture and language in addition to the compulsory language English. In addition, there are joint military conscription, extensive social programs, and targeted support for certain groups. Leaving the special situation of Singapore aside, the question arises as to whether this effort is necessary. Dubai is an example of how a community can be successful and in demand without any forces promoting ethnic, religious, and cultural cohesion. How is that possible? One view is that there is no need for common values, only laws that everyone must respect. That's a little short of the point. If, in a society, for example, there is no longer general agreement about allowing dissenting opinions, worldviews, and lifestyles, then even respective laws will be of no use. The group in power will eventually cause the laws to be changed in terms of their values. This is ultimately also the reason for the increasing social disintegration of Western countries. Those who want to sanction views and behavior that deviate from their own ideas have prevailed. This is already indicated by the concept of political correctness. In a pluralistic society, there can be no such thing, since the assessment of what is correct and what is not naturally varies from person to person.
A basic consensus is therefore needed in such a way that a pluralistic society is desirable and those who want to abolish it are undesirable. And so it is also in Dubai. The degradation of other religions or the work of hate preachers are not tolerated there. In addition to the tax advantages, European or American immigrants to Dubai mention the possibility of being able to operate economically without major hurdles. The fact that one enjoys extensive freedom of action, is left alone by the state, and is not bothered with all sorts of politically correct behavioral guidelines and redistribution programs. Dubai appears to be so attractive that immigrants even accept the application of Sharia law, which is usually not enforced, but sometimes is, and also the fact that they are not granted citizenship and indirectly have to pay for citizens who have extensive privileges with regard to housing, pensions, and health insurance. See Chapter 9, Dubai. There are therefore indications that an attractive regulatory framework is sufficient to establish a successful community as long as the basic consensus thus created is not changed again by the respective rulers. The content of this framework can be very different. Of course, it has not been proven that the relatively new entities, USA, Singapore, or Dubai, will survive the 21st century. The opening quotation by Bockenford means, in this respect, that for the continued existence of a free, secular community, there must be a corresponding basic conviction among the citizenry, because the state cannot force such a community on anyone. If it did, it would no longer be a free community. The erosion of the rule of law in Germany and elsewhere, for example, shows that this is not an unfounded fear. There are two ways of countering the Bakkenford dilemma. On the one hand, people who reject the existing order are not allowed to immigrate in the first place. And on the other hand, those who violate freedom, such as political or religious extremists, are expelled from the country. This is easy if they have immigrated and have a different nationality. City-states like Singapore, Dubai, or Monaco handle this accordingly. However, the case of expatriation and expulsion of one's own citizens is also conceivable if a corresponding agreement has been concluded with another state. Expulsion or non-renewal of the right of residence is, of course, a significant interference with the rights of the persons concerned. But if the mechanism is known in advance, the facts of the case are clearly defined, and the measure is subject to judicial review, then this does not change the overall character of a free system. Anyone who rejects this out of supposed liberality, that is, shows tolerance towards intolerance, should not be surprised if his system is replaced by another after some time. Of course, it is not possible to maintain a system of freedom in the long term if a large majority of the inhabitants reject it. However, since this does not happen overnight, the question always arises as to how the change of mind came about and whether this could not have been prevented. Today, mobility is greater than in the past, and there is the possibility of a large number of like-minded people coming together to create and defend new communities based on shared fundamental values. If at some point their living together doesn't work out, the last safety valve left will be secession. Humans are and will remain herd animals and have a need for community and belonging. 
This can arise from ethnic, cultural, or religious homogeneity, but it does not have to. Pure communities of values and consensus are also conceivable, which then develop their own identity and culture over time. Chapter 5 Conclusions All political power tends to act without barriers and to extend its sphere of influence as far as possible, to control everything, not to leave any room in which things can happen freely without the intervention of the authorities. That is the goal to which every ruler secretly strives. Ludwig von Mises, Economist Most of the major ills of the world have been caused by well-meaning people who were obsessed with fanatical zeal to improve the lot of mankind in the mass through some pet formula of their own. The harm done by ordinary criminals, murderers, gangsters, and thieves is negligible in comparison with the agony inflicted upon human beings by the professional do-gooders, who attempt to set themselves up as gods on earth and who would ruthlessly force their views on all others with the abiding assurance that the end justifies the means. Henry Grady, Journalist Politics is, by its very nature, cooperation-inhibiting intervention. It destroys liberty in every form it has. There is therefore no right policy in the sense of liberty. Only the consistent abstinence from politics produces and maintains liberty. Rolf W. Puster, Philosopher It is not a new realization that unrestricted power, which also has a monopoly of force, represents a very considerable danger to those who are subject to it. The principle of democracy, the rule of law, human rights catalogs, the principle of subsidiarity, or the principle of the separation of powers are attempts to limit power. Unfortunately, compliance with these principles is entrusted to people who, in turn, are conditioned according to the minimum principle and seek to expand their power. To avoid problems caused by human ambition, we give more power to certain humans. This cannot work in the long run. Therefore, these principles will sooner or later erode. At some point, it doesn't matter which party wins the election, because to maintain power, everyone forms a coalition with everyone else. Law and order are changed by the majority at will, which largely eliminates the role of the judiciary as a check on power. The other, separation of powers, has in fact also been abolished, since the government controls the executive and the legislature simultaneously via its parliamentary majority. Unwanted results of referendums are ignored by the government or their implementation is delayed. That this is possible at all is due to the fact that all previous systems are based on system of domination and subordination. One side orders, the other must obey. One side is constantly changing the rules of the game, the other cannot do anything about it. Unfortunately, this also applies to the rules intended to protect the individual. Moreover, the respective rulers bear no economic consequences for their decisions, remain legally immune from liability, and have no enforceable obligations towards the ruled. Such power without liability corrupts everyone in the end. If governments go too far, they are either voted out of office, in democracies, or overthrown, in autocracies and dictatorships. 
Then a new government comes along and the same game starts all over again. There is still no solution to the question of how we can prevent the group in power from gaining ever more powers, enriching themselves to the detriment of the population, largely excluding them from decision-making, and finally bringing about the ruin and collapse of the system. It is therefore time to try out new mechanisms to limit power. The following recommendations are derived from the findings gained so far. 1. The Disempowerment of Politics All systems are about political power, but it is precisely in democracies that there is a constant free-for-all battle over who exercises it. Society is divided into various groups that want to impose their ideas on all others, or at least have the others pay for them. An enormous amount of time, energy, and money is spent on getting the government or the parliament to pass or prevent certain laws. Political activists, in particular, will never rest. They create and fill positions that are state-financed and in which they receive a regular income without providing any measurable goods or services in return. They can then use this position to permanently agitate. Political ideas that deny personal responsibility for one's own failure and at the same time postulate a right to live at the expense of others will always be popular. They are simply the easiest way to increase one's standard of living and mental well-being. Of course, such systems cannot function permanently. They inevitably destroy themselves over time. The combination of the minimum principle, non-liability, and herd mentality means that sooner or later all democracies will become welfare states that will establish increasingly totalitarian rules and ultimately run out of money. There is no way around this insight. A system, however legitimate, which by law provides for expropriations in favor of third parties, for example in the form of taxes and Social Security contributions, and to which not all those concerned have agreed to in advance, can create neither peaceful nor predictable cooperation. It destroys the foundations and results of voluntary cooperation through state power. It successively annihilates what makes a society successful and attractive and leads to a fight of all against all for the implementation of regulations favorable to some at the expense of others. The only remedy is to remove power from politics in general. The fewer areas of life politics controls, the less important it is who controls or influences politicians. Anyone who wants to avoid receiving special benefits from the government at the expense of third parties must create a system of government that cannot grant special benefits at all. 2. A Genuine Social Contract We have also seen that our fictitious social contract is an inadmissible contract at the expense of third parties. Instead, formal equality on the basis of personal assent to a genuine contract would be appropriate, even and especially if one of the contractual partners is economically stronger than the other. Such equality is the basis of all private law systems, that is, the collections of laws and decisions that regulate the relationship between private parties. Both parties have the same rights and obligations. Each rule applies symmetrically to both. Only this strict reciprocity has made it possible for private law systems to be generally accepted and, for example, for the principles of Roman law to continue to be valid today. 
In contemporary government systems, however, not only the level of taxes, but also the content and number of laws are unpredictable and are subject to constant change. As a rule, the citizen concerned has no way of taking action against it. If the courts stop a law once, then politics will quickly make a new one. The constantly swelling flood of regulations is a burden and a constant source of uncertainty, especially for companies. The same applies to private individuals who want to plan their retirement pension or simply pursue their preferences. Things that were allowed yesterday are already forbidden today. A true social contract worthy of its name therefore requires the expressed prior consent of all those concerned. It must be sufficiently specific and must not be unilaterally alterable. In this respect, redistributive systems are also possible, but only to the extent that all the potential payers have agreed. Forced redistribution, on the other hand, leads to constant struggles for distribution, leading to discord and social disharmony. False incentives are also set by punishing increased performance and rewarding reduced performance. In a true contractual society of equal partners, it is not acceptable to make regulations at the expense of third parties simply to expropriate contractual parties or to put excessive obstacles to termination in their path. In this respect, there is a simple rule of thumb. Every genuine social contract or every constitution should be compatible with general principles of private law. This also means that there is no right to live at the expense of others beyond family or contractually agreed claims. 3. The Granting of Personal and Economic Freedom In order for the beneficial effects of voluntary cooperation to unfold optimally, extensive liberty must be granted. In a human community, however, freedom can never be without limits. In the sense of the golden rule, it is limited by the freedom of others and the regulatory framework that regulates peaceful and conflict-free cooperation in the spirit of a balanced settlement of interests. Within this framework, which may be different depending on subjective preference or target group, the more freedom societies grant, the more successful they are. This applies to both economic and personal liberties. Of course, this also includes responsibility and liability for the consequences of one's own conduct. It is not possible to grant economic freedom without any personal freedom. This is not a sustainable solution because economic freedom leads to people becoming more self-confident once they have realized what they can do on their own. They then discover that those who govern them are by no means more qualified or wiser than they are, and that denying their personal freedoms is a purely arbitrary act of the rulers. On the other hand, those who can lead a self-determined life are, on average, more content and happier because they can say and write what they think, join forces with like-minded people at will, and decide for themselves which agreements they make with, which content, and with whom or not. Accordingly, free societies will refrain from forcibly redistributing, obligating to contract, regulating private life, or granting privileges to certain groups or individuals. In this way, they automatically develop into meritocracies in which the best takes a position solely on the basis of his performance. Compared to systems that discriminate differently, 
for example, by setting gender or even ethnic origin requirements for filling certain positions, quotas for women or ethnic diversity, etc., meritocracies are therefore necessarily superior. Even a system that ties 95% of the population up to help the 5% who cannot help themselves has no long-term chance of success compared with a system in which 95% of the inhabitants are free and able to pursue their desired activities. After some time, productivity in the free system will be so high that the remaining 5% can be helped more effectively and on a voluntary basis. Subsequently, all inhabitants in the free system will be better off. 4. The Guarantee of Private Property Without property, there is no free pricing, no incentive to create anything of lasting value for oneself or one's family, no peacemaking effect, and no commitment to a particular community. It is therefore essential to grant private property, including property in the means of production and land, and to restrict it as little as possible. However, regulations that specify the details of ownership are required, such as how far the right extends into the air overflight rights, and into the ground, natural resources, tunneling, which impacts are to be tolerated, noises, smells, rights of way, and which activities are also to be prohibited or only permitted to a limited extent, explosives, radioactivity, toxic substances, exhaust gases, and waste, due to their dangerous nature for others near the property in question. Furthermore, regulations need to specify whether the ownership of the land differs from the ownership of the house built on it and whether special forms of ownership can arise, for example, in condominiums. The acquisition, transfer, and inheritance of property should be uncomplicated and legally secure for both individuals and companies. 5. The Rule of Law and Equality Before the Law any existing rules must apply to everyone, including those in power and those running the society. Furthermore, rules and sanctions must not be pursued selectively. Differing treatment is only permissible if there is a factual reason. Religion must be a private matter, and its practice is free as such, but does not entitle anyone to any privileges. In particular, access to economic activity must not depend on relationships or group privileges. Equality before the law or before the contractually agreed rules is a basic prerequisite for long-term stability. Less is more. The more rules and laws there are, the greater the probability that they will only be applied selectively, the greater the likelihood that they will create loopholes and exceptions that knowledgeable persons will be able to exploit. In the end, legal uncertainty is greater when there are more laws. The over-complexity of the present system must therefore not be countered with equally or more complex new regulations, but with a few clear rules and sanctions, which will also be consistently implemented. Gaps in regulation can be closed within the framework of existing legal principles. If necessary, rights can be developed further by court decisions. 6. Competition through small size and subsidiarity Human power must be limited. Guaranteed legal positions of the individual under the social contract, which can be claimed before independent arbitration courts, are a first step. 
But competition has proved to be the only permanently effective means of limiting human power. For this reason alone, a multitude and diversity of communities is desirable. In fact, even not exceeding a certain size is a value in itself, because otherwise control or even just compliance with the existing rules and processes is hardly possible anymore. The decision-makers are then too far away from the real problems to make appropriate or even just well-informed decisions. Knowledge is always decentralized. According to the principle of subsidiarity, problems should be solved as far as possible by the individual, the smallest group or the lowest level of an organizational hierarchy. When applied to communities, this means either dividing the community when it grows beyond a certain size or introducing additional levels of autonomy. Diversity and competition are necessary not only as a means of limiting power, but also for gaining knowledge and further development. Every evolution requires diversity. This must necessarily be the case with a system based on trial and error. Unfortunately, since the beginning of time, it has been the concern of politics and religion to destroy this diversity of human coexistence in favor of uniform solutions. Therefore, alternative forms of society must firstly be allowed, and secondly, citizens must not be prevented from exiting the system. Anyone who does not want freedom but a communitarian atmosphere and social warmth has every right in the world to seek that out. But he has no right to detain or restrain those who prefer freedom against their will or to force them to finance his desired way of life. Ultimately, a system is successful if people want to live in it voluntarily. Whether it is based on pure doctrine or a mix of different ideologies is of secondary importance. Anything that is in demand is permitted as long as participation is voluntary. Social orders that only work if people are held in them against their will and forced to behave in a certain way will fail in the long run anyway. If you have a good product, you do not have to fear criticism or competition and therefore do not need to prohibit or regulate it. 7. Defense The best man can't live in peace if the bad neighbor won't let him. A policy of appeasement never works because it is always perceived as weakness. It can, at best, mean a short-term postponement of the inevitable confrontation. Property-supporting systems in particular must therefore ensure that those who reject private property can be fended off if necessary. For example, when they come and want to get what they think they are entitled to anyway. The same applies to the defense against all other aggressors and to the sanctioning of breaches of internal rules. There is no power vacuum in human coexistence. Those who do not insist on their values and remain prepared to defend them by force will have to accept the values of others. The one who forges all his swords into plowshares plows in the end for those who have kept their swords. Therefore, internal and external defenses are indispensable. This includes border security, control, and selection of immigrants. A monopoly of force is likely to be necessary in the future, too, if peace within a society is to be secured in the long term. The elementary right to self-defense and defense of others must not, of course, be ruled out. 8. Cohesion through a consensus on values 
Living together in a society requires a certain basic consensus about the rules that apply there. Anyone who wants a state that is merely a service provider so that he can develop at his own discretion should not be living with people who regard the state as a super nanny who relieves them of all of life's risks and also fights to redress any and all grievances in the world, real or imagined. The same applies to those who advocate universal human rights, including the right to change their religion, to ridicule gods, and who believe in equality between men and women. They should not live with people who reject those rights because their God dictates otherwise. Whoever objects to the concept of private property will probably reject almost everything proposed here. In this respect, no compromise is possible. Either the individual has the right to acquire property, or he does not. Ultimately, third ways gradually lead to the deprivation of the owner's rights. The only peacekeeping solution is to spatially separate incompatible worldviews or to expel those who interfere with them. Otherwise, there will be a constant struggle for power because the respective concepts are mutually exclusive. If, however, the views are spatially separated, peaceful trade and occasional cooperation between the systems becomes possible. 9. Setting the Right Incentive Structure Current systems provide incentives for rulers to enrich themselves at the expense of society, to waste other people's money to increase their prestige, and to buy votes by having the state provide supposedly free benefits. Whether the system is more democratic or more authoritarian is of secondary importance. The misplaced incentives are comparable. Authoritarian orders only work better as long as the people at the top are strong in integrity and leadership. But all systems whose success depends on particularly competent people being at the top have no chance of survival in the long run. New approaches must therefore be designed in such a way that they can survive even without ingenious leaders. A new, long-term, stable social order must require those in charge of the social order to 1. Have an economic interest in the success of the society, skin in the game. 2. Be held liable for errors, coupling of power and responsibility. 3. Allow their citizens to leave or secede at any time without financial or other obstacles, allowing competition. 4. Be unable to grant special benefits to individual groups or citizens. Avoidance of lobbying, corruption, and struggles over state largesse. 5. Have clearly defined written obligations and competences which cannot be changed unilaterally. Legal certainty, predictability. 6. Can be sued by the parties concerned in the event of differences before independent courts or arbitration bodies neutral arbitration. It becomes clear, for example, that even the Western states actually only fulfill the last criterion, often with caveats, since only certain organs can sue the government. The legal security and predictability actually provided for by the constitutions is no longer given in state practice, since those in power, with their parliamentary majorities and by the appointment of judges, can largely arbitrarily control both the wording and interpretation of the Constitution. 10. Other Insights, Other Systems 
Anyone who does not share these conclusions and believes that the majority naturally has the right to amend the social contract at any time, even at the expense of the minority, will of course come to other conclusions as to the ideal nature of new systems. Others consider even the measures proposed here to be too far-reaching and fundamentally reject a monopoly of force, for example. What is decisive, however, is not whether my analysis is correct in all its facets, but that competition between the systems begins. Only this enables people to voluntarily enter the social order that best suits their preferences and convictions. In all likelihood, there is no ideal solution for everyone anyway. The philosopher Ralph W. Puster has come to a very similar conclusion. In view of the great differences between individuals, it seems to me quite logical that the definitive information about what coercion one has to accept and which one not cannot come from the theory of freedom, but ultimately from the voluntary action that actually takes place. In general, we can state, for the purpose of minimizing subjective coercion, Every actor, ceteris paribus, prefers such cooperation partners whose coercive sensitivity resembles his own in such a way that they would tend to lay down the same rules as he himself. From what I have said, it follows that the following development would be somewhat likely if actors could organize their social interaction voluntarily and without interventions. A richly structured federal system of cooperating communities would emerge, characterized by complex bundles of similar coercive balances with regard to the rules of living together, which are regarded as central. These communities, together with the regulatory systems in place within them, would compete with each other for the involvement of other actors, so that these actors would have a choice as to which community to join with their voluntarily established rules albeit at the price of recognizing the rules in force there, which the respective community would insist on being observed. It can also be assumed that each community provides for coercive measures to enforce its rules. For 7 billion people, 200 different systems, many of them almost identical, are simply not enough. The more new and different models there are, the better. What I would like to propose on the basis of the findings discussed here is one of many conceivable products, one that I believe will succeed in the market of living together. No more, no less. This product is the free private city. Part 2. Concept. Chapter 6. The Free Private City as Alternative Social Order Let me pay a definite, clear, and once and for all fixed tax rate and pay with it appropriate security forces and a reliable legal system, but otherwise keep out of my life. This is my life. I have only one, and this one shall be mine. Roland Bader, Economist and Freedom Fighter we have seen that new orders of living together must avoid the pitfalls that have sooner or later become the fate of all previous systems. They should therefore be largely free of politics, allow the greatest possible economic and personal freedoms and private property, have a genuine written contract as a basis, be subject to the rule of law, not grant special rights to anyone, select their immigrants, be internally and externally defensible, 
and face competition from other systems. The inhabitants should also have a fundamental consensus of values and, finally, the system must offer its rulers or administrators the right incentives. Now, imagine a system in which a private company, as a government service provider, offers you protection of life, liberty, and property. This service includes internal and external security, a legal and regulatory framework, and independent dispute resolution. You pay a contractually fixed fee for these services per year. The government service provider, as the operator of the community, cannot unilaterally change this citizen's contract with you later on. As a contract citizen, you have a legal claim to compliance and a claim for damages in the event of malperformance. You take care of everything else by yourself, but you can also do whatever you want, limited only by the rights of others and the other moderate rules of living together. This includes teaming up with others for all sorts of purposes. Disputes between you and the government service provider are heard in independent arbitration courts, as is customary in international commercial law. If the operator ignores the arbitral awards or abuses his power in another way, his customers leave and he goes bankrupt. He therefore has an economic risk and therefore an incentive to treat his customers well and in accordance with the contract. This system is called Free Private City. At first glance, it may seem outrageously radical or utopian. However, we are already using the service approach very successfully in other areas of our lives. The transfer to our social order is only the last step in a development already underway. What is new is that coexistence in this system takes place on a purely private basis, but the system is nevertheless able to provide all those services, especially security, requested by residents of previous states, and, indeed, better, cheaper, and with far greater degrees of freedom for customers, the contract citizens. The main elements of the free market are simply applied to our living together, namely the voluntary exchange of services, the right to reject offers, and finally competition as a method of discovery, a means of limiting power, and a quality filter. Since participation in the free private city is voluntary, the concept must be permanently attractive. Otherwise, no one will come or the residents will leave again. Especially, the design as a service contract has the advantage that it has already been tested and proven. It corresponds to what we know from the private businesses of everyday life, be it the purchase of bread from the baker, the conclusion of an insurance policy, or the appointment of a tax consultant. A reciprocal, mutually agreed contract is always the basis. It regulates which product or service is to be supplied at what conditions and at what price. This applies even if the contract, as with the baker, only came about through implicit action. The buyer knows that his contractual partner has an economic interest. He does not have to pretend to be motivated by either the common good or the rescue of humanity. Disputes may be referred to independent courts or arbitration bodies. No salesman would get away with changing the contents of the contract later unilaterally. From now on, you pay twice as much, but get an additional service for it which you did not order, or having a dispute settled exclusively by his own institutions.
In a free private city, everyone is the sovereign of himself, who, by voluntary agreement, has concluded a genuine contract with a more or less ordinary service provider, the citizen's contract. Both parties have the same formal rights and are therefore legally on an equal footing. The relationship between authority and subject is replaced by the relationship between customer and service provider. In contrast to conventional systems, where the citizen is obliged to pay tax without having a corresponding right to benefits, in a free private city, service and consideration are directly related. Both contracting parties are entitled to fulfillment of the contract. That is, the operator can demand payment of the fixed contribution from the contract's citizen, but no additional fees. In turn, the contract citizen can sue the operator for compliance with his contractual obligations, for example, by ensuring security and a functioning system of civil law. Who is currently in charge of the operating company or to whom it belongs is of no relevance for the functioning of the model. A free private city is therefore not a utopia, but rather a business idea whose functional elements are already known and which need only be transferred to another sector namely that of living together. Basically, as a service provider, the operator only provides the framework within which the society can develop openly in the sense of a spontaneous order. Hayek Main Features Free private cities are characterized by the following main elements. 1. A free private city is a sovereign or at least semi-autonomous local authority with its own legal and regulatory framework and its own tax, customs, and social regime, as well as its own administration, security forces, and an independent dispute resolution system. 2. A free private city is run by an operating company as a for-profit business. For a fixed basic fee, it guarantees the inhabitants' protection of life, liberty, and property. 3. Participation and residence in the free private city is voluntary. 4. There is no legal claim to admission to the free private city. The operator decides on this according to his criteria and his discretion. 5. Each individual resident has concluded a written citizen's contract with the free private city or its operating company, which conclusively regulates the mutual rights and obligations. This includes the services to be provided by the operator and the amount to be paid for them, as well as the rules applicable in the free private city. 6. This citizen's contract cannot be unilaterally changed. It represents the personal constitution of every contract citizen. 7. Furthermore, contract citizens can do as they please, provided that they do not violate the rights of others or the other rules laid down in the citizen's contract. 8. All adult and legally capable contractors are responsible for the consequences of their actions themselves, not society or the city operator. Apart from claims for contractual or family support, there is no right to live at the expense of third parties. 9. Any resident can terminate the contract at any time and leave the free private city again, but the operator can only terminate the contract for good cause, for example, for breach of contractual obligations such as continued non-payment of the fee.
10. In the event of conflicts with the operating company, each party is entitled to appeal to independent arbitration courts that are not part of the operator's organization. The operator's basic package, which must be accepted and paid for, comprises security and rescue forces, a legal and regulatory framework, a certain infrastructure and independent courts and dispute resolution bodies. To ensure voluntary participation, ideally, the area should start out uninhabited. Autonomy In order to implement a free private city, internal autonomy is necessary. This does not necessarily mean sovereignty under international law, but at least the right to regulate one's own affairs independently. The establishment of a free private city, therefore, requires a contractual agreement with an existing state. In this agreement, the host nation grants the operating company the right to establish the free private city on a defined territory in accordance with the agreed conditions. Free private cities, therefore, do not correspond to privately administered new cities or gated communities that are fully subject to the laws of the respective state, or authoritarian city-states such as Singapore or Dubai, which can unilaterally change the rules at any time. They also go well beyond special economic zones, but rather correspond to independent special administrative zones, comparable, for example, to Hong Kong's relationship with China. States can be attracted to such a concept if they expect advantages from it. Getting existing states to give up part of their sovereignty is certainly not an easy task. Nevertheless, this path seems easier than changing existing systems from within towards more freedom, legal security, and self-responsibility. Living together in a free private city is based on just a few principles. The guiding principles are self-determination and private autonomy. The golden rule applies to living together as it is expressed in the proverb, Do not unto others what you do not want others do unto you. In addition, the principle, Do it day, I give so that you give, that is, the recognition that merit is based on reciprocation, Finally, the principle of voluntarism or non-aggression, that is, the priority of voluntary cooperation over coercion and expropriation, including expropriation for allegedly good causes. In order to comply with these basic rules, coercive measures can or must also be applied. Serious or repeated violations also lead to exclusion from the private city. The right to end one's stay in the free private city at any time is part of the concept of voluntariness. Free private cities expect their citizens to be mature and independent. This includes taking responsibility for oneself and others, strengthening family and small communities, as well as using imagination and ingenuity to overcome difficulties. In return, there is the joy and satisfaction of being able to master your life by your own efforts according to your own ideas. In the long term, a community of self-confident, bright, and realistic people will grow up in this way. If everyone is free to decide what they want to do and how they want to live, there is also no real need for participatory bodies such as parliaments. They are always at risk of being hijacked by interest groups or the government for their own purposes. The freeze on change in favor of freedom and self-determination in a free private city is the citizen's contract. 
Thus, the residents can agree on a representation of their interests and, for example, establish a municipal council. But even though 99% of the population participate and voluntarily submit to majority voting, this body has no right to impose its ideas on the other 1%, who want nothing to do with it. This is precisely the point at which state systems regularly fail, the long-term guarantee of individual freedom. The city operator's profit requirement is of central importance. Many people consider the pursuit of profit to be immoral and prefer to have nothing to do with it. They fail to recognize that there is no better incentive to make the best use of scarce resources. It also ensures transparency. The operator of a free private city wants to earn money. That is clear. But what are the motives and rationales of politicians? Almost nobody believes that they are driven solely by concern for the common good. The incentive of meeting with presidents and kings as heads of state, seeking recognition by announcing world rescue plans to the United Nations, being prominent and wielding power over people, in free private cities all these things play second fiddle to the profit motive. Of course, such considerations will also be of concern to the city manager or mayor appointed by the operator. But in the end, he has to do what is good and profitable for the operating company and therefore cannot simply change the rules. Customers would go away, join the international organizations, participate in the worldwide conference circus, or frequently receive famous personalities, additional expenses for pomp without measurable value. The incentive system is therefore very different from that of a politician in conventional systems. There, the politician can pursue the described personal interest to increase his fame at the expense of the citizens, while the head of administration of a free private city cannot, for the reasons mentioned. Rather, competition and the requirement to turn a profit force the operator of a free private city to permanently improve his product and optimize the use of resources. Every decision he makes has immediate effects. Does this increase the satisfaction of the residents, or is it not reduced by cost-cutting measures? In other words, will this ultimately generate higher revenues than expenses? If so, profit is made and the enterprise value of the free private city is increased. If not, the measure must be reversed or improved. Such efficiency will never be achieved by public state systems. What could life in free private cities look like? Innovative service providers such as Uber or Airbnb are not prohibited, but a matter of course. There are private entrepreneurs who cover everything that is in demand, from hospitals, schools, and kindergartens to waste collection. If desired, residents can insure themselves privately against all eventualities of life or set up self-help groups, be it to protect against illness, death, need of care, or accidents. Highways, ports, and shopping centers are constructed and operated by investors. Anyone can offer new products and services without authorization or license and get paid in any desired currency. There is also use for unskilled workers, for lack of minimum wage regulations. Cheap products can be imported from all over the world because there is free trade and therefore no customs duties. New drugs and treatment methods are available to any adult who wants to test them with knowledge of the potential risk. Environmental thresholds apply only to truly dangerous products and processes as determined by serious scientific research.
There is freedom of speech. Even a certain religion can be criticized and full freedom of contract. Cigarettes are again traded and advertised without ugly warnings. High-performance vacuum cleaners and showerheads are available, even old-fashioned light bulbs. The city makes its own immigration rules. It can summarily throw out anyone who becomes a criminal or, for example, causes a nuisance by propagating the primacy of religious dogmas over the rules of the city. Due to this positive selection, contract citizens do not require a visa for most states. Free private cities that belong to the same operator or are otherwise associated also have a globally uniform emergency number, as well as consulates abroad, in which contract citizens are helped in emergencies. Crime and vandalism hardly exist. You can even let your children out on the streets at night without worrying about them. Sociologists, political scientists, art historians, and other humanities scholars who usually populate the civil service and state-funded NGOs have become rare. Since their studies have to be paid for themselves, training courses that promise the prospect of real customer demand are generally preferred. Some companies, including well-known names, have failed to settle here. There are neither new laws that can be influenced in their own favor, nor subsidy pots that can be tapped. Hosts of clever people who would have become civil servants, tax consultants, lawyers, or auditors elsewhere work in the private sector and increase productivity and value creation. Political activism, missionary zeal, distributional struggles, and the stirring up of social groups against each other have practically disappeared. The contract citizens respect each other's different views and assessments. People are once again responsible for taking care of themselves and are thus automatically more self-confident, more stable, and more realistic in their assessments. After two generations at the latest, free private cities would be wealthier, freer, and more peaceful than anything we have known so far. Chapter 7 Advantages Which is the best government? the one which teaches the people to govern themselves. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Polymath and Civil Servant Compared to today's social orders, free private cities offer a number of advantages, both for individuals and businesses. They offer unique opportunities even for governments of existing states. Legal Certainty for the first time in human history, there is a genuine social contract which actually fulfills Rousseau's legitimate demand for initial approval by every single citizen. In a free private city, reliable, unchanging principles apply on the basis of the citizen's contract that enable private individuals and companies to plan for the long term. The type and amount of the contributions are contractually fixed. In a free private city, therefore, everyone pays only for what he has ordered. He has a legal claim to compliance with the contract, as well as a claim for damages in the event of malperformance. In this respect, the well-known mechanisms of private law are simply transferred to state power. There is no convincing reason why these should not apply in the relationship between the operator and the contract citizen. A free private city is, therefore, characterized by the fact that the same rules apply to everyone, irrespective of objective and subjective differences between people. 
This also means that the city operator does not enjoy sovereign immunity, but is subject to full contractual liability and can be sued for it. In a free private city, not only the amount of the contributions to be paid are an integral part of the contract, but all the rules that apply to living together. They may be amended only within the framework of the contractual mechanisms or by mutual agreement. All this creates legal certainty, reliability, and predictability. The Absence of and Abstinence from Politics Free private cities are, apart from the relationship to the host state and to the outside world, non-political societies. Everyone knows his rights and obligations. It is known from the outset that it is not possible to impose one's own values upon others. The legitimacy of this system is beyond question. After all, each individual citizen has concluded a contract with the operator, which finally describes the current order and the corresponding rules. While voluntary initiatives and associations are easily possible, there is no forum to change the legal position of other contract citizens against their will for one's own benefit or with regard to a self-defined common good. Political activists, lobbyists, or free riders who, because of their proximity to power, seek subsidies or unproductive incomes, fail. Distributional struggles and the stirring up of social groups against each other are a thing of the past. There are no spoils left to win. Rather, all citizens of a free private city can rely on the fact that their life, liberty, and property are not subject to political uncertainties. They do not need to interfere in political disputes and do not suffer any disadvantages as a result. They do not have to devote their time and energy to fending off restrictions on freedom. Each individual has a far better opportunity to shape their lives according to their values. In conventional states, however, they are forced to purchase and finance a whole bundle of services that they may not even want. This prevents them from using free resources in a way that is better suited to their ideas and their situation in life. The same applies to entrepreneurs who want to make their projects a reality. In a free private city, they no longer have to get involved in preventing adverse measures. That is, they no longer have to spend a large part of their time sitting in political meetings or committees or joining political parties or associations, writing letters to the editor or blog posts, commenting on legislative projects, and so on. They may hire whoever they want, regardless of legal diversity requirements, and can make promotions based entirely on merit. They do not need complicated and legally questionable tax-saving models. Their payment obligations are small and fixed for the future. Free private cities are therefore likely to be economically superior to conventional systems after a short time. The entrepreneurs would concentrate on what they do best, namely serving the market. The abstinence from politics also means the renunciation of currency and interest rate manipulation. Asset accumulation, old age provision, and purchasing power gains for all are made possible by natural deflation due to productivity gains. Since, in principle, all innovations are permitted and are only limited by their effect on the rights of others, new discoveries by trial and error are far more likely than in conventional states. There are no political decision-makers who can harness themselves in front of the carts of fearmongers and doubters in order to gain power and influence.
Over time, a high innovative spirit leads to greater prosperity and a higher quality of life. This includes a clean environment. Guaranteed Freedom Free private cities allow the greatest possible freedom of action, contract, and opinion. Both economic and personal freedoms are much higher than in previous systems. Apart from respecting the rights of others and the few existing rules, everyone is free to do what they want. This includes the free design of contracts and the rejection of others as contractual partners at your own discretion alone. Greater freedom goes hand in hand with greater responsibility. Since contractors cannot count on the Big Brother's state, which bears the consequences of their actions for them or relieves them of their life risks, they automatically become more conscientious and attentive. This can certainly lead to hardship in individual cases, but over the course of time it usually means that the individual will act cautiously with foresight and responsibility. Safety and Security In a free private city, the protection of life, liberty, and property of the residents is the main service of the operator. If, for example, a contract citizen's home is broken into, he has a claim for damages because the operator has guaranteed security and has also been paid for it. For this reason, the operator will strive for maximum security both internally and externally, if possible without compromising the quality of life of the residents. The authority of the operator to completely reject problematic applicants and to expel troublemakers and criminals also has a positive effect. Over time, all this leads to the formation of an exceptionally civilized and nonviolent, but nevertheless defensive, society. Guaranteed Private Property In a free private city, the acquisition of property is neither subject to high hurdles, nor is it subject to many obligations and taxes. Due to the permanent guarantee of private property, it is therefore possible for everyone to gradually create lasting prosperity, even for low-income families, and to pass it on to the next generation, which can then build on it. The proportion of family businesses and homeowners will therefore increase over time, which in turn will strengthen the bond with the free private city and respect for the property of others. Unrestricted private property also provides the freedom necessary for personal development, for an independent opinion and the support of third parties, that is, for the creation of one's own world. Limiting Power Through Diversity and Competition with the addition of many free private cities to today's states, there would be healthy competition to force all societies to meet certain minimum standards for the benefit of their citizens, because in such a world there would be great competition for the citizens. This will lead to an increase in the quality of public services while prices fall, as is the case in other markets. The providers will outdo each other in providing an attractive infrastructure, low cost of living, high security with maximum freedom of opinion and action. There will be providers in the luxury segment and those for the mass market. Some free private cities will be even listed on the stock exchange. Specialized private cities will have emerged that specifically address ethnic, religious, or ideological groups. Competition will ensure that there are many different models of living together for different tastes. The citizen is at once a courted customer, 
who can change suppliers at any time instead of a fenced-in milking cow which must buy his departure through exit tax. Unlike the politicians of contemporary systems, who can make decisions at the expense of others without having the slightest economic disadvantage of their own in the event of failure, the private government provider has skin in the game. This fact alone disciplines him immensely. He is a service provider who has to make an effort and cannot simply change the rules at the expense of the customer whenever it suits him. Room for Experiment Even heads of state and government who have recognized the need for reform are often faced with the problem that a society has many political, cultural, or religious reservations that prevent change. Free private cities or corresponding special zones offer the possibility of introducing controversial reforms initially in a small, demarcated territory. If successful, these territories can then be expanded or multiplied. Finally, those who are still opposed to change can be offered the opportunity to create their own special areas. Social Harmony Through Shared Values The guarantee of internal and external security, the provision of social security, and the creation of cohesion. All these are solvable problems, but they can be addressed in very different ways. Instead of constantly arguing about political positions and accepting compromises that are unsatisfactory because certain approaches are simply incompatible, the societies of the future can come together according to common values. These systems will probably be more homogeneous in themselves, but in total they will show an enormous diversity. Above all, they are more peaceful because countless conflicts that paralyze today's systems simply disappear. New forms of living together can be tried out. Things that work and find acceptance prevail, others disappear. The free private city represents the offer for those who prefer the greatest possible freedom and personal responsibility, while at the same time ensuring a high level of security against violence and crime. In this respect, social harmony is primarily achieved through shared values. Such a society works well if there is a fundamental consensus among its members about nonviolence, respect for property, and a recognition of the existing rules. In addition to conventional states, new private or public special zones are conceivable for all other preferences, which can serve all kinds of ideologies. Wouldn't it be both knowledge-promoting and conflict-solving if concepts such as a universal basic income depreciative money, open borders, and other ideas for world improvement were first tried out with volunteers in a defined area? If these ideas work, others will want to adopt them. If they fail, the matter is done without much damage and can be tried again in a modified form if necessary. There would be little need to work oneself up in long arguments about these ideas, much less engage in violent disputes over them. Even left-wing idealists could finally prove to themselves and to the world in a special zone that communism, socialism, if done right, does work, even without others suffering. A former totalitarian ideology would become one product offer among many. In a short time, we would have gained enormous insights into the effects of the most diverse models of living together. We might even see more happiness as schadenfreude is known to be among the most pleasant emotions. Better Incentives
Free private cities have significant advantages over conventional social systems, particularly because of their different incentive structure. The incentives for the operator of a free private city are fundamentally different from those of today's states. First, he has a direct economic self-interest in the success of the community. Secondly, like any contract provider, he can be held liable for errors. He cannot conceal his responsibility or pass it on to third parties and thus bears his own personal risk. Thirdly, he is facing direct competition. He cannot force customers to accept his product, but must attract demand solely through the attractiveness of his product. Chapter 8 Objections Cooperation does not require any legitimacy other than the voluntariness with which it is entered into. The moral disapproval by outside third parties gives no impartial reason to stop them, since the incantation of moral standards in a pluralistic world is no ace that trumps all other cards. Ralph W. Pooster, Philosopher The objections to the concept of free private cities are essentially divided into two areas, it won't work and I don't like it. I will now address the most frequent. 1. It won't work. Security. Free private cities will be reclaimed by the host state at the first opportunity. Even if they are defensive and independent, they have no chance against major powers. The host state has a contract with the city operator, which is also likely to contain customary investment protection clauses. In this respect, it runs the risk of being exposed to considerable financial claims after the occupation of the free private city, which could also entail a seizure of its foreign assets. Nevertheless, the free private city will try not to let it get that far, for example, through a combination of different means such as public relations, diplomatic contacts with other states, and a certain defensive capacity which at least imposes some cost on the attacker. Moreover, it can be pointed out in good time that the residents are highly mobile and would leave the city quickly in such a case, making it a less attractive takeover target. Only very few states have a chance against major powers, and in this respect it is already the case that sovereignty is already at the discretion of major powers. Nevertheless, even powerful states cannot simply occupy other territories without further justification. This calls other powers onto the scene and can become dangerous for the respective ruler or rulers in domestic politics. If this were not the case, none of the small states of today would exist. Law Enforcement No one can enforce court judgments and arbitral awards against the operator. The property rights of citizens within the city can also at best be guaranteed by the host state. The situation is no different from that in international trade law. Anyone who holds a title against a foreign state unwilling to pay has no superior executive power that can enforce it, but he can try to seize assets of the state in other countries. The same would apply here against the operator. The free private city has its own property regime. The legal consequences and transactions of which are also expressly accepted by the host state. This can also be enforced by appropriate property registers, courts and arbitration bodies, as well as the enforcement agencies of the free private city. 
If the operator disregards its own rules and expropriates its inhabitants, of course, this does not apply. But in this respect, there is no difference to other states, which also do this regularly. However, unlike expropriating states, the operator has an incentive to refrain from doing so, because otherwise future profits will be threatened. Cohesion Systems without ethnic, cultural, or religious cohesion are not sustainable in the long run. In the free private city, a culture of its own is likely to gradually develop on the basis of shared values, as has also happened in the U.S. In addition, free private cities directed only at certain ethnic, cultural, or religious groups are conceivable. Moreover, the question must be regarded as open. Dubai and Singapore have so far also existed without such means of cohesion. Changes to the contract The model cannot exist in the intended form for a long time. Contract changes and adjustments to current developments are inevitable sooner or later. These are either authoritarian or determined by participation bodies, so we end up with conventional systems again. It should also be possible for arbitral tribunals and courts to decide on new types of matters by recourse to the legal principles that have been in force for centuries and to achieve a reasonable balance of interests. That's how common law works. The relevant principles of today's civil law system still correspond to those of Roman law more than 2,000 years ago. In practice, in many new areas of life, there will presumably also be interest-compatible regulations without the intervention of court rulings or amendments to contracts, as has happened in the credit card industry, for example, to regulate cases of fraud. After all, there is the possibility of offering new citizens different contracts than the previous inhabitants were offered, and thus successively creating a new order without disenfranchising anyone. The issue of amending the contract is, however, one of the most valid objections and, in this respect, reference is made to Chapter 15 on the Citizen's Contract. Regulatory Deficit Such a minimal state can no longer function today. An increasingly complex world needs complex rules. The approach of free private cities is to counter the hyper-complexity of the modern era by simple, robust frameworks and not by complex laws, which then again have unexpected side effects and offer various loopholes for abuse and exploitation. Only a simple regulatory framework that offers sufficient space for the emergence of spontaneous orders can fruitfully exploit the decentralized knowledge of countless individuals. Living together is not a market. Political questions are not a market, nor is religion, love, or science. States cannot be managed like companies. Free private cities create an offer for a presumed demand on a market. An immaterial demand is also a demand. An immaterial supply is also product or service. And it is not the case that all other areas of life in a free private city are not covered. They are just not answered politically by the operator. It may be that traditional states cannot be run like companies. Free private cities, in any case, will be managed like companies. The answer to the question whether this works can be confidently left to the market, even if one does not wish to describe it as such. Insolvency 
It is inevitable that some city operators will miscalculate and go bankrupt. Then all the life plans of the inhabitants of these cities are doomed to failure. If the operator is threatened with or becomes insolvent, there is always the possibility, as with other companies, that a competitor, a part of the inhabitants, or the inhabitants as a whole take over the city themselves. Resident buyout. Moreover, insolvency enables a regular and debt-free new start. Our present world would also be a better one if bankrupt countries could go through insolvency proceedings in time. 2. I don't like it. Free riding. Free private cities use the infrastructure of the host state surrounding them and its military protection and could not exist on their own. Almost no state in the world is truly self-sufficient. This is also no problem if reciprocation, for example, payment, is provided for the services used, such as infrastructure or military protection. It can also be assumed that successful independent private cities will build up their own sufficient infrastructure as well as a defensive capacity over time, like Singapore did. Dictatorship The city operator is a dictator. The inhabitants are at his mercy for better or worse. The city operator is bound by the contract which limits its competences to a few areas. Furthermore, the operator has submitted to an independent arbitration of disputes. Of course, because of the territorial monopoly of force, he would in fact be able to exercise a dictatorship. However, most citizens would then leave the city again, and it would be impossible for the operator to successfully found new private cities elsewhere due to the loss of reputation. In this respect, he is no different from the captain of a cruise ship on the high seas or the head of a remote holiday resort. Both theoretically have the possibility of acting as dictators, but they refrain from doing so because of their commercial interests. Segregation Rich and white people flee to their own private city ghettos and evade their responsibility. Black and white, rich and poor, Jews and Japanese, and all other groups that define themselves as such have every right in the world to decide with whom they want to live together. Anything else would be to force them into something they don't want against their will. That's totalitarian. Systems that have to threaten their inhabitants with violence or expropriation in order for them to remain in them will not last in the long run. As far as responsibility for others is concerned, each individual is, of course, free to feel a moral obligation towards complete strangers. However, no objective obligation can be derived from this, for example, for particularly talented people, to support people they do not know. There is no right to live at the expense of others. Against this, arguments based on Rawls' theory of justice are usually put forward. In summary, this means that due to the unpredictability of the lottery of fate, it is fair to have the talent and success of the individual also be used, to some degree, for the benefit of others. This would correspond to an objectively just social order which, behind a veil of ignorance, would have been so chosen by all. However, such theories are generally inconsistent since they limit redistribution to material goods. The good-looking womanizer can thus use his success for himself 
While the small, unattractive, but successful entrepreneur has to share it with everyone, however, it is doubtful that anyone could be interested in a complete compensation for the imponderables of life. Or would you really want to share your partner with someone who might have been a little less fortunate than you? In fact, each person is unique and has a multitude of different characteristics and abilities, so that a balancing of talents and disadvantages is practically impossible. If the allegedly disadvantaged is not helped now, he has an incentive to strive on his own and to develop his existing strengths, which he may only then discover in order to conquer his place in life. He passes this experience on to his children and grandchildren, and society as a whole recognizes those who overcame their handicaps as role models. Such an order will tend to produce self-reliant, independent, and robust people rather than a Rawls order in which everyone demands compensation for their actual or perceived disadvantages from society or from those supposedly favored by fate. Exploitation Due to the lack of a welfare state and the corresponding protective regulations, the weaker are exploited by the strong. If people voluntarily come to a free private city to accept a job there, knowing that there is no welfare state and no minimum wage, then the assertion of any kind of exploitation is only tenable if one denies the person's concern the right to make their own decisions. In fact, many believe that most people are not in a position to defend their legitimate interests. In doing so, they implicitly claim that they themselves are in a better position to do so and therefore have the right to patronize others. In truth, that's presumptuous. Even in the smallest unit, knowledge is decentralized. Everyone knows best what is good for them. Some want to be consciously unreasonable and focus their interest on short-term pleasures because smoking, drinking, dangerous extreme sports give them corresponding feelings of happiness. Others are willing to take on low-paid work because they see opportunities for promotion. That's their choice. There is no middle ground here. Either adults have the right to decide for themselves or they do not. They get that right in a free private city. It will become apparent whether this leads to collapse any more rapidly than systems which enforce a regime of happiness as defined by others and take away more than half of your income in return. Moreover, even in a free private city, the weak are not defenseless because there is a private law system that protects against surprising clauses and contracts, for example. Finally, the objection ignores the fact that the protection of the weak and aid for the truly needy who cannot help themselves can also be guaranteed without state coercive systems, and this comes without their harmful side effects. As a result, free private cities will be able to give better social protection than so-called welfare states. However, the question of Social Security is legitimate and is dealt with in detail in Chapter 21. Exclusion If free private cities became established worldwide, at some point socially disadvantaged people would no longer be accepted anywhere. The dividing line is not between rich and poor, but between willing and unwilling to engage in work. As long as someone is able and willing to work, he will be welcome and there will be specialized communities, especially for the low-wage sector. 
In other markets, too, mass market business can almost always earn more than the luxury segment. But a society can only develop further if there are incentives to improve one's own behavior. For example, with regard to willingness to perform, self-discipline, and reliability. In this respect, there is no reason to accommodate people who are unwilling to perform in any way. On the contrary, they have to adapt to be accepted. The bottom line is that this will benefit everyone. The remaining question is only how to deal with those who cannot actually help themselves because of disability, illness, or other incapacity, which usually does not exceed 5% in any population. They have been a target of charitable help for most of history. Free private cities will not deliberately attract this clientele, but in return they will not abandon those who fall into such a situation due to accident, illness, or birth. There will be more on Social Security in Chapter 21. Global Problems of Mankind Global human problems such as environmental and climate protection cannot be addressed with free private cities. Most environmental problems are regional and can therefore also be solved at a regional level. The attractiveness of a free private city also includes a clean environment, so the regulatory regime will take this aspect into account. More on this in Chapter 23. Free private cities or residents who affect the environment of other countries beyond their borders are also exposed to legal measures by those affected. As far as alleged global problems are concerned, solutions are either possible without a uniform world government, as was the case with the restriction of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, or the problem or the proposed therapy are so questionable that different approaches are desirable. In 1972, for example, the Club of Rome predicted that many metals would be depleted by 1990. If the world had listened to this false prediction, the rise of the emerging economies, which brought billions of people out of poverty, would not have taken place, and probably millions would have died completely unnecessarily due to a planned and deficient economy. None of the catastrophes predicted in my lifetime so far have materialized. Famine catastrophes caused by population explosion, nuclear war, world radiation caused by nuclear disaster, desertification, deforestation, the collapse of ocean species populations, the darkening of the northern hemisphere because of the burning of oil wells in the first Iraq war, the depletion of oil, lithium, rare earths. But this time, it will be different. The do-gooders are often only superficially concerned about the environment or the climate. In truth, it is always about power over other people. Genuine idealists who initially lead a movement are sooner or later always replaced by power mongers. In this respect, it helps if there are small holdouts somewhere that have divergent views on questions of supposedly urgent global problems. Egoism Free private cities polarize and divide society. People will settle in one place or another based solely on egoism, their own individual desire for a better life. If you think this through, every society will be destroyed because in the end you are alone on an island where nobody is left to think differently than you do. Man is and remains a herd animal and will therefore generally give preference to community with others over living alone. For reasons of averting aggression, he probably even must join forces with others. 
In return, he is willing to sacrifice his absolute freedom. But all group building must be voluntary. Let us just take a look at the clubs, interest groups, and other associations in which we are already active. Why should this suddenly change when the state, in the form of free private cities, is limited to the production of security? However, living together works all the better the more the residents' views on the extent of the necessary restrictions on freedom are similar. Therefore, there must be many different models available. Ultimately, competition between systems means that existing societies are changing in the direction of greater customer satisfaction and that fewer people live in systems in which they do not feel comfortable. That would not be a bad result. As for egoism, there are only two groups of people, some who admit that they end up acting selfishly and others who try to hide this with all their might from others and even from themselves. The individual desire for a better life is not only legitimate, it is the reason for all progress of mankind so far. Chapter 9 Old and New Role Models We will not sell our freedom for all the gold in the world. Motto of the City-State Ragusa, 1358-1808 there is little really new under the sun. The free cities and city-states of classical antiquity and the Middle Ages are as much forerunners and role models for free private cities as today's successful city-states. Of course, this does not apply to all aspects of how they were run. But with regard to the basic problems of human societies under discussion, we do find a few things that can serve as a guide for practice in free private cities. Ancient Greek city-states, circa 800 B.C. to 700 A.D. During the heyday of ancient Greek culture, between 800 and 300 B.C., there were over 1,000 settlements of the Greek polis type in the Mediterranean region. These communities were similarly organized and structured, had the same language and religion, they met for joint competitions, such as the Olympic Games, and also entered into various alliances. Nevertheless, all these city-states were keen on their complete political independence and self-determination. They defined themselves through the community of their citizens and their ideas. A little boy is said to have asked his father in one of the Greek city-states, Do other places have their own moon? Of course, the father replied. Everyone has his own moon. The counter-model to the polis, especially in northern Greece, was the ethnos, the tribal community that included larger settlement areas. The most famous ethnos was Macedonia, which became the strongest military power at the time and conquered a world empire under Alexander the Great, which, however, did not last long. By contrast, Greek culture, which developed in the polis at that time, is still one of the cornerstones of European civilization today. Aristotle, who coined the terms theory and practice and, among other things, taught biology, physics, logic, and state theory, was born in the independent small town of Stagira before later moving to Athens, a larger but equally independent polis. In this respect, it should be noted that despite their small size, a large number of autonomous communities had performed tremendously in cultural terms, although the vast majority of these societies were predominantly agrarian.
Of course, it was also the ability to sale and trade, economic specialization and exchange, constant innovation and high mobility, which made the explosion of new communities in the Mediterranean and Black Sea possible. From a purely geographic point of view, the Mediterranean region is particularly suitable for this, and if there were a renaissance of independent cities, then the Mediterranean would still be an ideal place for it today. However, it can also be observed in the Greek city-states that political systems of government develop according to a certain pattern. It began with a rule of the landowners, who were equal among themselves, and divided the offices among themselves, a kind of aristocratic republic. Later, ever-wider circles of the population were added to the franchise, and eventually a kind of redistributive mass democracy developed, followed by a dictatorship. The problems of democracy discussed above had also occurred in Greece. In particular, demagogues gradually took power under the flag of equality. The transition from a moderate democracy with aristocratic elements to a radical democracy finally led to a century of hegemonic wars. In fact, a period of tyranny followed until Macedonia and finally the Roman Empire took power in Greece. Conservative city-states like Sparta did not develop into democracies and consequently did not suffer from tyrants. They retained an aristocratic system, but deliberately refrained from creating a society based on any division of labor in order to maintain these power relations, and thus fell behind economically. Nevertheless, even in Roman times, the Greek city-states retained a certain independence and enjoyed their prosperity. The final decline of the Greek polis did not occur until the Islamic expansion beginning in the 7th century. A polis was usually organized as follows. The city was independent. Today, one would say, a sovereign subject of international law and passed all laws on its own. This will to self-determination seemed to be an important basic consensus even in small cities and was accompanied by a corresponding will to defend itself. There was general conscription, and each citizen had the duty to arm and equip himself for military campaigns. As a rule, there were popular assemblies, councils, and magistrates, that is, a separation of legislative and executive branches. In addition, there was an independent judiciary which often took the form of elected jury courts. The offices were allocated either by election or by lot, the latter being considered particularly democratic. Only adult, male, armed citizens, polites, were entitled to vote actively and passively. Women, children, residents from outside, and slaves were excluded from political decision-making and participation in self-government. One usually became a citizen by descent from other citizens while having economic independence. Women and children of a polite were not entitled to vote but had citizenship. There was equality before the law for all citizens. The individual polites were largely economically independent through their ownership of a plot of land that could be cultivated agriculturally and could ensure the maintenance of the family. In principle, ownership of land was freely negotiable, lendable, and heritable. There were public buildings and a central meeting place, the Agora. There were local holidays and locally venerated gods which were added to the dominant Greek pantheon. In addition, the cities had their own coins, 
their own armed forces, and sometimes even their own fleet. Greek city-states and the associated political form of organization have shaped the concept of the citizen in Western states to this day. The historian Ober cites the following reasons for the long period of Greek prosperity and the continuing impact of ancient Greek cultural achievements up to the present. Competition between systems that led to constant technical and institutional innovation. The decentralized structure of communities that guaranteed overall political stability even without centralized leadership. Reliable rules and civil rights that made investments possible and kept transaction costs low. These are all aspects that would once again have an impact in a world of free private cities. But also the idea that only those who can contribute to defense and take care of themselves should have a say in the fate of the community has proven itself over centuries. Another aspect that still holds true today is that there must be the will to fight for your independence if necessary. Otherwise, self-determination cannot be maintained in the long term. Free Imperial Cities of the Middle Ages, approximately 1100 to 1800. In the Middle Ages, people in Central Europe were restricted by sovereigns, local princes and bishops who demanded high taxes and regulated daily life down to the smallest detail. The emperor was far away and had little power. For those who sought freedom, self-determination, and economic improvement, there was only one way out. They had to get to a free imperial city. Because at that time the slogan, City Air Will Set You Free, Stadluf macht frei was literally true. Those who escaped serfdom and were not caught again after a period of one year and one day would be free. It was best not to leave the city during this period. After year and day, one was considered a free man. Why could free imperial cities even exist? Why did the princes let this happen? Indeed, they were the result of a long struggle of their inhabitants for more self-determination. This defiance from the respective lord of the city, marked by many setbacks, finally led to a kind of municipal constitution up to, and including, extensive independence, free cities, or direct subordination under imperial sovereignty, imperial cities. The latter was in fact also to be equated with autonomy, for the emperor was weak, and the few institutions at the imperial level played no role in daily life. The emperor's power could not be compared with that of the head of government of today's states. It was far weaker. There was neither a right of taxation nor a standing army or other police force that the emperor could have called up. In Cologne, the first major uprising against the ruling archbishop took place in 1074 because of his injustices to Cologne merchants. This revolt was brutally beaten down. But the urge for more independence could not be stopped. In 1103, a new court is first mentioned in the sources, the Schaffenkollig, which was independent of the archbishop. From 1130 on, the jurors called themselves senators according to the Roman model. In 1216, the first city council was established against the resistance of the archbishop. Finally, in 1288, the people of Cologne allied themselves with one of the surrounding territorial princes against their archbishop and defeated him in the Battle of Warringen. Since then, the people of Cologne have governed themselves.
The people of Cologne were able to assert themselves in the following period because the economic power of the city also led to military power. This was facilitated by the technical situation that, given enough supplies, one could defend oneself behind strong walls against almost any attacker. Since standing armies were expensive, the citizens were obliged to do military service in times of emergency. Thus, every man fit for military service was assigned a position on the city wall according to his residential area. Similar developments took place elsewhere. The free imperial cities flourished and attracted new settlers in great numbers. The surrounding area also benefited from this. And then something surprising happened. The previous rulers suddenly no longer tried to prevent urban independence, but on the contrary promised residents and new settlers guaranteed city rights on their territory. They knew about the economic prosperity of free cities and thus calculated their own advantage. They granted corresponding privileges and were guided by the rules that the established free cities had fought for over long periods of time. Less far-sighted sovereigns could be persuaded by the respective population to effectively convert their territories into free territories by purchasing offices. In some areas of southern Germany, there were even villages that were directly subordinated to imperial rule and independent of the local prince. This buying out of existing sovereign territories could possibly also be a model for the future. As far as the law was concerned, many cities adopted tried and tested legal systems from other free cities. Particularly widespread were the laws of Lübeck and Magdeburg. It was often even regulated that in unclear legal questions, the so-called Magdeburger Schaffenstuhl could be appealed to as a higher court. All this was done by voluntary agreement of the respective city dwellers. The Magdeburg court itself had no power to enforce its decisions in other cities. These city laws were complete packages that regulated both the legal system with rules of procedure and the internal constitution of the city with its various bodies. They had their origins not only in Roman and local law, but also in so-called market law. Whoever organized a market offered the arriving merchants not only a safe marketplace, including easy and safe arrival and departure, but also a market court. Often, this was formed in such a way that the merchants chose sworn judges at the beginning of the market. This procedure guaranteed that merchants had a legal framework tailored to their needs and did not have to prove their guilt or innocence in the event of a dispute by various means still widely used in that day to determine judgments from God, like trials by fire, which could be painful and debilitating. Throughout the Middle Ages, private arbitration courts played an important role, especially where local law offered poor conditions to merchants. Such market and trade locations were thus early forms of special economic zones. In the oldest German municipal law, Freiburg's feudal lord Konrad von Zaringen ruled. So I promise all who visit my market peace and free escort in my realm of power and rule. If someone in this area gets robbed and tells me who did it, I will have the robbed items returned or pay for the damage myself. Incidentally, this security warrant with guaranteed compensation dating from 1120 goes far beyond what today's states offer their citizens in this respect. This idea is just one possibility where free private cities could offer a competitive advantage over traditional states.
The then-free imperial cities were governed quasi-democratically, in which a council elected by the citizens appointed a headman or mayor. The question of voter eligibility was a source of frequent disputes. However, the number of citizens who were entitled to vote and were allowed to elect a representative to the council continued to grow over time, similar to the city-states of the ancient world. However, the council's barely limited legislative power soon led to a great tangle of rules for all areas of life, which complicated life in the city. Growing debt followed and became the universal problem of the cities of the 15th century. Wealthy people in particular had to take care not to become unpopular in the city in order not to lose their belongings through protests and subsequent show trials before the court of the community. Property taxes were also introduced essentially only by the city councils. Of course, even today, these are still typical problems of participatory models, whose regulatory powers in principle unlimited and which do not provide for any liability on the part of the institutions. It is also interesting how cities regulated issues of immigration, crime, and taxation. Due to the large number of new city foundings and the sparse settlement in the Middle Ages, there was competition for settlers, especially skilled workers of all kinds, craftsmen and specialists from the flourishing textile industry such as weavers, but also merchants of all kinds were in high demand. The cities needed them in order to develop economically, collect more taxes, and be better able to defend themselves against external enemies. On the other hand, poor people or criminals from outside were not even allowed into the city. In some places, the poor were only allowed to work as day laborers in the city and had to leave it if they could not find employment. Cities earned their income from two main sources, a basic duty on property and customs duties, which were often used to maintain the roads in and around the city and finance the so-called market peace. In addition, there was often a general wealth tax on the assets of all city dwellers, which usually did not exceed 1% per year. In addition, in many places, there were fees new citizens would pay for admission and citizenship, understood as a price for the public goods available in the city. In special crisis situations or for special major projects, such as the construction of a new city wall, Indirect taxes were also levied on beverages and similar consumer goods because their broad tax base made them lucrative. Finally, cities earned money from the fines paid for violations of the rules. In the case of more serious offenses or local criminals involved, punishment took the form of fines, pain, such as blows, exposure, such as the pillory, or death, for example by hanging, by self-employed executioners. The prison was only intended for the period of investigation and trial, during which torture was not unusual. Criminals who did not come from the city were usually banished. In summary, with regard to criminal law as a common feature of the medieval legal systems, as well as the former Roman Twelve Tables Act, it can be stated that minor or unintentional offenses were almost always punished with compensation and monetary penalties, serious ones almost always with pain or death. It is also striking that the rules on self-defense, coming to the aid of others, citizens' arrest, and on trial and punishment, were designed to restore law and order with minimal financial and human resources.
In the course of time, the cities form powerful alliances, such as the Süddeutsche Stadtbund, Association of Southern German Cities, or the Hansa, Hanseatic League, which had member cities throughout Northern Europe and could also defy major powers. However, most free imperial cities lost their independence in the course of the Napoleonic Wars in the year 1803. Frankfurt am Main survived until 1866, Lübeck until 1871, and the Hanseatic cities of Hamburg and Bremen still retained some independent city status as Lander, or federal states within the system of the Federal Republic of Germany. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, born in Frankfurt, foresaw the loss of importance at the beginning of the 19th century. Frankfurt, Bremen, Hamburg, Lübeck are great and brilliant, and their effects on Germany's prosperity cannot be calculated at all. But would they remain what they are if they lost their own sovereignty and were to be annexed as provincial cities to some great German empire? I have cause to doubt it. The city of Lübeck, once the proud capital of the Hanseatic League, has today become an insignificant German regional city. The Hansa, circa 1150-1669 When the Hanseatic League, also called the German Hanseatic League, or just Hansa, gradually developed from a former group of merchants, many contemporary observers were confused. What kind of structure was it? It wasn't a state, not even a union of states, for the cities belonging to it were not sovereign, but belonged to other state entities, predominantly to the Holy Roman Empire. The initial aim of the Hanseatic League was the safety of its affiliated merchants and the representation of common economic interests, especially abroad. Over time, the Hanseatic League developed into an important factor not only in the economic but also in the political and cultural spheres. This was due to the fact that the free imperial cities became increasingly important at the expense of the territorial states, and the Hanseatic merchants usually had the final word in those city councils. The Hanseatic League had the principle of free unification so that merchants who belonged to the Hanseatic League could decide within their city councils to what extent their city would join the other Hanseatic cities, for example, with regard to customs duties or certain trade rules. The heyday of the Hanseatic League was between 1250 and 1400, and at the time of its greatest expansion, Almost 300 maritime and inland cities of northern Europe were united in the Hanseatic League, and it dominated the then most important maritime trade area in the North Sea and the Baltic. Through free trade, many Hanseatic cities acquired great wealth, which can still be seen today in numerous important buildings such as the Holstentor in Lübeck. The Hanstag Convention was the supreme body and institution at which the interests of the community were negotiated, decided, and enforced. These included in particular the ratification of treaties, the negotiation of trade privileges, negotiations with foreign rulers, decisions on peace, war and economic blockades, the establishment of economic regulations, and the admission or exclusion from the community. Apart from the Hanstag Convention, the League had no other organizational structures, no constitution, no financial budget, or civil servants. The delegated representatives of the cities, 
the Tagfahrer returned to their city with the results of the Hanstag Convention, where it was up to the city council to ratify or reject the decisions. Attempts to establish membership fees and clear leadership failed. Despite all lack of leadership, the consensus in the Hanseatic League was often strong enough to ensure safety at sea, enforce embargoes or wage wars, for example against Denmark or the pirates in the North and Baltic Seas. Most cities adopted their municipal legal codes from the Hanseatic city of Lübeck, which was generally recognized as the informal capital of the Hanseatic League. In legal disputes in other Hanseatic cities, the court in Lübeck often served as the Court of Appeal. Branches of the Hanseatic League had their own court, for example in Bergen, Norway, where the proceedings were decided promptly and in accordance with the standards of the Hanseatic merchants. They were very keen to be acquitted in their own courts in the event of accusations in order to maintain their reputation among merchants. At the same time, the same merchants may not even appear at hearings of the local courts because they and their trading partners did not grant them authority. From the 16th century onwards, under Lübeck's leadership, the Hanseatic League began to become entangled in numerous wars in northern Europe, which reduced the military and political power of the Hanseatic League. Many cities were tired of spending money and soldiers for the numerous political adventures and wars involving Lübeck. The League's final decline began with the strengthening of nearby sovereign territorial powers, which forced many cities to leave the Hanseatic League. In its final phase, the Hanseatic League actually consisted only of the free cities of Hamburg, Lübeck, and Bremen. The last Hanseatic Convention took place in 1669. The new Hanseatic League, founded in 1980, to which only former Hanseatic cities are allowed to belong, has so far only had cultural and tourist significance. The adoption of proven legal systems, the free choice of law, effective defensive alliances without centralized structures, free trade and mutual support, were characteristics of the Hanseatic League that are still exemplary today. Venice, 697-1797 Particularly successful cities have themselves become independent great powers. This applies not only to Genoa but also to Venice, which has been able to retain its independence for over a thousand years. Until 1797, Venice was the capital of the Republic of the same name and for a long time one of the largest European cities. Until the 16th century, Venice was one of the world's most important trading capitals and at times had the largest merchant and war fleet in the world. Despite its own limited resources and relatively small and scattered dominion, Venice was able to play a leading role in the Mediterranean region for a long time. Besides diplomatic skill, this was mainly due to the economic strength of the city, which for centuries had a quasi-monopoly position on trade with the Orient, especially for salt and grain. The legendary founding date of 421 dates back to the twilight of the Roman Empire, a time when the surrounding inhabitants fled the invading Visigoths and Huns into the lagoon of Venice and settled there, as it was easier to defend. Venice was originally part of the Byzantine Empire and formally retained this status until about 900. In fact, however, Venice became independent with the appointment of the first doge in 697. 
It is remarkable that Venice managed to remain an independent community with its own diplomacy and its own military power amid changing alliances between the major and regional powers for a period of 1,100 years. And these were not quiet times in that region. The list of powers and competitors with which Venice had to contend, and which it often outlived, includes the Lombards, the Byzantines, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papal States, free cities such as Genoa, Bologna, and Pisa, the Normans, Hungary, Croats, Habsburgs, and Ottomans, and finally Spain and France. In foreign policy, the Republic relied on diplomacy, efficient information gathering, and pragmatism. Venice kept out of ideological and religious disputes as far as possible. The economic well-being of the city took precedence over the expansion of political power. Inside, careful attention was paid to maintaining a balance of power between the various groups and maintaining checks on power wielded by the state authorities. This is one of the reasons for the unique stability of this state in a troubled Europe. In 1,100 years, not a single government was overthrown. The domination of a single family, as had become customary in the other city-states of northern Italy, was prevented. This was not always achieved without conflicts, and the maintenance of a far-reaching network of police and spies was a further price for the stability and longevity, but overall it was possible to prevent too much concentration of power. Venice also had a reputation for political stability and personal freedom for its citizens, which was the exception in Europe at the end of the Middle Ages. The historian Gilmore writes, The patrician and the gondolier lived in different social conditions, but legally they were equal. Legal privileges for the nobility were unknown. Civil and criminal justice was fair overall, and women enjoyed unique rights. The foreign propaganda about dungeons in which political prisoners languished was pure slander. Religion was important, but it remained subordinate to the state. The doge and not the bishops were the guarantors of the Republic of Venice. Veneciani, poi Christiani. This is how the inhabitants used to describe themselves. First Venetians and then Christians. Such self-confidence naturally annoyed the popes, who repeatedly pronounce an interdict against Venice. The achievements of Venice were difficult for the rest of Europe to bear. The success of the Republic was too blatant and too glamorous for jealous rivals to accept. The Venetians were called greedy and insidious because they traded with the Ottomans as long as there was no war. Only with the advent of the Atlantic and Indian trade and the strengthening of the territorial states did Venice lose at least relative trade power and sink to local size. This is when the city changed to a strategy of diversification through the mass production of glass beads and the manufacturing of artful pieces of glass. The region is still known for the latter. Venice was able to maintain its independence until 1797, when the city was occupied by Napoleon. Monaco, since 1297. While Venice has lost its independence, another Mediterranean community founded by Genoese noblemen has survived to this day. This is the Principality of Monaco, which can be exemplary for free private cities in many respects because of its size, 
its special relationship with France, and its solutions to the issues of security, immigration, and financing of public expenditure. Some claim that Monaco is already a kind of private state that publishes its figures like a stock corporation and regards its inhabitants as customers. The civil wars between the Ghibellines and Guelphs in northern Italy led to the expulsion from Genoa of the papal Guelphs and thus also of the Grimaldi family in 1296. On January 8, 1297, the Grimaldi managed to penetrate the fortress of Monaco, which until then had been in Ghibelline hands, and conquer it with their troops in a surprise attack. Since then, the Grimaldi family has ruled Monaco, with only brief interruptions due to foreign occupation. In 1489, Monaco's independence was formally recognized by the King of France and the Duke of Savoy. As a result, independence was questioned time and again, often by France, which now surrounds Monaco from three sides. Today, Monaco's sovereignty, including its coastal waters, is universally recognized. The Principality has been a constitutional monarchy since 1911. Freedom of expression is guaranteed. The Prince appoints the government. Since the 1962 amendment to the Constitution, there has been a Parliament elected in free and secret elections every five years. However, the Prince has the right of veto on Acts of Parliament. In 1993, the country joined the United Nations. Monaco is a dwarf state with an area of only two square kilometers. It is home to 38,000 people, making it the most densely populated country in the world. About 50,000 people work in the principality, most of them daily commuters from France or nearby Italy. They usually cannot afford to take an apartment in Monaco. Despite formal recognition as a sovereign state, the relationship with France occupies a special position that restricts Monaco's independence to a certain extent. Monaco has concluded several treaties with France over the centuries, defining the relationship between the two countries. Thus, even the last major crisis between the two countries was resolved by treaty. At the beginning of the 1960s, French companies and private individuals increasingly moved their headquarters to tax-free Monaco, although they generated the bulk of their income in France. France then demanded that Monaco impose French taxation on all its inhabitants and companies. The final compromise reached in 1963 provides that persons with French nationality who did not live in Monaco before 1962 should pay taxes in France. In addition, Monaco adopted the French VAT rate and pays part of the VAT to France. The Principality also undertakes to exercise its sovereignty rights in such a way as to safeguard France's economic and political interests. This also includes not allowing persons to enter who are unwanted in France. In return, France assumes responsibility for Monaco's external security. Monaco, with its diversity of cultural, culinary, and sporting offerings, combined with its civility, its history, its splendor, and its reputation as the home of the rich and beautiful, can certainly be regarded as a culmination point of European high culture. There is no shortage of critics, but tourists and day visitors keep coming in droves, and the demand for housing exceeds the supply many times over, which is why property prices are the highest in the world. 
About 30% of its inhabitants are said to have liquid assets of more than $1 million U.S. dollars. Monaco is considered the state with the lowest poverty rate and the highest life expectancy worldwide. In the middle of the 19th century, Monaco was still poor. The population had even declined to 300 people at one time. Only with the opening of a successful casino and the railway connection in 1868 did the turnaround come about. When the annual revenues from the casino business financed 95% of the state budget, the prince decided to waive taxes on his subjects from then on. In principle, it has remained so to this day. Monaco does not levy income, inheritance, or capital gains taxes. However, companies that generate the bulk of their income outside Monaco pay corporate taxes. Added to this is the aforementioned value-added tax, which currently accounts for about half of the state budget. Revenues from state casinos and hotels today play only a minor role, about 5%, the rest being financed by corporate taxes, property taxes, and other levies. The budget shows a slight surplus, and Monaco is not only debt-free, but also has liquid reserves of more than two annual budgets. The Principality has had a customs union with France since 1865, through which it also participates in the EU common market, but is not itself a member of the European Union. Monaco uses the euro as its currency and has also received the right from the EU to mint a certain number of coins itself. About 80% of the population are foreigners without Monegasque citizenship. People from 139 nations live together peacefully. Monaco has the lowest crime and poverty rate in the world, without border controls, and despite tens of thousands of commuters and just as many visitors every day. How is that possible? The Principality has the highest police density per capita in the world and monitors its entire territory with cameras. There is a police officer and a video camera for every 70 inhabitants. The police have a total strength of 520 people, plus the same number of private security personnel and two paramilitary units, palace guard and fire department. Due to the urban nature of the border to the neighboring French municipalities and the high volume of traffic, it would be difficult to carry out strict border controls. Monaco instead monitors incoming vehicles with license plate readers and by visual inspection by police officers posted at the points of entry. Suspicious persons are detected by the camera surveillance and then questioned by patrolmen. Incidentally, Monaco looks closely at who it brings into the country as a resident. If you want to settle in Monaco, you must also be entitled to reside in France, have proof of an apartment in Monaco, rent or property, have sufficient income or assets to cover your living expenses, as well as a CV and a police clearance certificate from your country of origin for all adult family members. On this basis, an Internet search is then carried out and a personal interview with a police officer is conducted. If there are no qualms, Monaco grants a residence permit for one year, which can be extended twice more for one year before a three-year residence permit is granted, etc., this gives Monaco the option of simply not extending the residence permit for dubious or unpleasant new citizens instead of having lengthy legal disputes about the revocation of a residence permit. Monaco has no tolerance for crime. 
Convicted non-monogasks must leave the principality, possibly after serving a prison sentence, even for minor offenses such as shoplifting. It is the combination of all these measures, that is, the camera surveillance, the strict immigration rules, the deportation of criminals, and the strong police presence, which means that parents in Monaco can send their children out onto the streets at midnight without hesitation. Hong Kong since 1843. The development of Hong Kong is an example of how a city-state can work its way up from simple beginnings with a classical liberal system to considerable prosperity and also to enormous size. The population has multiplied from 7,500 in 1843 to 1.7 million in 1945 to over 7.3 million in 2015 mainly due to immigration from the People's Republic of China. For many mainland Chinese, the British colony was a refuge from the Chinese Civil War and later the Communist People's Republic of China. Today, the quality of life and life expectancy, per capita income, and business friendliness in Hong Kong are among the world's best. Hong Kong was under British administration from 1843 to 1997, but was able to gain extensive autonomy, especially after the Second World War. This enabled its leadership to steer a very different course during a period when planned economy, protectionism, and Keynesianism were very popular in the motherland and elsewhere. Hong Kong allowed free markets, kept taxes low, and did not accumulate debts but instead built up a reserve equivalent to one annual budget. This enabled high growth rates lasting decades. Basically, it was only a small group of English colonial officials who set this course. They were advised by official and unofficial members of the Legislative Council, the latter mostly Chinese businessmen. In 1959, the then-Governor Robert Black told this body that Hong Kong was probably the only remaining country in the world with genuine free trade. He added that he was proud of it and sure that all those present felt the same. The goal was to raise everyone's standard of living through full employment and thus also to integrate the many migrants arriving from China. Hong Kong's chief financial officer, John Cowperthwaite, derived from this the doctrine of positive non-interventionism according to which the government interferes in the economy only in very exceptional cases and instead creates the legal and infrastructural framework to facilitate market-based development. In contrast to the British motherland, Hong Kong has permitted free markets without redistribution and thus achieved enormous success. The direct comparison between the two systems is clearly in Hong Kong's favor, as it has overtaken the UK in all relevant indicators. Cowperthwaite had recognized, In the long run, the aggregate of decisions of individual businessmen exercising individual judgment in a free economy, even if often mistaken, is less likely to do harm than the centralized decisions of a government, and certainly the harm is likely to be counteracted faster. He further noticed that every dollar the government takes away from the taxpayer could otherwise have been used by him to meet a need or increase his well-being or make an investment. It is thanks to Cowperthwaite's perseverance and intellectual independence that this path was maintained even in times of economic downturn. Even in Hong Kong, there was no shortage of efforts to raise taxes, 
restrict imports, control prices, and increase government activity. On the subject of political participation, Governor Grantham said in his farewell speech that critics often overlook the fact that democracy is not an end in itself, but only a means to an end, namely to guarantee individual freedom. He concluded that Hong Kong may not be democratic, but freedom would be guaranteed, and there were few places in the world where the guiding principle, live and let live, would be so well manifest. Grantham hit the nail on the head. While at the time he argued that freedom could exist in exceptional cases, even without democracy, today the question has to be asked whether economic freedom in particular can survive at all in democratic systems. In view of the tendency of the majority to demand state interventions of all kinds, the permanent guarantee of a laissez-faire system based on Hong Kong's model does not seem possible in democracies. If even a determined member of government like Cowperthwaite can avert all possible requests for intervention in a non-democratic system only with the greatest effort, then this is probably hopeless in a democracy. A Cowperthwaite would simply be voted out of office. A position of non-interference, that is, inaction, is lost in the political battle for votes. This is the case even though his approach would demonstrably benefit the electorate. A social order that grows at 5% a year but only has a government spending rate of 20% of all GDP initially spends less on each individual than a system that has twice the government spending rate but a growth rate of only 2% a year. After 24 years, however, both societies would already spend the same amount per citizen in absolute figures, and after 48 years, the leaner but faster-growing system could even double the amount for each individual despite a much lower government quota. That's how it happened in Hong Kong, but majorities aren't that patient. Deng Xiaoping, who initiated the opening of the People's Republic of China to a market economy and who is perhaps one of the greatest Chinese reformers in history, is said to have taken Hong Kong as an example. He realized that Hong Kong's economic system was obviously working, but not that of the People's Republic. This concerned in particular the existence of free markets and the right to acquire private property, including ownership of the means of production. Following Hong Kong's example, special economic zones have been established throughout the country since the early 1980s, beginning in Shenzhen. These have proven themselves so successful that they have been expanded further and further, and China has been experiencing an enormous economic upswing ever since. Finally, the free market system was extended to the whole country. Today, no one has to go hungry in China, despite its earlier reputation for famine and poverty. It can therefore be argued that Hong Kong, because of its role model function, has changed China far more than it has changed itself since the political takeover by China in 1997. Since then, Hong Kong has been a Chinese special administrative zone headed by a so-called chief executive, maintaining a market economy, its own private laws based on English law, its own authorities, its own currency, and internal autonomy. Under the one country, two systems principle agreed to between China and the United Kingdom in 1984, 
Hong Kong will retain its political and economic autonomy for at least 50 years after the acquisition. Exceptions are foreign policy and matters of defense. In this respect, Hong Kong is certainly a model for the relationship between a free private city and a host state. Non-interventionism, however, had already been undermined in British times after the departure of Cowperthwaite and with increasing parliamentary participation. Today, Hong Kong has minimum wages, anti-discrimination laws, mandatory old-age provisions, and a taxation equivalent to that of Western countries. Businessmen report that parts of the civil service, which has been replaced or supplemented by mainland Chinese, are now susceptible to corruption, which was previously unthinkable. Moreover, to the regret of many Hong Kong Chinese, the government in Beijing often interferes in domestic politics, and the legally guaranteed freedom of expression and freedom of the press are in fact restricted. Nevertheless, Hong Kong is still one of the freest places in the world with regard to economic activity. Dubai, since 1971 Dubai is another remarkable success story. At the time of independence from Great Britain in 1971, Dubai was a small town of only regional importance. Today, less than 50 years later, the city has the most important airport and seaport in the Middle East, the world's tallest building, the world's largest shopping center, and the world's largest flower garden. Artificial islands in the form of a palm tree have been created on Dubai's coast. The city is visited by around 15 million foreign tourists every year, making Dubai one of the most visited metropolises in the world. The metropolitan area is home to 2.7 million people, over 80% of whom are foreigners. The main economic sectors are real estate, trade, ports, and financial services. Overall, oil and gas production is of little economic importance. Dubai finances its national budget mainly through numerous indirect taxes. Taxes on hotel accommodation, alcohol consumption, rental income, electricity, water, and the taxation of profits of the oil industry and banks. The city of Dubai is the capital of the emirate of the same name, which belongs to the United Arab Emirates. As such, it is an absolute monarchy. There are no constitution, elections, or political participation in Dubai. The Emirate of Dubai maintains its own armed forces in addition to those integrated into the United Arab Emirates. Dubai nationals enjoy numerous privileges and social benefits. Nevertheless, Dubai is highly attractive for immigrants and is also home to many internationally active companies. This is possible because Dubai has created conditions that are attractive not only for companies, but also for their employees. There are guaranteed tax exemptions for 50 years, investment protection guarantees, and tailor-made special economic zones for various industries. Some of them even have their own legal system based on English common law, such as the Dubai International Financial Center. Dubai offers freedom from direct taxes, low regulatory density, and at the same time a certain tolerance. A liberal lifestyle is in fact possible in certain places despite the conflicting legal situation, as is the practice of a religion other than that of Islam. Immigration is strictly regulated and refugees are not admitted. Anyone who loses his job must leave the country. 
It is also less attractive that even foreigners who have lived and worked in Dubai their whole lives have to spend their retirement elsewhere after their work visa has expired. The crime rate is low, and Dubai is considered safe. Imams are controlled by the state, and anyone who preaches religious hatred or extremism is usually imprisoned and then expelled. The local Sharia legal system, which also applies to foreigners, still knows punishments such as stoning and flogging. Homosexuality is punishable by death. Raped women are arrested after being reported for extramarital sex unless they can present four male witnesses confirming their story. Kissing in public is a crime, as are failure to pay a bill in time, touching someone in a full bar to shove him aside, or the consumption of alcohol, even in licensed bars. Engaged couples are liable to prosecution if they share a room, even within their own four walls. Most of the time, such crimes are not prosecuted, but sometimes they are. In this respect, the legal system must be described as arbitrary. At present, no fundamental reform is in sight. Singapore, since 1965. Since independence in 1965, Singapore has developed into one of the richest cities in the world. Within a generation, the city-state made the leap from a developing country to an industrial nation and today has more than five and a half million inhabitants. After independence from the UK in 1963, Singapore was initially part of the newly formed state of Malaysia, but left it only two years later due to differences over the institutionalized preference of ethnic Malay people over the Chinese. Lacking any raw materials, a significant hinterland and any established structures, but burdened with a diverse population lacking a common culture and religion, the first Prime Minister, Lee Kuan Yew, called Harry, 1923-2015, considered the father of modern Singapore, was faced with the task of building a stable society. Although originally a socialist, he recognized that the city could thrive best with free trade, incentives for business startups, and an economy that was as unregulated as possible. Against the view widespread in the West at the time, and in some cases still today, that large international corporations would exploit poor developing countries and only leave scorched earth behind, Lee Kuan Yew recognized that the settlement of such multinationals could create jobs and thus prosperity on a large scale. And so it happened to Singapore's advantage. The economic freedom, combined with the restriction of democratic and political rights and strict enforcement of rules to maintain social harmony, still characterizes Singapore's development today. The party of the state founder has won every election since independence. In practice, it is a one-party system. Since this is associated with restricted freedom of the press and of expression and many restrictions on personal freedoms, Singapore is best classified as a semi-authoritarian system. The combination of an authoritarian, purely fact-driven government with the desire for good governance and internal selection based on merit and performance is officially regarded as the recipe for the success of the Singapore model. Singapore is a multi-ethnic and multi-religious city-state in which the ethnic Chinese are by far the largest population group, followed by Malays and Indians. It is one of the countries with the highest per capita income worldwide 
and occupies top international positions in terms of education, health care, life expectancy, quality of life, and personal safety. Ninety percent of all homes are occupied by their respective owners. Although there are four official languages, English is the lingua franca and the most widely spoken. Singapore's economy is considered one of the freest, most innovative, most competitive, dynamic, and business-friendly in the world. There is no minimum wage, and so the unemployment rate is also one of the lowest in the world. Singapore also has low tax rates, no corruption, good infrastructure, and a skilled workforce, making it very attractive to foreign companies. Thousands of multinational companies have their headquarters or branches in Singapore. The economy is diversified, the main branches being financial services, oil refining, production of electronic components, and tourism. Despite its great economic freedoms, Singapore is also a welfare state. There are grants and programs ranging from housing and medical care to schooling for the children. According to Lee Kuan Yew, only a market economy leads to prosperity, but also creates losers or people who consider themselves as such. For this reason, the state must create a balance to maintain social harmony. Since the state itself is involved in the economy through numerous companies, it can afford to offer all its citizens support for medical care, electricity and water supply, as well as local public transport. Here, too, citizens are preferred. Unlike Monaco or Dubai, Singapore is interested in its inhabitants acquiring citizenship, so about two-thirds of Singapore's residents are also Singapore citizens. Traffic, transport, and private car ownership are just as strictly regulated as the housing market. Singapore's legal system is based on English common law with significant local characteristics. The court system is considered one of the most reliable and best in Asia. Singapore has draconian penalties in criminal law, such as the death penalty, which is obligatory for murder, and corporal punishment for graffiti, for example. Lee Kuan Yew argued that his own experience had shown that poverty does not automatically lead to crime, as Western sociologists claim. There had hardly been enough food during the Japanese occupation, but the city would still have been very safe, as the occupying forces would have imposed draconian punishments. Many forms of behavior are punishable. Homosexual sexual practices are banned, for example. However, the excessive interference of the state in private affairs and the lack of personal freedoms is recognized as an obstacle to development and attractiveness. The ban on the sale of certain chewing gum was lifted in 2004, as was the ban on oral and anal sex in 2007, which also applied to married couples. Singapore has a considerable army for its size with modern battle tanks, airplanes, ships, and even submarines. There is compulsory military service, and reserve exercises take place regularly. About 250,000 Singaporeans are either in active service or reservists. Singapore had asked Israel for assistance in building up the army, and there is still close cooperation on security issues. Singapore is a member of the regional Asian Alliance, which also has a security policy function. For Lee Kuan Yew, and this also applies to his successors today, security and prosperity have always gone hand in hand.
He described diplomacy as the most important foreign policy instrument, but without a credible military component, it remained toothless. Despite its impressive military potential, Singapore is cautious in foreign and security policy. Freedom of religion is enshrined in the Constitution and is guaranteed. Singapore pursues the concept of muscular secularism. Religious extremism is not tolerated and is punished immediately because it is regarded as a danger to social harmony due to the composition of the population. Degradations of other faiths and missionary activities with which religious harmony could be disturbed are prohibited by law. Headscarves are forbidden in schools. Singapore sees itself as a secular state in which the different religions live together in peace. The city-state has strict immigration rules and takes particular care to ensure that the ratios between the various population groups do not change too much. It determines which qualifications meet standards for immigration according to needs and the economic situation. Sandy Springs, since 2005 The U.S. city of Sandy Springs is not an autonomous community, but interesting for another reason. Practically all municipal services are provided by private companies. The city in the U.S. state of Georgia was the first new city to be founded there in 50 years. After years of preparation, residents dissatisfied with the county's performance managed to overcome the necessary political hurdles in order to establish the city as a newly independent municipality on December 1, 2005. A virtue was made out of the necessity of not having their own administration. After visiting the private city of Weston in Florida, one of the driving forces in the city, Oliver Porter suggested that private companies be commissioned by bidding to manage the city. In addition to greater flexibility and the absence of political influence on the provision of services, the pension problem in particular spoke in favor of this step. The existence of growing pension obligations for city employees has brought many U.S. municipalities to the brink of insolvency. Sandy Springs has all municipal services provided by private companies on a contractual basis, with the exception of the police, fire department, and courts. This applies to both administrative and technical functions. In the event of poor performance, the providers can be replaced by the mayor or by the municipal council. In 2015, after 10 years, the city was able to draw the conclusion that the quality of municipal services had consistently improved, but that cost had fallen by 10 to 40 percent depending on the sector. During this period, Sandy Springs not only did not incur any debts, but was even able to build up a reserve of 45 million U.S. dollars. The city is correspondingly attractive. Oliver Porter reports that there is great interest in the Sandy Springs model both in the USA and abroad. Nine more cities with a total of more than 1.5 million inhabitants have been built according to this model so far, each of them newly founded. All attempts to transfer the model to already existing municipalities, however, failed due to resistance from politics and administration. Even in cases where private providers had guaranteed a 25% reduction in costs compared to the current situation, the fear of losing power or jobs had prevented the introduction of the new model. Lessons There are many lessons to be drawn from the successful city-states and free cities described above. 
A society is successful if many people want to live there voluntarily over a longer period of time. All other key figures, in contrast, are secondary and merely an indication of why a system is in demand. Here, too, the subjective value theory applies. If people subjectively prefer a system, it is objectively successful, at least if it can survive a certain period of time under its own steam. This is clearly evident in the examples studied, which still exist today. They have proven their ability to survive, and all have more demand for immigration than they need. All systems examined are imperfect, and none is alike. Their success suggests that we should at least take some of their practices as an inspiration. Singapore, for instance, can be an example for developing countries. After all, the shortcomings of the democratic model are particularly evident in Africa. Anyone who believes that a minimum state with low taxes and free markets is the most suitable model for raising everyone's standard of living must say goodbye to mass democracy anyway, as both concepts cannot be implemented simultaneously. The majority will always follow those who offer free government services and more regulation to solve problems. Accordingly, the government of Rwanda, for example, has expressly taken Singapore as an example and since then has met with considerable success. Obviously, many roads lead to Rome. There is not a single working concept that excludes all others. First of all, this is a good sign with regard to a possible future diversity of forms living together. Nevertheless, there are some commonalities among the case studies shown which indicate that they were probably key factors in the success of these cities. It should be noted, for example, that free trade and a free market economy, as unregulated as possible, have been a decisive success factor in practically all cases. Because of their small size, these cities could not afford protectionism anyhow. It is remarkable, however, how much more prosperity can be created in a short time by free market economies in the face of highly regulated systems. Hong Kong, Singapore, and Dubai also prove that Protestant ethics, Max Weber, is not a necessary condition for the success or emergence of market economy systems. Another common feature is that the successful cities choose their immigrants according to their respective needs or specifications. This corresponds to the knowledge gained above on the subject of immigration. After a certain prosperity has been achieved, as in Dubai, Hong Kong, and Singapore, uncontrolled immigration becomes a danger. Wherever there is something to get, there are also elements very quickly that want to create prosperity by taking it away rather than by honest work. This would jeopardize security and make the respective city-state unattractive. Open borders in the sense of uncontrolled immigration for everyone is therefore out of the question for the governments of successful city-states. Another common characteristic of the city-states examined is that they do not allow democratic co-determination or only to a limited extent. This corresponds to the conclusions drawn above that a far-reaching decoupling of participation and liability is not promising and ultimately leads to endless distributional struggles, outrage competition, and over-indebtedness. But why are these cities also attractive for immigrants from Western countries, even though the usual democratic co-determination is not possible?
Each individual does his own cost-benefit analysis. Greater economic freedom and more security against personal freedoms, more opportunities for self-determination against fewer opportunities for participation, especially since participation in parliamentary democracies is limited to casting a vote every few years, which, taken alone, has no weight. With the exception of Dubai, all of the current examples listed can be regarded as states based on the rule of law, Hong Kong, of course, with a declining tendency. But Dubai also keeps to the promises it has made to the corresponding special zones or even allows their own jurisdiction to a certain extent. In this respect, there is predictability and thus also planability and stability for immigrants, which at least partially outweighs deficits in the rule of law. Another common feature is that the city-states are defensive, in a limited way even Monaco, and maintain larger armed forces with appropriate political independence. At the same time, they strive to have good relationships with their neighbors and try to avoid conflicts as far as possible. Concessions are also made, if necessary, which a sovereign country would not have to make. Furthermore, the question of social harmony especially in multi-ethnic and multi-religious cities, is answered by the fact that certain rules of coexistence are not negotiable and are also strictly enforced. In this respect, there is no tolerance of intolerance in particular. This also makes sense for free private cities because societies that initially have no common history or culture otherwise have no cohesion to hold them together. The problem is not the peaceful coexistence of the most diverse groups, but rather the striving for prerogatives or even dominance, in the worst case combined with the willingness to incite different population groups against each other or even use violence. The example showed that a secure, stable order with a high level of economic freedom can be successful even if personal freedoms are restricted. Singapore in particular seems to have recognized, however, that further qualitative growth requires the granting of greater personal liberty. Nor is it understandable how social harmony is promoted by government dictates about which sexual practices may or may not take place in the privacy of the bedroom. Maintaining social peace depends on how people behave towards others, and that should be the sole sphere of any regulation. Finally, the Sandy Springs example proves that the establishment of free private cities on previously uninhabited territory should be much easier than the transformation of existing communities. A look at the free cities of the past reveals a fact whose knowledge has largely been lost in today's societies. Criminal prosecution and detention of criminals, not to mention costly rehabilitation measures, cost money, namely citizens' money. This is the second time that they are harmed. Therefore, it is obvious and reasonable to minimize these costs. This does not mean reintroducing the death penalty, pillory, and corporal punishment, but the renunciation of prison sentences for minor crimes and instead the payment of a fine or instead of labor service, as well as the subsequent exile from the city, are procedures that can also be exemplary for free private cities. Prison would then only be required for a few serious offenses and would be followed by exile. Role models do not mean that these problems cannot be solved in any other way, especially with regard to crime, immigration, and the maintenance of social peace in the city. 
However, the methods presented here have the advantage that they have been proven to work. Many other ideas cannot claim this. It therefore seems prudent to use proven methods for certain areas when establishing free private cities. Change or further development can then take place evolutionarily via the market. Chapter 10. Precedents for Private Regulation One of the fortunate consequences of a government's absence is the maturing of individual strength. Everyone learns to think and act for themselves without relying on the support of an external power which, however vigilant, can never meet all the needs of people in a society. Alexei de Tocqueville, Political Scientist The assumption that there are either state laws or an anarchic state of nature is not correct. Rules may apply even if they have not been expressly ordered. They can simply be the result of practices of action and omission that people develop of their own free will because they think they make sense. If such a practice finds a sufficiently large following in a society in the course of time, that is, if it is adhered to voluntarily by more and more people, it first solidifies into a social convention and is then sometimes additionally transferred into written law. It is therefore likely that in all societies the rule not to physically attack others or steal from them will develop over time. Contrary to popular belief, not even the Wild West was an anarchic state of nature in which the law of the jungle prevailed. In fact, rules and agreements develop very quickly in scarcity and conflict situations, such as in gold prospectors' camps or on the use of farmland, including the determination of property rights and dispute resolution procedures. Settlers' wagon treks were also all carried out on the basis of contracts precisely setting out the powers and duties of the trek leader and the members, including the right to withdraw from the association and to claim the share of common property in such cases. The private, non-state regulation of situations is still much more widespread than generally assumed. One example is the online payment service PayPal. The founder, Peter Thiel, reports that in the initial phase, it was simply not possible to prosecute cases of fraud within the framework of the state repertoire, usually non-delivery despite payment. The state authorities were completely uninformed and correspondingly helpless with regard to the possibilities of online fraud. Defaults by fraudsters cost some competitors in the online payment business their existence. Prosecution abroad was, in fact, impossible, partly because the cross-border legal situation with regard to online fraud was different, and partly because the cost and duration of the execution of judgments were often disproportionate to the damage incurred. PayPal had to find its own private solution mechanisms to prevent or at least minimize fraud. PayPal's fraud prevention models have become the industry standard. These include requests to recognize certain symbols or images that computer programs cannot read, or to transfer a few cents and ask the recipient for confirmation, or to generally identify suspicious movements based on certain parameters. If many users suddenly transfer small sums to a certain account, this triggers counteraction. Due to the contractual agreement with all users, PayPal can freeze suspicious accounts pending clarification of any suspicious activity. The rate of attempted fraud at PayPal is now only 0.5% of all transactions.
The taxi service Uber has introduced a functioning private regulation, too. Drivers who are poorly rated by customers lose their contract with Uber. Drivers can also not overcharge because the payment is made directly to Uber. The fare also depends on demand, providing an incentive for additional drivers to offer their services at peak times due to high prices. The most common problems in practice, namely unfriendly drivers, rejection of short trips, accounting fraud, as well as too few cars at peak times, could thus be solved by a private system without the need for state regulation. The advantages of Uber and comparable providers are so obvious that the system as such will ultimately prevail. It is only a matter of time. Mechanical looms and spinning wheels were also banned for a long time in many European cities because they endangered existing jobs. Thus, the City Council of Cologne decided in 1412, It is announced that our councillors were told that Walther Kessinger wanted to make a wheel on which silk can be spun. So our councillors considered and worried that many people in their city who make a living within the Silk Spinner Guild would be thrown into chaos and ruined. And that is why they have agreed that neither this wheel nor any other wheels should ever be used now or in the future. When compared to decisions of today's city councils regarding Uber, this sounds familiar. However, the triumphal march of automation and the reduction of the cost of clothing for all were only delayed, not stopped. Credit card companies have also experienced the limits of state law enforcement and prosecution in cross-border payment transactions. But instead of calling now for a world government or an international agreement, the providers have simply found alternative private solutions. These are constantly developed further on the basis of improved ideas or new facts without the customer noticing much of it. The credit card provider takes control of the process for the customer by automatically checking suspicious payment transactions using suitable algorithms and, in the event of suspected abuse, blocks the corresponding payments or cancels the card completely. The customer is informed and can then release or expressly object to the suspicious payment after his own examination. If the other party insists on payment in the event of an objection, the customer must give an affidavit within a period of time that he did not carry out the transaction, for example, the purchase of goods. He will then be released from any obligation to pay. The system works. None of it is based on government initiative. The same applies to international payment transactions as well as stock exchange and forward transactions. These private mechanisms are also capable of regulating highly complex transfers, including the risk of non-payment, in such a way that international payment transactions on an exorbitant scale can take place smoothly on a daily basis. If, however, highly complex transactions can be regulated privately, then it should be even easier to regulate simpler transactions. And so it is. Even a purely private police force with its own set of rules successfully endured security and order in San Francisco in the 19th century. Disputes between sellers and buyers of goods, such as problems of non-delivery, poor quality, and restitution, are largely resolved on eBay by its own private buyer protection and dispute settlement system. A recourse to state courts is only necessary in exceptional cases. Private security companies secure amusement parks according to the local house rules. Some guests have to be expelled from the park or reported for criminal offenses. 
But you never hear about private security companies in amusement parks or on cruise ships attracting attention through excessive brutality towards guests. The guests are paying customers with a contractual claim to appropriate treatment, even if they behave incorrectly. The security personnel are aware of this, and that alone seems sufficient to prevent excesses. Cruise ships are also a good example of the fact that there are already cases in which people voluntarily submit to completely private regulatory sovereignty. On the high seas outside territorial waters, passengers are not subject to the laws of the state from which they come or the state off the coast of which they are sailing. The captain has the supreme executive power. There is neither a court nor a parliament on board. There is another legal basis for this, namely the contract that passengers have concluded with the cruise line, usually through the tour operator. Even if you have never read it, such a contract exists, and it also determines the applicable law. For the duration of the cruise, the cruise line staff will take care of your safety, protect your property, and settle any disputes. Of course, the main service is the cruise as such, but as an ancillary service, the company provides offshore many of the services that a state offers onshore. Customers pay a predetermined amount, which the cruise company cannot change unilaterally any more than the route and the services promised within the scope of the cruise. If it does, however, the customers may claim damages. Free private cities are now simply transferring this mechanism to land. Chapter 11. Special Zones and Other Variations Freedom to reject is the only freedom. Salman Rushdie, Writer Free private cities correspond to classical liberal minimal states operated by private companies. For many, this is too little, but for some, this is already too much state. Both groups can be helped. The operating system, free private city, can cover a relatively wide range of political preferences. If a private administration is not enforceable, it is still possible to implement at least parts of the concept through a special zone or a de facto private city. 1. More State A free private city does not necessarily have to be designed as a lean night watchman state, it is easily conceivable to extend the operator's mandatory basic package to cover a wider range of state services. More services, more regulation. For example, additional urban services such as garbage collection, water, and electricity could be included in the package, as well as health and pension insurance and other social contributions. Nevertheless, the operator does not have to provide these services himself, but can make use of private subcontractors. Furthermore, it may be desirable or required by the host state that certain areas are regulated from the outset. This concerns, for example, approval requirements for all types of environmentally relevant projects or licensing for certain professions, vaccination requirements, or compulsory school attendance. In principle, these and other regulatory preferences can be taken into account by drafting the citizen's contract accordingly. With regard to both the extension of services and the extension of regulations, it should be noted, however, that this limits the freedom and room for action of the residents.
Ultimately, the question of the optimal mix of services and regulations will be answered by the market. Whatever is not in demand or leads to insolvency will disappear. Changes by committees Some operators may also conclude that rule changes are unavoidable, but that the path through judicial development by way of court judgments or arbitral awards is too tedious and lengthy. In this respect, certain bodies could be set up to decide on these amendments. Such bodies may be external agencies that have no self-interest in a particular outcome of their activities because they are not located in the city itself. Alternatively, such bodies could, of course, be composed of representatives of the residents, landowners or business people, or they could be freely elected. It should be noted, however, that such bodies tend, over time, to take on more and more powers and gradually devalue the citizen's contract. The precondition is, therefore, that there is a core area of the citizen's contract that cannot be changed and that the areas accessible for rule changes are kept as small as possible. Otherwise, this body will become a legislative body with all the negative side effects and consequences that we know from parliamentary democracy. Democratic Codetermination If democratic codetermination is desired or required by the host state, but the operator wishes to avoid the negative effects of a mass democracy, the following is conceivable. Each resident undertakes to acquire at least one share certificate in the operating company. Certain facts, including changes to the rules within the framework permitted by the citizen's contract, can then be entrusted to the decision of the shareholders' meeting. As in stock corporations, this body decides on amendments to the Articles of Association by a possibly qualified majority of capital. There is an incentive for the respective minority and majority shareholders to vote for a positive development of the entire city because otherwise their shares will decrease in value. If this is still not enough democracy, a second procedure can be added to the shareholder democracy described, the so-called corrective democracy. If the shareholders have taken a certain decision on the rules applicable in the city by capital majority, then the contract citizens can call a referendum on it within a certain period and reject this decision by majority vote. The change is then omitted, or the operator must try to find another regulation that is capable of gaining a majority both in the shareholders' meeting and among all residents. This corrective democracy grants only the right of veto. It is not possible to make your own proposals for amendments or rules in this way, like voting oneself a subsidy or higher pension. In this way, the disadvantages of democracy can be avoided while still achieving some modicum of co-determination. Public instead of private The decisive element of a free private city is the citizen's contract, which should define at least one core area where unilateral changes are not possible. Another essential element is the existence of a private operating company, irrespective of whether it belongs to all residents, a company, a single person, or is in free float. After all, for incentive reasons, this society must have a profit motive and a certain degree of regulatory autonomy. In many states, this model may not yet be enforceable for political reasons. Interim solutions will be needed. The closest way to the concept of a free private city is to replace the private city operator 
with a public corporation whose management and monitoring bodies are appointed by the host state or elected by the residents. Alternatively, a mixed form could be constructed as a kind of public-private partnership, for example, by the private operator being supervised by a state or elected body. What is decisive in all cases is the existence of a citizen's contract with each individual, which sets the direction for the delegated or elected representatives, but also prevents them from interfering too much in the legal position of the residents. 2. Less State The realization that a non-voluntary society always leads to abuse of power is most widespread in libertarian circles. In this respect, it is not surprising that numerous proposals have been made from there as to how state alternatives can be designed on a voluntary basis. The corresponding models cannot all be discussed in detail, but the most important elements of non-governmental system proposals are discussed below. A monopoly of regulations, but not of force. In order to remove the possibility of abuse of power from the outset, it is proposed that rules be laid down which all residents must accept while renouncing a monopoly of force. Instead, competing security companies must be permitted, which are forced by competition among themselves to perform well and not to abuse their power. Such an approach is basically possible in a free private city, whereby the rules for police measures, to which the security providers must also adhere, are laid down in the citizen's contract. However, the operator must ensure that there are several security providers in the city area and that all citizens have an appropriate contract with a security company. The same applies to the outsourcing of enforcement to insurance agencies. As long as no insurance company offers this in practice, it remains a thought experiment. In principle, however, all models which, on the one hand, provide for the rules to be laid down by the operator and, on the other hand, do not give the operator any powers to enforce them, have an execution problem, particularly with regard to the expulsion of persons from the city or dealing with out-of-control security services. Neither a monopoly on regulation nor on force. Proposals that provide neither a regulatory framework nor a monopoly on the use of force go even further. The residents themselves should decide which law they want to be subject to. Over time, rules would be worked out to regulate how conflict situations between the customers of different legal and security providers could be resolved. In theory, this approach is also possible in a free private city, but the citizen's contract is then more or less dispensable unless the free choice of law and rules is restricted to certain areas. The operator could then earn money with real estate transactions and voluntary regulatory and security offers. However, the development of conflict rules could take years and organized crime could easily seep into such systems. The resulting inability of the operator to ensure security is likely to lead to the relative unattractiveness of such systems, especially for families and companies. See also the discussion in Chapter 17. Lease Models In order to solve these problems, lease models are proposed in which the operating company retains ownership of the entire land and can therefore exercise its corresponding powers of ownership at any time. 
the residents can only acquire ownership of the buildings. The situation is comparable to that of a homeowner's association. The profit motive of the company becomes secondary. The advantage, of course, is that the operating company is not only a service provider, but in a certain way the city par excellence. Goodwill is likely to be greater, especially if there are plans for later capitalization. Even in such lease models, however, the mutual rights and obligations must be relatively precisely defined, in particular the extent of respective property rights, house versus land ownership, so that this model does not differ fundamentally from the one represented here. The disadvantage, however, is that the residents have no right to acquire land. There will always be a trade-off. If I want to renounce all monopolies, then I must not grant myself a monopoly on regulation and land ownership either. However, it will then become difficult to impossible to expel troublemakers or to run the community in an entrepreneurial manner. But let the market decide. Ultimately, success will become evident in reality. Theories discussed for decades could be put to the first practical test in a competition of systems. Again, several models may work well and simply appeal to different target groups. 3. Special Zones If free private cities are not yet politically feasible, although the willingness for far-reaching reforms and new approaches exists in principle, it is still possible to take up at least individual aspects of the idea and apply them in a special zone. There are good arguments for this. A state that applies all rules uniformly across its territory must always choose a certain path that can only be corrected after years or decades. Possible advancement may be paralyzed if not prevented. In the product and service market, startup companies can challenge established competitors with new products. This applies, in particular, when the majority and expert opinion does not initially grant such products any chance of success. This established and well-functioning mechanism can be applied to the market of living together. Special zones are created within existing national territories to which economically and politically divergent rules may apply. These are in competition both with each other and with the mother state, which retains its old regulatory regime. In order not to force something on anyone that they do not want, these zones are set up in sparsely populated or unpopulated areas. They are settled exclusively by volunteers who can identify with the rules that apply there. Previous residents can choose whether or not to be subject to the rules of the special zone. If you don't like what is being done there, just stay away or go to a special zone that suits you better. This allows everyone, even people outside the zones, to observe which models work and which do not. The establishment of special zones may also involve offering a valve to a dissatisfied minority or simply attracting investors. The latter is already common practice worldwide in the form of special economic zones. Their characteristics are mostly tax relief, investment protection, exemption from customs duties, and less regulation for companies. Economic freedoms are thus occasionally higher there than in the rest of the country, although other laws and personal freedoms are generally not handled differently. Special economic zones, however, show that special rules are possible for certain interests. So far, these are only economic interests, but there is little reason why this should not also apply to other interests in the future. 
It is therefore to be expected that special economic zones will also allow more and more deviations from the rules of the home country and will gradually be transformed into special administrative zones. Special administrative zones are areas that have special rights of their own. A classic example is Hong Kong, which belongs to China but has its own regulatory authority for most areas, its own government, and even its own currency. Overseas territories of former colonial powers such as Great Britain or France also enjoy the status of special administrative zones as they exercise their own regulatory authority. This is sometimes more, sometimes less, subject to the laws of the mother state. Certain areas, such as the British Virgin Islands, now have only the Queen of England as their formal head, but are otherwise autonomous. In addition to areas of colonial origin, there are also genuine new creations of special administrative zones, such as the Dubai International Financial Center. This is an intermediate form between the special economic zone and the special administrative zone. It covers an area of only 0.25 square kilometers. The zone was founded in 2002. It has its own legal status, with its own laws based on common law principles and its own independent courts. The corresponding legal texts are written in English. A similar situation applies to the Abu Dhabi Global Markets Special Zone, which was created in 2013. Honduras goes one step further with its ZD, an evolved version of a special zone. This evolution on a traditional special economic zone is modeled on Hong Kong's basic law and based on international best practices derived from successes in Singapore and Dubai. A group of Honduran leaders worked diligently and persistently for several years to bring this idea to fruition. The corresponding law was passed after the amendment of the Constitution in January 2013 with a clear supermajority of votes across party lines. ZDs are created at the initiative of domestic or foreign individuals and companies. In uninhabited areas, the consent of the landowners is sufficient to establish the zone. In other areas, referendums and the consent of Parliament are required. They allow the establishment of special legal systems, courts, and security forces. The mother state hopes that this will attract both foreign and domestic investors who have so far shown little confidence in the relevant institutions in Honduras. It is also attractive for Hondurans to live and work in such a stable environment. The aim is to create jobs, accelerate economic development, and improve the quality of life of Hondurans. The planned legal and administrative regime requires the approval of a state commission and is permanently monitored by that commission. Parts of the Constitution, as well as the international agreements concluded by Honduras and Honduran criminal law, continue to apply. Each special zone is headed by a technical secretary who must be a Honduran citizen and who is appointed and supervised by the state commission. He may also use private companies to manage the zone. The inhabitants of the zone can request a contract with the zone administration, which defines the mutual rights and obligations. Part of the taxes levied by the zone administration on its inhabitants is to be paid to Honduras. It is remarkable that any interested landowner can join the special zone at a later date. That is, the zones can grow. Several ZDs are currently being initiated. 
A similar model is currently favored by the Seasteading Institute in the Pacific, namely in French Polynesia. The establishment of a sea zone with a land share is being negotiated there, under conditions similar to the special zones in Honduras. The opportunities offered by ZDs in Honduras and possible sea zones in the Pacific are at least so far the projects to come closest to the ideal of a free private city. Such an area can be described as a special zone, free zone, special administrative zone, special economic zone plus, or super economic zone. Where even such an autonomous special zone is politically unenforceable, special zones for particular themes can be set up. For example, special crypto zones could be set up in which attractive, reliable, and durable rules apply to companies dealing with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies. New models of social security could be tested in a special social security zone, such as a purely capital-based pension insurance with the right to choose a provider along Chilean-Australian lines. The health insurance could also be similar to the one organized by Singapore, where they have only a basic liability insurance, equivalent to vehicle liability insurance. For any additional benefits, it is up to each individual to decide whether or not to take out insurance. It is also conceivable that new products could, in principle, be authorized in a special innovation zone without an authorization procedure. Different solutions to the migration problem could be tested in special immigration zones. Those who are poorly educated and have little or no command of the language of the host country are dependent on the low-wage sector to secure their livelihood. Where state-imposed minimum wages prevent the creation of such jobs, integration is not possible. Not even cheap accommodation can be built in many countries because the strict insulation and other regulations make construction exorbitantly expensive. All this would not be the case in these special zones because the excessive clog of regulations would be largely dissolved. Anybody willing to work and integrate and willing to observe the rules of the special immigration zone would be welcome. Certainly, there will be no getting around certain upper limits for reasons of space alone. Since participation would be voluntary in all cases, all special zones must grant each resident a right of withdrawal at any time, unconditional right to exit. Anyone who is disappointed by the special zone can leave it again, be it because it does not live up to his expectations or because he rejects subsequent decisions by the administration or the elected representation, perhaps also because he is overwhelmed by life there. Competition will ensure that the best special zones are successful and the others disappear. And uninterested citizens do not have to change their lives, as everything else in the mother state would remain the same. History shows that the majority are attached to the status quo and prefer to maintain it. This need would be met by the creation of special zones. 4. De facto private cities Even if special zones are not a politically feasible way, the establishment of quasi-private cities is still possible. These are settlements that are located exclusively on private property. The landowner, as city operator, concludes a contract with each settler which stipulates the resident's intent to comply with the rules laid down there. 
The contract could also include the requirement to use only the intended dispute settlement systems and also to accept the establishment of a security service and its powers. Failure to do so would then result in termination of the contract and loss of the resident's permit. Examples of such de facto private cities are the American Homeowner Associations or regulated private cities such as Weston or Celebration in Florida. This category also includes libertarian startups such as the Norwegian project Liberstad. Of course, all state laws continue to apply in such cases, but at least in the areas of security, dispute resolution, and social harmony, a more pleasant coexistence can be achieved through this arrangement. Furthermore, the inhabitants could successively try to establish their own parallel systems in the area of education and social security in order to avoid the existing systems as far as possible within the framework of the law. The creation of their own cryptocurrency is also conceivable. The operator's ability to refuse applicants, although this contractual freedom is increasingly restricted by the state, and to dismiss those who break the rules allows positive selection. Amish settlements in North America or the Mennonites in South America are instructive in this context, especially since they have managed over time to obtain a certain degree of formal or at least de facto autonomy from the state. 5. Migrant Cities According to surveys, about 700 million people currently want to leave their homes, mostly from African and Arab countries. By 2050, the number is expected to rise to 1.2 billion people who want to migrate due to population growth in these countries. Their preferred destinations are wealthy western states. On the one hand, this is understandable from a human point of view, but on the other hand, the sheer number of people willing to immigrate is so high that, if it were to happen, it would threaten to put even stable, industrialized countries in a precarious position. Conflicts are unavoidable. Migrant cities based on the model of free private cities are a potential solution. They offer a reliable legal framework and the possibility of acquiring real estate, importing and exporting goods, and setting up companies in an uncomplicated manner. These are precisely the conditions that are usually lacking in immigration countries and hinder economic development. Migrant cities, therefore, have the best conditions for ensuring a safe life, a new community, and economic development for refugees and migrants in their own cultures. They also attract companies and service providers from nearby areas and from all over the world who are interested in stable conditions and new markets, but have so far avoided the areas in question due to political risks. The establishment of such a territory requires agreement with the respective government or, if its influence in the intended area is doubtful, with local rulers as well. It makes sense that such an agreement should not only be concluded between the operator of the private city and the host state, but that other states should also sign as guarantors of the migrant city. For example, the parties will agree to comply with human rights and international agreements in the city. For example, to prevent human trafficking, money laundering, and the like. Nevertheless, the attractiveness of private governance should not be underestimated. Acceptance is likely to be much higher than if other states take over direct administration of the territory. 
No country likes to have foreign powers governing part of its territory. In addition, the host state could be granted a share in the operating company of the private city, which would ensure a say in the shareholders' meeting or participation in any later dividends. Military security would be indispensable in crisis regions in particular. Following the Swiss example, the migrant city itself would have to be strictly neutral and refrain from interfering in conflicts. Therefore, external security should not be guaranteed by local forces, but by international security companies. This is particularly true if one wants to avoid a foreign military presence. If other states have co-signed the treaty, however, they can provide a security guarantee for the migrant city. This alone will help to keep the neighbors in check. Within the city, internal security would inevitably be rather robust, especially in light of existing regional conflicts. In the citizen's contract, each resident would promise to observe the rules, which would include tolerance and the renunciation of violence towards people of different beliefs or religions. Violation of these rules would result in termination of the contract and expulsion from the city, including the stipulation that the resident return to where he came from. Precisely because different groups are to be expected in a migrant city that do not necessarily have a common cultural and religious understanding, it is essential to establish clear rules and to enforce them rigorously. A clear line provides incentives to act accordingly in order to remain in the city. That is also an opportunity, as it would offer support and encouragement to moderate elements in the populations. Ultimately, a migrant city will only be economically successful if, in addition to economic freedom, the personal freedom of those who belong to another religion or do not believe at all is guaranteed. Proving this connection in practice is an opportunity to take the wind out of the sails of religious and political fundamentalists. As in other free private cities, an annual fee would have to be paid for the service provided by the city operator. Newcomers without means could initially be granted a deferral of contributions, provided that fees be repaid at a later date as income becomes available. The migrant city would have to avoid the impression of being a charity community at all costs. It could not function as a refugee camp run by charitable donations or by the United Nations, but a city that lives from and through its inhabitants. A recipient mentality should not be allowed to arise in the first place. Those who, after the year and a day of residency, still refuse to pay contributions or take up work would have to be expelled. A migrant city that emerges from nothing can only be successful if its inhabitants are willing to work and contribute in substantial ways. In this context, it is important that migrant cities provide incentives for the settlement of highly educated people, entrepreneurs, and investors. Cities whose inhabitants are predominantly or exclusively illiterate will not succeed. For this reason, each city must be able to choose its own inhabitants in order to achieve a healthy mix of quantity and quality. If the private city flourishes later, further jobs for unskilled workers will automatically be created. The private structure of the city avoids the danger that, in the event of an election victory, the winner will favor his cronies or install a regime that endangers stability or drives away companies and investors. The very nature of the system precludes the emergence of political conflicts in the first place. 
There is every reason to believe that such communities will grow and flourish by guaranteeing security, committing themselves to the vigorous enforcement of law and contract, allowing personal and economic freedom, and keeping religious conflicts at bay. They can offer many people a perspective they cannot find anywhere else. In the event of success, the idea will spread. If they spread enough, migrant cities could make a significant contribution to mitigating the refugee and migration crisis. Part 3. Implementation Chapter 12. Establishing Free Private Cities All human progress has taken place in such a way that a small minority began to deviate from the ideas and customs of the majority, until their example finally led the others to adopt the innovation. Ludwig von Mises, Economist and Philosopher Really new products usually only become established after they have been available for a while and everyone has been able to convince themselves of their benefits. Around 1900, if asked about their most preferred transportation improvement, most people probably would have answered, faster horses. Before its introduction, the fax machine was judged by the commissioned market research institutes as an unwanted gadget. If comparable surveys had been conducted before the first iPhone appeared, a handheld computer with which one can also make telephone calls, something similar may well have been the outcome. It is therefore unavoidable to not only describe the product free private city, but to make it a reality. Only then can people get a real sense of what it is. If new products are convincing, they can subsequently revolutionize entire markets. Today, virtually all cell phone manufacturers produce iPhone-like smartphones because nothing else is in demand. But how can free private cities be created? Why should existing states, whose consent is needed, get involved at all? As with the free imperial cities of the Middle Ages, there is only one reason, self-interest. States may agree to surrender part of their sovereignty over a given territory when they expect to benefit from it. Advantages for Host Countries Take a look at Hong Kong, Singapore, or Monaco. Near each of these city-states, a kind of belt of prosperity has grown up around them in the neighboring countries. Its inhabitants pay taxes in the neighboring countries. In addition, these city-states create many jobs for commuters from the surrounding countries who might otherwise have remained unemployed. If a free private city is created in a previously structurally weak or uninhabited area, then the host state has nothing to lose and everything to gain. But even in more densely populated areas, the economic benefits that the host state generates can be higher than before once a free private city has been established. In other cases, governments are ready to reform but face considerable obstacles and opposition to change in their own country. In such cases, free private cities can provide new opportunities without having to change the political system of the host state. There may also be special situations, such as the establishment of security zones or refugee cities in former civil war zones or the desire to try out alternative solutions in special zones. 
In such cases, it may be advantageous to entrust the administration to an independent, impartial private company. Special Economic Zones as Trailblazers After all, setting up a free private city is easier the more precedents there are for it. The first time is, as is so often the case, the hardest. However, a special feature of our time, namely the existence of special economic zones, might help. Whereas 50 years ago there were hardly any special economic zones, today their number has risen to around 4,300. The fact that special economic zones exist at all is already a de facto admission by states that their traditional regulations are apparently not the optimum environment for companies and investors. It is also the unspoken admission that across-the-board uniformity is apparently not the last word either. Basically, the establishment of a free private city is only the continuation of this development. It is logical because many states have had to realize that the special economic zones they have set up are not in demand. The same applies to many ambitious new city projects. The reason for this is that people and companies alike prefer an environment that offers security, predictability, as well as economic and personal freedom. Tax and customs relief is also available elsewhere, which in and of itself is no longer sufficient to generate significant new settlements or investments. And often the long-term stability of such zones is questionable because the respective rulers or legislative bodies can change their minds again after the next election. Free private cities address these issues by creating a reliable and stable framework secured in corresponding agreements with the host state and offering maximum economic and personal freedom in addition to guaranteed security. The operator of the free private city is concluding a contract with the host state. It may be necessary for the latter to amend its laws first, possibly even its constitution, in order to make such an agreement possible. In a sense, therefore, free private cities are only a further development of special economic zones and can probably be conveyed more easily in that context, special economic zone plus, especially since states are reluctant to enter completely new territory. It is in the nature of things that countries with problems will more likely be on the lookout for new ideas. The pressure to act is not yet great enough for the others. The first free private cities will therefore not be located in the most attractive places in the most stable countries. That will be an inevitable challenge at first. If the trailblazers succeed, however, it will be easier to convince other countries to follow. In practice, the more investment the operator can promise, the more governments will be inclined to agree to the establishment of a free private city. It is therefore advisable to organize an appropriate volume of investment before approaching potential host nations. The Agreement It is unlikely that a free private city will be able to negotiate complete independence from the host state. In addition to territorial sovereignty, defense, foreign policy, the state will probably reserve the continued application of certain legal norms, such as the validity of the human rights enshrined in its constitution, continued respect for its international agreements, and criminal codes. The free private city should be able to cope with this without giving up its essence. In this respect, the free private city will not be able to grant its own citizenship, 
residents will keep their own. In such cases, however, some interests may conflict with those of the host state. Potential disputes should be settled in advance. This concerns, for example, the case of citizens of the host state potentially ridding themselves of their tax obligations by moving to the private city. Another conflict could arise if goods and services are offered much cheaper in the free private city than in the host country. For example, petrol, cigarettes, due to tax and regulatory advantages. This can cause economic difficulties for the host country's businesses close to the border, which in turn could cause political problems for the free private city. Both situations can be regulated in such a way that the host state does not suffer any disadvantage. For example, the agreement with the host country could stipulate that certain products may only be purchased by residents of the private city and citizens of the host country continue to be subject to its taxes, like the French in Monaco. Despite all the willingness to compromise, certain autonomy rights would have to be reserved or the establishment of a free private city would no longer offer a competitive advantage. These include 1. The free private city has the power to regulate business and commercial law at its own discretion. This includes labor law, construction law, and environmental law regulations, which facilitate the establishment and implementation of companies. This also includes the possibility of concluding transactions in any currency and being able to set up companies quickly and easily. 2. The free private city may establish its own tax, customs, and social regime independent of the regulations of the host state. 3. The acquisition of property, including real estate, is possible without further hurdles and in a legally secure manner in accordance with the rules of the free private city. Such acts shall be recognized by the host state. 4. The legal position of the city residents under the residence contract is recognized by the host state even if some residents are also its own citizens. 5. Justice, police, and administration are carried out under the city's own control and by their own staff. 6. The host state and its organs shall not interfere in the internal affairs of the city, its inhabitants, or businesses. 7. Fundamental freedoms such as freedom of opinion, freedom of assembly, and equality before the law are guaranteed even if the host nation has conflicting legislation. 8. The free private city is entitled to expel unwanted persons or to deny them entry even if they are citizens of the host state. 9. The status of the free private city is guaranteed by the host state for a long period, ideally 99 years or longer. 10. All investments made in the free private city are subject to special, contractually guaranteed investor protection. What degree of inner autonomy the free private city actually will have is ultimately a matter of negotiation. Here, too, the existence of successful private cities facilitates the starting position for subsequent projects. A proven method of optimizing the situation is to agree on a most favored nation clause. That is, the free private city is treated in the same way as any other country that has a contract with the host state. All the benefits granted to other countries in this respect, therefore, also apply to the private city. 
An extended most favored nation clause could even mean that everything that is permissible in at least one country in the world could be allowed in the free private city. This would considerably increase the scope for regulation. Excessively clever legal moves or regulations in the treaty that take advantage of the host state are not recommended. These will come to light at some point, and political pressure in the host state to terminate or amend the treaty will follow. The authorities will hardly be able to escape such public pressure, especially if the corresponding contractual clause actually constitutes a unilateral disadvantage for the host state. They will then act, even if the contract with the free private city should theoretically preclude any such development. Any subsequent unilateral revocation or amendment of the agreement by the host state is tantamount to expropriation. Therefore, a very crucial issue is investment protection, which should extend to all residents, entrepreneurs, and owners in the free private city, and not only to investors from abroad. States often conclude bilateral investment protection agreements with foreign companies investing on their territory. As a rule, it is agreed that a recognized arbitral tribunal shall be called upon in the event of a conflict. The operator of the free private city adopts this approach, but extends its scope to all companies based in the city and to all contractors. By expressly agreeing to investment protection and arbitration with the host state, these rules apply to all residents, even if they are citizens of the host state. In addition, the operating company may establish itself in a country that already has a bilateral or multilateral investment protection agreement with the host country. As a foreign company, it is then protected by the relevant contracts and can thus shield the free private city. Such intergovernmental agreements are quite common. They usually provide for arbitration proceedings. As a rule, their judgments are also enforceable, since most states are contracting parties to the New York Convention. Such investment protection mechanisms are the essential means of securing a free private city against a sudden change of mind and action by the host state in breach of contract. In practice, they also work because, although the state can theoretically disregard its obligations and ignore arbitration decisions, the injured parties can then seize the foreign assets of the host state. Moreover, it will then be very difficult for the state to attract future foreign investors, including buyers of its government bonds. Dealing with Conflicts Despite a written agreement with the host country, there may be differences in interpretation of the contents of the contract. It is also possible that new issues arise which are not expressly regulated in the contract and which lead to conflicts of interest. This calls for sensitivity on the part of the operator towards the host state. It is important that due to the factual and geographical proximity to the host state, the two administrations meet regularly. In this way, current issues and problems can be discussed, and possible conflicts can be identified and resolved at an early stage. It is advisable to keep a precise record of such meetings and keep detailed minutes.
A Monegasque diplomat pointed out to me that it helped Monaco in its dispute with France in the early 1960s that Monaco had archived and could consult all the minutes of previous bilateral meetings and the decisions taken there, even if these dated back more than a hundred years. In the event of a dispute, it is indispensable to take disputes about the content of the contract and mutual rights and obligations before an internationally recognized arbitration court. The International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, of the World Bank in Washington is the most important institution for disputes between foreign investors and the host countries in which they have interests. Other important international arbitration tribunals are the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC, in Paris, the American Arbitration Association, AAA, in New York, the Singapore International Arbitration Center, SIAC, and the London Court of International Arbitration, LCIA. A clause to this effect should already be part of the original agreement. It is then more difficult for the host state to simply ignore judgments and might even lead to disadvantages in international trade. It is important to keep in mind, even in conflicts, that the free private city still offers an advantage for the host state. China, for example, has not fully absorbed Hong Kong and destroyed its administrative structures, knowing that Hong Kong, as a special administrative zone, has greater benefits for China than if it were an ordinary provincial city. A well-positioned free private city will have a similar effect on the host state. Previous Residents The ideal case Founding a free private city in a completely uninhabited area will probably be the rare exception. It is more likely that at least a few citizens of the host country will be residents in the designated area. This raises the question of their legal status in the free private city. The simplest and most obvious solution would be to have them sign a citizenship contract like the new settlers. But what happens to those who don't? Basically, nobody should be forced to join the free private city. It should remain completely voluntary. In principle, there are only three possibilities. One, those who do not wish to sign the contract must leave the territory and may receive compensation. Two, previous residents who are not willing to contract are still only subject to the legal system and the executive bodies of the host state. 3. The contract shall be imposed on this population in whole or in part. In all cases, the legal basis would be the agreement with the host state, which regulates this. None of the solutions is optimal. The first forces people to leave their ancestral home against their will. The second creates two classes of residents, creates free rider effects, and endangers internal independence by allowing a gateway for interference by state organs of the host state, and the third contradicts the principle of voluntariness. Nevertheless, the latter solution is probably preferable, as it is less far-reaching than the first solution, ensures the legal equality among residents, which is vital to the free private city model, respects the validity of the rules in force in the free private city, and does not make the inhabitants any worse off. Recall that at any time before the free private city arrived, all manner of changes in the laws of the host state were also possible. 
It is probably also the only realistic option in those cases in which entire municipalities or cities decide that they want to become free private cities, a decision likely to be made by heretofore traditional methods of political decision-making, that is, by local council decision or referendum, so that there will always be a minority of unwilling people present. The municipality may offer them a district of their own, internal resettlement, or consider other compensatory measures for private city opponents willing to leave. Chapter 13. Legal System All rights in the world have been won. Every important law has to be wrestled from those who opposed it, and every rule requires a constant willingness to uphold it. Rudolf von Gering, Legal Scholar the justice system serves to order and shape human coexistence, to resolve conflicts by means of a regulated procedure, and to protect the individual from assaults by other persons or the state. Equality before the law, the binding of rulers to the law, and the settlement of disputes by independent courts binding on everyone are among the greatest achievements of civilization. The importance of the legal system for our coexistence is generally underestimated. In fact, there is hardly anything of greater importance. Whoever has the power to set and change law has essentially complete control over his fellow human beings. Legislative bodies are therefore a magnet for interest groups, lobbyists, and political activists of all kinds in both democratic and non-democratic states. The problems arising from this have not yet been satisfactorily solved. Free private cities must therefore pay particular attention to their legal system in order to create a genuine and lasting competitive advantage. There are numerous projects worldwide for the construction of entire new cities, some of which are also managed by private companies. However, these cities are fully subject to the laws of the state to which they belong. They may have their own rules, but they apply, in addition, to all the state laws, not in their stead. In this respect, they are private cities, but not free private cities. In view of the problems examined in Part 1, there is little to be gained in going this route. A developer of the Korean private city of Songdo reported in a private conversation that the planned construction of a new hospital had already failed because the doctor's union had exercised its right to object. The creators of special economic zones are also increasingly waking up to the realization that the granting of tax and customs relief alone is no longer sufficient to attract investors. This offers no competitive advantage over other special economic zones, nor does it solve the problems of long-term stability and legal security, nor does it meet the needs of qualified individuals for freedom of action and freedom of conscience. The software, in the figurative sense, that is, the design of an attractive legal and regulatory framework that guarantees not only economic but also personal freedoms, is more important than the hardware, that is, the construction of houses, factories, and infrastructure. If the software is right, sooner or later the hardware will follow on its own. Conversely, this is not the case. In this respect, free private cities should allow the greatest possible personal and economic freedom, 
avoid uncertainty due to changes in the rules, and provide a stable legal framework, the rules of which are based on strict reciprocity and equality without unilateral preference for participants on the basis of ideological considerations. How must the legal system be structured to ensure this? To answer this question, a basic understanding of the various fields of law is required. Three Different Areas of Law The continental European legal tradition distinguishes between public law, private law, and criminal law. In the legal systems based on English common law, the distinction is less strict, and it is also not mandatory. For a better understanding of our coexistence, however, it is advisable to keep these three areas apart. So basically, we are talking about three different legal systems to which every human being in today's world is subject. Public law deals with the relationship between citizens and the state. Since this is an asymmetrical relationship between a powerful state and a weak subject, special rules have evolved throughout history to prevent arbitrary acts by the government and its administration. The executive branch's commitment to law and order is one of the main characteristics of a constitutional state. Keeping this disentangled from private law is important because in public law there are mandatory rules that cannot be imposed by contract, and the state is generally privileged, immunity of public officials, protection against liability and insolvency, the ability to change laws, etc. Private law, however, also known as civil law, regulates the legal relationships between any two private persons, or legal persons such as companies, and is based on the equality of the two parties to the dispute. For thousands of years, principles have emerged in private law which are the same in most legal systems, even in those which only know customary law passed down orally. Even the ancient Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, 1700 B.C., differentiated between the treatment of contractual and non-contractual obligations and recognized the rights associated with private property and the formal equality of rights between two disputing parties. All these rules are based on a reasonable and fair balance of interests between the parties and the idea that the same rules should apply to everyone. They followed the idea of contractual freedom or private autonomy, that is, the possibility of contractually excluding or amending most rules of private law if both parties agree. Private law is reciprocity par excellence. Therefore, the principles of private law are much more stable and older than all public laws currently in force. Although the application of a particular private law is now usually ordered by the state, its content is fundamentally independent of the kind of state and the rules of public law that apply in a particular country. On 1 January 1900, the German Civil Code, BGB, came into force in the German Reich under Emperor Wilhelm II. The BGB continued to apply after the abdication of the emperor in the Weimar Republic, retained its validity during the Nazi regime, during the period of occupation after the war, and finally in the Federal Republic of Germany up to the present day. The BGB has thus survived without prejudice to monarchy, democracy, dictatorship, and military administration. Criminal law is actually a special form of public law. 
but due to its special significance, it has become independent as a separate area of law. Criminal law provides for criminal liability for certain acts. The perpetrators are prosecuted, convicted, and punished by the state and at the expense of the state. In this respect, it is a matter of maintaining public safety and order, not of settlement between victim and offender, for which in most legal systems private law is relevant. The victim has a so-called tort claim under private law. Today, this only includes material damages or compensation for pain and suffering and does not extend to further punishment of the perpetrator. Private Administrative Law In a private community, the question arises as to whether public law and criminal law are applicable at all. Because the provider of the free private city and the citizen face each other as equal legal entities, both are contracting parties and conclude a contract under private law, just as one would do with a service provider or insurance company. Mutual obligations are delineated in a clearly defined relationship. For all disputes concerning the interpretation of the contract or in case of poor compliance or failure to comply by one party, principles of private law and conflict resolution mechanisms are applicable. This also applies to cases in which violence is used, for example, by the operator's private police force. This is comparable to the security service of a hotel or amusement park expelling of a guest for violation of the house rules. Even temporary imprisonment and other sanctions are possible under private law, for example, on a cruise ship or in a boarding school. On the other hand, the person concerned can sue before a civil court and, if necessary, be awarded a claim for future injunctive relief and damages or compensation for pain and suffering. In a free private city, the corresponding powers of the security forces are laid down in the citizen's contract, similar to a police law. Such private administrative law cannot be waived, but applies to all residents. Compare also Chapter 14. In contrast to genuine public law, however, the corresponding regulations are an integral part of the contract and are known to every citizen before signing the contract. They cannot be changed or extended unilaterally by the operator. Therefore, there is, in fact, no need for public law in free private cities. The operator has no legal position which goes beyond that of a service provider and which can be reviewed before ordinary civil courts or arbitration courts. And this can happen at the instigation of each and every single holder of a citizen's contract. This alone significantly improves the legal position of contract citizens of a free private city compared to normal citizens who often already lack the right to sue in matters of public law. Private Criminal Law there is also the idea of foregoing criminal law altogether in contractually based social orders and of compensating all violations of the law solely by way of damages under private law. The victim would receive financial compensation from the offender. In the event of death, the beneficiaries would be the victim's family or heirs. This approach has roots in ancient tradition and is certainly a good solution in many cases. However, the citizens of the free private city have an understandable interest in no longer tolerating such perpetrators in their vicinity 
especially in the case of serious criminal acts. Therefore, it could be ordered in the citizen's contract that the contract is terminated without notice when criminal offenses are committed and the person concerned must leave the free private city immediately. This solution has a certain charm, especially since no law enforcement or prison apparatus needs to be set up. However, it also has disadvantages. What happens if the perpetrator cannot pay, especially in the case of serious offenses? How does that give the victim satisfaction? What if rich scallywags from other countries commit crimes for fun in the free private city? They could easily pay the compensation, and the expulsion from the free private city would not deter them as visitors anyway. What about criminals who, contrary to a ban, keep returning to the free private city, for example, to commit burglaries there? How do you deal with organized crime that intimidates witnesses and victims in order to avoid paying compensation? All this suggests that at least some actions should be qualified as criminal offenses which are automatically prosecuted by the operator or its security forces and, in addition to compensation for the victims, are punishable by prison sentences, for example in the area of serious physical injury, death, or rape. Nonetheless, the citizen's contract should include termination of the contract in cases of the commission of serious crimes, and the operator should make robust use of the termination clause. To cover the prison costs, the convicted must do community service and leave the city after serving their sentence. The free private city could make use of existing criminal law, including the criminal codes, and simply take out victimless crimes such as blasphemy or adultery, as well as offenses such as hate speech or incitement of the people. Insult and libel offenses can also be completely settled through private law, injunctive relief, compensation for pain and suffering. Since the free private city is not a subject of international law, the host state should, in any case, have expressly given its consent to turn over criminal law, criminal courts, and enforcement to the private city. In an independent criminal law system, the question of procedure remains. A jury system has no real advantages over a decision by a professional court. It burdens the jurors considerably can be influenced easily by professional lawyers, and interferes significantly in the normal daily routine of the jurors. The problem of the current Western criminal justice system is the de facto suppression of the victim's perspective and instead the overemphasis on the resocialization of the perpetrator and on mitigating circumstances. The legitimate interest of the victim's satisfaction and the sheer necessity of excluding the offender in order to protect society from repetition could be taken into account by providing, on the one hand, for minimum sentences for each offense which cannot be suspended for probation and for which the sentence, within a predetermined framework, is determined solely by the victim or his family after the court has clarified the question of guilt. Principle of Free Choice of Law and Jurisdiction In principle, free choice of law applies to all civil law matters in the free private city. Citizens and businesses can agree among themselves which legal framework, which rules of procedure, and which arbitration mechanisms they wish to apply in the event of a dispute. 
This has long been the norm in international trade between companies. There is no reason to deprive sovereign individuals of this right. It may also make sense for the parties concerned to resort to one legal framework for certain matters and to another for others, much the same way we make use of different tools for different jobs around the house. The parties to a lawsuit in the free private city thus enjoy complete freedom to choose a legal system that suits them, for example, the law of Delaware, or only parts of it and also any dispute settlement procedure, which may also mean, for example, declaring the courts of other states, for example, those of England, competent. However, this only works if both parties to the dispute agree. Since agreement will not always be reached, there must be a catch-all framework for private law and disputes. Otherwise, there would be considerable legal uncertainty as to which law and which rules of procedure would apply to the respective dispute. Would it be the law that is mostly applied in the free private city, the law of the host state, or the law of countries whose nationals are the parties to the dispute, which in turn can come from different countries? There are established conflict of laws rules, so-called international private law. However, when applying these rules in practice, it is not predictable and often surprising which law will ultimately apply. It would be better to regulate the applicable legal system more clearly and predictably. To this end, the operator of the private city must clearly define in the citizen's contract which private law system is to apply in cases in which the parties to the dispute cannot or do not want to agree on a legal system. It would be appropriate for him to prescribe the same private law system for contractual disputes between contract citizens and himself. Choice of the Private Law System Which private law system should a free private city choose? The most important private legal systems worldwide are based either on common law or on written, codified, civil law. Common law, also known as case law, is the law developed by judges, courts, and similar panels in decisions that primarily concern individual cases but also have binding effect for future cases. In cases where the parties disagree on the legal situation, the court reviews previous decisions in similar matters. If a similar dispute has been resolved in the past by court decision, the court is usually obliged to follow the justification used in that earlier decision. However, if the court finds that the current dispute is different from all previous cases and that relevant laws do not exist or are ambiguous, the judges have the power and duty to resolve the problem. Their decision will then set a precedent that will be binding on future courts. Common law systems originated in the Middle Ages in England and spread from there in the colonies of the British Empire. Even today, in England and Wales, in English-speaking Canada, and in most states of the USA, the basic rules on contracts and property are not laid down in legal form, but result from the collected case law. About one-third of the world's population lives in common law systems or mixed systems with a share of common law. Codified civil law systems, on the other hand, originate from continental Europe and have their origin in Roman law in particular in the composition of Corpus Juris Civilis, which Emperor Justinian initiated in 528 A.D. 
Their common characteristic is that the basic rules of private law have been systematically written down and have legal force. They serve as the primary legal source for the decision of private law cases. Conceptually, civil law is not based on individual cases, but on abstractions. It formulates general principles according to which all cases can be decided. The purpose of codification is to give all citizens the opportunity to be aware of the legal situation in force which is applied by the courts. Civil law systems are the most widespread systems of private law in the world. They apply in various forms in some 150 countries. There is no consensus as to which system is superior. The judicially determined result of disputes is almost always the same in both legal systems. After all, almost all the written legal principles of civil law can be found somewhere in the case law of common law. In civil law systems, the decision is found by deriving a decision from the rules as laid down. In common law systems, it is found by investigating and transferring the decisions of earlier comparable cases. Civil law is more systematic and thus easier for non-lawyers to understand. This is probably the reason why it is more frequently adopted by countries wishing to introduce a new private law. The adoption of foreign private legal systems is not uncommon. For example, the above-mentioned German Civil Code, BGB, was adopted by Japan, Greece, and Estonia. And in 1986, it also served as the basis for the General Principles of Private Law of the People's Republic of China. At the time of the Free Imperial Cities and the Hanseatic League, many cities adopted the laws of Lübeck or Magdeburg and even used the courts of these cities as a court of appeal. See Chapter 9 above. To avoid legal uncertainty when importing a system of private law, the free private city operator would require a static point of reference, that is, the adoption of a code on a specific cutoff date with a list of the adopted laws to be chosen. If additions are desired, they must be expressly included. The advantage of a static takeover is that you are not dependent on uncertain future legal changes in the country of origin, but can shape your own legal situation from the takeover date onward. Rules of Procedure and Appeal While so-called substantive law deals with the content of claims and objections to them, formal law comprises the rules according to which court or arbitration proceedings are conducted. Once you have decided on a legal system or parts of it, the question arises as to which procedural system and which court structure you want to use. Formal law is intended to ensure fair, reliable, and uniform procedure for all parties involved. It is quite conceivable to use the substantive law of country A in a free private city, but the procedural law of private arbitration organization B. The question of court system and the course of appeal can also be answered quite differently than in the country of origin of the adopted private law. It is part of the service of the city operator to establish courts and or arbitration panels in order to enable the contract citizens to assert their justified claims among themselves in a regulated manner. In order to avoid conflicts of interest, however, 
it is advisable in cases of disputes between the operator and contract citizens to resort to independent external arbitration courts that are not part of or close to the operator's organization. One such option for those cases is the ad hoc arbitration court. Each party to the dispute appoints an arbitrator, and the two agree on a chairman. Qualified lawyers or former judges or other suitable persons may be considered as arbitrators. The arbitral tribunal shall determine its own rules of procedure. The award shall be made by a majority of votes. In the future, private dispute resolution organizations could also cover the whole range of possible disputes with special proceedings and their own pools of judges or online juries. It can be assumed that these will become more widespread in the not-too-distant future, thus facilitating inexpensive, rapid, and reliable legal protection. Such institutions could take over the arbitration of disputes in private cities alongside existing courts or even instead of them if the parties to the dispute do not agree on a different procedure. The City's Own System Even when creating a new, separate legal system, it is advisable to follow proven principles, not only because they have passed the practical test of time, but also because innovative new rules of private law make it unnecessarily difficult to enforce contracts, judgments, and other legal acts abroad. Thus, while the Special Economic Zone Dubai International Financial Center has created its own legal system itself, it has done so on the basis of established common law principles. The Californian law professor Tom W. Bell has, inspired by the programming language Unix, designed a private law system called ULEX, which is open to editing and supplementation by basically any author worldwide so that improved or simply different versions are available. The content is well known. The ULEX 1.1 version practically codifies the traditional principles of common law in the USA, as laid down in the so-called Restatements of Law, a textbook systematization by the American Law Institute. It also contains other proven civil and commercial legal rules from various, mostly U.S. American sources, and also procedural rules, for example, binding arbitration based on the United Nations model. U.S. overseas territories that do not have a common law tradition, such as the American Virgin Islands in the Caribbean, formerly Danish, or the Northern Mariana Islands in the Pacific, formerly Spanish-German, have taken a similar path. Enforcement, Insolvency, Injunctive Relief no court decision under any legal framework is worth anything if it can just be ignored by the losing party to a dispute. It is therefore necessary to clarify how the enforceability of judgments is to be handled. This applies both to arbitral awards made by private arbitration courts and to judgments rendered before the courts of the operator, irrespective of the law governing them. Time and again, it will happen that defendants who have been ordered to pay fail to do so. If they have assets or land within the free private city, enforcement is possible. This requires a bailiff who may well be a self-employed individual, but who also has legal powers to carry out enforcement. The question of the enforceability of arbitration awards and court judgments must therefore be regulated in the citizen's contract. 
In this respect, the free private city as a contracting company has a number of advantages. It can stipulate in the citizen's contract that arbitration decisions only have legal force if they are transmitted to a central body. In this way, the decisions taken on the various disputes can be collected and made available to the public, anonymized, as precedents. Furthermore, the citizen's contract may stipulate that each citizen must provide an address to which a letter can be sent or an email address to which delivery can take place. Such notification shall also be deemed to have been effected if the citizen has moved without giving his new address. Finally, it may be agreed in the citizen's contract that failure to comply with legally binding arbitral awards will result in termination of the contract. This threat alone should spare the operator numerous enforcement measures. Another option is to have every citizen provide a security deposit at the start of the contract from which enforceable titles can be satisfied. Of course, this is an additional burden that not everyone will be able to afford. The use of so-called smart contracts may make court and enforcement proceedings often superfluous, particularly in simple cases. However, sometimes enforcement will be necessary. If the only threat is the termination of the citizen's contract, then various services can be received and collected but not paid for. It is not always possible in business to demand prepayment. The recipient may then remain in possession of a purchased but unpaid item or the beneficiary of a service rendered but not paid for, even if he is expelled from the free private city. The seller ends up empty-handed. However, if the debtor has real estate assets in the free private city, enforcement by seizure and foreclosure is relatively simple. The real possibility of insolvency for companies and private individuals has also proved to be effective in principle. Instead of allowing a person or a company to accumulate increasing liabilities by disguising their own insolvency to the detriment of business partners, a regulated procedure would apply. On the one hand, this protects potential contractual partners from transactions which cannot be paid for. On the other hand, it is an opportunity for the company or the private individual concerned to make a new start free of debt once the proceedings have been successfully completed and the creditors have been satisfied, at least in part. This also requires a defined procedure and a monitoring body. The same applies to provisional legal protection. It may be necessary to have an action that is likely to cause irreversible damage prohibited by a court in advance. For example, the demolition of a house on a plot of land whose ownership is disputed. If the court considers the claim of an affected house inhabitant plausible, it will forbid the demolition by provisional injunction until such a time as the ownership has been clarified. In order to prevent abuse, the court should be authorized to require a correspondingly high security for measures of provisional legal protection. A person who has obtained a temporary injunction which later turns out to be unjustified is obliged to pay damages. Procedural law, including the question of who bears which costs and enforcement and insolvency regulations, can be borrowed from known legal systems or arbitration rules, if necessary, in a simplified form. Registry Matters 
The keeping of registers and binding registration obligations are advisable as they enable the acting persons or companies and their property to be clearly identified. This also provides some legal certainty. The free private city will decide whether the register is to be kept in paper form, digitally, or by means of new technology such as the blockchain as a decentralized accounting system after weighing the pros and cons. However, the implementation of new technologies should not be obstructed. The following registers are recommended. Company Registry All companies active in the free private city must register with their business purpose if they wish to operate a business. Individuals with small businesses can be exempted. This serves both to determine the legal form of the enterprise and to block any transactions that may be inadmissible under the citizen's contract. Finally, in the event of a dispute, business partners can thus determine the address and legal form of their counterparty. This register should be publicly, online, accessible. Property Registry this includes all landowners and encumbrances on land, such as land charges or rights of way. It is recommended to make the land acquisitions legally binding only if the seller is entered in the register, but conversely, for reasons of legal certainty, the acquisition should also be considered valid if someone was falsely listed as the owner. The corresponding German-Austrian land register systems or the Australian Torrens system, have proved their worth. They provide legal certainty and spare extensive title and transfer research, which may have to go back centuries. This register is open to the public or to those who have a legitimate interest, for example, intention to buy. New blockchain-based systems on the issue of land transactions are currently in the prototype stage of development. In the long run, they might disrupt the whole sector. Free private cities have the opportunity to try out new technologies, but should be careful not to frighten away investors with uncertain, innovative concepts in real estate. Population Registry All persons living in the free private city are registered. This is unavoidable in any case, as all residents in the city have a contract and the resident's permit must be maintained. In addition, it may also contain a legally binding address so that a potential plaintiff always has an addressee in a legal dispute. This registry, which can also be blockchain-based, should be accessible only to those who have a legitimate interest. Embedding the Law of the Host State There is also the question of the relationship with the law of the host state. Ideally, this will no longer apply in the free private city. Presumably, however, the host state has reserved the continued application of parts of its own law or of international agreements it is a party to. This law has to be absorbed accordingly. The simplest way of specifying these legal sources is in the citizen's contract by expressly making it clear that they take precedence over the agreements in the citizen's contract and the adopted private law, but that their observance is decided exclusively by the courts of the free private city. International Organizations to the extent that the free private city has comprehensive autonomy, it can decide for itself which international agreements and organizations it will join and which not. 
However, the host state will presumably have reserved the attendant sovereignty rights. That doesn't have to be a disadvantage. On the one hand, membership in international organizations involves considerable financial and human resources. On the other hand, supranational organizations tend to extend their powers inexorably and interfere in the internal affairs of their member states. Where they have their own jurisdiction, this often assumes quasi-legislative powers, thereby jeopardizing the independence of the member states and their legislative bodies. For reasons of legal certainty, it is therefore advisable, as far as enforceable, to agree with the host state on a clause according to which the free private city will be granted a non-applicability clause in future international agreements and memberships. Chapter 14 Ordre Public Someone who sets out to act morally well in all things must perish under a crowd that does not care. Niccolo Machiavelli, State Philosopher and Politician The private law system used by the operator and the corresponding dispute resolution rules cover the most expected conflicts of interest. Nevertheless, there is also a need for a framework with corresponding rules of coexistence, a so-called ordre public. In addition to rules of practicality, this also includes rules that reflect the common basic convictions of the residents, a kind of non-negotiable set of house rules. This is already necessary for practical purposes when many people come together in a relatively small area. This is no different than rules used on a smaller scale for purely privately operated swimming pools, shopping centers, and amusement parks. These rules usually require visitors to follow the instructions of employees and to refrain from harassing other customers. The validity of these rules is accepted upon entry into the relevant facilities. The same principle applies to free private cities. It is easy when roads and squares are owned by the operating company, but this can change over time. The citizen's contract will therefore define a public space that includes streets and squares, for example, and continues to apply regardless of who owns it. Legally, the property would be resold with the corresponding covenant as public space, comparable to a right-of-way registered in the land registry. Balance of Interests of course, a free private city offers more opportunity for friction and conflict than a shopping center, simply because there are many more areas of living together where conflicts can arise. Here, it is necessary to weigh the sovereignty of the contract citizens to solve these conflicts among themselves against the general interest in an attractive, low-conflict, and developing community. For example, it would be conceivable to completely dispense with building specifications and leave this to the citizens and landowners. But as soon as a factory opens that produces dust and noise, a problem arises that affects a large number of people. During the industrialization of Germany in the 19th century, many former artisan workshops were transformed into industrial operations. However, they remained on the spot mostly in the city centers. Their output of products multiplied, but so did noise, smell, and filth. 
As a result, there were waves of lawsuits from affected neighbors who claimed that their property and possessions had been damaged. This led to a backlog in the courts and endless proceedings over the reasonableness of certain emissions. The problem was finally resolved by designating industrial and commercial areas outside the city center in which different standards applied than in the residential areas. The designation of areas for a specific use, including the associated emission thresholds, can therefore have a pacifying effect and reduce transaction costs for all parties involved. It would be conceivable to fight out the extent of permissible use via legal battles over property and ownership rights. This, however, would create considerable legal uncertainty both for potentially affected citizens and for producers. For reasons of legal and investment security, production companies in particular will presumably ask for a permit. Any requirement that they reach bilateral agreements with all their neighbors and potentially affected parties potentially numbering into thousands, would deter them. Free private cities which approach those questions more pragmatically than ideologically are likely to be more successful. Nevertheless, a consensual deviation from neighboring regulations should always be possible if all parties concerned expressly agree to it. By designating zones with different levels of regulation, different needs can be taken into account and a laboratory for regulation experimentation can be created. It would also be possible to study how certain areas develop that are left completely unregulated. Expedience The city operator will continue to be interested in ensuring an attractive cityscape in the interest of its customers. For this purpose, it will be necessary to make building specifications in the sense of a development plan, such as number of stories, maximum height, minimum distance requirements, fire protection. Especially in the core area of the city, these requirements will be stricter than in the outskirts, where they can be largely or completely dispensed with. The operator of a city may wish to specify a few regulations in order to facilitate the orderly coexistence and further development of the city. These include bans or licensing of certain activities and hazardous substances, building design, building regulations and traffic regulations, occupational safety regulations, the powers of the safety authorities, emission and environmental regulations. It may also make sense to require proof of an insurance contract for certain areas, such as motor vehicle liability or building damage. All these are intended to protect other citizens, especially when very serious damage has occurred. The insurance covers the damage even if the polluter has no means of paying for it. Finally, there are requirements on the part of the host state. For example, there are many countries that criminalize the use of certain drugs and prohibit all related activities. The operator of a free private city must take this into account, otherwise he will not find a host state or he will quickly become the target of powerful states or organized crime. In this respect, certain behavioral restrictions that had to be conceded in the agreement with the host state will be reflected in the internal rules of the city. These may include compulsory insurance and license plates for motor vehicles, restrictions on the possession of weapons or drugs, regulations on patents and copyright, etc. The same applies to the broad field of banking regulation and money laundering. 
In the sense of an extended most favored nation clause, one could reserve the right in the agreement with the host state to stipulate that the free private city may, in principle, make such regulations as apply in at least one other state in the world. In this way, one would at least have the possibility of choosing the most free option in the case of mandatory regulation. However this works out, a free private city should be able to get by with a tiny fraction of the laws and regulations typical of today's nation-states. Creating Social Harmony Characteristics of a free private city include the voluntary nature of participation, the existence of a contract between operator and citizen, the general freedom of action as a principle, limited only by the freedom of action of others as well as rules and regulations that facilitate peaceful coexistence, but also ensure that the inhabitants share certain basic values and that the city is attractive for the respective target group. It is therefore quite likely that different free private cities will have a different ordre public. In this respect, the operator will make rules for living together which, according to his market assessment, increase the quality of life for his target group and simplify peaceful coexistence. For example, he could prohibit walking around in public armed, naked, or in full veil. Prohibitions on copulation or begging in public are also conceivable. All these are more or less questions of taste and weighing the pros and cons. Fundamental debates about these things are as fruitless as they are dispensable, especially since the corresponding rules will be known before the conclusion of the contract. What someone does in his private rooms is, of course, unaffected by this. Differentiations are conceivable. For example, stricter rules could apply in the core area of the city than in the suburbs. It is also conceivable to leave entire city districts to real estate developers who may then lay down their own house rules for them, which may deviate from the rules which apply in other areas. Nevertheless, a certain foundational ordre public must be binding and uniform for the entire free private city. It has already been said that a certain consensus of values among citizens is needed. This goes beyond the public space. Therefore, there will have to be rules that should apply, even when it comes to activities on private property. This generally concerns the renunciation of violence to enforce one's own purposes, in particular personal injury and homicide, but also all other criminal provisions. Secondly, it includes provisions which are not criminal offenses but concern public order, for example, a ban on parking in certain areas, on exceeding the speed limit, or on driving under the influence of alcohol. These are administrative offenses which may be punishable by a fine, but in repeated cases may well lead to expulsion from the city insofar as the citizen's contract provides for this. The ordre public always plays a role when certain rules are considered fundamental or so important for society that they must also be enforced in the private sphere of citizens. This ultimately serves to create and maintain social harmony. In a society without ordre public, there is no one who could prevent parents from cutting off their children's right arm at the age of 10 on the basis of religious beliefs. Another could cruelly torture dogs and cats in his garden and display them crucified since they are his property. Still others could walk around public space naked. 
There are also limits to which foreign legal systems could be imported. For example, certain groups could agree to apply Sharia law internally and cut off thieves' hands or stone adulterers. The burning of widows in India also often took place with the religious consent of the women concerned. Likewise, most people may oppose the eating of dead human remains, even if the deceased have agreed to it in their will. The same applies to the acceptance of child marriages of contract citizens, even if such marriages have been effectively concluded abroad. Here, it becomes clear that certain behaviors, which we automatically avoid due to our social conditioning, are actually based on a social consensus of values. In a free private city as a new social order, these things must be explicitly addressed. But this is also the chance to make sure that such taboos actually exist and why they do so. The free private city should generally reserve the right to prohibit and punish conduct contrary to the basic order of the city, even if such conduct is permitted elsewhere. Basically, the aim of the Ordre Public is to enforce the same rules for everyone in a core area and not to grant special rights, for example, for religious people. Opinions will vary as to which rules these are and how far they should go. For this reason alone, it is advantageous if there are different social orders in different free private cities. In this respect, self-determination also has its limits, but it cannot be ruled out that there will be social orders in the future that do not lay down any guidelines in this respect. As long as participation is voluntary, that is acceptable. In addition, for reasons of self-support alone, any attempt to undermine the liberty-based order of the free private city will either be punishable or sanctioned with expulsion as an offense against the ordre public. This would be the case, for example, when political extremists call for the order of the city to be overthrown and the operator or the landowners to be expropriated, or when preachers encourage hatred and violence against those of other faiths. Serious cases, such as instigating damage to property or even death, will generally constitute independent criminal offenses and thus give reason to terminate the contract and to be expelled from the free private city. But what about calls for aggressive intolerance that do not reach the criminal threshold? An example. O Allah, give victory, honor, and power to our brothers, the jihadists in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, all over the world. Let them triumph over the treacherous Jews, the evil Christians, and the unreliable hypocrites. This prayer was said by a Wahhabite imam of the Holy Mosque of Mecca during the annual pilgrimage in 2016. Above and beyond the reference to the jihadists in the three countries mentioned, at that time all embroiled in civil war, the preacher called for the use of force all over the world. Such people should be expelled from the free private city. Experience has confirmed again and again that permitting intolerance is not tolerant, but stupid. Not sanctioning such statements will result in an increased influx of like-minded people. Freedom of expression is therefore limited insofar as expressing a negative opinion about another group, individual, or religion is in principle permissible, but presupposes that no call to use violence is associated with it or that others are not simply denied the right to exist. Prohibition of Aggressive Intolerance
It is never easy to draw the line between prohibited, aggressively intolerant speech and freedom of expression, but we have to live with it, especially since the sanction is not a criminal prosecution and conviction for hate speech, but merely the non-renewal or termination of the contract and expulsion. In addition, the dismissal may be challenged by court or arbitration. Here, however, the operator could contractually reserve the right to pay only damages in the event of defeat without being obliged to revoke the termination as such. This would also apply to cases in which rebellious troublemakers who have exhausted all legal remedies are to be expelled from the city. Otherwise, the Bakkenford Dilemma, compare Chapter 4, 6, seems unsolvable. Under such a framework, a common identity is likely to develop in free private cities over time, either out of pride in the structure created or in the social order that is regarded as unique. It is to be expected that over time certain behaviors, such as good clothing, aesthetic taste, and civilized manners, will emerge as signs of success after the initial economic uncertainty has been overcome. Chapter 15. Citizens' Contract Instead of a Constitution Mayors are better than presidents when it comes to waste disposal, and there is a lesser chance that they will maneuver us into war. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Philosopher and Statistician the contract that every resident has with the operating company is the central document of a free private city. Therefore, residents should be referred to as contract citizens and the contract as the citizen's contract. This agreement explicitly and conclusively regulates mutual rights and obligations and replaces a constitution or a fictitious social contract in a free private city. In a sense, it is the personal constitutional charter of each individual. All applicable rules, including the underlying private law and the ordre public, are part of this contract. As such, they shall also be made available to the contracting parties, at least as an appendix. It is one of the weaknesses of existing systems that neither long-established citizens nor immigrants know what rules apply in their country, especially as the rules are constantly changing. Ignorance is no defense against punishment, but it remains very difficult to figure out which law applies. This is different in a free private city. It is also necessary because the citizen's contract is a purely private contract. Therefore, all parts of the contract must be well defined. Basic Questions First of all, the question arises as to who is a contracting party at all. On the side of the free private city, this is the operating company or the city it operates as an entity. On the side of the residents, these can be individuals, families, or companies. The normal case is the citizen's contract between the operating company and an adult individual. A contract with families is possible, but requires a mechanism in the event of divorce or family breakdown. It seems more appropriate to provide each natural person with their own contract. Children are included in a parent's contract. If the children are of age, they can and must decide whether they want to accept the rules of the city and remain contract citizens. 
If so, they must conclude their own contract and pay appropriate contributions, even if in practice these are initially still paid by the parents. A transitional period during which young people can test other systems is conceivable. If they then deliberately reject the order of the free private city and refuse to sign the contract, they must leave the free private city. Anything else jeopardizes the basic principle of a contract society based on voluntariness and hence also threatens social harmony. With regard to companies, it makes sense to conclude a contract with those companies that have their own legal personhood, such as limited liability companies and public limited companies, so-called legal entities. Small traders and sole proprietors who do not wish to pay twice as contract citizens can switch to other legal forms such as partnerships. In order to avoid circumvention, a general contractual obligation could be imposed on companies above a certain size, irrespective of its legal form. Special agreements can be made for special or particularly large companies wishing to locate here. Special contracts are also conceivable for individuals, for example, for those who are only staying temporarily, for example, for construction projects in the free private city. It may make sense to grant them a special status that contains reduced rights and obligations. For commuters who only work in the city and for visitors, a special status will be required. Due to the private law character of the free private city, they must confirm in some way that they agree with the application of the rules. A large sign at the border of the private city might suffice. It would stipulate that by entering, you agree to the rules of the free private city. Alternatively, a document is signed upon entry and, if necessary, a daily contribution is paid, which also includes health and repatriation insurance in case of emergency. Content In terms of content, the citizen's contract covers three areas, namely services, the legal system, and breach of contract. The services to be provided by the operator are regulated in the service section. These may vary from city to city, but the core area is the protection of life, liberty, and property of contract citizens. In return for those services, the contract citizens undertake and pay a fixed amount. Compare Chapter 24. The legal section would regulate the default private law system, including the corresponding rules of procedure and the dispute settlement system, the applicable parts of the law of the host state, the guaranteed unchanging rights of the contract citizens, and finally, the ordre public, which ranges from rules of conduct to powers of the security organs up to criminal law. The disruption section describes the conditions under which the contract can be terminated, what sanctions are imposed for breaches of contract, and how and where disputes between citizens and the operator about the interpretation of the contract are negotiated. Dispute Resolution while the city operator offers a proprietary court or arbitration system for the conflicts amongst the residents, a separate procedure should apply to the disputes between the operator and the contract citizens. One of the understandable points of criticism of current systems is that disputes between citizens and the state are also decided by the very courts established and paid by the state. 
Therefore, the contract should provide for proceedings in such cases to be tried or resolved before a neutral or an ad hoc arbitration tribunal. See Chapter 13. An example might be if individual clauses of the citizen's contract are interpreted differently or the meaning of the contractual provision is not clear in a certain case. Conflicts of interest are also possible. For instance, because contract citizens are dissatisfied with the services of the operator or deny the facts relevant for a sanction. If the operator disregards unfavorable judgments, his business model is practically finished. Word will quickly spread, hinder the settlement of new citizens, and lead to the immigration of existing customers. After all, legal certainty will be one of the key success factors of a free private city. Finally, even in such cases, contract citizens will ultimately find ways of asserting their rights. For example, by obtaining titles against the operator before foreign courts and seizing his foreign assets. Poor Performance and Non-Compliance Another success factor is the direct relationship between a product or service and reciprocation. The contract citizen pays his own contribution, but also acquires a right to the services specified in the contract, such as safety for life and limb. If a contract citizen nevertheless becomes a victim of a crime, this constitutes a poor performance on the part of the operator. The affected party has a claim for damages against the operating company. If criminal gangs roam around the city, the contract citizen has a claim on the operator to prevent this. This is a completely different situation than in existing states, where there is neither a claim for damages for poor performance of state services, nor a legally enforceable right to security. Amendments and Adjustments to the Contract even the best contract cannot foresee all possible future contingencies, but a contract that can be changed at any time by the operator or contains vague language is of no real use to the residents. That is what we already have with current systems under which citizens are constantly exposed to changes in the legal situation. The question of amending the citizen's contract is therefore one of the central questions of free private cities. Is the contract kept relatively vague and open in order to cover as many unforeseen developments as possible, or are subsequent unilateral changes categorically excluded? In one case, legal uncertainty and thus the unattractiveness of the free private city would be the result. In the other case, it may lead to the insolvency of the operator. Things might develop in such a way that he cannot afford to fulfill his contractual obligations on the basis of current citizen fees. There are different approaches to solving this problem. The operating company may propose an amendment to the contract to any individual, but only to those who accept the new contract. This is probably unproblematic in cases that benefit the contract citizen, such as reduction in contributions or an extension of services. However, if the position of the contracting citizen is worsened, many will reject any revision to the contract. However, the operator can always offer a new contract of his choice to newcomers. This procedure results in many different contract versions existing after a certain period of time. 
Another possibility is to completely exclude certain contractual elements from changes, such as civil rights, the whole section about breach of contract, or the annual cost of citizenship. Other, less critical areas, however, may be left to the discretion of the operator, for example, the definition and amendment of traffic regulations. Finally, a general clause for exceptional cases such as war or natural disasters can be included in the contract, making it subject to possible revision. Since such clauses always need to be interpreted, this does, of course, mean a certain amount of legal uncertainty, even if the respective interpretation is subject to judicial review. In newly established free private cities, a one-time amendment of the contract can also be agreed after a startup period of three or five years. Particularly in the initial phase of private cities, some circumstances are likely to arise which were not foreseen when the contract was concluded and therefore require an amendment to the contract. As compensation for this legal uncertainty, early contract citizens could be promised reductions in contributions or other benefits. Finally, it is possible to make certain amendments to the contract subject to the approval of qualified majorities or to grant them the right of veto. Compare Chapter 11. However, such changes should be strictly limited. If this principle is abandoned and any contractual and rule changes are left to the collective decision-making of the residents or the shareholders of the operating company, then sooner or later all the problems that characterize contemporary democracies will return. Then the political struggle to raise the standard of living by gaming the system begins anew. Instead of producing goods or services for which others will voluntarily pay something, a steadily growing part of the population will turn to those political forces that promise the human right to live at the expense of others by revising the contract. But there is another way. If the contract leads to disputes of interpretation due to missing or vaguely formulated clauses in certain areas, then courts can develop the contents of the contract further without changes to the written contract becoming necessary. However, over time, this means that the contracting parties will have to observe these judicial developments, but in principle, all legal systems based on case law, such as common law, function in this way. The development of contracts in such a mechanism takes place exclusively through binding court judgments and arbitration awards, not through new rules or amendments to contracts. It should also be possible for arbitration tribunals and courts to decide on new types of matters by recourse to the legal principles that have been in force for centuries and a balanced, reasonable reconciliation of interests. In many areas of life, interest-based arrangements will go into force without the need to bring in the courts, as has happened in the credit card industry, for example, to regulate cases of fraud. Practice will show which model or combination of different approaches is successful. In any case, the operator only provides rules for safety and order, as well as a few other matters. All other areas are thus always accessible to a voluntary, tailor-made solution by those affected. Secession Is there a right to secede for those who no longer wish to live under the order of the free private city? 
Basically, the desire for secession is a legitimate expression of self-determination. In territorial states whose social orders have never really been approved by the affected, it is often the only way to install an alternative system without violence in the event of serious conflicts. In principle, there is nothing wrong with this in free private cities. The problems are more practical. If one allows property owners or even individuals located in the middle of the city to no longer be subject to the contractual regime of the free private city, then numerous freeloaders will use this to avoid the payment of the fee and bypass other contractual obligations while continuing to make use of the services of the free private city, namely security and infrastructure. However, any community that allows foreign systems to grow within it can no longer guarantee security and public order. This is especially true when criminals take advantage of this situation and use their extraterritorial properties as a base of operations. Contract citizens might also declare their exclusive allegiance to the order of the host state and, in the event of problems of all kinds, call on its security organs to intervene in the free city. Liechtenstein, whose constitution expressly permits secession, therefore restricts the right of secession to its municipalities, which decide on it internally by majority vote. This seems appropriate because the municipality, as the smallest administrative unit, can be defined geographically and can, to some extent, also protect life, liberty, and property on its own. If one transfers this idea to free private cities, one will have to limit the right of secession to separable plots of land or city districts located along the external border. Of course, residents of these areas who do not want to secede can then refer to the contract with the operator, which does not provide for majority decisions. Secession is therefore only feasible with respect for the rights of citizens of the contract if all inhabitants of a clearly defined subarea really agree to it. Then the next question arises with regard to the host state. It should pose no problem for the latter if the enclave simply wants to rejoin the host state. However, should secession strive to create a new community, a new treaty would have to be concluded with the host state, which reject this development and continue to regard the free private city as its only responsible partner. All this could lead to the right to secession being either excluded from the citizen's contract or limited to narrowly defined cases in practice. This seems manageable because the free private city is only a small area and the corresponding legal situation is known before the contract is concluded anyway. Termination Since residency in the free private city is voluntary, the citizen's contract must be terminable. Life insurance contracts can serve as an example here. These can be terminated by the customer at any time but by the provider only for good cause, for example, because the contributions have not been paid. If the city operator could terminate the contract at any time, the contract citizens would lack legal certainty and any investments made, for example, in their own house, would be subject to considerable risk. On the other hand, it is important that the contract can be terminated if citizens commit serious infringements, such as criminal acts against their fellow citizens. 
It can become difficult for the operator to terminate contracts due to misconduct because these contract terminations can be judicially examined. In this way, even the removal of a convicted criminal can drag on for years on end. In order to avoid this, it could be stipulated from the outset in the contract that, in the event of an expulsion from the city, the judicial challenge in the event of success only entitles the former citizen to compensation for damages, but not the right to remain or return. Property should not be affected by termination of the contract. The absolute guarantee of private property includes the guarantee that it will remain inviolate even if the former citizen no longer has the right to reside in the city. He can dispose of his property at his discretion within the city's property rules and either sell, rent, or lease it. In this respect, the part of the contract that regulates the definition and the corresponding rights and obligations of an owner will continue to apply. It is also advisable to agree on a trial period for at least the first one to three years during which the operator can terminate the contract without giving any further reasons. Persons with conspicuous behavior can thus be identified and removed without major legal disputes. Alternatively, or in addition, the free private city can adopt the Monaco system, according to which the residence permit is valid for only one year during the first three years. This has the advantage that the operator can dispense with legally contestable contract terminations and instead simply refuse to renew the contract upon expiration. E-Citizenship Free private cities could adopt the Estonian model of granting a mere electronic citizen status to non-residents. The advantage for such e-citizens is that they can then establish companies in the free private city according to the rules applicable there, open business accounts, and participate in the city's dispute settlement system even without being physically present. The hurdles compared to a real physical residence permit will also be significantly lower. Those who support the idea of free private cities but cannot yet move their residence could thus become part of the project and benefit from the advantages mentioned. The contractor could require a smaller annual fee and or a one-off admission fee. Chapter 16 Common Property and Co-Determination No man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session. Mark Twain, Writer Who owns the government buildings, the public motorways, or the ships of the Navy? Obviously not the politicians or the state officials, because they change regularly. Apparently, however, these are owned by someone or something, Otherwise, everyone could appropriate them. Who, then? Locke's or Rousseau's approach, explaining our coexistence on the basis of civil law constructs, social contract, makes a good deal of sense. These legal figures' concepts have evolved over long periods of time, so there is a lot to suggest that they are functionally correct descriptions. Take the cooperative. A civil law cooperative is an association of persons whose aim is the economic or social promotion of its members by a joint enterprise. In particular, the cooperative is independent of the respective composition of its members and cannot be terminated by them. 
There is no right of the individual to dispose of his share of the property of the cooperative. This definition also applies to a state. In fact, there are even forced cooperatives in which all landowners of a certain area are compulsorily members, such as hunting or dike cooperatives. Our countries of today are therefore best described as coercive cooperatives, in which one automatically becomes a member or citizen if certain conditions are met, dissent, birth in a certain area, but which at the same time permit voluntary accession by naturalization. In this way, each individual acquires a share of state property, but is not entitled to dispose of it. When leaving the cooperative state, however, he leaves empty-handed, or even often has to pay a ransom in the form of an exit tax, even if he has previously paid more taxes than he has received in benefits. Even if the state makes surpluses, nothing is ever distributed to the cooperative members. All this is already a peculiar imbalance, but exacerbated further by the fact that all coercive members or citizens are liable for all liabilities which the government has accumulated, while the government is not liable to the members at all. No public goods. How will that be in a free private city? All facilities and services are clearly assigned under property law. Public goods do not exist. Either these are built and operated by private companies, then these are the owners, or they are held by the operating company, in which case the corresponding facilities, such as roads, squares, or police vehicles, belong to the operating company. The latter, in turn, belongs to the shareholders. That can, but does not have to be, the contract citizens. Anyone who no longer wishes to belong to the operating company can sell his shares. The remaining payments of the contract citizens, in particular the basic fee, are made in return for the services of the city operator, but as such do not convey ownership of the operating company. The latter is, of course, liable for poor performance. In addition, the contract citizens own land, property, or companies which they hold in the city. Immigration would not change this legal position. Ownership of the Operating Company If you think in conventional categories, it seems to be very important who manages the operating company of the free private city and who owns this company. In fact, both points are of secondary importance. There is no political relationship between authorities and subjects or government and citizens as in conventional systems. The operator is neither king nor dictator, but a mere service provider who may, or must, only do what both sides have agreed in the contract. When you go on a cruise ship, you are completely in the captain's hands. However, you trust him to behave in accordance with the contract and in a customer-friendly manner. After all, he is paid indirectly by you. Nor do you want co-determination on board, but only that the cruise takes place as announced and that the captain and crew do their job. In particular, the captain should not change the rules or even the route you have booked while you are sailing. If he does, you can sue the tour operator or the shipping company that owns the cruise ship. It is completely irrelevant who the operator is or who manages or owns the shipping company. The same applies to free private cities. The only decisive factor is the content of the contract and the legal position derived from it.
The Legal Position of the Individual The most important question in free private cities is, therefore, what the legal status of individual contract citizens is and how it can be secured in the long term. After all, the contract citizens themselves decide what they do, what they spend money on, and what initiatives they support. It is therefore of paramount importance to prevent the operator or an elected body from acquiring more and more powers and forcing the residents to shape their lives in a particular way. That is why the contract with each individual and the corresponding legal position are so important. It is a matter of maximum self-determination, not of maximum co-determination. Freedom, not merely a voice or a vote. If citizens voluntarily conclude a contract with the operator, the operator abides by this contract, neutral arbitration courts decide in disputes between contract citizens and operators, and the operator observes their decisions, then there is no need for institutionalized co-determination or co-ownership of the contract citizens in the operating company. In this respect, it does not matter who owns or presides over the operating company. Legal Forms An operating company or the free private city can be organized in different legal forms, whereby combinations or modifications of the various models are also possible. Private Company For reasons of liability and in view of the scope of the project, it is likely that the operating companies will be designed as limited liability companies, although theoretically the legal form of a fully liable partnership is also conceivable. The company would be owned by one or more shareholders. Their shares may or may not be freely tradable, depending on how the founders of the company have provided for this. If a company operates several independent private cities, it makes sense to establish a subsidiary for each city. Stock Corporation it is conceivable that free private cities are organized as stock corporations with regard to a subsequent initial public offering, IPO. But it would also enable third parties to acquire shares even before the IPO. In particular, contract citizens can make use of this option to ask questions at the annual general meeting, in particular on the use of funds for the development of urban infrastructure. In addition, as shareholders, they have a say in the composition of the board of directors and the distribution of profits. It is possible that the city operator even believes that every inhabitant of the city must acquire at least one share upon entry in order to strengthen the ties to the free private city and its affairs. This includes profit sharing through dividend payments. If the operator wishes to retain a majority stake in the company, he may issue non-voting shares. Cooperative An alternative legal form for the operating company is the cooperative already mentioned. In this respect, all residents, companies, and landowners of the free private city can jointly own the city operator, the city, by virtue of contractually agreed cooperative statutes. This ensures that all contractors have a say in the use of funds and surpluses and in the selection of management staff. However, the structure is not to be understood in such a way that the cooperatives can also change the rules of living together at will, because in this respect, each individual contract citizen has his contract with the cooperative as the operating company, 
which secures his individual legal position for him. If you go beyond that and let the cooperative assembly also determine all the rules of living together, then you are once again dealing with many of the disadvantages that the very model of the free private city was meant to avoid. Citizens Association The same applies to a citizens association. This means an operating company of any legal form for which only residents of the city may be co-owners by virtue of the bylaws. This allows further differentiation, for example, in such a way that each resident must hold at least one share as long as he lives in the city and has to sell it again when he moves away. Such associations can arise, for example, when investors take over the financing for the first few years and then sell part or all of their shares to the contract citizens. It is also conceivable that an operating company is for sale and that the citizens of the free private city decide to acquire it jointly, resident buyout. An initial coin offering, ICO, as a method of financing without giving up decision rights would be doable as well for the Citizens Association. The examples clearly show that there are many ways in which ownership of the city operator can be structured. However, there is reason to believe that this point will not be decisive in practice. The provision of good, reliable performance and adherence to the citizen's contract will prove decisive. Contract-abiding free private cities will be in greater demand than others, no matter what their ownership structure. In the course of division of labor and competition, it may turn out that certain operator models function better than others. Ultimately, the best model will only emerge on the basis of experience, depending on the forms of coexistence desired in the various private cities. Insolvency What happens if the operator has miscalculated and becomes insolvent? In principle, the same applies here as in the case of other corporate insolvencies. An insolvency administrator is installed, and he tries to redevelop the city or sell it to another operator. In this context, the contract citizens can also offer to take over the city themselves. If the free private city works to some extent, or has worked in the past, buyers are likely to be found. At the very least, it should be possible to maintain the basic services by continuing to pay the basic fee until a takeover. It is advisable to include an insolvency clause in the citizen's contract according to which a certain procedure must be observed in the event of insolvency, which law is applicable, and which rights are granted to the contract citizens in insolvency proceedings. Special Forms of Citizens' Participation the issues of co-determination and citizen participation play a greater role if unilateral amendments to the contract by the operator are possible, if, for reasons of acceptance, the involvement of the contract citizens is desired, or if the operator is obliged to do so on the basis of the agreement with the host state. This is possible to a certain extent, even without calling into question the model according to which operators and citizens have a mutually binding contract. For example, the contract could provide for the majority of the residents to elect or dismiss the heads of the administration, be it the mayor, a judge, or the chief of police. This does not change the powers of these persons, which are prescribed by the contract, 
but offer the possibility of replacing office holders considered unsuitable even if the operating company sees no need for action. In addition, certain areas of regulation may already be subject to a citizen's referendum in the contract, such as the introduction or amendment of traffic rules or the punishability of certain conduct. These areas should remain narrowly and clearly defined, however, because otherwise there is a risk that the property rights and freedoms of the other inhabitants could be infringed too easily by vote. This problem is addressed by the corrective democracy described in Chapter 11, which only allows a right of veto by referendum following a decision by the majority of shareholders. A customer-oriented city operator will be keenly interested in his contract citizen's preferences anyway and will therefore always be accessible on his own initiative. He could set up a citizen hotline and regularly schedule information events, for example on planned infrastructure projects. The more free private cities there are, the easier it is for contract citizens to vote with their feet. The issue of co-determination and participation is therefore likely to lose relevance over time. Chapter 17 Internal and External Security Things that are replaceable can be made safe by insurance. Things that are not, such as life and health, can only be made safe by being in a safe place. The thing we need more constantly than anything else is a safe place for our persons. Spencer Heath, Engineer, Lawyer, and Philosopher Since the operator of a free private city wants to make a profit, he must offer an attractive product. Above all, this means guaranteeing security for the life, liberty, and property of contract citizens. According to the classical liberal view, this is also the only legitimate task of a state and the only permissible justification for its monopoly of force. Both states and free private cities, which cannot or do not want to guarantee the security of their citizens, basically have no right to exist. Thomas Hobbes recognized this in his 1651 Leviathan. The citizen's obligation against the overlord can only last as long as he is able to protect the citizens, for the natural right of the people to protect themselves, if no one else can do it, is not destroyed by any treaty. Even the operator of a free private city must, on the one hand, be prepared for the use of force by others, and, on the other hand, be ready to do so himself as a last resort. Those who ignore this insight cannot establish a community with any hope of success. Even if all inhabitants were hand-picked pacifists, they would still have to deal with the intrusion of uninvited guests. A Monopoly of Force In order to fulfill his task of protection satisfactorily, the operator must maintain security forces and specify by a regulatory framework what is permitted and what is not. He must continue to enforce the exclusion or expulsion of dangerous persons. In this respect, the operator is the holder of the householder's rights, and thus a monopolist of territorial rights and the use of force. This is no different from operating a hotel, amusement park, or holiday resort. The house rules there are also specific, non-negotiable, and will be enforced if necessary. 
It is in the interest of the operator to have both security forces and rescue forces under his control in order to be able to guarantee proper fulfillment of his contractual obligations. The fact that the operator may himself use various private companies that provide this service is another matter. For example, following the example of the private police of San Francisco, he could also outsource police services to various companies on a spatial basis in order to ensure a certain degree of competition for quality assurance. Of course, the same rules for all are applied as specified by the operator. If a company performs the services poorly, it loses the district to a competitor. However, all this is done under the supervision of the operator. For the citizens, he remains the sole contracting party, but thus also the holder of the monopoly on the use of force. Allowing competing security service providers with their own rules and thus competing legal systems may appear theoretically attractive for reasons of preventing monopolies. In practice, however, the effort and inconvenience involved, the so-called transaction costs, are probably too high. It would take years for rules to develop in the market on how to resolve collisions between the various providers and legal systems. Thus, in the real world, the conflict of laws rule of international private law is excluded in practically all cross-border civil contracts. These rules determine which laws apply when different legal systems collide. However, it is almost impossible to predict which law will be applicable under these rules in individual cases. This legal uncertainty is too much for the parties concerned. They prefer to choose a known legal system even if it is not their own. A corresponding problem would arise in the free private city if competing orders clash in a dispute. Examples A citizen has a heart attack and falls to the ground unconscious. Who will save him? A citizen who has no security service provider is robbed. Who will help catch the thief? Some people stop paying their fees for the fire department because it costs too much money. Who is going to put out the next fire at their homes? A criminal gang has acquired, unnoticed, a large parcel of land and at some point no longer accepts the rules. They have by far the largest security force in the city. What now? Violent people enter the city in large numbers. Who will stop them? In all these cases, there must be an authority that ensures that order is maintained quickly and conclusively. After all, troublemakers must be legally removed from the city, and somebody has to make those decisions. This is considerably more difficult, indeed impossible, if there is no ultimate executive authority. As explained in Chapter 11, there are numerous alternative responses to this problem, but they all still have to pass the practical test. Even on private cruise ships, there are neither competing security services nor competing captains. However, if models without a monopoly of force are going to function in the future, they will also have to prevail in the market of living together. Any abuse of power by the operator is unlikely due to having paying customers with an enforceable contractual position and the availability of alternatives, competition. If the operator has an interest in covering up certain events because they are detrimental to his reputation, for example, if security forces have shot a resident, 
it could be agreed from the outset in the citizen's contract that external agencies must be called in to investigate specified kinds of incidents or that such an investigation can be demanded by the citizens. If the security situation is bad, or if the security forces regularly exceed the powers granted in the citizen's contract, the city will not be successful in the long term. New customers will keep their distance, contract citizens will emigrate, and the value of the operator's business will decrease, not increase. There are therefore sufficient incentives for the operator to behave in accordance with the contract, including the use of its monopoly on force. Once the model of free private cities has proven itself profitable, then other competitors will inevitably appear on the scene. This is the best guarantee for the residents that the respective operator will not abuse his position of power. Apart from that, the right of every contract citizen to self-defense and the corresponding support of third parties against attacks, as well as the corresponding right of citizens' arrest, remain unaffected or expressly guaranteed by contract. This includes that every citizen of the contract can hire additional security services at his own expense, which can also exercise these rights. This corresponds to current practice in most countries. Private Police The operator will therefore establish a private police force. Whether he sets them up himself or uses one or more private security contractors is irrelevant. The police should also serve as a point of contact for visitors and residents and as a mediator in minor disputes, comparable to the Bobby or Schutzmann. These were a reliable part of the social order in the England and Germany of the past. Since he was responsible for a particular residential area, he knew the citizens and they knew him. Such a model creates trust and stability. It is important that the policemen are friendly and service-minded. After all, they are paid by the residents' contributions. Some members of the police and fire department can complement each other and support each other in the event of an emergency. Border security tasks can also be performed by these forces. In addition, a voluntary police reserve and a volunteer fire department of contract citizens might be an option, whose members receive a remuneration or a reduction of the annual contribution. How big does the police force have to be? In most western states, there are about three policemen per 1,000 inhabitants. City-states have significantly higher proportions. In Singapore, there are seven policemen per 1,000 inhabitants. In Monaco, even 14. Monaco is, nevertheless, a special case because it has a pronounced need for security due to the large number of especially affluent inhabitants and the practically open border to France. Fire Department and Emergency Rescue Services Fire, traffic accidents, heart attacks, and similar accidents happen all the time. To let a house burn down because the person concerned has not concluded a fire department contract, or to leave a seriously injured accident victim on the road because he has not taken out emergency insurance, contradicts the basic idea of the free private city, namely the protection of life, liberty, and property of its citizens. In this respect, the operator will provide the corresponding fire department and emergency rescue services as part of the mandatory package and include their coverage in the basic fee, 
especially as visitors should also be able to enjoy these services. A conceivable alternative would be to oblige the residents to provide evidence of insurance covering the corresponding risks and costs similar to a motor liability insurance. Enforcement of Rules Consistent enforcement of the rules is of paramount importance. The corresponding strategy has become known as the zero-tolerance principle. This means that all offenses, even minor ones, will be punished immediately and vigorously. In particular, multi-ethnic immigration societies such as the cities of New York, Monaco, or Singapore implement these principles and are therefore relatively safe places despite their high population density and diversity. In this respect, free private cities have examples to go on and do not have to repeat the mistakes of Western democracies, which devalue their own rules and principles out of misconceived liberality. Instead of making a large number of behaviors punishable, but then only penalizing them selectively, it is better to set a few clear rules, the violation of which is consistently punished. The assertions of Western sociologists and criminologists that stricter penalties do not act as a deterrent can be confidently ignored, especially since they are not based on a sound empirical foundation, but on ideological thinking. If you take the motorway from Germany to Italy through Switzerland, you will notice the following. In Germany and Italy, speed limits are not observed by many traffic participants. After crossing the border, however, the same drivers strictly adhere to the maximum speeds applicable in Switzerland. The simple reason is this. Switzerland imposes draconian penalties for driving too fast. Lee Kuan Yew had made a similar observation in Singapore under Japanese occupation. Compare Chapter 9. Precisely because the inhabitants of free private cities probably do not have a common history, culture, or other traditional value systems, compliance with a few rules must be strictly monitored and troublemakers must be removed from the system quickly. If rules are considered inappropriate or inappropriate in individual cases, they should be formally abandoned or amended. If the agreed rules are not enforced or only rarely enforced in a society, more and more people will ignore them. It is in human nature that the number of people will increase who will test how far they can go with impunity. Some get away with it, others don't, which many citizens find unfair. You only get multiple or intensive offenders if their offenses were not punished or not effectively punished the first time. Otherwise, they would either be in prison or would have been expelled. Expulsion as the Main Sanction Aside from the pre-selection of immigrants, expulsion is the most important tool for navigating the development of the city's security. As in school and work, it only takes a few brutes to easily destroy the overall climate in a city. Everybody makes mistakes. But whoever persistently disturbs the peace, becomes aggressive or criminal and violates the rules, that is, is unwilling or unable to fit into a community, must be removed from it. The same applies to persons whose declared aim is to destroy the community or to replace it with another order. It is absurd to accept such people. The best cannot live in peace if the bad neighbor doesn't allow it. 
so the bad neighbors have to go to make sure people can live in peace. Otherwise, the good ones will be driven out, and the bad ones will catch up with their peers. It is one of the mistakes of today's states that they make practically no use of the means of expulsion, which in earlier times was, with good reason, the main sanction of a society under the term banishment. Free private cities that act according to the zero-tolerance principle thus do not become police states, but, on the contrary, places where a law-abiding citizen can live for years without even having any contact with the security forces. Functioning communities must separate themselves from those who pose a threat to the existence of this community. There is no way around this insight. It is therefore advisable to agree in the citizen's contract that criminal conduct of any kind leads to a mandatory expulsion from the free private city over and above any attendant prison sentence. This also applies to petty crimes such as shoplifting. Of course, the degree of severity above which offenses of a lesser degree entitled the termination of the contract can be graduated. For example, only after repeated offenses. For longer residents, the tolerance threshold will be higher than for newcomers. One could think of a corresponding application of the three-strikes rule for long-term contractors. Expulsion only takes place after the third conviction for a criminal offense. On the one hand, deportation relieves the population of evildoers, while, on the other hand, there is a strong incentive for contract citizens to comply with the rules if they want to continue living in the free private city. In fact, according to surveys, only about 5% of the population commit 50% of all crimes. Despite all efforts at rehabilitation, there is a high probability that convicted criminals will become criminals again after serving their time in prison. An informed operator should avoid this risk. Over time, this leads to a positive selection, which then requires less and less police intervention. In addition to crime, non-observance of arbitration rulings, giving false information during the admission procedure, and of course non-payment of contributions, can also be reasons that entitle the operator to terminate the contract and thus to withdraw the resident's permit. The offenses liable in expulsion must be listed in the citizen's contract. The operator of the free private city even has an advantage of not having to grant its own citizenship. Every contract citizen already has a nationality and therefore a place to which they can return if necessary. By signing the contract, for example, the applicant may agree to leave at his own expense for his home country or place of his choice in the event the contract is terminated. If, in the future, free private cities grant their own citizenship or comparable status and children born in the city become criminals once they reach the age of majority, this is not an insolvable problem either. Convicts may be located in special areas which the free private city has leased from other countries, whereby they have the right to leave at any time, provided they are admitted elsewhere. They shouldn't be allowed back in the free private city, however. The control of the quality of the inhabitants through the possibility of expulsion, as well as selective immigration, will lead to a climate of security and mutual trust, not to mention the economic advantages resulting from increased social capital. And this will occur even if the inhabitants have different ethnic, cultural, and religious backgrounds. 
Over time, a sense of community is likely to develop, possibly combined with a kind of pride in being a citizen of this particularly safe and civilized free city. The Security Organs of the Host State It is advisable to maintain a good relationship with the security forces of the host state above and beyond any applicable formal cooperation agreements. They will have to be asked for help from time to time, for example, when larger events exceed the capacity of the local police or other cases arise that cannot be dealt with on their own. Conversely, there should be an appropriate willingness to assist the police and fire department of the host state in an emergency. This will pay off over time. Border Protection In order to guarantee the safety of the residents, it is essential to monitor and control the borders. Otherwise, criminals will soon discover that it is easy to go on a raid in the free private city and then disappear back over the border again. This is because the city's security forces have little or no reach outside the city. How intensively the border is secured depends on local conditions. In countries with high crime rates, a fence or other barriers will have to be erected. In quieter areas, one can limit oneself to camera surveillance and stop suspicious people and vehicles. Depending on the geographic situation, the free private city may have enough space to use cameras and motion detectors to monitor terrain day and night and to stop intruders approaching outside the official entrances. With today's technology, it should not be difficult to determine who is in the free private city at any given time. Monaco, which has no direct border controls, monitors its entire territory with cameras instead. These are evaluated by experienced police officers. If a suspicious person is identified, the nearest patrolman is immediately called in who then checks the target. If there are any suspicions or criminal warrants, this person will be questioned at the police station, arrested, and or expelled. The consistent application of this principle has ensured that shady and criminal persons avoid entry to Monaco in the first place. It is helpful if entry and exit to the free private city only take place via a few controlled entry points, which can easily be blocked in an emergency. This makes it easier to prevent criminals from escaping. The operator should have a response ready even if an agitated crowd of several hundred people approaches, ready to plunder, because unrest has broken out in the host state. Protection Against Violent Takeover It is unlikely that a state other than the host state will become immediately dangerous because the free private city is still part of its sovereign territory. For this reason, the operator must above all consider how to avoid blackmail or capture by the host state. After a change of government, for example, a demagogue could take office who claims that his country was betrayed when concluding the contract with the operator of the free private city. There is no magic formula to prevent this contingency. The operator will have to try to prevent the aggressor from taking this step by a combination of different means above and beyond the investment protection clauses in the contract, for example, through public relations, prominent contract citizens or sympathizers, economic and diplomatic contacts with other states, and international organizations. Finally, a certain defensive capacity will be needed. 
It should be enough to make the occupation of the free private city costly enough to strongly discourage any such move. After all, the inhabitants are highly mobile and would probably leave the city if it were taken over. As a result, the city would lose considerable economic power. This can be communicated to a potential aggressor in advance. He will then consider whether it makes sense to destroy the very source of wealth he was planning to exploit or plunder. Coalitions or protection agreements with powerful states or other free private cities are another option for external security. In the longer term, economic power leads to military power anyway, as the examples of Venice, Genoa, and Singapore show. The combination rich and weak, on the other hand, has little chance of lasting survival. This defensiveness is accompanied by non-interference in foreign disputes. This is good for financial reasons alone, but also because the causes of the respective conflict and the justification of the opposing party's positions usually cannot be adequately assessed from a distance. Chapter 18 Immigration and Selection If you take in half of Calcutta, you do not help Calcutta. You become Calcutta. Peter Scholl Latour, Journalist Free private cities, especially those that emerge in previously uninhabited or sparsely populated areas, are immigration societies. The question therefore arises as to what criteria this immigration should be based on. A case against open borders in the sense of an immigration right for all has already been made. Such a regime represent an incalculable security risk, intervenes massively in the legal position of existing citizens, and is moreover capable of destroying social harmony and the prosperity so far achieved. Chapter 4. Characteristic of a society based on voluntariness are both the possibility of exit at any time and the fundamental right to secession. However, there is no universal right of immigration and inclusion. Nevertheless, with regard to the possible immigration criteria, a wide range of possibilities is available. The less attractive a location, the more generous the immigration rules will have to be. The same applies to new projects with little in the way of established infrastructure and population. Conversely, the more densely populated, attractive, and prosperous a free private city, the more carefully immigrants have to be selected. The immigration regulations of Dubai, Singapore, or Monaco are correspondingly strict. In questions of immigration, the operator alone decides and will include this provision in the citizen's contract. It is his main service to ensure the existing contract citizens that immigrants do not disturb the liberal order or threaten life and limb. He can only do this if he controls immigration accordingly or if he can expel troublemakers promptly, which, of course, they can challenge legally. Otherwise, it is not possible to maintain social peace and prosperity at a high level in the long term. Free private cities can be islands of peace and freedom in a sea of instability and religious and political intolerance. The price is to make sure that criminals and the intolerant are left out. Successful companies choose their employees carefully and do not take just anyone. Basically, the same applies to successful free private cities.
How could such a selection be made? Firstly, the operator can check the extent to which immigrants pose a possible security risk, whether they are able to support themselves and their families, and whether immigrants pose a threat to social harmony because of their political or religious views. Finally, a determination has to be made as to whether there is any room or need for further immigration. The criteria can be summarized briefly under the terms security, self-sufficiency, and harmony. It is likely that the respective requirements will be wider at the beginning and will be tightened later after the city has developed successfully. Different free private cities will probably offer different answers to the immigration question. Security Few, if any, compromises should be made in security. The city operator guarantees the contract citizen's security and is therefore fundamentally liable for damages in the case of crimes. Most states require immigrants to have a police clearance certificate. In addition, international arrest warrants are routinely checked. Since Interpol covers only a few offenses, some immigration countries turn directly to the police of befriended states to check immigrants from these countries or consult other means of information gathering. A free private city will not be able to do much more, but it should use these resources to the full. Self-sufficiency In order to prevent immigrants from being a burden on the resident population from the start, the existence of accommodation, income, or sufficient funds must be checked and, if necessary, a financial guarantee must be requested. This is also customary internationally. Successful city-states in particular are cushioning rising demand through correspondingly higher self-sufficiency requirements. The requirements can change over time and can also be adapted to any special needs of the labor market. It is conceivable that contractors who absolutely want to have certain persons, for example as employees, may provide a financial guarantee for them if their suitability cannot be conclusively determined or if they do not yet have their own funds. Social Harmony while the aspects of security and self-sufficiency are explicitly checked in almost all immigration countries, the methods of maintaining social harmony are quite different. When it comes to immigration, Singapore is making sure that the existing mix of different population groups remains stable in percentage terms. In Canada, language courses and examinations are mandatory. Dubai does not want to have hate preachers within its borders and rejects potential immigrants on those grounds. Monaco issues residence permits limited to one year in the first three years and can thus easily get rid of immigrants identified as unsuitable even if they have not yet become criminal but only socially suspicious. Similar models can also be adopted by free private cities. The conclusion of a citizen's contract also has the advantage that every immigrant expressly acknowledges the validity of certain rules and principles by signing it, as well as the possibility of termination in the event of violation. In addition to the payment of the contribution and the observance of the ordre public, one of these basic rules is above all that everyone can do what he wants as long as he does not interfere with the rights of others. In this respect, Candidates who, from the very beginning, have views incompatible with or hostile to this scheme, such as communists, will not be allowed to immigrate. 
The same applies to all those who propagate the primacy of religious regulations over the rules of the free private city. It is not tolerant but stupid or cowardly to be tolerant of intolerance and thereby endanger the security and stability of one's own society. Any reasonable operator will therefore prevent the immigration of declared enemies of the system. Of course, it is easy to simply sign a contract under false pretenses. In this respect, a supplementary questionnaire or a personal interview is quite helpful in sorting out unwanted applicants. Anyone who answers yes to questions such as whether the apostasy of religion, blasphemy, or adultery should be punished with death will not be considered as a new fellow citizen, even if he fulfills all other criteria. Some will manage to disguise their true intentions, but religious zealots in particular are often astonishingly open with their views. As a general rule, the less strict the selection, the more follow-up action will be required in the form of staggered residence permits or subsequent deportations. It is always easier to reject someone from the outset than to get rid of them later. Other Considerations It is conceivable to provide for temporary contracts for employees who come to the free private city for certain construction projects, for example. This can be linked to the prospect of obtaining a genuine citizen's contract after this period has run smoothly. For reputational reasons, it may be advisable not to let certain people into the free private city, such as ex-dictators or suspected mafiosi. Another filter might be a one-time admission fee with which newcomers contribute to the existing infrastructure. In addition, even the completely penniless can be given a chance. A Hong Kong Chinese has given me the following information regarding the possible immigration rules of free private cities. Especially during the so-called Cultural Revolution, many mainland Chinese tried to flee to Hong Kong. This was not easy because the Chinese border police had tried by all means to prevent the escape. In addition, the British border police sent back all the Chinese they were able to intercept when crossing the border. But if you managed to get to the immigration building in Hong Kong, even if you were covered in blood, then you were allowed to stay. Half of Hong Kong's ten most successful entrepreneurs came to the city in this way. The story might be exaggerated or apocryphal, but the basic idea is right. Anyone who possesses nothing but has the firm will and the ability to overcome even great obstacles in order to achieve something is fundamentally an enrichment for any society. Free private cities can try to identify such persons by means of suitable application procedures. Chapter 19. Infrastructure and Services From my city I demand electricity, water, and sewerage. As for culture, I already have it. Carl Krauss, author from Vienna in an ideal private city world, the entire infrastructure would be provided and invoiced by private companies, that is, roads, hospitals, theaters, electricity, and water supply, as well as all services that are needed for daily life, from the fire department to waste disposal to schools. The providers can rely on the fact that due to the stable legal framework of a free private city, there is a growth of solvent inhabitants, and therefore sooner or later money can be earned by offering these services. 
This may well become a reality once numerous free private cities have been created. Providers will then simply transfer their business model from the existing private cities to new ones. But you can't realistically expect that at the beginning. The question, therefore, is which infrastructure and which services are necessary to ensure the functioning of a free private city and to attract contract citizens. Furthermore, the question arises where these providers come from and how they may be financed. Basically, the operator has several possibilities to guarantee infrastructure and services in the city. One, he may seek to attract specialized providers where appropriate through financial guarantees or other benefits for a specified period. The longer the city exists, the easier it will be to attract the providers needed. Two, he founds his own subsidiaries, which take over these tasks and may later be sold off to specialized providers or interested contract citizens. Three, he negotiates with public and private providers in the host country about the sharing of their infrastructure and services in exchange for payment. In practice, it is likely that all three methods will be combined. Apart from the fulfillment of the security-related services under the citizen's contract, one of the operator's main services is to guarantee residents a useful infrastructure and supply right from the start, even if he does not provide it himself. Otherwise, his product will not be attractive. Based on the assumption that the founding of a free private city with its corresponding legal and social order on undeveloped and uninhabited land is much easier than the transformation of an already existing city, only the former will be considered in the following. Furthermore, it is assumed that funding is limited and that the city must therefore grow more or less organically. There are cities that have emerged from the drawing board after government agencies or private real estate developers have made countless billions of startup capital available. If there is access to funds that allow such a city to be planned from the outset, all the better. Of course, the founder of a free private city will not be able to rely on the off chance of such opportunities emerging. The Multi-Stage System the development of the infrastructure and the corresponding range of services should be designed in several stages. How quickly it will be possible to switch from one stage to the next depends, of course, on the available resources and the number of companies willing to invest. The proximity to existing infrastructure is an advantage not to be underestimated, especially in the early days of the project. In the first stage, an initial size of up to 1,000 people can be expected. The infrastructure must be designed and pre-financed for this number of inhabitants. Right from the start, it makes sense to work together with experienced real estate developers who are particularly concerned with financing, the construction of residential and commercial buildings, and an initial road network. Buildings constructed in this phase for example, for administration purposes, can first be erected in low-cost design and later replaced. The operating company will be obligated to provide police, fire department, and emergency rescue, as well as courts or arbitration panels from the beginning. In particular, fire departments and emergency rescue services can initially be outsourced against payment, provided they are available nearby. 
The administration building can be a multifunctional building that houses the administration, the police, courts, registers, and if necessary, the fire department and emergency services. Electricity, water, internet, and cellular coverage, groceries, and access to medical services are also required. Depending on the proximity to the existing infrastructure of the host state, the operator will try to conclude contractual arrangements with regional providers if independent solutions are unavailable or are still too expensive. In the long term, however, the city should have its own infrastructure to retain freedom of action and avoid extortion. For the second stage, which covers the period of growth up to 10,000 inhabitants, further elements must be added, such as postal and parcel services, a sewage plant, landfill, banks, schools, kindergartens, and a hospital, restaurants, craftsmen, and other service providers, such as hairdressers and household helpers, shopping centers, retail shops and pharmacies, as well as cultural and leisure facilities. As the city continues to grow, a third stage, with a population of up to 100,000, will allow the construction of airports, seaports, parks, a public transport system, industrial areas, and the like. Finally, in a fourth stage, which will witness growth of up to 1 million inhabitants, further districts and sub-centers will be created, universities, major airports, and so on. Master Plan or Market-Based Development How intensively should urban development be planned? Should the service of the operator be limited to providing the necessary infrastructure and service providers at the various stages, or should there be detailed development and building specifications? Any planning ultimately depends on the desired product design. Ambitious new urban projects often come with a master plan. Given that everything can be newly created, there is a great temptation to plan and then implement a perfect world. But here, too, it is impossible to foresee all eventualities and future developments. On the other hand, finding solutions on the market is a process that works through trial and error, selection, and the imitation of successful solutions. This process corrects and regulates itself and finally leads to a self-organized, stable order. Due to the large number of market participants and the countless parameters, no such order can ever be adequately planned. This approach underlies the free private city as a social order, which merely creates a legal and regulatory framework. It therefore makes sense to transfer this idea to urban planning, so-called market-based urban order. In this respect, the operator only sets the cornerstones within which the private planners and their customers decide on land use. Those will be guided by which use brings the greatest increase in value. Usages that fit together will also come together. This does not preclude the operator from making fundamental specifications to exclude potential permanent conflicts, for example, by not allowing heavy industries to be located directly next to residential or mixed areas. He may also designate certain zones where different rules apply and which are therefore likely to attract other land uses. The same applies to areas which are to be set aside from the outset for roads, ports, airports, or other special purposes. 
It is also possible that the operator or its main investor would prefer a certain appearance in the center of the city that is attractive to citizens and interested parties. All of this can be considered by making the requirements stricter in certain areas, whereas elsewhere, the market-based urban order is given room to develop. Obligatory Acceptance of Services Since the guarantee of security and liberty is the main service of the operator of a free private city, the duties of police, administration of justice, the fire department, and emergency rescue are the direct responsibility of the operator and are to be anchored as obligatory services in the citizen's contract. However, the assignment of private subcontractors can also make sense in these areas. In particular, the city will then not have any pension obligations, a position that is currently pushing many municipalities to the brink of bankruptcy in times of increasing life expectancy. There is also the question of how the other necessary services are offered, such as water supply and waste collection. The complete freedom of choice for such services leads to a free rider problem. If waste collection is not an obligatory service, then some citizens will save money by disposing of their garbage on the streets at night. Now, the operator could contractually require every citizen to present a waste collection contract. In this case, however, he must also verify the continued existence of the relevant contract and also ensure that no pro forma contracts are concluded with dummy companies that, in reality, do not offer sufficient services. Citizens may also consider it a burden to arrange for their own waste collection and similar services. The bottom line is that this situation can lead the operator to include this service sector and possibly others in the mandatory package. The city of Sandy Springs, for example, followed this route. Compare Chapter 9. On the other hand, in the age of the Internet, it is not difficult to provide all contract citizens with an application that lists the corresponding service providers in the free private city, with their respective service profile and costs for all areas of life. This is then also a service of the operator, but the selection is ultimately made by the citizens who are liable to provide evidence for certain areas, motor liability insurance, waste collection. The market will show which approach will ultimately prevail. Roads could be designed as toll roads so that they are self-financing and the city operator is relieved of the corresponding investments. It is also possible to hand over a whole district to real estate developers with the obligation to provide the corresponding road maintenance. It probably will not work to turn even the smallest alley into a toll road. Both providers and users would reject such a scheme as unprofitable and unbeneficial. The city operator will end up providing some certain infrastructure itself if he does not succeed in getting property developers to take over. The cost for this would be covered by the annual contribution or by other sources of income. If toll roads exist that have a geographical monopoly, for example, the only access road in a narrow valley, there will be no getting around a certain regulation. Otherwise, the provider could blackmail the free private city with exorbitant tolls. A similar problem arises with de facto pipeline monopolies such as with the water supply. If such monopolies are unavoidable, the operator must reserve certain regulatory options for the benefit of the residents. 
The mere appearance of this option in the citizen's contract should be sufficient to discourage abuse. Technology helps. Will there even be enough providers for the various services required? Here, too, technical progress helps. Nowadays, it is possible to run larger businesses and even industries as an individual or small group. The reason is that there are specialized subcontractors and products for practically all areas of endeavor. Examples Deutsche Rostoff AG, which I co-founded, was able to operate a subsidiary company in Colorado that built up production of more than 10,000 barrels of oil per day from scratch with only five permanent employees. All services such as seismic, drilling, construction of the production facilities, oil collection and inspection and maintenance of the facilities were outsourced to subcontractors. My wife, as an individual, can run a company from Monaco, which produces fashion, which is produced in China and Europe, which she designs herself, and which is then distributed all over the world. This is possible because there is appropriate software, because the Internet allows cheap telephone calls and video conferences with the whole world, because goods can be imported and exported without major restrictions, because there are correspondingly specialized shipping service providers who also take care of customs formalities, and because payment is possible with internationally established systems such as credit cards, PayPal, and the like. All this gives the individual many more possibilities than was the case even 20 years ago. But that also means that in a free private city, resourceful and skillful residents can be relied on to set up companies that enable an optimal supply of goods and services fairly easily. Chapter 20 Economic Activity the entrepreneur is the creator of prosperity, provided that the state does not prevent him from doing so. Jean-Baptiste Say, Economist and Entrepreneur The settlement of industrial and commercial enterprises in the free private city is of utmost importance. It's not enough just to collect friends of freedom in one place. If the free private city is to be attractive and grow, there must be enough jobs for the residents to make a living. In this respect, the operator is called upon to actively advertise for companies, especially during the startup phase. Once the free private city is established and companies are successfully active there, additional economic activities should increasingly become a matter of course because the advantages are manifest. There are few manageable rules and tax obligations, the existence of which is also contractually guaranteed. There are no constant changes and tightening of laws. An entrepreneur can therefore plan and calculate reliably over longer periods of time. Furthermore, there is legal certainty and the possibility of invoking independent arbitration courts at any time in cases of conflict. All terms of the working relationship are negotiated directly with the employees or their representatives. Companies can hire whomever they want, according to criteria that they decide on their own. Apart from any contractually agreed-to contributions, which cannot be unilaterally increased by the operator, there are no taxes or duties. 
Prescribed regulations and thresholds are based on reasonable and scientific, not political, considerations. It is therefore obvious that sectors which are highly regulated elsewhere have an interest in becoming active in free private cities, such as genetic engineering or medical research. The combination of low regulation density, thus lower labor costs, and legal certainty make a free private city also attractive for medical tourism, financial technologies, and care for the elderly. The same applies to most production facilities. Ultimately, the course of development will show which sectors in particular benefit from free private cities and end up moving in. When companies invest in new locations, especially those with a different legal system, they want to be sure that their investments are not endangered by political or legal risks. Anyone raising millions in capital does not want to be expropriated overnight. For example, by a host state that simply revokes the treaty with the free private city. It is likely that companies can also make use of existing state security concepts, such as foreign trade guarantees for investments and, depending on the country of origin, also refer to bilateral investment protection agreements that their home country has concluded with the host state of the free private city. Nevertheless, one of the essential tasks of the operator is to negotiate an investment protection clause with the host state, which benefits all companies operating in the free private city, including those operated by nationals of the host state. CF Chapter 12 Companies wishing to move larger parts of their business to the free private city may require regulations that differ from the standard citizen's contract. As long as this does not exceed a certain limit, this should not be a problem. For example, employees brought along by the company can be admitted as contract citizens without further examination, but are, of course, obliged to adhere to the basic rules of the free private city. Under certain circumstances, the company can also pay contributions for its own employees. The operator can be flexible as long as the ordre public is not undermined and the company or its employees are not granted privileges that cause displeasure among the other residents or already established businesses. In this respect, the long-term stability and success of the free private city are more important than short-term benefits from attracting a large company. It is particularly helpful for local startups if the free private city enables the establishment of companies, partnerships, or corporations in its own right. This does not mean that every foreign company must set up its own subsidiary. The entry of a branch of a foreign company in the company register may suffice in this respect. Nevertheless, it might be a competitive advantage to create new legal company forms and their corresponding requirements especially if e-citizens, who are not themselves residents in the free private city, can participate. Chapter 21. Social Security All non-reciprocal aid is just alms, and alms demoralize, take away all self-respect, every incentive to do well, blunt intelligence and energy paralyze confidence in oneself, and pass on inertia and recklessness. If you take away man's concern for his existence, you also take away from him the best joy. 
The Joy in His Own Work and in Its Fruits Hermann Schulze de Lich, Social Reformer As shown in Chapter 4, welfare states with their failed incentive structure ultimately lead to ruin, incapacitate the citizens, and cause antisocial and dependent behavior. Nevertheless, systems that provide protection against elementary life risks such as illness, accident, or disability are in high demand. Free private cities, which also seek to be attractive for the average wage earner, must therefore answer the question of what such coverage might look like. Simply throwing contract citizens out because they can no longer take care of themselves due to their age or an accident is incompatible with the fundamental idea of protecting the life, liberty, and property of the residents. This is particularly true when such citizens have spent most of their lives in the free private city and would otherwise be a burden on their nation-states or the host state. That's not necessary either. There are proven alternatives to today's social systems. Mutual Aid Organizations during the 19th and early 20th centuries, most families were proud to be able to maintain themselves. But when the main breadwinner became ill or died, the family faced serious hardship. The response of the people to this harsh reality was the creation of collective self-help institutions. In England, these were the Friendly Societies, in the USA, the Fraternal Societies, in Germany, the Trade Associations, Gewerkverein, and cooperatives, Genossenschaften. They had in common that the leaders of these associations were very critical of paternalistic welfare. They regarded it as a matter of dignity not to be dependent on such alms, but to be able to help each other. The aim was to emancipate the workers instead of bringing them into dependence on the state or church. These self-governing associations were diverse in appearance, but functioned more or less in the same way. Those who made regular contributions to a joint fund or provided assistance for others in kind were entitled to receive appropriate benefits in an emergency. For example, support could be provided for travel to interviews, relocations, illness, disability, unemployment, exceptional emergencies, and deaths. These support services were always intended only as extreme emergency aid. Any abuse was watched closely and was usually punished with exclusion. Incidentally, as far as this high degree of social control was concerned, these organizations did not differ from the socialist trade unions, which had set up comparable relief funds. In Germany, the trade associations and cooperatives initiated by the district judge Hermann Schulze from De Leech were the most prominent. Schulze de Leach, as he was called, rejected state and other outside help because it made people dependent and inactive. It is remarkable that in the 19th century he already foresaw almost all the problems that plagued today's welfare state. The American fraternal societies boasted about 18 million members at their high watermark around 1920, which was about 30% of all adult males at that time. What was the reality of people at retirement age then? According to a survey conducted by the state of New York in 1930, 43% of the elderly were provided for by their own means, savings or pension entitlements, insurance, fraternal societies, while family and friends supported a further 
Fewer than 4% of the elderly were dependent on public or private welfare. Contemporary surveys report that the combination of personal responsibility, family support, and collective self-help institutions also led to responsible behavior in very poor residential areas. The fraternal societies were particularly popular among the black population who often worked in the low-wage sector. They maintained traditional cultural and civilizing standards, took responsibility for their own lives, showed pride, independence, and strength. Young blacks in the 1920s, unlike today, were as likely to grow up in two-parent families as young whites. This suggests that the welfare state itself has caused most of the evils it claims to fight. Until the beginning of the 20th century, British-friendly societies were also an integral part of society. When the British government introduced compulsory social insurance for 12 million people in 1911, following Bismarck's example in Germany, nearly 7 million members were already insured in around 27,000 friendly societies, with a strong upward trend, and another 2 million were organized in unregistered mutuals. At the moment of their greatest success, these associations based on voluntary membership were thus displaced by the state through its compulsory insurance. In principle, the same thing happened in Germany and the USA. Conversely, if the welfare state was abolished, collective self-help institutions would revive. The operator of the free private city can help here by promoting the establishment of such institutions itself, or by encouraging interested organizations to do so. It may be that free private cities will require new citizens to join such an institution if they do not have private social security. Private Insurance In addition to membership in collective self-help institutions, which are practically mutual insurance associations, it is also possible to insure oneself through commercial insurance. This applies in particular to pension and health insurance. Private companies can operate more efficiently and effectively than state-owned enterprises, but not because they're smarter or more skilled. They simply have the better incentives to increase profit and lower the risk of disappearance. As a result, private providers will do much more for the same money, whether in the pension, health, or education systems. Switzerland has also had to go through this experience. It was not until 1996 that compulsory health insurance was introduced. At that time, however, 97% of all Swiss already had taken out voluntary private health insurance. The legal requirements and privileges of the new compulsory insurance regime set the same false incentives that had already been shown elsewhere. The results were predictable. Since then, health care costs have almost doubled and have grown three times faster than real incomes. There is an alternative. Singapore obliges its citizens to set up individual health savings accounts and pay 6 to 8% of their wages into them. From these, the majority of the desired treatments are settled by the holder directly with the doctors, and special payments for desired additional services are possible at any time. The same applies to the acquisition of additional high-risk insurance for serious, expensive treatments. The result? Expenditures on health care amount to only 3.5% of gross domestic product, while most Western countries expend around 10%. 
The quality of medical care is high, as is life expectancy. The saved funds stay in the patient's account to be passed on to his heirs. For the needy, about 10% of the population, there is a medical foundation fund that meets its payments exclusively from its investment income. Despite an aging population, Chile has achieved what is considered impossible in many places in Europe. We are talking about changing the statutory pension insurance system from a pay-as-you-go system to a funding system. There is only one obligation left, namely to pay 10% of gross income into a pension savings account. If one wants, one can pay more voluntarily. There are certified private pension insurance providers who invest the corresponding funds and among whom the payers can freely choose. The pension savings account is the personal property of the employee. If the retirement age of 65 years is reached, the beneficiary can call up his payments but can still continue to work and earn additional income if desired. Conversely, anyone who has saved up the right to a pension of at least 50% of the average income over the last 10 years can retire, irrespective of age. After 30 years, the conclusion is that the performance of the new system is already 50 to 100% higher than that of the old system. On average, pension rates of about 80% of the average income of the last 10 years are reached. The growth rate of the Chilean economy almost doubled due to the newly gained investment capital. Employees have developed a direct interest in the economy, as they are now shareholders in the largest Chilean companies. Demographic problems are irrelevant. The system established by Chile is already a mixed system that is predominantly self-determined and based on market incentives. For example, the freedom of choice between several providers, self-care and the assumption of personal responsibility. The illusion of free service is avoided. Several countries have already adopted the Chilean model, for example, Australia. Building on this, the operator of the free private city can initiate similar insurance systems himself or through corresponding providers. Whether participation should be obligatory depends on the circumstances of the respective private city, the existence or non-existence of mutual aid organizations, and the target group. Family and Friends Finally, the oldest form of help for the weak remains. Support from family and friends. Years ago, a friend and supporter of the welfare state gave me his own example to consider. Half a year ago, he was surprisingly diagnosed with a brain tumor, and the result was a very expensive, fortunately successful, operation. Without the welfare state, he believes this operation would not have been possible. But is that true? Let us assume that a welfare state does not exist and that the person concerned has neither private health insurance nor is he a member of a collective self-help institution. What would have happened then? First of all, his family would have tried to raise the money for this operation. If this had not been possible, the family would have turned to close friends to ask them to help. They would probably have made the matter known to a wider circle of acquaintances and asked for support. So a relatively large group of people would have taken an interest in the fate of the friend. In reality, hardly anyone heard of this case. In real life-threatening situations, 
relatives, and friends stand together precisely because they know each other and the person affected. Social control to prevent abuse is possible and effective. But what is crucial in this example is that the whole process of compassion, the search for support, and the voluntary and hence genuine solidarity actually did not take place, and that's because of the welfare state. Charitable Institutions Now, there are undoubtedly cases in which family or friends cannot provide the necessary help for financial reasons. Only in such cases, in which no insurance or self-help institution is available, a charitable donation is possible. This includes, for example, the elderly, severely disabled or chronically ill with very expensive treatments for whom no affordable insurance or self-help institution can be found. It is estimated that this group does not exceed 5% of the population in developed countries. Given the huge sums already being spent on charity, it is difficult to imagine that sufficient funds cannot be raised on a purely voluntary basis for this. This is particularly true in view of the fact that in such a scenario, exorbitant expenditure for the welfare state would be eliminated. That is, every employee would have considerably higher net income available. The free private city could set up and advertise a social fund to which donations can be made voluntarily and which helps in cases of hardship. A Minimum Safety Net the support options described via collective self-help institutions, private insurances, family and friends, charities, should be sufficient to deal with all cases of real hardship in a community. But there may also be a need for some kind of reinsurance in order to sleep more soundly. In this respect, a contractually guaranteed minimum Social Security can also be provided by the free private city, which is included in the basic fee. The prerequisite would be proof of need and the non-existence or non-performance of the aforementioned security systems. Examination and payment are carried out by the administration of the free private city. This will provide food, shelter, and health care for the affected citizens under conditions that provide incentives for self-help. The Result Upswing and Stable Social Conditions as a result, the multi-level model discussed will function much better than today's welfare states because it mobilizes the best in people. This includes taking responsibility for oneself and others, genuine compassion, strengthening family and small communities, imagination and ingenuity to overcome difficulties, voluntary solidarity and, in return, gratitude, and, last but not least, pride and satisfaction in mastering life on one's own. It is also suitable for promoting maturity and independence. Finally, it contributes to understanding the basic principles of the free private city, such as the reciprocity principle, the voluntary principle, and the golden rule. The creation of genuine capital reserves increases the investment ratio. Fewer costs arise, while at the same time providing better social security. Economic upswing and social stability are the result. Chapter 22, Education A general state education is a mere contrivance for molding people to be exactly like one another. 
and as the mold in which it casts them is that which pleases the predominant power in the government. John Stuart Mill, Philosopher and Economist State school systems suffer from a lack of incentives to make a profit. They do not have to advertise for paying customers or use their resources carefully. There is no feedback and thus no quality control through lack of demand. It is therefore not surprising that even in highly developed Germany, the performance of graduates is dropping by the year. A large proportion of high school graduates have problems with reading and writing skills that should be ingrained in primary school. Examination tasks in mathematics for secondary schools from the 1960s are beyond the abilities of most high school graduates today. Another reason for this aberration is the indoctrination mentioned in the opening quotation. Both teachers and students are exposed to the political ideas of those in power at state and even private schools through mandatory curriculum and other guidelines. They cannot escape the experiments constantly being imposed on the education system. A current German zeitgeist idea, for example, is the enforced inclusion of severely handicapped people in normal classes, which leads to an overall slowdown in learning progress. What may benefit the severely handicapped is harmful to everyone else. This inevitably reduces the level of education as there is less learning taking place in the time available. Another fashion is to give as many students as possible the highest possible level of education. However, as not everyone is equally suited to obtain the highest educational qualifications, the requirements must be reduced further and further. This devalues the corresponding degrees, especially high school and university diplomas. It also means that people who have been able to earn a living as skilled workers in years past will instead acquire university degrees in soft subjects not in demand on the job market. Finally, formal education should begin as early as possible, completely institutionalized and far from the home and far from real life in a supervised parallel universe. The result is expected to be a productive adult who is solution-oriented, goal-oriented, and flexible in mastering even the most difficult tasks. In other words, he should master a reality of which he has no clue at all. The widespread view that education leads automatically to higher income and higher productivity is also a fallacy. It is only the increased demand for certain occupations in certain sectors that will ensure that more graduates from these fields, and only from these, will be able to increase productivity. If there is insufficient demand for university graduates, then they need to take up occupations for which no university degree would have been necessary. In terms of income and productivity, they have wasted years of their lives, burdened themselves with useless student loans, or made needless use of the taxpayer's money. The reason why those in power cannot refrain from keeping schools and universities under close control is that young people are most easily influenced. There was, and still is, an interest in every system to attract conformists who are as uncritical as possible and who do not question the truths proclaimed by the state. Basic Insights However, conformists do not innovate. 
Since a social order can only ever be as good as the individuals in it, much more freedom for educational concepts must be granted in free private cities. Therefore, curriculum requirements must be dispensed with and all types of courses and concepts permitted. Of course, schools and universities should also be run for profit. This is the only way to combine the best possible offer with efficiency and customer satisfaction. Within a free private city, the transfer of knowledge within the family would not be criticized as an unjust privilege, but be expressly welcomed as a particularly efficient personal initiative. The systematic gathering of out-of-school experience, for example, through assistance in the family business, in clubs or in holiday jobs, is just as important as formal education. The example of a free private city illustrates just how absurd the demand for free education is. The funds for this can only come from the alleged beneficiaries themselves, whether they pay an increased basic fee or whether they do real estate or other business with the operator, from whose income the free private city can then pay the school tuition fees. This variant is quite conceivable, but it is not free. In fact, behind the human right to education, there hides the profane desire to live at the expense of others. It is important that contractors understand that education is a service like any other and must be paid for accordingly, either by the users of the respective institutions, by all contract citizens equally, or by private donors and organizations. This does not exclude anyone from access to education. There are numerous examples of private schools that successfully provide education in the poorest places in the world with little money. Parenting, on the other hand, is primarily a matter for parents, not for schools. In this respect, parents are also liable for their children's behavior. This should certainly be unambiguously communicated by the city operator. It is possible that, over time, service providers will establish themselves who, in addition to education, will also explicitly take over aspects of child-rearing. Compulsory schooling? What has been said so far speaks against compulsory schooling. Whether this is the case, however, also depends on the circumstances. A free private city in a developing country or a migrant city may conclude that compulsory schooling to accelerate urban development makes sense while it can be avoided elsewhere. If one advocates compulsory education or has to implement it on the basis of the treaty with the host state, the operator will need to comply and cover the required costs. If one does not want to establish one's own school system despite compulsory schooling, then the issue of education vouchers is an alternative. But it might also make sense to promote school attendance in this way without formal compulsory schooling. In this model, the costs are covered, for example, by an increased basic fee for the contract citizens, in exchange for which they are entitled to the education vouchers which their children can redeem at the school of their choice. The schools then turn in the vouchers to the operator for payment of the tuition fees. Compulsory schooling could be limited to requiring the completion of one or more examinations at a given age, testing reading and writing skills as well as basic arithmetic, and possibly further qualifications at a later age. 
Other than that, those affected are free to choose any school and any system. Homeschooling is, of course, also permitted. Curricula The problem of potentially indoctrinating children and young people naturally exists in free private cities as much as anywhere else. For whatever reasons, teachers in particular seem to be especially receptive to the idea that a just world order can be constructed by means of state intervention. They will pass those ideas more or less directly on to their students. A possible result? After a few years, the whole system tilts to the left. The liberty-minded move away, the city operator sells off his assets, and under the cheers of the citizens, a redistributive welfare state is introduced, which then steadily expands with the usual, entirely predictable end result. In this respect, it is important that the basic ideas of self-determination and personal responsibility, as well as the basic principles of a free private city, namely the Golden Rule, the principle of reciprocity, and the principle of voluntariness, are taught to young people and all new citizens in general, even if the content of teaching is fundamentally free. This can also be done in systems without compulsory school attendance by the free private city itself offering such courses on its own premises or sending corresponding speakers to the existing schools. In any case, education for hatred and violence should not be tolerated, and such school providers should be dismissed for violating the citizen's contract. Operation of Schools and Universities Moreover, the operator should limit himself to attracting good providers instead of running his own schools and universities, even if compulsory education is ordered. And even if there is no compulsory school attendance, and the operator neither runs its own schools nor finances school education, the world will not come to an end. Correspondingly favorable and good school opportunities will result from the profit motive. The operator's job is to convince relevant providers to come to the free private city. In addition to private school operators, there are a large number of private universities and institutes which teach knowledge and skills with very different models. The existence of truly free universities without politically correct teaching and research restrictions, combined with the application of new learning methods, can even become a proven competitive advantage of a free private city. Renowned professors do not need to be shouted down by 20-year-olds for a wrong opinion. Scholarships from the operator or third parties can provide further training for those who would otherwise not be able to afford it. Those who discover as adults that a better education would have been possible and useful for them can make up for it. This also applies to basic skills such as reading and writing. The Internet also offers the opportunity to educate oneself or one's children. The world's best speakers can literally be brought into one's own living room via Internet video services. The number of relevant education and training opportunities is encouragingly extensive. Chapter 23 Environmental Protection and Externalities the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Henry Louis Mencken, Journalist and Cynic 
A free private city is interested in a clean environment because otherwise it will not be attractive and will have difficulties attracting productive residents. But a clean environment does not require tens of thousands of laws, regulations, and directives. Protection of Individual Rights In principle, environmental protection in the free private city is based on the protection of individual rights. Environmental damage is unthinkable without affecting property, possessions, or persons. Therefore, there is a corresponding right to sue, and it must then be decided by the courts whether the claim is justified. In a free private city, there is no tragedy of the commons because all land, waters, and the like are owned or at least controlled by actors. This applies in particular to the city operator himself, who in addition to his administrative activities is also under private law the owner of land, streets, and squares, and as such can use his right to sue in cases of environmental damage in the interest of the other contract citizens, on behalf of all, so to speak. Even if he sells all the property to others over time, he could still secure a covenant on sale, which could grant him the right to claim environmentally relevant damages to the property in question. Or he could have a general right to sue for the impairment of third-party rights by emissions of all kinds, liquids or solids, smoke, noise, even odors. Most textbook problems are thus already solved. If the acts of pollution go beyond the free private city, the host state or neighboring states are also entitled to injunctive relief in addition to those directly affected. Balance of Interests The protection of property cannot be absolute. Otherwise, a landowner could prohibit all vehicles from passing his property because of noise emissions. In the sense of the proposed development of the law by courts, the problem could be addressed by regulating in the citizen's contract that a socially adequate use of property or possessions does not justify a third party's right to an injunction. What is then socially adequate in individual cases would be determined by the courts, for example on the basis of widely recognized thresholds. Of course, these can change over time. While noise from conventional combustion engines is nowadays considered socially acceptable, this may no longer be the case in 25 years' time because quiet modes of transport may be widespread. As always, with indefinite legal terms, a certain vagueness remains. That is unavoidable. Alternatively, or additionally, it makes sense to include certain environmental thresholds in the citizen's contract possibly graded according to the type of use, higher values in industrial areas, especially in order to minimize the number of lawsuits. This should not affect the possibility of negotiating an agreement with those affected, even if the thresholds are exceeded, according to which they will be paid compensation if they accept the increased emissions. Buying off the plaintiff in this way is not really an option in conventional systems. But it does take into account the idea that environmental protection is ultimately about the violation of subjective rights and not objective conditions, that each individual case is different, and that it is those affected who can best find an appropriate regulation. Prevention 
In some areas, it may be advisable to carry out regular preventative checks because potential damage can be so great that subsequent correction through legal proceedings would be inadequate. For example, an industrial plant whose production process releases high levels of radioactivity or toxic gases might operate for years before nearby residents begin to notice that irreversible damage to their health has already occurred. With larger projects of all kinds, especially, investors will want to know in advance whether their project is feasible or not. Mere reference to a later judicial clarification causes uncertainty and hinders investment. In these cases, a preliminary clarification by means of a permit is recommended. In traditional constitutional states, a permitting procedure is carried out by the competent authority, which determines whether or not an approval is granted on the basis of existing law and the criteria specified therein if necessary, with the involvement of affected parties. Appeals may be lodged by the party concerned or by the applicant within a defined period if there is no consent to the decision. If the deadline expires or the court rejects the claims, the approval is legally binding and the investor can be sure that he can go ahead with his project. Such an approach is fundamentally sensible. Similarly, the citizen's contract could stipulate that certain projects, in particular those which are likely to cause significant environmental or health damage to residents, are subject to a permit requirement. Criteria must be specified which shall lead to approval if they are met. This may include the provision of a financial guarantee or the submission of an appropriate insurance policy. In this procedure, the operator of the free private city the neighbors concerned and the investor will discuss the situation, and the relevant body will then take a decision. A complaint against this decision is, again, possible. Whether this committee is appointed by the city operator or is better outsourced to an independent private company for reasons of neutrality will be shown in practice. It is quite conceivable that engineering firms or environmental consulting firms will specialize in solving such licensing cases in such a way that an appropriate balance of interests between the parties involved is achieved without unnecessarily hindering the further economic development of the city. Such a procedure is also in the interests of the applicant, because the underlying questions are then clarified and he does not have to fear numerous legal battles during the operation. Negative Externalities Negative externalities are costs or disadvantages that arise in production, but are not incurred by the polluter, but by outsiders, who are unjustifiably burdened by them. One example is air pollution caused by industrial companies or automobile traffic. Since in a free private city the party affected can claim damages or injunctive relief from the polluter for impairments beyond the threshold value, most such cases can be solved with the existing legal instruments. Disadvantages that cannot be clearly assigned to a polluter or do not measurably affect the individual, for example car exhaust fumes, which only have a detrimental effect on health in their sum, remain possible targets for regulation. The simplest solution is if the free private city can impose conditions that minimize the negative effects, for example, the provision of catalytic converter requirements.
Alternative solutions such as emission certificate trading or PIJU taxes have the disadvantage that the costs associated with the externality cannot really be determined and are ultimately arbitrary. Here, all manner of fantastic figures can be pulled out of the air because counter-effects are not included. Linear instead of toxic thresholds are used, or simply thresholds are set for political reasons, and some market participants are again excluded. Often, such alleged steering taxes are simply an additional source of income for the state. The discussion about externalities also ignores the fact that every human activity has consequences that are not directly priced into products, and cannot be either, because one simply does not yet know what has to be priced in. Every activity, every new product, every new technology has effects that cannot be fully understood and whose consequences in all their facets may only become apparent after decades or even centuries. These can be positive or negative long-term consequences, usually a mixed situation, where we may observe positive developments with negative side effects or vice versa. Consider, for example, the invention of the art of printing, which promoted the spread of knowledge on the one hand and propaganda on the other. Even the production of socks can lead to unforeseen effects, more illnesses because people no longer walk barefoot and are therefore less hardened, which are either negative, neutral, or positive overall. Should the sock manufacturer now pay an externality tax? And who will decide on what basis? One could argue that each additional child causes additional pollution and therefore impose a birth tax. But without children, humanity would die out. The same applies to global warming and an increase in CO2. The latter also means more plant growth and the enabling of land reclamation of former permafrost zones, which in turn feeds more people. To what extent is this included in the price of CO2 certificates? Often, it is simply not possible to determine whether the overall effects will be negative or positive due to the large number of parameters affected. However, the danger of causing more damage than good by arbitrary market interventions is quite real. Thus, it is preferable to set requirements in the final permit on the basis of the known and identifiable effects. Hazard principle trumps precautionary principle. Over time, some things could turn out to be toxic, which used to be considered safe. In such cases, the citizen's contract need not be amended as long as there is a clause allowing for a lawsuit to be brought in exceptional cases when scientific progress allows for that kind of a re-evaluation. Any person concerned, such as the neighbor of an establishment in which this substance is manufactured or used, or the city operator on the basis of his contractual right of action, could then assert an impairment of property or health by referring to the corresponding new findings. Alternatively, the adjustment of threshold values may be left to a body which may then act on its own initiative or on request. In both cases, it must be assumed that the hazard is real. Therefore, a reason-guided free private city will fall back on scientifically recognized toxicity limits, such as those developed for work safety purposes.
In the course of its development, the human organism has learned to absorb pollutants if they do not exceed certain levels. The dosage makes the poison. Toxic thresholds are based on this principle. On the other hand, for some years now, interested parties have been trying to impose linear thresholds with the unverifiable assertion that a potential pollutant is harmful at any concentration. If the population is only large enough, the statistically linear calculation results in thousands of avoided deaths per year with each reduction of the permitted limit. This is, in light of the absorption capacities of the human body, not only unscientific, but ultimately also a license to destroy any industrial and agricultural production by arbitrarily lowering thresholds. There is also expressly no precautionary principle in the free private city in such a way that any theoretically conceivable damage would justify prohibiting new projects and technologies. The principle of damage, real damage has occurred, and the principle of hazard, damage is probable and specific damage expected, applies in favor of innovation. Anyone who affirms a strict precautionary principle, as the affluent societies of the West are increasingly doing today, should already have banned fire. Risk aversion is gradually transforming dynamic communities into prohibitive societies. This is supposed to be distinctly different in free private cities. Chapter 24 Budget and Currency Issues If we want to maintain a free society, we must take away the monopoly of issuing money from the government. Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Social Philosopher On the one hand, a free private city must be attractive enough to attract citizens, which means spending on security, dispute resolution systems, and a basic infrastructure. On the other hand, the contributions collected for it must not be too high so as not to discourage interested parties. For this reason, the operator must find a middle way of positioning himself via various sources of income in such a way that the level of contributions is affordable and yet a sufficiently high level of performance and an attractive infrastructure can be made available. It is not possible to predict which financing models will work best in this respect. This must be shown in practice. The question also depends on the form of the agreement with the host state, which may require the payment of duties to the host state. Some of the revenue must be set aside to provide for unforeseeable contingencies and emergencies so that the operator is not forced to come back to the citizens asking for more money. Monaco, for example, has reserves amounting to twice the annual government expenditure, and Liechtenstein holds at least a complete annual budget in the bank. 1. Earnings In principle, several sources of income are possible for the operator. Traditional states are financed by taxes of all kinds, other contributions and levies, fees and fines. The main characteristic of taxes is that no specific reciprocal service is implied, nor can any be demanded. Fees, on the other hand, are fees to be paid for specific use, for example, court fees or the transport fee in public transport. 
Fees for specific services do not differ in principle from prices charged by non-governmental service providers for such services. This source of income is also available to the free private city, for example in the form of court or registration fees. The collection of a fee also makes sense to prevent individual troublemakers from unnecessarily straining these facilities. On the other hand, the collection of contributions that can be changed at any time without a specific reciprocity would lead to the legal uncertainty and to struggles for distribution discussed earlier, even in a free private city. This can be countered by contractually stipulating the number, type, and maximum amount of contributions to be made and not allowing unilateral changes. Otherwise, free private cities would lose a major competitive advantage. Even if it is possible to leave at any time, systems that can arbitrarily change or extend the type and amount of the payment obligation create considerable uncertainty that endangers the assets earned, income, and old age security of citizens. And as far as popular redistribution policies are concerned, that is, taxing the rich to allegedly help the poor, the problem of poverty is not diminished but on the contrary increased. For any such redistribution policy reduces the incentive to become rich and productive and increases the incentive to remain poor and unproductive. However, contract citizens of a free private city should only pay for what they have ordered on terms known in advance. Therefore, all contributions to be paid are to be classified as fees for services which may only be used for the purposes laid down in the citizen's contract. Contributions and duties are thus placed in a contractual, reciprocal relationship subject to judicial review. They can therefore also be the subject of a right of retention under civil law, namely if the operator does not fulfill his contractual obligations as stipulated. It is irrelevant what the contributions are called. For reasons of conceptual distinction, however, such payments within the framework of the citizen's contract shall hereinafter not be referred to as taxes, but as contributions and duties. Basic Fee The most honest and transparent financing is the collection of an annual contribution which is the same for all residents and which covers the corresponding costs for the services received according to the mandatory package in the citizen's contract. In principle, there should be no exceptions with regard to the obligation to pay this basic fee. In the provision of private services on the market, there is also no price differentiation as to which income group the service recipient belongs to. However, it may be difficult for newcomers seeking work to pay the basic fee. In this respect, a deferral could be granted for the first one to two years. The basic fee can be paid later if the person concerned has sufficient liquidity. A similar arrangement is conceivable for contract citizens who have fallen into financial difficulties. Alternatively, businesses may agree to pay contributions for certain workers. Special regulations are still conceivable for underage children. They pay either a lower contribution or no contribution at all until they reach the age of majority. Similarly, contributions may be waived for pensioners who have resided in the free private city for a minimum number of years and have paid contributions. Even for the first settlers who have taken on higher risks, a reduction in contributions may occur after a certain period of time.
There is wide leeway for the city operator who must strike a balance between the interest of all in equal treatment and the need to make appropriate exceptions. However, a warning is in order. The more special cases and unequal treatment there are, the more people will attempt to take advantage of unjustified benefits. In particular, the basic fee should not be used as a mechanism for redistribution, progression, remission for the poor, etc. This is primarily a payment for a service actually provided, namely the provision of a secure and stable framework by the free private city. This service not only costs something, but is also worth something. Be it because not every resident pays the basic fee or because the basic fee is kept generally low, it may be necessary to cover some of the expenses from other sources of income. In particular, the operator's own economic activities as well as other duties and fees are options for cross-financing the basic fee or for generating additional investment capital. It is possible that a city operator generates so much revenue from real estate and other businesses that no contribution at all has to be charged. However, the basic fee should never be completely abolished. At least a symbolic contribution should always be due, simply to make it clear that the services of the free private city do not fall from the sky for free and that there is an indivisible connection between service and reward. The contribution can be paid annually or quarterly, in advance. Failure to pay entitles the operator to terminate the contract, if necessary after a certain period has elapsed. Ideally, no other payments are due apart from the basic fee. The operator offers a service, and this is thereby compensated. Now, it may be that the revenue generated is not sufficient, depending on the scope of services offered by the free private city, or the operator may be obliged by virtue of the contract with the host state to levy certain taxes or duties. In such cases, further types of income are conceivable, but must, however, always be laid out in advance in the citizen's contract according to type and amount. Excise Duties A possible source of additional income is excise duties. These are added to the sales price of products and services, but only if the corresponding exchange or consumption is made, similar to value-added tax or sales tax. They have the advantage of making it unnecessary to snoop around in the private lives of the citizens for collection, and the payment obligation can be influenced by the payer. He can decide beforehand whether the acquisition is worth the additional cost. However, it should be noted that such charges are not insignificant, especially for small and medium-sized traders who must first collect the sums in question. Not only do regular declarations have to be made on the revenue subject to the tax, but complicated questions can arise regarding the so-called input tax deduction or services with an international dimension. It is therefore more business-friendly, at least for small and micro-enterprises, not to levy any such excise duties. This spares everyone involved a great deal of red tape. Moreover, excise duties contribute to making products and thus the cost of living more expensive for everyone. Property Duties Another possible source of income is duties on real estate. 
They encroach on property rights and the substance of assets, but are the lesser evil compared to any income tax brought into play by the host state. The advantage of property levies is that the debtor and the corresponding reference value can easily be determined at any time. For example, the city could require a levy based on the value of the land. It is payable annually and the value is determined by an expert. Following the sale of land, both registration fees and additional transaction fees are also options. Ideally, the market value of the properties increases steadily as the free private city develops so that the corresponding income from property duties also increases. Both the property duty and the transaction fees should, of course, be in the low single-digit percentage range or below so as not to make the purchase of land any more expensive than absolutely necessary. Other Duties Any and all duties should be discouraged that directly interfere with existing income or property. An exception is noted above in the previous paragraph and require the extensive involvement of the persons liable to the duties, such as duties with the effect of income taxes, company taxes, taxes on capital gains, inheritance taxes, or wealth taxes. These levies require an intensive examination of the debtor's circumstances. He has the constant threat of punishment hanging over his head because he may not have declared everything correctly. This makes it considerably more difficult to build up assets, property, pensions, and businesses, including efforts to do so over several generations, and thus impairs self-reliance. Corporate taxes make products more expensive for everyone and weaken the international competitiveness of businesses. Similar to the practice in medieval free imperial cities, however, successful free private cities could consider demanding a kind of one-off payment from new citizens in return for a share of the investments already made. Alternatively, the acquisition of a share in the operating company of the free private city for a cash contribution can be demanded, which in return secures a voice in the running of the city as well as a claim to any dividends which may ensue. Specific fees. Specific fees are another source of financing. Since most areas in the free private city are privatized, the scope for additional fees is relatively small. The basic services like police, the fire department, and emergency rescue are already paid for by the basic fee. Court and registration fees are conceivable. However, one could also think about fees for special cases, such as payment for the protection of a major private event by the police and fire department. Unlike the basic fee and other charges, it seems justifiable to place the price for such services at the discretion of the operator, especially as these are only incurred if the corresponding facilities are actually used. Real Estate Transactions Profits from real estate transactions, whether through sale or rent, are likely to be one of the main sources of income for the operating company, at least in the first years or decades after its foundation. This is simply because the operator knows the intended location right from the start. He can acquire land for an amount that has not yet priced in the special status of a free private city. Once it has been created, this alone increases the value of the land. 
If the city develops successfully, value will continue to accrue and should multiply over the years. It is also conceivable that the free private city will be developed without the operating company having any real estate at all. This is unlikely to be preferable, however. Objections from landowners could hinder or delay the construction of even the most basic infrastructure and, moreover, the operator would miss out on the possible income resulting from the increase in property values on vacant property. Empty land still owned by the operator, however, represents a possible reserve for future investments, the cross-financing of basic services, and unforeseen expenses. If the land on which the free private city is to be built is not owned by the host state and the transfer of ownership is part of the negotiation with the host state, acquiring the land may prove very difficult. When the contractual agreement with the host state becomes known, the land prices skyrocket overnight. Government officials involved in or aware of the negotiations could even try to acquire such land in advance for their own advantage. The operator can prevent this by concluding option agreements with the local landowners at an early stage, according to which the operator can exercise an option to buy at a predetermined price if an agreement is actually reached with the host state. Shareholding Finally, the operator can invest in companies that provide services for the residents and thereby generate profits. In the beginning, he might even have to do this himself because other providers are not yet prepared to take an entrepreneurial risk in the early phase of a free private city. This concerns the operation of waste collection, water and electricity supply, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, toll roads, to name but a few. Once the city is established, the operator can later profitably sell these businesses to specialized companies. In this area, there is a temptation to collect monopoly profits by not allowing other providers or forcing them to transfer shares to the city operator. However, if the city operator optimizes his profit expectations at the expense of service quality, his product loses its overall attractiveness. It may be impractical to allow several competitors to operate in the same territory in the cases of water supply and waste collection. In cases such as these, business could be divided by geographic district. For most things, however, it is not a problem to allow several competitors to operate at the same time. Kindergartens, schools, or hospitals are good examples. Weighting of Revenues Private operators of special economic zones, such as the Jabal Ali Free Zone, provide some indication of the weighting of revenues one might expect in a free private city. Those operators generally generate about 60 to 70 percent of their revenues through real estate transactions, 20 to 30 percent through services such as warehousing, port management, and waste disposal, and 10 to 20 percent through administration and license fees. 2. Expenses what expenses are likely to be incurred? Looking at the budgets of small and city-states, the largest items are generally education, health, pensions, social expenses, and debt servicing. Expenditure on internal security, police, fire department, courts, prisons, is generally in the range of only 5% of total expenditure. Infrastructure expenditure, 
roads, pipelines, lighting, etc., amounts to around 10% of the total budget. This means that a free private city can be operated with only 15% of a normal state budget. But what does this mean in absolute figures? This depends primarily on the size of the city. Island states in the Pacific and the Caribbean have the smallest national budgets. For example, Tuvalu spends $23 million annually for 10,000 inhabitants. Vanuatu spends $168 million for 220,000 inhabitants, all figures in U.S. dollars. By comparison, a wealthy small state like Andorra spends $790 million for 83,000 inhabitants, while a metropolis like Hong Kong spends $41.5 billion for 7.2 million inhabitants. A comparison between Tuvalu and Vanuatu shows considerable economies of scale. While poor Tuvalu spends $2,300 annually per capita, Vanuatu spends only about $750. This is simply because certain things have to be there for a population, even if it only has 10,000 inhabitants. The same institutions in Vanuatu, with its 220,000 inhabitants, are far from being 22 times more expensive. More is always possible, of course, especially in those states that have a much higher gross national product and per capita income. Barbados, approximately the same size as Vanuatu, spends $3,100 per capita, more than four times as much. In Andorra, the figure is $9,500, and in Hong Kong, $5,700. Singapore spends $5,900 per capita. In Monaco, it is almost $30,000. In Luxembourg, as much as $45,000. On the basis of these values, it can be assumed that the mandatory package of the citizen's contract, rounded up, would correspond to about 20% of the budget of conventional small states. This should enable a free private city to get by with an annual per capita contribution of between $500, Tuvalu standard, 10,000 inhabitants, and $1,200, Singapore, Hong Kong standard, 100,000 inhabitants, and more. Due to the efficiency and cost advantages of private administration, this might even be significantly less. Sandy Springs' experience has shown that the provision of formerly public services by private companies allows savings of 10 to 40 percent. And indeed, a cross-comparison with Sandy Springs shows that with an annual budget of $95 million and a population of 95000 they incur expenses of $1,000 per capita. The components of the mandatory package for free private cities would represent about a third of the total budget of Sandy Springs. For a population of 100000 an annual contribution of only $350 per person is conceivably enough to guarantee a standard typical of a highly developed country. That sounds terribly low. It should be noted, however, that the people living in a free private city naturally have other expenses that are borne by the state elsewhere, especially for education and social security. But even in these areas, there is every reason to assume that savings on the order of magnitude of Sandy Springs can be achieved due to private sector service provision. 
Considering the ineffectiveness typical of public administration, there are considerable reserves here that can be exploited by a profit-oriented provider without compromising the quality of service. In addition, each citizen can put together their own portfolio and level of protection according to their budget and personal preferences. Life should therefore become noticeably cheaper for practically the entire working population without any loss in benefits. This leaves more money available for higher living standards, old age provision, or other purposes. Furthermore, when calculating the contribution, it must be taken into account that the examples also include underage children, disabled persons, and pensioners in the per capita analysis. Here, the operator has to decide to what extent he wants to ask these groups to pay, especially children who are highly desirable for the further growth of the city, could be included in their parents' contribution, be subject to a family rate, or pay a reduced amount from a certain age. However the operator decides, the larger the group of those who have to pay less, the higher the contribution for everyone else. An additional item is expenditure on defense and the exercise of sovereignty rights in general, such as the maintenance of embassies, membership in international associations, etc. If the host state provides this, it is appropriate for the free private city to pay something in return. Further payments may have been agreed in the treaty with the host state. These are part of the mandatory package and must also be covered by the basic fee. If the host state requests that education and health care be offered free of charge by the city operator, the contribution would be higher still. The operator can counter the emergence of an inefficient education and health bureaucracy by providing incentives and guarantees to ensure that sufficient private providers are available in the city. All he has to do is hand out education and health vouchers and demand proof of school education or health insurance. The comparison between Tuvalu and Vanuatu also shows how an operator can earn money in areas other than real estate, namely through economies of scale. In this case, Vanuatu spends only a fraction of the cost per capita of Tuvalu, simply because it has 220,000 inhabitants compared to only 10,000 inhabitants. Nevertheless, the standard of living and life expectancy in Vanuatu are higher. The same would apply to a free private city. In the initial period with few inhabitants, the operator will have to pre-finance or cross-subsidize from real estate transactions in order to avoid exorbitantly high contributions. Later, he can cover costs or work with a narrow profit margin. If the population then rises above a certain level, considerable profits can be made. Here is a simplified example calculation. Suppose the cost contribution for the mandatory package, as in the Sandy Springs example, is $350. Total budget, $35 million for 100,000 inhabitants. But the operator demands $400. Then, with 100,000 paying contractors, he makes a profit of $5 million per year, excluding accruals and other sources of income. This corresponds to a return of 14.3%. Assuming the population now rises to 200,000, he does not have to double the infrastructure and staff for the mandatory package in order to achieve the same level of service. Suppose the total budget is increased from 35 to $50 million in such a case. The cost contribution margin per capita will then drop to $250. 
The contribution to be paid will remain at $400. This doubles the revenue so that the profit rises to $30 million. $400 minus $250 equals $150 times $200,000, which results in a return of 60% per year. Now, at the very latest, the operator could start to build up reserves, invest in infrastructure, or reduce the contribution. The expenditure positions of a free private city, which only offers the mandatory package, could look as follows. 1. Security. 1.1. Police. 1.2. Fire Department. Emergency Rescue. 1.3. Border Security. Immigration. 2. Administration. 2.1. Courts. Registry. 2.2. Finances. Collection of Contributions. 2.3. Cooperation with the host country. 2.4. Other Administration. 3. Infrastructure. 3.1. Road Construction and Maintenance. 3.2. Pipeline Construction and Maintenance. 3.3. Lighting. 3.4. Public Places and Parks. 3.5. Miscellaneous. 4. Basic Social Security. See Chapter 21. 5. Payments to Host Country. 6. Reserves for Damages Caused by Natural Hazards and Similar Events. Virtually all of this can in turn be subcontracted to private companies. However, the free private city remains obligated towards the contract citizens. There are several advantages for the city operator. For one thing, these service providers are usually specialized and thus more experienced and effective. In addition, they can be replaced by other companies in the event of poor performance. And finally, there are no pension obligations on the part of the city. The city operator's other economic activity, such as real estate development or the operation of service organizations, are not included here. These should stand on their own two feet economically and generate profits, which can then be used to cross-subsidize the mandatory package or for investments in infrastructure. It will probably not be possible to hand over all city infrastructure projects to private real estate developers, construction of toll roads and the like, immediately. Over time, however, it is conceivable that this will happen. This applies in particular to the construction of electricity and water pipelines. Further privatization in other areas is also conceivable, so that more and more can gradually disappear from the budget of the free private city. The following areas are not included in the mandatory package in the model being proposed here. Water and sewage, electricity, garbage collection, schools, education, and training, health insurance, old age provision, other insurances. Optimally, these things would be privatized immediately. At least in the medium term, specialist providers should be offering these services and billing the contract citizens directly. 3. Currency and Central Bank Another characteristic of a successful society is a stable currency. This is, so to speak, the lubricant of a functioning economy since it facilitates transactions and enables savings. It also builds trust and enables long-term planning and retirement planning.
Money is indeed one of mankind's most practical and best inventions because it enables everyone to buy the goods and services they want virtually anywhere in the world. The ideological demonization of money completely misses the point. If money did not exist in its present form, other objects of exchange or favors would automatically take their place. Money is therefore always simply an indicator of a person's actual purchasing power. This, in turn, depends on the diligence, energy, skill, and, of course, the luck of the individuals concerned, or their ancestors. Unless required by the host state, there is no reason to set up a central bank or to specify a particular currency for the payment transactions of the contract citizens. The creation of central banks that manipulate money supply and interest rates and rescue insolvent commercial banks represents an ill-advised intervention in overly complex markets by planned economies in order to achieve certain results. These interventions will ultimately be just as unsuccessful as all the other planned economic interventions in goods and services markets. They certainly have an effect, but in the medium and long term, they do far more harm than good to the system as a whole because they encourage commercial banks to be more willing to take risks, the so-called moral hazard, and offer an ultimately irresistible temptation to any government to manipulate the currency to its own advantage. Artificially low interest rates facilitate the servicing of government debt. The purchase of government bonds by the central bank corresponds to the printing of money. Sooner or later, price inflation is certain to follow. But there is no such thing as controlled inflation. The effect corresponds to that of the ketchup bottle. At first, nothing comes out for a long time, and then suddenly everything comes out at once. The loss of confidence in previously stable currencies can occur within a few days and weeks. There is no example in history of pure paper or book money that didn't fail in the end. The market can decide which currencies are preferred at which conditions and interest rates. In particular, the interest rate should emerge on the market because otherwise misallocations occur that lead to the waste of resources, bubbles, and subsequent crises. If Panama, Liechtenstein, or Monaco can do without a central bank, then a free private city should be able to manage. The currency of the host state, a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin, or a common regional or reserve currency will probably end up dominating the markets, or several currencies will coexist. Nevertheless, this raises the question as to how contributions, duties, and fees are to be paid to the free private city. For this purpose, the operator can specify several possible currencies in the citizen's contract, or only one. However, there is always the danger that this currency, because it is unsecured paper money, will be massively devalued by inflation or will no longer exist at some future point. There are two solutions for such cases. Firstly, an adjustment clause could be included in the contract, according to which the contribution would increase if inflation occurs. The methods of measuring inflation and the effort involved are problematic. If necessary, existing standard calculations may be agreed upon. However, there is always the risk that inflation will not be correctly reported for political reasons. An alternative would be that the operator reserves the right to claim the contribution in gold, or silver, or bitcoin, at his discretion.
For example, the clause could be that the contribution is usually to be paid in currency X, but in gold at the request of the operator. The quantity of gold corresponding to the exchange ratio of the contribution in currency X to gold at the time the contract was concluded. In this way, the operator can protect himself against a currency decline over which he has no influence. The value of gold, on the other hand, has remained stable for thousands of years. Part 4 Future Chapter 25 Evolution Instead of Revolution you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Richard Buckminster Fuller, Architect and Visionary The future has already begun on the market of living together. By constitutional amendment, Honduras has allowed the establishment of special zones called ZDs in which forms of organization are possible that resemble free private cities. The Seasteading Institute, which propagates the idea that floating cities at sea make new models of social coexistence possible, is currently negotiating with French Polynesia on the establishment of a corresponding special zone in their territorial waters. In Myanmar, the free city of Mu Aipu is being created in the autonomous Karen State. In New Hampshire, like-minded libertarians want to concentrate through immigration in order to gradually change local and state politics in their direction, knowing that they will never attain majorities at the federal level. In Europe, a new classical liberal state called Liberland is set to emerge on a patch of unclaimed territory between Serbia and Croatia. Shortly after the project started, there were already more than 100,000 applicants for citizenship. In Saudi Arabia, the Neom project aims to create a region that offers the highest possible quality of life, innovation, and business friendliness. Neom will have its own legal system in which Saudi Arabia's restrictive religious rules explicitly do not apply. BitNation is a virtual state with its own legal and dispute settlement system, which offers an alternative to state services. Marriage and birth certificates, property transactions, and all types of certification are mapped using a reputation-based blockchain system. Even security services are offered. Even if we have no way of knowing the chances of success of these various projects, apparently the time is ripe for new forms of living together. A Disruptive Technology Free private cities have the potential to become a real alternative to existing orders or to overcome them in the sense of creative destruction, Schumpeter, without overthrowing them. Evolutionary changes are always preferable to violent revolutions. Every revolution ultimately eats its children and every revolution so far has simply replaced one group of the privileged by another. Once various free private cities are scattered around the globe, this will put considerable pressure on the existing states to change their system towards more freedom if they do not want to lose their most productive citizens. This is precisely the positive effect of competition that has been lacking in the state market up to now. 
Today, people can already choose from countless products on offer, can choose from a wide variety of insurance policies for all areas of life, and constantly receive new technical products. Why should they choose to maintain a coercive solution that is expensive and dysfunctional in the area of living together, arguably the most important market of all? The need to make a profit without the possibility of dictating prices or forcing others to buy their own services gives free private cities the right incentive, namely the optimal use of resources and the best possible response to customer needs. These incentives are lacking in state-organized processes. This can be observed, for example, in health care, at schools and universities, and more recently, in energy supply. Such misguided incentives lead to undesirable developments, and after a short time, people have found out how these systems can be milked to the maximum without providing the appropriate compensation. Others discover how to shelter in such organizations without actually working. Others find out how to finance their own interests and projects unrelated to the original purpose of the organization. All state reform efforts, the establishment of independent commissions, legal changes, and so on, can at best alleviate the symptoms. The design flaw lies in the incentive structure. For this very reason, in the long term, state control cannot compete with the private sector. If one transfers this observation now to the largest of all conceivable enterprises, the state, then it becomes clear how much untapped potential is there to provide the same services better and cheaper. Since voluntary demand only emerges for products that are really desired, this will at the same time bring about a considerable improvement in the supply of functioning societies on the market of living together. The free cities of the Middle Ages were refuges from the absolute rule of the monarchs, but were ultimately accepted by them because of their positive economic impact. The free private cities of the 21st century will be refuges from paternalism and exploitation by our governments they will eventually be tolerated by them for the same economic reasons. That's because the need for money by those in power always tends towards infinity. City air makes you free. Soon again. Diversity instead of uniformity It is therefore not too risky to predict that free private cities or comparable communities which offer security and allow people to live independently in liberty and self-determination, will inevitably emerge. On the one hand, a permanently high standard of living will only be possible where both economic and personal freedoms are granted. On the other hand, most people will simply be happier if they can be what they want to be. But would they be happier? Happiness lies in the perception of the individual. Happy is the one who feels happy. A poor person in a dangerous environment can be many times happier than a rich person in a secure luxury resort, or vice versa. But whoever cannot be the one he wants to be will most likely be unhappy, no matter what circumstances he lives under. The free private city is an operating system that enables the individual to realize his idea of happiness or, less dramatically speaking, to live his life the way he wants to. 
Like all operating systems, free private cities will evolve over time. They will adapt to customer demands and take on different forms of appearance, even beyond the models presented here. It is likely that some of the ideas proposed in this book will prove impractical and will be replaced by others. Precisely because we cannot know which system is evolutionarily the best, we must allow diversity and competition. A wide variety of communities are conceivable and legitimate as long as participation in them is voluntary. Forms of living together are successful regardless of their form of government if and when people want to belong to them by their own free will. As long as free private cities offer people an improvement in their well-being or at least proper conditions for achieving this goal, they will be in demand. If money can be made from private cities, more and more competitors will enter this market. This will ultimately minimize profit margins, as in other markets. It is likely that the contributions and charges to be paid will decrease over time without impairing the quality of services. And as in other product and service markets, the person who offers an attractive product to the masses earns the most money, not the luxury and niche provider. Since people are different, the establishment of a system that pleases a group of like-minded or similar-minded people will cause those who think and feel differently to feel uncomfortable with it. This is another reason why it is necessary to have a variety of offers available. This does not mean that some offers will not work better and be more successful than others. Nevertheless, we can observe in the product and service markets that there are many niche providers for special wishes and interests, even if the overwhelming majority are covered by the large providers. This implies giving people the freedom to make a bad choice that may be detrimental to themselves. In the market for products and services, we have no problem with that, so why not grant freedom of choice in the market for living together? It is precisely the opportunity to make different experiences and to learn from mistakes which ensures that over the course of time we sharpen our senses, develop a fundamental understanding of human interaction, and finally increase the quality of social systems on a broad front. Nor is anyone entitled to judge how their fellow human beings would like to live together. This ultimately leads to the recognition of private autonomy as a guiding principle, instead of an allegedly objective common good. As sovereign of himself, everyone then determines his own life, and not the leadership of the collective. The seasteading movement has a similar idea. In the seasteading worldview, any set of rules is okay as long as the residents consent to it voluntarily and can leave whenever they choose. We believe that citizens must opt in to a society with informed consent to an explicit social contract, and they must have the freedom to exit if they no longer believe that society is serving them. As long as those conditions hold, the details of that contract are not our concern. Once you have accepted that people and their preferences are different, then the motto can only be to live and let live. This includes defensive action against those who reject this principle. That should be enough to create a world of peace and freedom. Moral teachings that demand a kind of superhuman 
who is not even allowed to drink a glass of red wine too much or dispensable. The willingness to give others their freedom is also a step towards personal well-being and balance. Another is the admission of being the product of one's own decisions, not the victim of any circumstances. Everyone has some kind of handicap. Let's make the best of it. None of the numerous dire predictions about the impending end of the world that have accompanied mankind since the beginning have occurred so far. But they have always been used as justification for restricting self-determination and exercising power over others. The damage done so far by well-intentioned attempts to avert the looming catastrophe has always been greater than the damage caused by the alleged or actual danger. There is no reason why this should be any different in the future. Even if a meteorite were racing towards Earth and threatened to do serious damage, it would not be necessary to install a world government. Voluntary associations of people are sufficient and probably even better suited to solving problems even of a global nature. Private initiatives have shown that even major tasks, such as decoding the human genome or space travel, can be carried out by non-governmental agencies. Ultimately, it will be the market not politicians, intellectuals, journalists, or the current mainstream view that will decide whether free private cities will become a success, because the home of the future will be the adopted home. People are much more mobile than before, and the ties to a fixed place, country, or region have weakened for many reasons. The increased networking of the world ensures that new knowledge spreads faster than before. This includes the knowledge about alternatives. If a state refuses to match those alternatives, immigration follows. The increasing immigration, in turn, increases domestic pressure to make changes. That is why free private cities actually have the potential to change the world, even if they remain niche products for a long time to come. Chapter 26 The Choice is Yours the eventual victory of liberty is inevitable because only liberty is functional for modern man. Murray Rothbard, Economist and Philosopher The future is open. Let's visit three hypothetical alternatives. More Politics, Nannytopia the ideal of countless intellectuals, writers, and political activists has finally come true. The world has a unified government, and the same rules apply to everyone. Of course, this is a democratic and fair world. Their motto is, everything for democracy, everything through democracy, nothing against democracy. Riding on the promise of a high, unconditional basic income for all the citizens of the world, no matter where they live, the necessary majority for the world government of wise people, as the press calls it, and a world constitution has finally emerged. As the wise selflessly strive for a better world, all energy sources that they believe contribute to climate change, that is, oil, natural gas, and coal, are immediately banned. At the same time, the democratically elected sages have reservations about the use of nuclear energy, which is why it must no longer be used for energy production either. 
Anyone who denies human influence on the climate or plays down the effects of climate change can be prosecuted for climate sedition. In addition, a uniform minimum wage and comprehensive protection against dismissal apply in all countries worldwide. A violation of this is a criminal offense on the part of the entrepreneur who must prove his innocence if suspected of exploitation. A worldwide referendum also results in a large majority in favor of an individual wealth limit of 10 million U.S. dollars. All assets beyond the upper limit, as well as earnings of more than 1 million U.S. dollars per year, are now subject to the 100% Piketty tax. If the value of one's own company shares exceeds the upper limit, the excess is sold and the proceeds are to be transferred immediately to the world community, represented by the world government. The proceeds are used for meaningful things, such as the spread of organic farming and veganism all over the world. The wise are striving for an agricultural shift towards natural forms of cultivation without the exploitation of animals. Genetic engineering has been banned, as has factory farming and any use of chemical products in foodstuffs. Cashless payment transactions are obligatory to ensure that global citizens also eat a healthy diet and behave as climate-neutral as possible. Dietary habits are strictly observed because everyone has to shop with a personalized card. Alcohol and nicotine are prohibited because they are harmful, although there was no referendum on this. If a certain quota of meat consumption per week is exceeded, the shopping card does not allow any further transactions. Corresponding purchases in restaurants or supermarkets are then blocked, as is air travel exceeding the permissible quota as set by the world government. Exceptions apply to politicians. Discrimination and racism are relics of the past. If a woman or man rejects a marriage proposal, the rejected person may file a complaint of discrimination. These are then democratically voted on in the respective municipality. If the complaint is granted, the person initially rejected must be married. Parents of beautiful children are advised to perform disfiguring facial surgery so that they do not diminish other children by their good looks. Jokes of all kinds are frowned upon as discriminatory and are usually punishable by law. But the democratization of all areas of life goes even further. The world government is committed to comprehensive gender equality. Since all schools worldwide now have binding curricula and teaching content, it is now common knowledge that there are no biological differences between the sexes, but that these are a social construct. Showing naked female skin in advertisements, films, or print media is forbidden because of sexism. Even a compliment to a woman can lead to the loss of a job. Prostitution and the production and possession of pornography are prohibited to protect women. Violations are only punishable for men, however, because in the opinion of the wise, women are always victims. Any objection that such preferential treatment for women would contradict the doctrine of gender equality is prosecuted as criminal gender hate speech. But of course, the penal system is humane. Deviants are usually subjected to discussion therapy because they require only guidance to be led from their mistaken point of view. The same applies to parents whose children have behavioral problems at school. 
for example by showing pronounced male or female behavior. Repeat offenders may be deprived of their parents and entrusted to more suitable couples for care. Stubborn dissidents are sent to re-education camps where they are taught the foundations of progress and democracy, in particular the acceptance of the measures of the world government elected by the democratic majority. After all, the wise see the future of mankind in a single mixed race. Therefore, migration flows are managed according to plan in such a way that the ethnic groups are as mixed as possible. Local resistance may be forcibly suppressed. Even forced resettlements are no longer taboo. Sooner or later, scientists whose findings deviate from the convictions of the world government will no longer receive funding. Since there are also no longer any significant private fortunes that support independent scientists who are open to knowledge, research is now only within the limits set by the world government. Surprisingly, economic performance has not developed positively since the world government took office. Industrial and agricultural production are declining. The forced ethnic resettlements have created numerous armed resistance groups. Countless people are without electricity or are starving. The number of people receiving the unconditional basic income is also growing exponentially, so that the world government regrets that it has to be regularly reduced. On the other hand, the economic shrinking process is welcomed because mankind's ecological footprint has to be reduced anyway in order to save the climate and conserve resources. Therefore, numerous commentators and economists propagate the return to the simple life within the framework of the Great Transformation. It only follows that private car ownership is prohibited. However, tens of thousands die of spoiled food every month because preservatives are no longer permitted. This is not reported by the press. A new project of the world government is to bring millions of people work, especially the countless unemployed social scientists. The revision of all books and films in all languages with regard to gender justice, anti-racist and anti-sexist language and action, legends, fairy tales, and practically all the classics of the 19th and 20th centuries are undergoing considerable changes. This project is funded by the world government from tax revenue. The old books may be incinerated as a source of heat for needy, powerless people, disregarding any climate concerns. Great hopes rest on this project. More Religion, Universal Caliphate It is he who has sent his messenger with the religion of truth to make it victorious over every other faith. Quran, Surah 61, verse 9. And fight against the unbelievers until all believe in Allah. Quran, Surah 8, verse 39. Mission accomplished. The Muslims have achieved the majority of the population in all countries of the world through decades of birth jihad. This was facilitated by the worldwide opening of all borders, combined with the anchoring of the human right to immigration in the United Nations Charter. Recently, Japan and the island states in the Caribbean have also become Muslim by majority. Subsequently, the worldwide acceptance of Sharia law was decided by a democratic majority. Of course, there were one or two flaws, such as the genocides of the Jewish minority in Israel, the Amish, and the Polish Catholics. 
Also, the conversion of the remaining population was not always completely nonviolent. But now, Dar as Salaam, the House of Peace, has been built, and disputes and wars should be a thing of the past. All non-Islamic sacred buildings, but also all texts and films in which reference is made to other religions, have been destroyed. Nothing should remind anyone of how confused parts of humanity were before they found their way back to true faith. History has also undergone a comprehensive revision. Adolf Hitler, for example, is now seen positively. His book, Mein Kampf, is now one of the ten best-selling books globally and no longer only in the Arab world. In the world capital, Mohammedania, the world caliph rules, supported by the religious council of guardians. His motto is, Everything for Allah, everything through Allah, nothing against Allah. Those institutions guarantee a globally uniform interpretation of Sharia law. For example, the Islamic Republic of Australia, which is considered particularly liberal, had decreed that underage thieves should no longer have their hands chopped off when petty things are stolen. This led to an outcry of indignation among theologians, since Sharia did not know the principle of proportionality nor the special treatment of the underaged. The world caliph has made a decision here that has been unanimously praised in the press as Solomon-like. The known rules of Sharia law remain in force, but mutilations and floggings are no longer carried out publicly as far as this is considered offensive in the respective society. Due to the introduction of Sharia as the legal foundation, the density of regulations has decreased considerably, which would theoretically have made a certain economic upswing possible. Scientific research and technological innovations, however, are in sharp decline because societies are primarily concerned with who can pray and fast better. For every activity, no matter how small, must always be checked for conformity to the Sharia. If in doubt, a fatwa should be obtained. Also, the entire female part of the population is largely excluded from economic activity. Because of decades of birth jihad, there is an enormous surplus of young, unqualified, unemployed men. These gather in particular in the true Taliban movement, which calls itself also the most pious of the pious. This movement, which is particularly influential in the clergy, prevents women from exercising rights similar to those of men in practice. In most countries, therefore, the ban on women leaving the house unveiled or without male company is also enforced. According to Sharia rules, married women must also expect to be stoned to death for adultery after having been raped. Informers are also omnipresent to report anyone who does not pray five times a day or who does not fast during Ramadan. The theory of evolution can no longer be taught in schools. Showing naked female skin in advertisement, films, or print media is forbidden as un-Islamic. There are some intellectuals who advocate a historical, critical interpretation of the Quran and Sunnah. However, most of them do not have a long life expectancy, nor do those who recall the mass murders in Israel and elsewhere. Surprisingly, there has been no peace. Shiites, Sunnis, true Taliban, and countless subgroups argue over the correct interpretation of the Quran and Hadiths. At present, it is above all disputed whether the marriage age for girls, 
according to the model of the prophet, should be reduced to nine years, and whether besides the Sharia there is any need for legal texts. Recently, the Shiite states declared that they would no longer recognize the right to immigration after the Sunnis tried to immigrate to their countries in large numbers and to overturn the majority there. Both sides are now arming against each other. Other regional caliphates have announced that they would only recognize the rulings of the world caliph if they corresponded to their own interpretation of the Sharia. Kurds and Alevites are demanding their own caliphate, and armed conflicts are looming. In the Islamic Helvetic Confederation, there have already been terrorist attacks on mosques in which moderate imams preach. The true Taliban has claimed credit. More Self-Determination Decentralia After the collapse of the Western welfare states and the end of the Islamic Reformation Wars, the world has developed quite differently than practically all intellectuals, science fiction authors, and futurologists would have predicted. Instead of a world government, there are over 2,000 different systems, some of which differ considerably from each other, but have one thing in common. Participation in them is voluntary. Many communities are run by private companies, but there are also cooperative models, direct and indirect democracies, and numerous hybrid forms. Most communities are culturally, ideologically, or ethnically homogenous. It is common to try out different systems at a young age before deciding on one. However, most social orders grant their inhabitants considerable liberties, especially in economic terms, but also with regard to personal freedoms. Otherwise, the inhabitants would quickly move to an adjacent system, of which there are a sufficient number on each continent. Apart from a few strictly religious communities, the view that every adult person has the right to a self-determined life has become accepted worldwide. Three private currencies are common worldwide, one gold-backed and two cryptocurrencies. There are also countless local currencies. Since interest rates and currencies can no longer be manipulated by central banks and governments, the creation of wealth, for example for old-age provision, can be planned and implemented. Purchasing power is constantly increasing due to productivity gains. Deflation is a normal part of life in these societies. Systems that arbitrarily increased their taxes, manipulated their currency, or constantly changed the rules have disappeared from the market over time. Widespread free trade ensures that production takes place at the most favorable location. This has put enormous pressure on overall costs. Systems that have not participated in free trade regimes also benefit from this. As productivity advances, all goods and services are getting better and cheaper. Innovations are not hindered in many systems and are therefore omnipresent. Thus, a considerable standard of living is also possible for low earners. Many are already retiring in their mid-40s, especially as the cost of living has fallen enormously overall. Usually, only one parent has to work so that the other can take care of the children. Nursing care for the elderly is also inexpensive because workers can be recruited all over the world. In principle, anyone worldwide can apply for a job, assuming the job is located in a place the applicant is allowed to enter and reside in. 
Since only a few systems have dismissal protection rules, you can quickly find a new job, and it is quite common to resign if your work or superiors do not suit you, even if you do not yet have a new position. Interfering in the lives of others, paternalism and know-it-alls have become rare. People have also become more self-confident and aware as they are primarily responsible for their own affairs and cannot outsource them to a collective, the government, or society. In most communities, institutional policy only exists as a remnant, foreign policy between the systems still being necessary. Incidentally, people buy the services they want and promote the concerns that they consider worthy of support worldwide. The last major project that found numerous donors worldwide was the eradication of female genital mutilation in the last affected areas. This was achieved by a rather banal method, namely the payment of a premium to the parents on proof of non-mutilation at the time of adulthood. The population explosion in Africa had already been successfully stopped by similar means years before. Humans are positive about the future and technology, and the new big topic is how the future settlement of distant Earth-like planets can be managed. Wars and conflicts have become rare because in affected systems a migration starts immediately, which brings them to the brink of insolvency. From time to time, a new totalitarian ideology or religion arises, like the Knights of Equality or the Gaia Rules movement. They also manage to take control of one or the other system. However, to the disappointment of their mostly young heroes of virtue, their economic success and social attractiveness are regularly so low that they soon disappear again. When they become militarily active, an ad hoc coalition of neighboring communities is usually quickly formed. Most people are aware that if necessary, they must defend their freedom and self-determination by force. Related systems are often organized in alliances. Within the systems, revolutionaries and criminals are expelled and, if nobody wants them, taken to special zones for which a market has gradually developed. The future remains uncertain, but it is in our hands. Millions of people are already working with all their heart and soul to make Nannytopia, or the Universal Caliphate, a reality. Decentralia, on the other hand, has few supporters at the moment. But that can change, and it's going to end up that way anyway. For both Nannytopia as a secular doctrine of salvation and the Universal Caliphate as a divine version of the same, as well as all conceivable variations thereof, are not stable or robust orders. They have too many internal contradictions or are simply not suitable for the guarantee of life, freedom, and prosperity. Neither more politics nor more religion are suitable solutions for harmonious coexistence. If people have to be careful with every word or action, if they have to ask permission for everything, then they will hardly be the source of innovation or problem-solving. And the more restrictive the rules, the more those who have failed will try to compensate for their deficits by denouncing rule-breakers and insisting on strict observance. This gives them the power they are unable to achieve through their own efforts. That is why hypocrisy, denunciation, and economic decline are the main characteristics of such societies. 
Ultimately, all systems that do not allow individuals to live their lives according to their own values result in some small group imposing its will on all others, always in the name of the good, of a god, or of the general welfare. But sooner or later, the others will no longer stand for it. After all, a self-determined life in peace and prosperity is what the majority of people want. People will therefore continue to look for alternatives until these objectives are more or less achieved. Nanitopia, or the Universal Caliphate, would set this development back by decades, if not centuries. We can avoid this detour. Instead, let us finally admit that everyone has the right to a self-determined life. Chapter 27 Development of Free Private Cities The best societies that flourish in 2050 will not subscribe to today's ideologies. Joe Quirk, Seevangelist Free private cities are operating systems within which society can develop in an open manner. The operators, on the other hand, will focus their supply on demand. It is therefore possible that, over time, social orders will develop that do not correspond at all to what progressive-thinking people of today have as their vision for the future. But there will probably be a great variety of different models. Perhaps free private cities will only be niche products in the future because the states themselves have turned into service providers. Perhaps free private cities will become the main model in which the majority of the world's population lives. If states fail, free private cities may completely disengage from them and become independent subjects of international law that also confer citizenship. But individuals will also want more sovereignty. Perhaps there will be residential modules in the future that can be airlifted for little money using drone technology. Each contract citizen can then easily change providers without the financial cost of dissolving the old household, selling residential property, and the like. This would be in line with the original idea of seasteading, according to which, if dissatisfied with the respective social order, residents could disconnect their floating living platform and switch to another floating city. This would further increase the competitive pressure on the city operator to offer a good product. It is possible that every citizen who would like to do so would have a kind of visible reputation account that would automatically entitle them to stay in connected, free private cities when they reach a certain number of points. Perhaps there will be insurances that would ensure the safety of each individual, no matter where they lived. It is possible to modify free private cities to suit target groups and to design the city as an anarcho-capitalist order or as an ecological smart city with total electronic monitoring and behavioral control. Even kibbutz-type societies without private property are conceivable. Anything goes as long as participation is voluntary and no attempt is made to dictate any conditions on other communities. The market will ultimately show which scope of services is optimal and most in demand. Free private cities are ready to face competition. Systems that don't want that to happen obviously have something to hide. Perhaps the fact that privileged groups get enriched at the expense of everyone else? 
The Transformation of Existing Cities and Municipalities States that demand more and more taxes and pass tougher laws, but at the same time offer their citizens less and less security, will meet with resistance at some point. Especially high-tax countries like Germany, which knowingly and deliberately expose their citizens to so-called intensivator, multiple offenders, have no future in this form. Countermeasures are easiest to organize at a local level. For example, the citizens of existing communities can decide to live together on the model of free private cities. To this end, they either call in an operating company from outside or set up their own cooperative, which belongs to everyone but nevertheless concludes a citizen's contract with each individual. An agreement is reached with the current state on the future relationship to the national administrative structure or independence declared, the mother country offered adequate compensation, and the city becomes free. It is possible that international competitions will arise in which newly created free private cities will compete against alternative models designed by star economists and intellectuals. They would be populated by volunteers and the world would be watching. Concepts that have been discussed in literature for decades but have so far failed the practical test might fail quickly. A New Hanseatic League Successful systems are expanding. When free private cities are established successfully, they will multiply. It is obvious that these cities would then work together on the basis of their common structure and values. For example, by agreeing to set up free trade areas, facilitating immigration or mutual assistance in crisis situations. Development in the direction of a new Hanseatic League could follow up to maintaining common institutions such as high courts and defense institutions. The old Hanseatic League did not interfere in the internal affairs of its member cities, nor did it question the sovereignty of the territorial powers to which the respective cities belonged. In this respect, free private cities are virtually predestined for the revival of the Hanseatic concept. Alliances Purpose-built alliances with other small and city-states are also conceivable, such as Singapore and Israel working together on security issues. An alliance of convenience also increases political power, whether vis-a-vis -vis international organizations or the desires of powerful states and groups of states. It is by no means a foregone conclusion that major or regional powers can simply annex successful free private cities or blackmail them militarily. As has been seen in the development of the city-states of Genoa, Venice, and Singapore, economic power entails military power if necessary. The Private Administration of Territorial States If cities can be managed privately, why not, as a next step, also territorial states? Let us assume that the population of a West African country is tired of the corruption and the kleptocracy of its political class. A movement has emerged that is seeking a referendum to hand over the administration of the entire country to an operating company of free private cities for 10 years. The parties in favor of the referendum receive an overwhelming majority in the elections. 
A transitional government starts negotiations with the various operating companies and holds a referendum after a decision has been taken in favor of an operator. One and a half years later, the West African country is the first privately administered state in the world. One can imagine how that story goes. Successful products speak for themselves. Free private cities are the beginning of a development that can change the whole world. Technological Progress Innovation and technological progress should thrive particularly well in free private cities. As a result, over time, their competitive advantage will only grow. And as long as there is still one unfulfilled wish on this earth, we will not run out of work. Their higher productivity, combined with a non-inflationary environment in free private cities, ensures, however, that the amount of work that has to be spent to earn a living is constantly decreasing. In the future, one may only have to work a day a month to meet one's basic needs, and another three days to fulfill other desires. An unconditional basic income, which is taken from those who have sufficient means under threat of force, would not be necessary. Blockchain and other technologies increasingly allow people to communicate directly with each other without the intervention of regulatory and costly intermediaries. They also enable life beyond state paternalism, even outside free private cities. The more state-independent cryptographic currencies and private state service providers become established, the more it becomes apparent how superfluous statesmen, central bankers, and other gatekeepers really are, despite their claims to the contrary. The advancement through change, both in social and technological terms, is accelerated by free private cities, because numerous political obstacles no longer exist trial and error can occur at a higher rate. The gap between free private cities and conventional systems will therefore widen over time unless the latter adapt. This will enable free systems to defend themselves more easily due to their superior technology, even against numerically far superior opponents. Technological progress also improves the defensive capability of smaller units. The era of mass armies is over anyway, and superior weapons can also give small states a certain security against aggressors. Just think of the Israeli Iron Dome, which can intercept attacking missiles and projectiles of small size. A kind of protective shield, as we know from science fiction stories, is within reach. This favors the defense and thus the emergence of city-states, much as was the case in the Middle Ages with their fortified city walls. Energy sources that produce energy in large quantities at low cost also allow for de facto independence, even in inhospitable areas. Low-priced seawater desalination in dry areas becomes just as viable as the operation of greenhouses in cold regions. And development will continue. New decentralized methods of energy generation, such as small modular reactors, access to high-speed Internet even in remote regions, as well as vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, will also enable smaller locations to develop autonomously in the future. Other anticipated technological breakthroughs are huge and frightening for some. Robotic work, artificial intelligence, transhumanism and planetary colonization. These will not bring about an apocalypse. 
And, of course, people are free to form or live in communities where such things are prohibited. However, attempts to freeze technological developments at a certain level or to use them only selectively will probably not be successful, at least not if the technology offers advantages, in the sense of easier or more pleasant satisfaction of needs. Why do people in all countries and cultures want to use mobile phones today? Because it improves their quality of life, despite the unknown consequences of radiation and the loss of direct personal exchange. Quality of life is always subjective. Let's wait and see what happens when the human aging process can be stopped. For many, this is not desirable. However, the extreme slowing or even overcoming of the mortality of the human organism may be necessary to reach distant planets. Genetic engineering and neuroprosthetics are also only in their infancy. We can only guess at their future potential. Just as man strove to reach the most distant corners of the earth, the poles, the highest peak of the Himalayas, the deepest deep-sea trench, he will continue to strive to expand. He's been to the moon. Next may be the colonization of the seas or the leap to our neighboring planets. Free private cities are a suitable operating system for this as well. This has been Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You, written by Titus Gebel, narrated by Scott R. Pollock, copyright 2018 by Ludwig von Mises Institute, production copyright by Ludwig von Mises Institute.